The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book 16, Chapter 1. It is difficult to discover from Scripture whether after the deluge traces of the holy city are continuous or are so interrupted by intervening seasons of godlessness that not a single worshipper of the one true God was found among men. Because from Noah, who with his wife, three sons, and as many daughters-in-law, achieved deliverance in the ark from the destruction of the deluge down to Abraham, we do not find in the canonical books that the piety of any one is celebrated by express divine testimony, unless it be in the case of Noah, who commends with a prophetic benediction his two sons Shem and Japheth, while he beheld and foresaw what was long afterwards to happen. It was also by this prophetic spirit that when his middle son, that is, the son who was younger than the first and older than the last-born, had sinned against him, he cursed him, not in his own person, but in his sons, his own grandsons, in the words, Cursed be the lad Canaan, a servant shall he be unto his brethren. Now Canaan was born of Ham, who, so far from covering his sleeping father's nakedness, had divulged it. For the same reason also he subjoins the blessing on his two other sons, the oldest and youngest, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall gladden Japheth, and he shall dwell in the houses of Shem. And so too the planting of the vine by Noah, and his intoxication by its fruit, and his nakedness while he slept, and the other things done at that time, and recorded, are all of them pregnant with prophetic meanings, and veiled in mysteries. Chapter 2 The things which then were hidden are now sufficiently revealed by the actual events which have followed. For who can carefully and intelligently consider these things without recognizing them accomplished in Christ? Shem, of whom Christ was born in the flesh, means named. And what is of greater name than Christ, the fragrance of whose name is now everywhere perceived, so that even prophecy sings of it beforehand, comparing it in the Song of Songs to ointment poured forth? Is it not also in the houses of Christ, that is, in the churches, that the enlargement of the nations dwells? For Japheth means enlargement, and Ham, that is, hot, who was the middle son of Noah, and, as it were, separated himself from both, and remained between them, neither belonging to the firstfruits of Israel, nor to the fullness of the Gentiles, what does he signify but the tribe of heretics, hot with the spirit, not of patience, but of impatience, with which the breasts of heretics are wont to blaze, and with which they disturb the peace of the saints? But even the heretics yield an advantage to those that make proficiency, according to the apostles' saying, There must also be heresies, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Whence, too, it is elsewhere said, The son that receives instruction will be wise, and he uses the foolish as his servant. For while the hot restlessness of heretics stirs questions about many articles of the Catholic faith, the necessity of defending them forces us both to investigate them more accurately, to understand them more clearly, and to proclaim them more earnestly. And the question mooted by an adversary becomes the occasion of instruction. However, not only those who are openly separated from the church, but also all who glory in the Christian name, and at the same time lead abandoned lives, may without absurdity seem to be figured by Noah's middle son. For the passion of Christ, which was signified by that man's nakedness, is at once proclaimed by their profession, and dishonored by their wicked conduct. Of such, therefore, it has been said, By their fruits ye shall know them. 
and therefore was Ham cursed in his son, he being, as it were, his fruit. So too this son of his, Canaan, is fitly interpreted their movement, which is nothing else than their work. But Shem and Japheth, that is to say, the circumcision and uncircumcision, or, as the apostle otherwise calls them, the Jews and Greeks, but called and justified, having somehow discovered the nakedness of their father, which signifies the Saviour's passion, took a garment and laid it upon their backs, and entered backwards and covered their father's nakedness, without their seeing what their reverence hid. For we both honor the passion of Christ as accomplished for us, and we hate the crime of the Jews who crucified him. The garment signifies the sacrament, their backs the memory of things past, for the church celebrates the passion of Christ as already accomplished, and no longer to be looked forward to, now that Japheth already dwells in the habitations of Shem, and their wicked brother between them. But the wicked brother is, in the person of his son, that is his work, the boy or slave of his good brothers, when good men make a skillful use of bad men, either for the exercise of their patience, or for their advancement in wisdom. For the apostle testifies that there are some who preach Christ from no pure motives, but, says he, whether in pretense or in truth Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For it is Christ himself who planted the vine of which the prophet says, The vine of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And he drinks of its wine, whether we thus understand that cup of which he says, Can ye drink of the cup that I shall drink of? And... Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, by which he obviously means his passion. Or, as wine is the fruit of the vine, we may prefer to understand that from this vine, that is to say, from the race of Israel, he has assumed flesh and blood that he might suffer, and he was drunken, that is, he suffered, and was naked, that is, his weakness appeared in his suffering, as the apostle says, though he was crucified through weakness. Wherefore the same apostle says, The weakness of God is stronger than men, and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And when to the expression, He was naked, Scripture adds, in His house, it elegantly intimates that Jesus was to suffer the cross and death at the hands of His own household, His own kith and kin, the Jews. This passion of Christ is only externally and verbally professed by the reprobate, for what they profess they do not understand. But the elect hold in the inner man this so great mystery, and honor inwardly in the heart this weakness and foolishness of God. And of this there is a figure in Ham going out to proclaim his father's nakedness, while Shem and Japheth, to cover or honor it, went in, that is to say, did it inwardly. These secrets of divine scripture we investigate as well as we can. All will not accept our interpretation with equal confidence, but all hold it certain that these things were neither done nor recorded without some foreshadowing of future events, and that they are to be referred only to Christ and His Church, which is the city of God, proclaimed from the very beginning of human history by figures which we now see everywhere accomplished. From the blessing of the two sons of Noah and the cursing of the middle son, down to Abraham, or for more than a thousand years, there is, as I have said, no mention of any righteous persons who worshipped God. I do not therefore conclude that there were none, but it had been tedious to mention every one, and would have displayed historical accuracy rather than prophetic foresight. The object of the writer of these sacred books, or rather of the Spirit of God in him, is not only to record the past, but to depict the future, so far as it regards the city of God. 
for whatever is said of those who are not its citizens is given either for her instruction or as a foil to enhance her glory. Yet we are not to suppose that all that is recorded has some signification, but those things which have no signification of their own are interwoven for the sake of the things which are significant. It is only the plowshare that cleaves the soil, but to effect this other parts of the plow are requisite. It is only the strings and harps and other musical instruments which produce melodious sounds, but that they may do so, there are other parts of the instrument which are not indeed struck by those who sing, but are connected with the strings which are struck and produce musical notes. So in this prophetic history some things are narrated which have no significance, but are, as it were, the framework to which the significant things are attached. Chapter 3 we must therefore introduce into this work an explanation of the generations of the three sons of Noah, in so far as that may illustrate the progress in time of the two cities. Scripture first mentions that of the youngest son, who is called Japheth. He had eight sons, and by two of these sons seven grandchildren, three by one son, four by the other, in all fifteen descendants. Ham, Noah's middle son, had four sons, and by one of them five grandsons, and by one of these two great-grandsons, in all eleven. After enumerating these, Scripture returns to the first of the sons, and says, Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a giant on the earth. He was a giant hunter against the Lord God, wherefore they say, as Nimrod, the giant hunter against the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Assur, and built Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Kala, and Rezen between Nineveh and Kala. This was a great city. Now this Cush, father of the giant Nimrod, is the first named among the sons of Ham, to whom five sons and two grandsons are ascribed. But he either begat this giant after his grandsons were born, or, which is more credible, Scripture speaks of him separately on account of his eminence. For mention is also made of his kingdom, which began with that magnificent city Babylon, and the other places, whether cities or districts, mentioned along with it. But what is recorded of the land of Shinar, which belonged to Nimrod's kingdom, to wit that Assur went forth from it and built Nineveh, and the other cities mentioned with it, happened long after. But he takes occasion to speak of it here on account of the grandeur of the Assyrian kingdom, which was wonderfully extended by Ninus, son of Belus, and founder of the great city Nineveh, which was named after him, Nineveh from Ninus. But Assur, father of the Assyrian, was not one of the sons of Ham, Noah's middle son, but is found among the sons of Shem, his eldest son. Whence it appears that among Shem's offspring there arose men who afterwards took possession of that giant's kingdom, and, advancing from it, founded other cities, the first of which was called Nineveh, from Ninus. From him Scripture returns to Ham's other son, Mizraim, and his sons are enumerated, not as seven individuals, but as seven nations. And from the sixth, as if from the sixth son, the race called the Philistines are said to have sprung, so that there are in all eight. Then it returns again to Canaan, in whose person Ham was cursed, and his eleven sons are named. Then the territories they occupied and some of the cities are named. And thus, if we count sons and grandsons, there are thirty-one of Ham's descendants registered. It remains to mention the sons of Shem, Noah's eldest son, for to him this genealogical narrative gradually ascends from the youngest. 
but in the commencement of the record of Shem's sons there is an obscurity which calls for explanation, since it is closely connected with the object of our investigation. For we read, Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Heber, the brother of Japheth the elder, were children born. This is the order of the words, And to Shem was born Heber, even to himself, that is, to Shem himself was born Heber, and Shem is the father of all his children. We are intended to understand that Shem is the patriarch of all his posterity who were to be mentioned, whether sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, or descendants at any remove. For Shem did not beget Heber, who was indeed in the fifth generation from him. For Shem begat, among other sons, Arphaxad. Arphaxad begat Canaan. Canaan begat Salah. Salah begat Heber. And it was with good reason that he was named first among Shem's offspring, taking precedence even of his sons, though only a grandchild of the fifth generation. For from him, as tradition says, the Hebrews derived their name, though the other etymology which derives the name from Abraham, as if Abrahus, may possibly be correct. But there can be little doubt that the former is the right etymology, and that they were called after Heber, Heberus, and then, dropping a letter, Hebrews. And so was their language called Hebrew, which was spoken by none but the people of Israel, among whom was the city of God, mysteriously prefigured in all the people, and truly present in the saints. Six of Shem's sons, then, are first named, then four grandsons born to one of these sons, then it mentions another son of Shem, who begat a grandson, and his son, again, or Shem's great-grandson, was Heber. And Heber begat two sons, and called the one Peleg, which means dividing, and Scripture subjoins the reason of this name, saying, For in his days was the earth divided. What this means will afterwards appear. Heber's other son begat twelve sons, consequently all Shem's descendants are twenty-seven. The total number of the progeny of the three sons of Noah is seventy-three, fifteen by Japheth, thirty-one by Ham, twenty-seven by Shem. Then Scripture adds, These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. And so of the whole number, These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations. And by these were the isles of the nations dispersed through the earth after the flood. From which we gather that the seventy-three, or rather, as I shall presently show, seventy-two, were not individuals, but nations. For in a former passage, when the sons of Japheth were enumerated, it is said in conclusion, By these were the isles of the nations divided in their lands, every one after his language, in their tribes, and in their nations. But nations are expressly mentioned among the sons of Ham, as I showed above. Mizraim begat those who were called Ludim, and so also of the other seven nations. And after enumerating all of them, it concludes, These are the sons of Ham, in their families, according to their languages, in their territories, and in their nations. The reason, then, why the children of several of them are not mentioned is that they belonged by birth to other nations, and did not themselves become nations. Why else is it that though eight sons are reckoned to Japheth, the sons of only two of these are mentioned, and though four are reckoned to Ham, only three are spoken of as having sons, and though six are reckoned to Shem, the descendants of only two of these are traced. Did the rest remain childless? We cannot suppose so, but they did not produce nations so great as to warrant their being mentioned, but were absorbed in the nations to which they belonged by birth. Chapter 4 
But though these nations are said to have been dispersed according to their languages, yet the narrator recurs to that time when all had but one language, and explains how it came to pass that a diversity of languages was introduced. The whole earth, he says, was of one lip, and all had one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and dwelt there. And they said one to another, Come, and let us make bricks, and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone, and slime for mortar. And they said, Come, and let us build for ourselves a city, and a tower whose top shall reach the sky. And let us make us a name, before we be scattered abroad on the face of all the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord God said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Come, and let us go down and confound there their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And God scattered them thence on the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city and the tower. Therefore the name of it is called Confusion, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and the Lord God scattered them thence on the face of all the earth. This city, which was called Confusion, is the same as Babylon, whose wonderful construction Gentile history also notices. For Babylon means confusion. Whence we conclude that the giant Nimrod was its founder, as had been hinted a little before, where Scripture, in speaking of him, says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babylon, that is, Babylon had a supremacy over the other cities as the metropolis and royal residence, although it did not rise to the grand dimensions designed by its proud and impious founder. The plan was to make it so high that it should reach the sky, whether this was meant of one tower which they intended to build higher than the others, or of all the towers which might be signified by the singular number, as we speak of the soldier, meaning the army, and of the frog or the locust, when we refer to the whole multitude of frogs and locusts in the plagues with which Moses smote the Egyptians. But what did these vain and presumptuous men intend? How did they expect to raise this lofty mass against God, when they had built it above all the mountains and clouds of the earth's atmosphere? What injury could any spiritual or material elevation do to God? The safe and true way to heaven is made by humility, which lifts up the heart to the Lord, not against him, as this giant is said to have been a hunter against the Lord. This has been misunderstood by some through the ambiguity of the Greek word, and they have translated it not against the Lord, but before the Lord, for an antion means both before and against. In the psalm this word is rendered, Let us weep before the Lord our Maker. The same word occurs in the book of Job, where it is written, Thou hast broken into fury against the Lord. And so this giant is to be recognized as a hunter against the Lord. And what is meant by the term hunter but deceiver, oppressor, and destroyer of the animals of the earth? He and his people, therefore, erected this tower against the Lord, and so gave expression to their impious pride, and justly was their wicked intention punished by God, even though it was unsuccessful. But what was the nature of the punishment? As the tongue is the instrument of domination, in it pride was punished, so that man, who would not understand God when he issued his commands, should be misunderstood when he himself gave orders. 
Thus was that conspiracy disbanded, for each man retired from those he could not understand, and associated with those whose speech was intelligible, and the nations were divided according to their languages, and scattered over the earth as seemed good to God, who accomplished this in ways hidden from and incomprehensible to us. Chapter 5 We read, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men built. It was not the sons of God, but that society which lived in a merely human way, and which we call the earthly city. God, who is always holy everywhere, does not move locally, but he is said to descend when he does anything in the earth out of the usual course, which, as it were, makes his presence felt. And in the same way he does not by seeing learn some new thing, for he cannot ever be ignorant of anything but he is said to see and recognize in time that which he causes others to see and recognize. And therefore that city was not previously being seen as God made it be seen when he showed how offensive it was to him. We might indeed interpret God's descending to the city of the descent of his angels in whom he dwells, so that the following words, And the Lord God said, Behold, they are all one race and of one language, and also what follows, Come, and let us go down and confound their speech, or a recapitulation explaining how the previously intimated descent of the Lord was accomplished. For if he had already gone down, why does he say, Come, and let us go down and confound, words which seem to be addressed to the angels, and to intimate that he who was in the angels descended in their descent? And the words most appropriately are not, Go ye down and confound, but let us confound their speech, showing that he so works by his servants that they are themselves also fellow laborers with God, as the Apostle says, For we are fellow laborers with God. Chapter 6 We might have supposed that the words uttered at the creation of man, Let us, and not let me, make man, were addressed to the angels, had he not added in our image, but as we cannot believe that man was made in the image of angels, or that the image of God is the same as that of angels, it is proper to refer this expression to the plurality of the Trinity. And yet this Trinity, being one God, even after saying, Let us make, goes on to say, And God made man in his image, and not God's made, or in their image. And were there any difficulty in applying to the angels the words, Come, and let us go down and confound their speech, we might refer the plural to the Trinity, as if the Father were addressing the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it rather belongs to the angels to approach God by holy movements, that is, by pious thoughts, and thereby to avail themselves of the unchangeable truth which rules in the court of heaven as their eternal law. For they are not themselves the truth, but partaking in the creative truth, they are moved towards it as the fountain of life, that what they have not in themselves they may obtain in it. And this movement of theirs is steady, for they never go back from what they have reached. And to these angels God does not speak as we speak to one another, or to God, or to angels, or as the angels speak to us, or as God speaks to us through them. He speaks to them in an ineffable manner of his own, and that which he says is conveyed to us in a manner suited to our capacity. For the speaking of God antecedent and superior to all his works is the immutable reason of his work. It has no noisy and passing sound, but an energy eternally abiding and producing results in time. Thus he speaks to the holy angels, but to us who are far off he speaks otherwise. When, however, we hear with the inner ear some part of the speech of God, we approximate to the angels. 
But in this work I need not labor to give an account of the ways in which God speaks, for either the unchangeable truth speaks directly to the mind of the rational creature in some indescribable way, or speaks through the changeable creature, either presenting spiritual images to our spirit or bodily voices to our bodily sense. The words, nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do, are assuredly not meant as an affirmation, but as an interrogation, such as is used by persons threatening, as, for example, when Dido exclaims, they will not take arms and pursue? We are to understand the words as if it had been said, Shall nothing be restrained from them which they have imagined to do? From these three men, therefore, the three sons of Noah, we mean seventy-three, or rather, as the catalogue will show, seventy-two nations and as many languages, were dispersed over the earth, and as they increased they filled even the islands. But the nations multiplied much more than the languages. For even in Africa we know several barbarous nations which have but one language, and who can doubt that as the human race increased, men contrived to pass to the islands in ships? Chapter 7 There is a question raised about all those kinds of beasts which are not domesticated, nor are produced like frogs from the earth, but are propagated by male and female parents, such as wolves and animals of that kind and it is asked how they could be found in the islands after the deluge in which all the animals not in the ark perished, unless the breed was restored from those which were preserved in pairs in the ark. It might indeed be said that they crossed the islands by swimming, but this could only be true of those very near the mainland, whereas there are some so distant that we fancy no animal could swim to them. But if men caught them and took them across with themselves, and thus propagated these breeds in their new abodes, this would not imply an incredible fondness for the chase. At the same time, it cannot be denied that by the intervention of angels they might be transferred by God's order or permission. If, however, they were produced out of the earth, as at their first creation, when God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature, this makes it more evident that all kinds of animals were preserved in the ark, not so much for the sake of renewing the stock, as of prefiguring the various nations which were to be saved in the church. This, I say, is more evident if the earth brought forth many animals and islands to which they could not cross over. Chapter 8 it is also asked whether we are to believe that certain monstrous races of men, spoken of in secular history, have sprung from Noah's sons, or rather, I should say, from that one man from whom they themselves were descended. For it is reported that some have one eye in the middle of the forehead, some feet turned backwards from the heel, some a double sex, the right breast like a man, the left like a woman, and that they alternately beget and bring forth. Others are said to have no mouth, and to breathe only through the nostrils. Others are but a cubit high, and are therefore called by the Greeks pygmies. They say that in some places the women conceive in their fifth year, and do not live beyond their eighth. So too they tell of a race who have two feet, but only one leg, and are of marvelous swiftness, though they do not bend the knee. They are called Skyopides, because in the hot weather they lie down on their backs and shade themselves with their feet. Others are said to have no head, and their eyes and their shoulders, and other human or quasi-human races are depicted in mosaic in the harbor esplanade of Carthage on the faith of histories of rarities. What shall I say of the cynocephali, whose dog-like head and barking proclaim them beasts rather than men? But we are not bound to believe all we hear of these monstrosities. 
But whoever is anywhere born a man, that is, a rational mortal animal, no matter what unusual appearance he presents in color, movement, sound, nor how peculiar he is in some power, part, or quality of his nature, no Christian can doubt that he springs from that one protoplast. We can distinguish the common human nature from that which is peculiar, and therefore wonderful. The same account which is given of monstrous births in individual cases can be given of monstrous races. For God, the creator of all, knows where and when each thing ought to be, or to have been created, because he sees the similarities and diversities which can contribute to the beauty of the whole. But he who cannot see the whole is offended by the deformity of the part, because he is blind to that which balances it, and to which it belongs. We know that men are born with more than four fingers on their hands or toes on their feet. This is a smaller matter. But far from us be the folly of supposing that the Creator mistook the number of a man's fingers, though we cannot account for the difference. And so in cases where the divergence from the rule is greater. He whose works no man justly finds fault with knows what he has done. At Hippodiaritis there is a man whose hands are crescent-shaped, and have only two fingers each, and his feet similarly formed. If there were a race like him, it would be added to the history of the curious and wonderful. Shall we therefore deny that this man is descended from that one man who was first created? As for the androgyni, or hermaphrodites, as they are called, though they are rare, yet from time to time there appears persons of sex so doubtful that it remains uncertain from which sex they take their name, though it is customary to give them a masculine name as the more worthy, for no one ever called them hermaphrodituses. Some years ago, quite within my own memory, a man was born in the east, double in his upper but single in his lower half, having two heads, two chests, four hands, but one body and two feet like an ordinary man, and he lived so long that many had an opportunity of seeing him. But who could enumerate all the human births that have differed widely from their ascertained parents? As, therefore, no one will deny that these are all descended from that one man, so all the races which are reported to have diverged in bodily appearance from the usual course which nature generally or almost universally preserves, if they are embraced in that definition of man as rational and mortal animals, unquestionably trace their pedigree to that one first father of all. We are supposing these stories about various races who differ from one another and from us to be true, but possibly they are not, for if we were not aware that apes and monkeys and sphinxes are not men but beasts, those historians would possibly describe them as races of men, and flaunt with impunity their false and vainglorious discoveries. But supposing they are men of whom these marvels are recorded, what if God has seen fit to create some races in this way, that we might not suppose that the monstrous births which appear among ourselves are the failures of that wisdom whereby he fashions the human nature, as we speak of the failure of a less perfect workman? Accordingly, it ought not to seem absurd to us that as in individual races there are monstrous births, so in the whole race there are monstrous races." Wherefore, to conclude this question cautiously and guardedly, either these things which have been told of some races have no existence at all, or, if they do exist, they are not human races, or, if they are human, they are descended from Adam. Book 16. Chapter 9. But as to the fable that there are antipodes, that is to say, men on the opposite side of the earth, where the sun rises when it sets to us, men who walk with their feet opposite ours, that is on no ground credible. 
and indeed it is not affirmed that this has been learned by historical knowledge, but by scientific conjecture, on the ground that the earth is suspended within the concavity of the sky, and that it has as much room on the one side of it as on the other. Hence they say that the part which is beneath must also be inhabited. But they do not remark that although it be supposed or scientifically demonstrated that the world is of a round and spherical form, yet it does not follow that the other side of the earth is bare of water, nor even, though it be bare, does it immediately follow that it is peopled. For scripture, which proves the truth of its historical statements by the accomplishment of its prophecies, gives no false information, and it is too absurd to say that some men might have taken ship and traversed the whole wide ocean and crossed from this side of the world to the other, and that thus even the inhabitants of that distant region are descended from that one first man. Wherefore let us seek if we can find the city of God that sojourns on earth among those human races who are catalogued as having been divided into seventy-two nations and as many languages. For it continued down to the deluge and the ark, and is proved to have existed still among the sons of Noah by their blessings, and chiefly in the eldest son Shem, for Japheth received this blessing, that he should dwell in the tents of Shem. Chapter 10 It is necessary, therefore, to preserve the series of generations descending from Shem for the sake of exhibiting the city of God after the flood, as before the flood it was exhibited in the series of generations descending from Seth. And therefore does divine scripture, after exhibiting the earthly city as Babylon, or confusion, revert to the patriarch Shem, and recapitulate the generations from him to Abraham, specifying besides the year in which each father begat the son that belonged to this line, and how long he lived. And unquestionably it is this which fulfills the promise I made, that it should appear why it is said of the sons of Heber, the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. For what can we understand by the division of the earth, if not the diversity of languages? And therefore, omitting the other sons of Shem, who are not concerned in this matter, Scripture gives the genealogy of those by whom the line runs on to Abraham, as before the flood those are given who carried on the line to Noah from Seth. Accordingly, this series of generations begins thus. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was an hundred years old, and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphaxad five hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. In like manner it registers the rest, naming the year of his life in which each begat the son who belonged to that line which extends to Abraham. It specifies, too, how many years he lived thereafter, begetting sons and daughters, that we may not childishly suppose that the men named were the only men, but may understand how the population increased, and how regions and kingdoms so vast could be populated by the descendants of Shem, especially the kingdom of Assyria, from which Ninus subdued the surrounding nations, reigning with brilliant prosperity, and bequeathing to his descendants a vast but thoroughly consolidated empire, which held together for many centuries. But to avoid needless prolixity, we shall mention not the number of years each member of this series lived, but only the year of his life in which he begat his heir, that we may thus reckon the number of years from the flood to Abraham, and may at the same time leave room to touch briefly and cursorily upon some other matters necessary to our argument. In the second year, then, after the flood, Shem, when he was a hundred years old, begat Arphaxad. Arphaxad, when he was one hundred and thirty-five years old, begat Canaan. 
Canaan, when he was 130 years old, begat Salah. Salah himself, too, was the same age when he begat Eber. Eber lived 134 years and begat Peleg, in whose days the earth was divided. Peleg himself lived 130 years and begat Reu, and Reu lived 132 years and begat Serug, Serug 130 and begat Nahor, and Nahor 79 and begat Terah, and Terah 70 and begat Abram, whose name God afterwards changed into Abraham. There are thus from the flood to Abraham 1,072 years, according to the Vulgate or Septuagint versions. In the Hebrew copies far fewer years are given, and for this either no reason or a not very credible one is given. When, therefore, we look for the city of God in these seventy-two nations, we cannot affirm that while they had but one lip, that is, one language, the human race had departed from the worship of the true God, and that genuine godliness had survived only in those generations which descend from Shem through Arphaxad and reach to Abraham. But from the time when they proudly built a tower to heaven, a symbol of godless exaltation, the city or society of the wicked becomes apparent. Whether it was only disguised before or non-existent, whether both cities remained after the flood, the godly and the two sons of Noah who were blessed, and in their posterity, and the ungodly and the cursed son and his descendants, from whom sprang that mighty hutter against the Lord, is not easily determined. For possibly, and certainly this is more credible, there were despisers of God among the descendants of the two sons, even before Babylon was founded, and worshippers of God among the descendants of Ham. Certainly neither race was ever obliterated from earth. For in both the Psalms in which it is said, They are all gone aside, they are altogether become filthy, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. We read further, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and call not upon the Lord? There was then a people of God even at that time. And therefore the words, There is none that doeth good, no, not one, were said of the sons of men, not of the sons of God. For it had been previously said, God looked down from heaven upon the sons of men, to see if any understood and sought after God and then follow the words which demonstrate that all the sons of men, that is, all who belong to the city which lives according to man, not according to God, are reprobate. Chapter 11 Wherefore, as the fact of all using one language did not secure the absence of sin-infected men from the race, for even before the deluge there was one language, and yet all but the single family of just Noah were found worthy of destruction by the flood, so when the nations, by a prouder godlessness, earned the punishment of the dispersion and the confusion of tongues, and the city of the godless was called Confusion, or Babylon, there was still the house of Heber in which the primitive language of the race survived. And therefore, as I have already mentioned, when an enumeration is made of the sons of Shem, who each founded a nation, Heber is first mentioned, although he was of the fifth generation from Shem. And because, when the other races were divided by their own peculiar languages, his family preserved that language which is not unreasonably believed to have been the common language of the race, it was on this account thenceforth named Hebrew. For it then became necessary to distinguish this language from the rest by a proper name, though, while there was only one, it had no other name than the language of man or human speech, it alone being spoken by the whole human race." 
Someone will say, if the earth was divided by languages in the days of Peleg, Heber's son, that language which was formerly common to all should rather have been called after Peleg. But we are to understand that Heber himself gave to his son this name Peleg, which means division, because he was born when the earth was divided, that is, at the very time of the division, and that this is the meaning of the words, in his days the earth was divided. For unless Heber had been still alive when the languages were multiplied, the language which was preserved in his house would not have been called after him. We are induced to believe that this was the primitive and common language, because the multiplication and change of languages was introduced as a punishment, and it is fit to ascribe to the people of God an immunity from this punishment. Nor is it without significance that this is the language which Abraham retained, and that he could not transmit it to all his descendants, but only to those of Jacob's line, who distinctively and eminently constituted God's people, and received his covenants, and were Christ's progenitors according to the flesh. In the same way, Heber himself did not transmit that language to all his posterity, but only to the line from which Abraham sprang. And thus, although it is not expressly stated that when the wicked were building Babylon there was a godly seed remaining, this indistinctness is intended to stimulate research rather than to elude it. For when we see that originally there was one common language, and that Heber is mentioned before all Shem's sons, though he belonged to the fifth generation from him, and that the language which the patriarchs and prophets used, not only in their conversation, but in the authoritative language of Scripture, is called Hebrew, when we are asked where that primitive and common language was preserved after the confusion of tongues, certainly, as there can be no doubt that those among whom it was preserved were exempt from the punishment it embodied, what other suggestion can we make than that it survived in the family of him whose name it took, and that this is no small proof of the righteousness of this family, that the punishment with which the other families were visited did not fall upon it? But yet another question is mooted. How did Heber and his son Peleg each found a nation, if they had but one language? For no doubt the Hebrew nation propagated from Heber through Abraham, and becoming through him a great people, is one nation. How, then, are all the sons of the three branches of Noah's family enumerated as founding a nation each, if Heber and Peleg did not so? It is very probable that the giant Nimrod founded also his nation, and the scripture has named him separately on account of the extraordinary dimensions of his empire and of his body, so that the number of seventy-two nations remains. But Peleg was mentioned not because he founded a nation, for his race and language are Hebrew, but on account of the critical time at which he was born, all the earth being then divided. Nor ought we to be surprised that the giant Nimrod lived to the time in which Babylon was founded and the confusion of tongues occurred, and the consequent division of the earth. For though Heber was in the sixth generation from Noah, and Nimrod in the fourth, it does not follow that they could not be alive at the same time. For when the generations are few, they live longer and are born later, but when they are many, they live a shorter time and come into the world earlier. We are to understand that, when the earth was divided, the descendants of Noah, who are registered as founders of nations, were not only already born, but were of an age to have immense families, worthy to be called tribes or nations. 
and therefore we must by no means suppose that they were born in the order in which they were set down, otherwise how could the twelve sons of Joktan, another son of Hebers, and brother of Peleg, have already founded nations if Joktan was born, as he is registered, after his brother Peleg, since the earth was divided at Peleg's birth? We are therefore to understand that though Peleg is named first, he was born long after Joktan, whose twelve sons had already families so large as to admit of their being divided by different languages. There is nothing extraordinary in the last-born being first named. Of the sons of Noah the descendants of Japheth are named first, then the sons of Ham, who was the second son, and last the sons of Shem, who was the first and oldest. Of these nations the names have partly survived, so that at this day we can see from whom they have sprung, as the Assyrians from Assur, the Hebrews from Heber, but partly have been altered in the lapse of time, so that the most learned men by profound research and ancient records have scarcely been able to discover the origin, I do not say of all, but of some of these nations. There is, for example, nothing in the name Egyptians to show that they are descended from Israel, Ham's son, nor in the name Ethiopians to show a connection with Cush, though such is said to be the origin of these nations. And if we take a general survey of the names, we shall find that more have been changed than have remained the same. Chapter 12 Let us now survey the progress of the city of God from the era of the patriarch Abraham, from whose time it begins to be more conspicuous, and the divine promises which are now fulfilled in Christ are more fully revealed. We learn, then, from the intimations of Holy Scripture that Abraham was born in the country of the Chaldeans, a land belonging to the Assyrian Empire. Now even at that time impious superstitions were rife with the Chaldeans as with other nations. The family of Terah to which Abraham belonged was the only one in which the worship of the true God survived, and the only one, we may suppose, in which the Hebrew language was preserved, although Joshua, the son of Nun, tells us that even this family served other gods in Mesopotamia. The other descendants of Heber gradually became absorbed in other races and other languages. And thus, as the single family of Noah was preserved through the deluge of water to renew the human race, so in the deluge of superstition that flooded the whole world there remained but the one family of Terah in which the seed of God's city was preserved. And as, when Scripture has enumerated the generations prior to Noah with their ages, and explained the cause of the flood before God began to speak to Noah about the building of the ark, it is said, These are the generations of Noah. So also now, after enumerating the generations from Shem, Noah's son, down to Abraham, it then signalizes an era by saying, These are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. This Iscah is supposed to be the same as Sarah, Abraham's wife. Chapter 13 Next it is related how Terah with his family left the region of the Chaldeans, and came into Mesopotamia, and dwelt in Haran. But nothing is said about one of his sons called Nahor, as if he had not taken him along with him. For the narrative runs thus, 
And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and led them forth out of the region of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. And he came into Haran, and dwelt there. Nahor and Milcah his wife are nowhere named here. But afterwards, when Abraham sent his servant to take a wife for his son Isaac, we find it thus written, and the servant took ten camels of the camels of his lord, and of all the goods of his lord with him, and arose and went into Mesopotamia, into the city of Nahor. This and other testimonies of this sacred history show that Nahor, Abraham's brother, had also left the region of the Chaldeans, and fixed his abode in Mesopotamia, where Abraham dwelt with his father. Why then did the scripture not mention him when Terah with his family went forth out of the Chaldean nation, and dwelt in Haran, since it mentions that he took with him not only Abraham his son, but also Sarah his daughter-in-law, and Lot his grandson? The only reason we can think of is that perhaps he had lapsed from the piety of his father and brother, and adhered to the superstition of the Chaldeans, and had afterwards emigrated thence either through penitence, or because he was persecuted as a suspected person. For in the book called Judith, when Holofernes, the enemy of the Israelites, inquired what kind of nation that might be, and whether war should be made against them, Achior, the leader of the Ammonites, answered him thus, Let our Lord now hear a word from the mouth of thy servant, and I will declare unto thee the truth concerning the people which dwelleth near thee in this hill country, and there shall no lie come out of the mouth of thy servant. For this people is descended from the Chaldeans, and they dwelt heretofore in Mesopotamia, because they would not follow the gods of their fathers, which were glorious in the land of the Chaldeans, but went out of the way of their ancestors, and adored the God of heaven, whom they knew. And they cast them out from the face of their gods, and they fled into Mesopotamia, and dwelt there many days. And their God said to them, that they should depart from their habitation, and go into the land of Canaan, and they dwelt, etc., as Achior the Ammonite narrates. Whence it is manifest that the house of Terah had suffered persecution from the Chaldeans for the true piety with which they worshipped the one and true God. Chapter 14 on Terah's death in Mesopotamia, where he is said to have lived two hundred and five years, the promises of God made to Abraham now begin to be pointed out, for thus it is written, And the days of Terah and Haran were two hundred and five years, and he died in Haran. This is not to be taken as if he had spent all his days there, but that he there completed the days of his life, which were two hundred and five years. Otherwise it would not be known how many years Terah lived, since it is not said in what year of his life he came into Haran, and it is absurd to suppose that in this series of generations, where it is carefully recorded how many years each one lived, his age was the only one not put on record. For although some whom the same scripture mentions have not their age recorded, they are not in this series in which the reckoning of time is continuously indicated by the death of the parents and the succession of the children. For this series, which is given in order from Adam to Noah, and from him down to Abraham, contains no one without the number of the years of his life. Chapter 15 when, after the record of the death of Terah, the father of Abraham, we next read, And the Lord said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, etc., it is not to be supposed, because this follows in the order of the narrative, that it also followed in the chronological order of events. For if it were so, there would be an insoluble difficulty. 
For after these words of God which were spoken to Abraham, the scripture says, And Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was seventy-five years old when he departed out of Haran. How can this be true if he departed from Haran after his father's death? For when Terah was seventy years old, as is intimated above, he begat Abraham. And to this number we add the seventy-five years which Abraham reckoned when he went out of Haran, we get one hundred and forty-five years. Therefore that was the number of the years of Terah when Abraham departed out of that city of Mesopotamia, for he had reached the seventy-fifth year of his life, and thus his father, who begat him in the seventieth year of his life, had reached, as was said, his one hundred and forty-fifth. Therefore he did not depart thence after his father's death, that is, after the two hundred and five years his father lived, but the year of his departure from that place, seeing it was his seventy-fifth, is inferred beyond doubt to have been the one hundred and forty-fifth of his father, who begat him in his seventieth year. And thus it is to be understood that the scripture, according to its custom, has gone back to the time which had already been passed by the narrative, just as above, when it had mentioned the grandsons of Noah, it said that they were in their nations and tongues, and yet afterwards, as if this also had followed in order of time, it says, And the whole earth was of one lip and one speech for all. How then could they be said to be in their own nations and according to their own tongues, if there was one for all, except because the narrative goes back to gather up what it had passed over? Here, too, in the same way, after saying, And the days of Terah and Haran were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran, the scripture, going back to what had been passed over in order to complete what had been begun about Terah, says, And the Lord said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country, etc. After which words of God it is added, And Abram departed as the Lord spake unto him, and Lot went with him. But Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed out of Haran. Therefore it was done when his father was in the one hundred and forty-fifth year of his age, for it was then the seventy-fifth of his own. But this question is also solved in another way, that the seventy-five years of Abraham when he departed out of Haran are reckoned from the year in which he was delivered from the fire of the Chaldeans, not from that of his birth, as if he was rather to be held as having been born then. Now the blessed Stephen, in narrating these things in the Acts of the Apostles, says, The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charan, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, and come into the land which I will show thee. According to these words of Stephen, God spoke to Abraham not after the death of his father, who certainly died in Haran, where his son also dwelt with him, but before he dwelt in that city, although he was already in Mesopotamia. Therefore he had already departed from the Chaldeans. So that when Stephen adds, Then Abraham went out of the land of the Chaldeans, and dwelt in Haran, this does not point out what took place after God spoke to him, for it was not after these words of God that he went out of the land of the Chaldeans, since he says that God spoke to him in Mesopotamia. But the word then, which he uses, refers to that whole period from his going out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelling in Haran. Likewise in what follows, and thenceforth when his father was dead, he settled him in this land wherein ye now dwell, and your fathers. He does not say after his father was dead he went out from Haran, but thenceforth he settled him here after his father was dead. It is to be understood, therefore, that God had spoken to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. 
but that he came to Haran with his father, keeping in mind the precept of God, and that he went out thence in his own seventy-fifth year, which is his father's one hundred and forty-fifth. But he says that his settlement in the land of Canaan, not his going forth from Haran, took place after his father's death, because his father was already dead when he purchased the land, and personally entered on possession of it. But when, on his having already settled in Mesopotamia, that is, already gone out of the land of the Chaldeans, God says, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house. This means not that he should cast out his body from thence, for he had already done that, but that he should tear away his soul. For he had not gone out from thence in mind, if he was held by the hope and desire of returning, a hope and desire which was to be cut off by God's command and help, and by his own obedience. It would indeed be no incredible supposition that afterwards, when Nahor followed his father, Abraham then fulfilled the precept of the Lord that he should depart out of Haran with Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son. Chapter 16 God's promises made to Abraham are now to be considered, for in these the oracles of our God, that is, of the true God, began to appear more openly concerning the godly people whom prophetic authority foretold. The first of these reads thus, And the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, and go into a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and magnify thy name, and thou shalt be blessed, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all tribes of the earth be blessed. Now it is to be observed that two things are promised to Abraham, the one that his seed should possess the land of Canaan, which is intimated when it is said, Go into a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. But the other far more excellent, not about the carnal, but the spiritual seed, through which he is the father, not of the one Israelite nation, but of all nations who follow the footprints of his faith, which was first promised in these words, And in thee shall all tribes of the earth be blessed. Eusebius thought this promise was made in Abraham's seventy-fifth year, as if soon after it was made Abraham had departed out of Haran, because the scripture cannot be contradicted, in which we read, Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. But if this promise was made in that year, then of course Abraham was staying in Haran with his father, for he could not depart thence unless he had first dwelt there. Does this then contradict what Stephen says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. But it is to be understood that the whole took place in the same year, both the promise of God before Abraham dwelt in Haran, and his dwelling in Haran, and his departure thence, not only because Eusebius in the Chronicles reckons from the year of this promise, and shows that after 430 years the exodus from Egypt took place, when the law was given, but because the Apostle Paul also mentions it. Chapter 17 During the same period there were three famous kingdoms of the nations in which the city of the earth-born, that is, the society of men living according to man under the domination of the fallen angels, chiefly flourished, namely the three kingdoms of Sicyon, Egypt, and Assyria. Of these Assyria was much the most powerful and sublime, for that King Ninus, son of Belus, had subdued the people of all Asia except India. By Asia I now mean not that part which is one province of this greater Asia, but what is called universal Asia, which some set down as the half, but most as the third part of the whole world, 
the three being Asia, Europe, and Africa, thereby making an unequal division. For the part called Asia stretches from the south through the east even to the north, Europe from the north even to the west, and Africa from the west even to the south. Thus we see that two, Europe and Africa, contain one half of the world, and Asia alone the other half. And these two parts are made by the circumstance that there enters between them from the ocean all the Mediterranean water, which makes this great sea of ours. So that, if you divide the world into two parts, the east and the west, Asia will be in the one, and Europe and Africa in the other. So that of the three kingdoms then famous, one, namely Sicyon, was not under the Assyrians, because it was in Europe. But as for Egypt, how could it fail to be subject to the empire which ruled all Asia, with the single exception of India? In Assyria, therefore, the dominion of the impious city had the preeminence. Its head was Babylon, an earth-born city most fitly named, for it means confusion. There Ninus reigned after the death of his father Belus, who first had reigned there sixty-five years. His son Ninus, who on his father's death succeeded to the kingdom, reigned fifty-two years, and had been king forty-three years when Abraham was born, which was about the twelve-hundredth year before Rome was founded, as it were another Babylon in the west. Chapter 18 Abraham, then, having departed out of Haran in the seventy-fifth year of his own age, and in the hundred and forty-fifth of his father's, went with Lot his brother's son, and Sarah his wife, into the land of Canaan, and came even to Sichem, where again he received the divine oracle, of which it is thus written, And the Lord appeared unto Abram, and said unto him, Unto thy seed will I give this land. Nothing is promised here about that seed in which he is made the father of all nations, but only about that by which he is the father of the one Israelite nation. For by this seed that land was possessed. Chapter 19 Having built an altar there and called upon God, Abraham proceeded thence and dwelt in the desert, and was compelled by pressure of famine to go on into Egypt. There he called his wife his sister, and told no lie. For she was this also, because she was near of blood, just as Lot, on account of the same nearness, being his brother's son, is called his brother. Now he did not deny that she was his wife, but held his peace about it, committing to God the defense of his wife's chastity, and providing as a man against human wiles, because if he had not provided against the danger as much as he could, he would have been tempting God rather than trusting in him. We have said enough about this matter against the calumnies of Faustus the Manichaean. At last what Abraham had expected the Lord to do took place. For Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who had taken her to him as his wife, restored her to her husband on being severely plagued. And far be it from us to believe that she was defiled by lying with another, because it is much more credible that by these great afflictions Pharaoh was not permitted to do this. Chapter 20 on Abraham's return out of Egypt to the place he had left, Lot, his brother's son, departed from him into the land of Sodom without breach of charity. For they had grown rich, and began to have many herdmen of cattle, and when these strove together they avoided in this way the pugnacious discord of their families. Indeed, as human affairs go, this cause might even have given rise to some strife between themselves. Consequently, these are the words of Abraham to Lot when taking precaution against this evil. Let there be no strife between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Behold, is not the whole land before thee? 
separate thyself from me. If thou wilt go to the left hand, I will go to the right, or if thou wilt go to the right hand, I will go to the left. From this, perhaps, has arisen a pacific custom among men, that when there is any partition of earthly things, the greater should make the division, the less the choice. Chapter 21 Now when Abraham and Lot had separated and dwelt apart, owing to the necessity of supporting their families, and not to vile discord, and Abraham was in the land of Canaan, but Lot in Sodom, the Lord said to Abraham in a third oracle, Lift up thine eyes, and look from the place where thou now art, to the north, and to Africa, and to the east, and to the sea. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed for ever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. If any one can number the dust of the earth, thy seed shall also be numbered. Arise, and walk through the land, in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for unto thee will I give it. It does not clearly appear whether in this promise that also is contained by which he is made the father of all nations. For the clause, And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, may seem to refer to this, being spoken by that figure the Greeks call hyperbole, which indeed is figurative, not literal. But no person of understanding can doubt in what manner the Scripture uses this and other figures. For that figure, that is, way of speaking, is used when what is said is far larger than what is meant by it. For who does not see how incomparably larger the number of the dust must be than that of all men can be from Adam himself down to the end of the world? How much greater, then, must it be than the seed of Abraham, not only that pertaining to the nation of Israel, but also that which is and shall be according to the imitation of faith in all nations of the whole wide world? For that seed is indeed very small in comparison with the multitude of the wicked, although even those few of themselves make an innumerable multitude, which by a hyperbole is compared to the dust of the earth. Truly that multitude which was promised to Abraham is not innumerable to God, although to man, but to God not even the dust of the earth is so. Further, the promise here made may be understood not only of the nation of Israel, but of the whole seed of Abraham, which may be fitly compared to the dust for multitude, because regarding it also there is the promise of many children, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. But we have therefore said that this does not clearly appear, because the multitude even of that one nation which was born according to the flesh of Abraham through his grandson Jacob has increased so much as to fill almost all parts of the world. Consequently, even it might by hyperbole be compared to the dust for multitude, because even it alone is innumerable by man. Certainly no one questions that only that land is meant which is called Canaan. But that saying, To thee will I give it, and to thy seed for ever, may move some, if by for ever they understand to eternity. But if in this passage they take for ever thus, as we firmly hold it means, that the beginning of the world to come is to be ordered from the end of the present, there is still no difficulty, because, although the Israelites are expelled from Jerusalem, they still remain in other cities in the land of Canaan, and shall remain even to the end. And when that whole land is inhabited by Christians, they also are the very seed of Abraham. Chapter 22 
Having received this oracle of promise, Abraham migrated and remained in another place of the same land, that is, beside the oak of Mamre, which was in Hebron. Then, on the invasion of Sodom, when five kings carried on war against four, and Lot was taken captive with the conquered Sodomites, Abraham delivered him from the enemy, leading with him to battle three hundred and eighteen of his home-born servants, and won the victory for the kings of Sodom, but would take nothing of the spoils when offered by the king for whom he had won them. He was then openly blessed by Melchizedek, who was priest of God Most High, about whom many and great things are written in the epistle which is inscribed to the Hebrews, which most say is by the Apostle Paul, though some deny this. For then first appeared the sacrifice which is now offered to God by Christians in the whole wide world, and that is fulfilled, which long after the event was said by the prophet to Christ, who was yet to come in the flesh, Thou art a priest for ever after the order of Melchizedek. That is to say, not after the order of Aaron, for that order was to be taken away when the things shone forth which were intimated beforehand by these shadows. Chapter 23 the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision also. For when God promised him protection and exceeding great reward, he, being solicitous about posterity, said that a certain Eliezer of Damascus, born in his house, would be his heir. Immediately he was promised an heir, not that house-born servant, but one who was to come forth of Abraham himself. And again a seed innumerable, not as the dust of the earth, but as the stars of heaven which rather seems to me a promise of a posterity exalted in celestial felicity. For, so far as multitude is concerned, what are the stars of heaven to the dust of the earth, unless one should say the comparison is like, inasmuch as the stars also cannot be numbered? For it is not to be believed that all of them can be seen, for the more keenly one observes them, the more does he see so that it is to be supposed some remain concealed from the keenest observers, to say nothing of those stars which are said to rise and set in another part of the world most remote from us. Finally, the authority of this book condemns those, like Aratus or Eudoxus, or any others who boast that they have found out and written down the complete number of the stars. Here indeed is set down that sentence which the Apostle quotes in order to commend the grace of God. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Lest the circumcision should glory, and be unwilling to receive the uncircumcised nations to the faith of Christ. For at the time when he believed, and his faith was counted to him for righteousness, Abraham had not yet been circumcised. Chapter 24 In the same vision God, in speaking to him, also says, I am God that brought thee out of the region of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And when Abram asked whereby he might know that he should inherit it, God said to him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle-dove, and a pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And the fowls came down, as it is written, on the carcasses, and Abram sat down by them. But about the going down of the sun great fear fell upon Abram, and lo, an horror of great darkness fell upon him. 
And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land not theirs, and they shall reduce them to servitude, and shall afflict them four hundred years. But the nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out hither with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, kept in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And when the sun was setting, there was a flame, and a smoking furnace, and lamps of fire, that passed through between those pieces. In that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates, the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All these things were said and done in a vision from God, but it would take long and would exceed the scope of this work to treat of them exactly in detail. It is enough that we should know that after it was said Abram believed in God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, he did not fail in faith in saying, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? For the inheritance of that land was promised to him. Now he does not say, How shall I know, as if he did not yet believe, but he says, Whereby shall I know, meaning that some sign might be given by which he might know the manner of those things which he had believed, just as it is not for lack of faith, the Virgin Mary says, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? For she inquired as to the way in which that should take place, which she was certain would come to pass. And when she asked this, she was told, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Here also, in fine, a symbol was given, consisting of three animals, a heifer, a she-goat, and a ram, and two birds, a turtle-dove and pigeon, that he might know that the things which he had not doubted should come to pass were to happen in accordance with this symbol. Whether, therefore, the heifer was a sign that the people should be put under the law, the she-goat that the same people was to become sinful, the ram that they should reign, and these animals are said to be of three years old for this reason, that there are three remarkable divisions of time, from Adam to Noah, and from him to Abraham, and from him to David, who on the rejection of Saul was first established by the will of the Lord in the kingdom of the Israelite nation. In this third division, which extends from Abraham to David, that people grew up as if passing through the third age of life. Or, whether they had some other more suitable meaning, still I have no doubt whatever that spiritual things were prefigured by them, as well as by the turtle-dove and pigeon. And it is said, But the birds divided he not, because carnal men are divided among themselves, but the spiritual not at all, whether they seclude themselves from the busy conversation of men like the turtle-dove, or dwell among them like the pigeon. For both birds are simple and harmless, signifying that even in the Israelite people to which that land was to be given, there would be individuals who were children of the promise and heirs of the kingdom that is to remain in eternal felicity. But the fowls coming down on the divided carcasses represent nothing good but the spirits of this heir seeking some food for themselves in the division of carnal men. But that Abraham sat down with them signifies that even amid these divisions of the carnal, true believers shall persevere to the end. 
and that about the going down of the sun great fear fell upon Abraham and a horror of great darkness, signifies that about the end of this world believers shall be in great perturbation and tribulation, of which the Lord said in the gospel, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not from the beginning. But what is said to Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land not theirs, and they shall reduce them to servitude, and shall afflict them four hundred years, is most clearly a prophecy about the people of Israel which was to be in servitude in Egypt. Not that this people was to be in that servitude under the oppressive Egyptians for four hundred years, but it is foretold that this should take place in the course of those four hundred years. For as it is written of Terah, the father of Abraham, and the days of Terah and Haran were two hundred and five years, not because they were all spent there, but because they were completed there, so it is said here also, and they shall reduce them to servitude, and shall afflict them four hundred years, for this reason, because that number was completed, not because it was all spent in that affliction. The years were said to be four hundred in round numbers, although they were a little more, whether you reckon from this time, when these things were promised to Abraham, or from the birth of Isaac, as the seed of Abraham, of which these things are predicted. For as we have already said above, from the seventy-fifth year of Abraham, when the first promise was made to him, down to the exodus of Israel from Egypt, there are reckoned four hundred and thirty years, which the apostle thus mentions. And this I say, that the covenant confirmed by God, the law, which was made four hundred and thirty years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. So then, these four hundred and thirty years might be called four hundred, because they are not much more, especially since part even of that number had already gone by when these things were shown and said to Abraham in vision, or when Isaac was born in his father's one hundredth year, twenty-five years after the first promise, when of these four hundred and thirty years there now remained four hundred and five, which God was pleased to call four hundred. No one will doubt that the other things which follow in the prophetic words of God pertain to the people of Israel. When it is added, And when the sun was now setting, there was a flame, and lo, a smoking furnace, and lamps of fire which passed through between those pieces, this signifies that at the end of the world the carnal shall be judged by fire. For just as the affliction of the city of God, such as never was before, which is expected to take place under Antichrist, was signified by Abraham's horror of great darkness about the going down of the sun, that is, when the end of the world draws nigh, so at the going down of the sun, that is, at the very end of the world, there is signified by that fire the day of judgment, which separates the carnal who are to be saved by fire from those who are to be condemned in the fire. And then the covenant made with Abraham particularly sets forth the land of Canaan, and names eleven tribes in it from the river of Egypt even to the great river Euphrates. It is not then from the great river of Egypt, that is, the Nile, but from a small one which separates Egypt from Palestine, where the city of rhino is. Chapter 25 and here followed the times of Abraham's sons, the one by Hagar the bondmaid, the other by Sarah the free woman, about whom we have already spoken in the previous book. 
As regards this transaction, Abraham is in no way to be branded as guilty concerning this concubine, for he used her for the begetting of progeny, not for the gratification of lust, and not to insult, but rather to obey his wife, who supposed it would be a solace of her barrenness if she could make use of the fruitful womb of her handmaid to supply the defect of her own nature, and by that law of which the apostle says, Likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife, could as a wife make use of him for childbearing by another, when she could not do so in her own person. Here there is no wanton lust, no filthy lewdness. The handmaid is delivered to the husband by the wife for the sake of progeny, and is received by the husband for the sake of progeny, each seeking not guilty excess, but natural fruit. And when the pregnant bondwoman despised her barren mistress, and Sarah, with womanly jealousy, rather laid the blame of this on her husband, even then Abraham showed that he was not a slavish lover, but a free begetter of children, and that in using Hagar he had guarded the chastity of Sarah his wife, and had gratified her will and not his own, had received her without seeking, had gone into her without being attached, had impregnated without loving her. For he says, Behold thy maid is in thy hands, do to her as it pleaseth thee. A man able to use women as a man should, his wife temperately, his handmaid compliantly, neither intemperately. Chapter 26 After these things Ishmael was born of Hagar, and Abraham might think that in him was fulfilled what God had promised him, saying, When he wished to adopt his home-born servant, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth of thee, he shall be thine heir. Therefore, lest he should think that what was promised was fulfilled in the handmaid's son, when Abram was ninety years old and nine, God appeared to him and said unto him, I am God, be well pleasing in my sight, and be without complaint, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will fill thee exceedingly. Here there are more distinct promises about the calling of the nations in Isaac, that is, in the son of promise, by which grace is signified, and not nature. For the son is promised from an old man and a barren old woman. For although God effects even the natural course of procreation, yet where the agency of God is manifest through the decay or failure of nature, grace is more plainly discerned. And because this was to be brought about, not by generation, but by regeneration, circumcision was enjoined now, when a son was promised of Sarah. And by ordering all, not only sons, but also home-born and purchased servants to be circumcised, he testifies that this grace pertains to all. For what else does circumcision signify than a nature renewed on the putting off of the old? And what else does the eighth day mean than Christ, who rose again when the week was completed, that is, after the Sabbath? The very names of the parents are changed. All things proclaim newness, and the new covenant is shadowed forth in the old. For what does the term old covenant imply but the concealing of the new? And what does the term new covenant imply but the revealing of the old? The laughter of Abraham is the exultation of one who rejoices, not the scornful laughter of one who mistrusts. And those words of his in his heart, Shall a son be born to me that am an hundred years old, and shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear, are not the words of doubt, but of wonder. And when it is said, And I will give to thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land in which thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, 
If it troubles anyone whether this is to be held as fulfilled, or whether its fulfillment may still be looked for, since no kind of earthly possession can be everlasting for any nation whatever, let him know that the word translated everlasting by our writers is what the Greeks term aeonion, which is derived from aeon, the Greek for seculum, an age. But the Latins have not ventured to translate this by secular, lest they should change the meaning into something widely different. For many things are called secular which so happen in this world as to pass away even in a short time, but what is termed aeonion either has no end or lasts to the very end of this world. Chapter 27 When it is said, The male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that soul shall be cut off from his people, because he hath broken my covenant, some may be troubled how that ought to be understood, since it can be no fault of the infant whose life it is said must perish, nor has the covenant of God been broken by him, but by his parents, who have not taken care to circumcise him. But even the infants, not personally in their own life, but according to the common origin of the human race, have all broken God's covenant in that one in whom all have sinned. Now there are many things called God's covenants besides those two great ones, the old and the new, which any one who pleases may read and know. For the first covenant which was made with the first man is just this, In the day ye eat thereof ye shall surely die. Whence it is written in the book called Ecclesiasticus, All flesh waxeth old as doth a garment, for the covenant from the beginning is, Thou shalt die the death. Now, as the law was more plainly given afterward, and the apostle says, Where no law is, there is no prevarication, on what supposition is what is said in the psalm true, I accounted all the sinners of the earth prevaricators, except that all who are held liable for any sin are accused of dealing deceitfully, prevaricating, with some law. If on this account, then, even the infants are, according to the true belief, born in sin, not actual but original, so that we confess they have need of grace for the remission of sins, certainly it must be acknowledged that in the same sense in which they are sinners, they are also prevaricators of that law which was given in paradise. According to the truth of both scriptures, I accounted all the sinners of the earth prevaricators, and where no law is, there is no prevarication." And thus, because circumcision was the sign of regeneration, and the infant, on account of the original sin by which God's covenant was first broken, was not undeservedly to lose his generation unless delivered by regeneration, these divine words are to be understood as if it had been said, Whoever is not born again, that soul shall perish from his people, because he hath broken my covenant, since he also has sinned in Adam with all others. For had he said, Because he hath broken this my covenant, he would have compelled us to understand by it only this of circumcision. But since he has not expressly said what covenant the infant has broken, we are free to understand him as speaking of that covenant of which the breach can be ascribed to an infant. Yet if any one contends that it is said of nothing else than circumcision, that in it the infant has broken the covenant of God because he is not circumcised, he must seek some method of explanation by which it may be understood without absurdity, such as this, that he has broken the covenant because it has been broken in him, although not by him. Yet in this case also it is to be observed that the soul of the infant, being guilty of no sin and neglect against itself, would perish unjustly unless original sin rendered it obnoxious to punishment. Chapter 28 
Now when a promise so great and clear was made to Abraham, in which it was so plainly said to him, I have made thee a father of many nations, and I will increase thee exceedingly, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall go forth of thee. And I will give thee a son of Sarah, and I will bless him, and he shall become nations, and kings of nations shall be of him. A promise which we now see fulfilled in Christ. From that time forward this couple are not called in Scripture as formerly Abram and Sarai, but Abraham and Sarah, as we have called them from the first, for everyone does so now. The reason why the name of Abraham was changed is given, for, he says, I have made thee a father of many nations. This, then, is to be understood to be the meaning of Abraham, but Abram, as he was formerly called, means exalted father. The reason of the change of Sarah's name is not given, but as those say who have written interpretations of the Hebrew names contained in these books, Sarah means my princess, and Sarai strength. Once it is written in the epistle to the Hebrews, through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. For both were old, as the scripture testifies, but she was also barren and had ceased to menstruate, so that she could no longer bear children even if she had not been barren. Further, if a woman is advanced in years, yet still retains the custom of women, she can bear children to a young man, but not to an old man, although that same old man can beget, but only of a young woman, as after Sarah's death Abraham could of Keturah, because he met with her in her lively age. This, then, is what the apostle mentions as wonderful, saying besides that Abraham's body was now dead, because at that age he was no longer able to beget children of any woman who retained now only a small part of her natural vigor. Of course we must understand that his body was dead only to some purposes, not to all, for if it was so to all, it would no longer be the aged body of a living man, but the corpse of a dead one. Although that question, how Abraham begot children of Keturah, is usually solved in this way, that the gift of begetting which he received from the Lord remained even after the death of his wife, yet I think that solution of the question which I have followed is preferable, because, although in our days an old man of a hundred years can beget children of no woman, it was not so then, when men still lived so long that a hundred years did not yet bring on them the decrepitude of old age. Chapter 29 God appeared again to Abraham at the oak of Mamre in three men, who it is not to be doubted were angels, although some think that one of them was Christ, and assert that he was visible before he put on flesh. Now it belongs to the divine power, an invisible, incorporeal, and incommutable nature, without changing itself at all to appear even to mortal men, not by what it is, but by what is subject to it and what is not subject to it. Yet, if they try to establish that one of these three was Christ, by the fact that although he saw three, he addressed the Lord in the singular, as it is written, And lo, three men stood by him, and when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door, and worshipped toward the ground, and said, Lord, if I have found favor before thee, etc., why do they not advert to this also, that when two of them came to destroy the Sodomites, while Abraham still spoke to one, calling him Lord, and interceding that he would not destroy the righteous along with the wicked in Sodom, Lot received these two in such a way that he too in his conversation with them addressed the Lord in the singular? 
for after saying to them in the plural, Behold, my lords, turn aside into your servant's house, etc., yet it is afterwards said, and the angels laid hold upon his hand, and the hand of his wife, and the hands of his two daughters, because the Lord was merciful unto him. And it came to pass, whenever they had led him forth abroad, that they said, Save thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all this region, save thyself in the mountain, lest thou be caught. And Lot said unto them, I pray thee, Lord, since thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, etc. And then after these words the Lord also answered him in the singular, although he was in two angels, saying, See, I have accepted thy face, etc. This makes it much more credible that both Abraham and the three men and Lot and the two recognized the Lord addressing him in the singular number, even when they were addressing men. For they received them as they did for no other reason than that they might minister human refection to them as men who needed it. Yet there was about them something so excellent that those who showed them hospitality as men could not doubt that God was in them as he was wont to be in the prophets, and therefore sometimes addressed them in the plural, and sometimes God in them in the singular. But that they were angels, the scripture testifies, not only in this book of Genesis, in which these transactions are related, but also in the epistle to the Hebrews, where in praising hospitality it is said, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. By these three men, then, when his son Isaac was again promised to Abraham by Sarah, such a divine oracle was also given that it was said, Abraham shall become a great and numerous nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And here these two things are promised with the utmost brevity and fullness, the nation of Israel according to the flesh, and all nations according to faith. Chapter 30 After this promise Lot was delivered out of Sodom, and a fiery rain from heaven turned into ashes that whole region of the impious city, where custom had made sodomy as prevalent as laws have elsewhere made other kinds of wickedness. But this punishment of theirs was a specimen of the divine judgment to come. For what is meant by the angels forbidding those who were delivered to look back, but that we are not to look back in heart to the old life which, being regenerated through grace, we have put off, if we think to escape the last judgment? Lot's wife, indeed, when she looked back, remained, and, being turned into salt, furnished to believing men a condiment by which to savor somewhat the warning to be drawn from that example. Then did Abraham again at Gerar, with Abimelech the king of that city, what he had done in Egypt about his wife, and received her back untouched in the same way. On this occasion, when the king rebuked Abraham for not saying she was his wife, and calling her his sister, he explained what he had been afraid of, and added this further, And yet indeed she is my sister by the father's side, but not by the mother's. For she was Abraham's sister by his own father, and so near of kin. But her beauty was so great that even at that advanced age she could be fallen in love with. Chapter 31 after these things a son was born to Abraham, according to God's promise of Sarah, and was called Isaac, which means laughter. For his father had laughed when he was promised to him in wondering delight, and his mother, when he was again promised by those three men, had laughed, doubting for joy. Yet she was blamed by the angel because that laughter, although it was for joy, yet was not full of faith. Afterwards she was confirmed in faith by the same angel. From this, then, the boy got his name. For when Isaac was born and called by that name, Sarah showed that her laughter was not that of scornful reproach, but that of joyful praise. 
For she said, God hath made me to laugh, so that every one who hears will laugh with me. Then in a little while the bondmaid was cast out of the house with her son, and, according to the apostle, these two women signify the old and new covenants, Sarah representing that of the Jerusalem which is above, that is, the city of God. Chapter 32 Among other things, of which it would take too long time to mention the whole, Abraham was tempted about the offering up of his well-beloved son Isaac to prove his pious obedience, and so make it known to the world, not to God. Now every temptation is not blameworthy, it may even be praiseworthy, because it furnishes probation. And for the most part the human mind cannot attain to self-knowledge otherwise than by making trial of its powers through temptation, by some kind of experimental and not merely verbal self-interrogation. When, if it has acknowledged the gift of God, it is pious, and is consolidated by steadfast grace, and not puffed up by vain boasting. Of course Abraham could never believe that God delighted in human sacrifices, yet when the divine commandment thundered, it was to be obeyed, not disputed. Yet Abraham is worthy of praise, because he all along believed that his son, on being offered up, would rise again. For God had said to him, when he was unwilling to fulfill his wife's pleasure by casting out the bondmaid and her son, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. No doubt he then goes on to say, And as for the son of this bondwoman, I will make him a great nation, because he is thy seed. How then is it said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called, when God calls Ishmael also his seed? The apostle, in explaining this, says, In Isaac shall thy seed be called, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. In order, then, that the children of the promise may be the seed of Abraham, they are called in Isaac, that is, are gathered together in Christ by the call of grace. Therefore the Father, holding fast from the first the promise which behooved to be fulfilled through this Son, whom God had ordered him to slay, did not doubt that he whom he once thought it hopeless he should ever receive would be restored to him when he had offered him up. It is in this way the passage in the epistle to the Hebrews is also to be understood and explained. By faith, he says, Abraham overcame when tempted about Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only son, to whom it was said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called, thinking that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. Therefore he has added, From whence also he received him in a similitude in whose similitude but his, of whom the apostle says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And on this account Isaac also himself carried to the place of sacrifice the wood on which he was to be offered up, just as the Lord himself carried his own cross. Finally, since Isaac was not to be slain, after his father was forbidden to smite him, who was that ram by the offering of which that sacrifice was completed with typical blood? For when Abraham saw him, he was caught by the horns in a thicket. What then did he represent but Jesus, who, before he was offered up, was crowned with thorns by the Jews? But let us rather hear the divine words spoken through the angel. For the scripture says, And Abraham stretched forth his hand to take the knife that he might slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him from heaven, and said, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. 
And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, and hast not spared thy beloved son for my sake. It is said, Now I know, that is, now I have made to be known, for God was not previously ignorant of this. Then, having offered up that ram instead of Isaac his son, Abraham, as we read, called the name of that place, The Lord Seeth, as they say this day, in the mount of the Lord hath appeared. As it is said, Now I know, for now I have made to be known, so here the Lord sees, for the Lord hath appeared, that is, made himself to be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham from heaven the second time, saying, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, because thou hast done this thing, and hast not spared thy beloved son for my sake, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess by inheritance the cities of the adversaries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. In this manner is that promise concerning the calling of the nations and the seed of Abraham confirmed even by the oath of God, after that burnt offering which typified Christ. For he had often promised, but never sworn. And what is the oath of God, the true and faithful, but a confirmation of the promise, and a certain reproof to the unbelieving? After these things Sarah died in the one hundred and twenty-seventh year of her life, and the one hundred and thirty-seventh of her husband. For he was ten years older than she, as he himself says, when a son is promised to him by her, Shall a son be born to me, that I am an hundred years old, and shall Sarah, that is ninety years old, bear? Then Abraham bought a field in which he buried his wife. And then, according to Stephen's account, he was settled in that land, entering then on actual possession of it, that is, after the death of his father, who is inferred to have died two years before. Chapter 33 Isaac married Rebekah, the granddaughter of Nahor, his father's brother, when he was forty years old, that is, in the one hundred and fortieth year of his father's life, three years after his mother's death. Now when a servant was sent to Mesopotamia by his father to fetch her, and when Abraham said to that servant, Put thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the Lord of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son Isaac of the daughters of the Canaanites. What else was pointed out by this, but that the Lord, the God of heaven, and the Lord of the earth, was to come in the flesh which was to be derived from that thigh? Are these small tokens of the foretold truth which we see fulfilled in Christ? Chapter 34 what did Abraham mean by marrying Keturah after Sarah's death? Far be it from us to suspect him of incontinence, especially when he had reached such an age and such sanctity of faith. Or was he still seeking to beget children, though he held fast with most approved faith the promise of God that his children should be multiplied out of Isaac as the stars of heaven and the dust of the earth? And yet, if Hagar and Ishmael, as the apostle teaches us, signified the carnal people of the old covenant, why may not Keturah and her sons also signify the carnal people who think they belong to the new covenant? For both are called both the wives and the concubines of Abraham, but Sarah is never called a concubine, but only a wife. For when Hagar is given to Abraham, it is written, 
and Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her handmaid, after Abraham had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And of Keturah, whom he took after Sarah's departure, we read, Then again Abraham took a wife whose name was Keturah. Lo, both are called wives, yet both are found to have been concubines. For the scripture afterwards says, And Abraham gave his whole estate unto Isaac his son. But unto the sons of his concubines Abraham gave gifts, and sent them away from his son Isaac, while he yet lived, eastward unto the east country. Therefore the sons of the concubines, that is, the heretics and the carnal Jews, have some gifts, but they do not attain the promised kingdom. For they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed, of whom it was said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. For I do not see why Keturah, who was married after the wife's death, should be called a concubine except on account of this mystery. But if any one is unwilling to put such meanings on these things, he need not calumniate Abraham. For what if even this was provided against the heretics who were to be the opponents of second marriages, so that it might be shown that it was no sin in the case of the father of many nations himself, when, after his wife's death, he married again? And Abraham died when he was one hundred and seventy-five years old, so that he left his son Isaac seventy-five years old, having begotten him when one hundred years old. Chapter 35 let us now see how the times of the city of God run on from this point among Abraham's descendants. In the time from the first year of Isaac's life to the seventieth, when his sons were born, the only memorable thing is that when he prayed God that his wife, who was barren, might bear, and the Lord granted what he sought, and she conceived, the twins leapt while still enclosed in her womb. And when she was troubled by this struggle and inquired of the Lord, she received this answer. Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall overcome the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. The Apostle Paul would have us understand this as a great instance of grace. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, the younger is chosen without any good desert, and the elder is rejected, when beyond doubt, as regards original sin, both were alike, and as regards actual sin, neither had any. But the plan of the work on hand does not permit me to speak more fully of this matter now, and I have said much about it in other works. Only that saying, the elder shall serve the younger, is understood by our writers almost without exception to mean that the elder people, the Jews, shall serve the younger people, the Christians. And truly, although this might seem to be fulfilled in the Idumean nation, which was born of the elder, who had two names, being called both Esau and Edom, whence the name Idumeans, because it was afterwards to be overcome by the people which sprang from the younger, that is, by the Israelites, and was to become subject to them, yet it is more suitable to believe that when it was said, the one people shall overcome the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger, that prophecy meant some greater thing. And what is that except what is evidently fulfilled in the Jews and Christians? Chapter 36 Isaac also received such an oracle as his father had often received. Of this oracle it is thus written, and there was a famine over the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him, and said, 
go not down into Egypt, but dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of, and abide in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee. Unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all this land, and I will establish mine oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all this land, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because that Abraham thy father obeyed my voice, and kept my precepts, my commandments, my righteousness, and my laws. This patriarch neither had another wife nor any concubine, but was content with the twin children begotten by one act of generation. He also was afraid, when he lived among strangers, of being brought into danger owing to the beauty of his wife, and did like his father in calling her his sister, and not telling that she was his wife, for she was his near-blood relation by the father's and mother's side. She also remained untouched by the strangers when it was known she was his wife. Yet we ought not to prefer him to his father, because he knew no woman besides his one wife. For beyond doubt the merits of his father's faith and obedience were greater, inasmuch as God says it is for his sake he does Isaac good. In thy seed, he says, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because that Abraham thy father obeyed my voice, and kept my precepts, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And again in another oracle he says, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee, and will bless thee, and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. So that we must understand how chastely Abraham acted, because imprudent men, who seek some support for their own wickedness in the holy scriptures, think he acted through lust. We may also learn this, not to compare men by single good things, but to consider everything in each. For it may happen that one man has something in his life and character in which he excels another, and it may be far more excellent than that in which the other excels him. And thus, according to sound and true judgment, while continence is preferable to marriage, yet a believing married man is better than a continent unbeliever, for the unbeliever is not only less praiseworthy, but is even highly detestable. We must conclude, then, that both are good, yet so as to hold that the married man who is most faithful and most obedient is certainly better than the continent man whose faith and obedience are less. But if equal in other things, who would hesitate to prefer the continent man to the married? Chapter 37 Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob, grew up together. The primacy of the elder was transferred to the younger by a bargain and agreement between them, when the elder immoderately lusted after the lentils the younger had prepared for food, and for that price sold his birthright to him, confirming it with an oath. We learn from this that a person is to be blamed not for the kind of food he eats, but for immoderate greed. Isaac grew old, and old age deprived him of his eyesight. He wished to bless the elder son, and instead of the elder, who was hairy, unwittingly blessed the younger, who put himself under his father's hands, having covered himself with kid-skins, as if bearing the sins of others. Lest we should think this guile of Jacob's was fraudulent guile, instead of seeking in it the mystery of a great thing, the scripture has predicted in the words just before, Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a simple man, dwelling at home. Some of our writers have interpreted this without guile, but whether the Greek aplastos means without guile, or simple, or rather without feigning, in the receiving of that blessing, what is the guile of the man without guile? 
What is the guile of the simple, what the fiction of the man who does not lie, but a profound mystery of the truth? But what is the blessing itself? See, he says, the smell of my son is as the smell of a full field which the Lord hath blessed. Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven, and of the fruitfulness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Let nations serve thee, and princes adore thee, and be lord of thy brethren, and let thy father's sons adore thee. Cursed be he that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. The blessing of Jacob is therefore a proclamation of Christ to all nations. It is this which has come to pass, and is now being fulfilled. Isaac is the law and the prophecy. Even by the mouth of the Jews Christ is blessed by prophecy, as by one who knows not, because it is itself not understood. The world like a field is filled with the odor of Christ's name. His is the blessing of the dew of heaven, that is, of the showers of divine words, and of the fruitfulness of the earth, that is, of the gathering together of the peoples. His is the plenty of corn and wine, that is, the multitude that gathers bread and wine in the sacrament of his body and blood. Him the nations serve, him princes adore. He is the Lord of his brethren, because his people rules over the Jews. Him his father's sons adore, that is, the sons of Abraham, according to faith, for he himself is the son of Abraham, according to the flesh. He is cursed that curseth him, and he that blesseth him is blessed. Christ, I say, who is ours, is blessed, that is truly spoken of out of the mouths of the Jews, when, although erring, they yet sing the law and the prophets, and think they are blessing another for whom they erringly hope. So when the elder son claims the promised blessing, Isaac is greatly afraid, and wonders when he knows that he has blessed one instead of the other, and demands who he is. Yet he does not complain that he has been deceived, yea, when the great mystery is revealed to him, in his secret heart he at once eschews anger, and confirms the blessing. Who then, he says, hath hunted me venison, and brought it me, and I have eaten of all before thou camest, and have blessed him, and he shall be blessed? Who would not rather have expected the curse of an angry man here, if these things had been done in an earthly manner, and not by inspiration from above? O oh, things done, yet done prophetically, on the earth, yet celestially, by men, yet divinely. If everything that is fertile of so great mysteries should be examined carefully, many volumes would be filled. But the moderate compass fixed for this work compels us to hasten to other things. Chapter 38 Jacob was sent by his parents to Mesopotamia that he might take a wife there. These were his father's words on sending him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of the Canaanites. Arise, fly to Mesopotamia, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And my God bless thee, and increase thee, and multiply thee, and thou shalt be an assembly of peoples, and give to thee the blessing of Abraham thy father, and to thy seed after thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou dwellest, which God gave unto Abraham. Now we understand here that the seed of Jacob is separated from Isaac's other seed, which came through Esau. For when it is said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called, by this seed is meant solely the city of God, so that from it is separated Abraham's other seed, which was in the son of the bondwoman, and which was to be in the sons of Keturah. But until now it had been uncertain regarding Isaac's twin sons whether that blessing belonged to both or only to one of them, and if to one, which of them it was. 
This is now declared when Jacob is prophetically blessed by his father, and it is said to him, And thou shalt be an assembly of peoples, and God give to thee the blessing of Abraham thy father. When Jacob was going to Mesopotamia, he received in a dream an oracle, of which it is thus written, And Jacob went out from the well of the oath, and went to Haran. And he came to a place, and slept there, for the sun was set. And he took of the stones of the place, and put them at his head, and slept in that place, and dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and the angels of God ascended and descended by it. And the Lord stood above it, and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac. Fear not, the land whereon thou sleepest, to thee I will give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and it shall be spread abroad to the sea, and to Africa, and to the north, and to the east. And all the tribes of the earth shall be blessed in thee, and in thy seed. And behold, I am with thee, to keep thee in all thy way, wherever thou goest, and I will bring thee back into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done all which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob awoke out of his sleep, and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid, and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob arose, and took the stone that he had put under his head there, and set it up for a memorial, and poured oil upon the top of it. And Jacob called the name of that place the house of God. This is prophetic, for Jacob did not pour oil on the stone in an idolatrous way, as if making it a god, neither did he adore that stone or sacrifice to it. But since the name of Christ comes from the chrism or anointing, something pertaining to the great mystery was certainly represented in this. And the Saviour himself is understood to bring this latter to resemblance in the Gospel, when he says of Nathanael, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile, because Israel who saw this vision is no other than Jacob. And in the same place he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jacob went on to Mesopotamia to take a wife from thence, and the divine scripture points out how, without unlawfully desiring any of them, he came to have four women, of whom he begat twelve sons and one daughter, for he had come to take only one. But when one was falsely given him in place of the other, he did not send her away after unwittingly using her in the night, lest he should seem to have put her to shame. But as at that time, in order to multiply posterity, no law forbade a plurality of wives, he took her also to whom alone he had promised marriage. As she was barren, she gave her handmaid to her husband, that she might have children by her, and her elder sister did the same thing in imitation of her, although she had borne, because she desired to multiply progeny. We do not read that Jacob sought any but one, or that he used many, except for the purpose of begetting offspring, saving conjugal rights and he would not have done this had not his wives, who had legitimate power over their own husband's body, urged him to do it. So he begat twelve sons and one daughter by four women. Then he entered into Egypt by his son Joseph, who was sold by his brethren for envy, and carried there, and who was there exalted. Chapter 39 as I said a little ago, Jacob was also called Israel, the name which was most prevalent among the people descended from him. Now this name was given him by the angel who wrestled with him on the way back from Mesopotamia, and who was most evidently a type of Christ. 
For when Jacob overcame him, doubtless with his own consent, that the mystery might be represented, it signified Christ's passion, in which the Jews are seen overcoming him. And yet he besought a blessing from the very angel he had overcome, and so the imposition of this name was the blessing. For Israel means seeing God, which will at last be the reward of all the saints. The angel also touched him on the breadth of the thigh when he was overcoming him, and in that way made him lame, so that Jacob was at one and the same time blessed and lame, blessed in those among that people who believed in Christ, and lame in the unbelieving. For the breadth of the thigh is the multitude of the family. For there are many of that race of whom it was prophetically said beforehand, and they have halted in their paths. Chapter 40 Seventy-five men are reported to have entered Egypt along with Jacob, counting him with his children. In this number only two women are mentioned, one a daughter, the other a granddaughter. But when the thing is carefully considered, it does not appear that Jacob's offspring was so numerous on the day or year when he entered Egypt. There are also included among them the great-grandchildren of Joseph, who could not possibly be born already. For Jacob was then one hundred and thirty years old, and his son Joseph thirty-nine. And as it is plain that he took a wife when he was thirty or more, how could he in nine years have great-grandchildren by the children whom he had by that wife? Now since Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, could not even have children, for Jacob found them boys under nine years old when he entered Egypt, in what way are not only their sons, but their grandsons reckoned among those seventy-five who then entered Egypt with Jacob? For there is reckoned there Machir the son of Manasseh, grandson of Joseph, and Machir's son, that is, Gilead, grandson of Manasseh, great-grandson of Joseph. There too is he whom Ephraim, Joseph's other son, begot, that is, Shuthelah, grandson of Joseph, and Shuthelah's son, Ezer, grandson of Ephraim, and great-grandson of Joseph, who could not possibly be in existence when Jacob came into Egypt, and there found his grandsons, the son of Joseph, their grandsires, still boys under nine years of age. But doubtless, when the scripture mentions Jacob's entrance into Egypt with seventy-five souls, it does not mean one day or one year, but that whole time as long as Joseph lived, who was the cause of his entrance. For the same scripture speaks thus of Joseph, And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his brethren, and all his father's house, and Joseph lived one hundred and ten years, and saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. That is, his great-grandson, the third from Ephraim, for the third generation means son, grandson, great-grandson. Then it is added, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born upon Joseph's knees. And this is that grandson of Manasseh and great-grandson of Joseph. But the plural number is employed according to scriptural usage, for the one daughter of Jacob is spoken of as daughters, just as in the usage of the Latin tongue liberi is used in the plural for children, even when there is only one. Now when Joseph's own happiness is proclaimed because he could see his great-grandchildren, it is by no means to be thought they already existed in the thirty-ninth year of their great-grandsire Joseph, when his father Jacob came to him in Egypt. But those who diligently look into these things will the less easily be mistaken, because it is written, These are the names of the sons of Israel who entered into Egypt along with Jacob their father. For this means that the seventy-five are reckoned along with him, not that they were all with him when he entered Egypt. 
For, as I have said, the whole period during which Joseph, who occasioned his entrance, lived, is held to be the time of that entrance. Chapter 41 If, on account of the Christian people in whom the city of God sojourns in the earth, we look for the flesh of Christ and the seed of Abraham, setting aside the sons of the concubines, we have Isaac. If in the seed of Isaac, setting aside Esau, who is also Edom, we have Jacob, who also is Israel. If in the seed of Israel himself, setting aside the rest, we have Judah, because Christ sprang of the tribe of Judah. Let us hear, then, how Israel, when dying in Egypt, in blessing his sons, prophetically blessed Judah. He says, Judah, thy brethren, shall praise thee. Thy hand shall be on the back of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall adore thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the sprouting, my son, thou art gone up. Lying down, thou hast slept as a lion, and as a lion's whelp. Who shall awake him? A prince shall not be lacking out of Judah, and a leader from his thighs, until the things come that are laid up for him, and he shall be the expectation of the nations. Binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's foal to the choice vine, he shall wash his robe in wine, and his clothes in the blood of the grape. His eyes are red with wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. I have expounded these words in disputing against Faustus the Manichaean, and I think it is enough to make the truth of this prophecy shine to remark that the death of Christ is predicted by the word about his lying down, and not the necessity but the voluntary character of his death in the title of lion. That power he himself proclaims in the gospel, saying, I have the power of laying down my life, and I have the power of taking it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and take it again. So the lion roared, so he fulfilled what he said. For to this power what is added about the resurrection refers, Who shall awake him? This means that no man but himself has raised him, who also said of his own body, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the very nature of his death, that is, the height of the cross, is understood by the single word, Thou art gone up. The evangelist explains what is added, Lying down thou hast slept, when he says, He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Or at least his burial is to be understood, in which he lay down sleeping, and whence no man raised him, as the prophets did some, and as he himself did others, but he himself rose up as if from sleep. As for his robe which he washes in wine, that is, cleanses from sin in his own blood, of which blood those who are baptized know the mystery, so that he adds, and his clothes in the blood of the grape, what is it but the church? And his eyes are red with wine, these are his spiritual people drunken with his cup, of which the psalm sings, and thy cup that makes drunken, how excellent it is. And his teeth are whiter than milk, that is, the nutritive words which, according to the apostle, the babes drink, being as yet unfit for solid food. And it is he in whom the promises of Judah were laid up, so that until they come, princes, that is, the kings of Israel, shall never be lacking out of Judah. And he is the expectation of the nations. This is too plain to need exposition. Chapter 42 now as Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob, furnished a type of the two people, the Jews and the Christians, although as pertains to carnal descent it was not the Jews but the Idumeans who came of the seed of Esau, nor the Christian nations but rather the Jews who came of Jacob's, 
for the type holds only as regards the saying, The elder shall serve the younger. So the same thing happened in Joseph's two sons, for the elder was a type of the Jews and the younger of the Christians. For when Jacob was blessing them and laid his right hand on the younger, who was at his left, and his left hand on the elder, who was at his right, this seemed wrong to their father, and he admonished his father by trying to correct his mistake and show him which was the elder. But he would not change his hands, but said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be exalted. But his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And these two promises show the same thing. For that one is to become a people, this one a multitude of nations. And what can be more evident than that these two promises comprehend the people of Israel and the whole world of Abraham's seed, the one according to the flesh, the other according to faith? Chapter 43 Jacob being dead, and Joseph also, during the remaining 144 years until they went out of the land of Egypt, that nation increased to an incredible degree, even although wasted by so great persecutions that at one time the male children were murdered at their birth, because the wandering Egyptians were terrified at the too great increase of that people. Then Moses, being stealthily kept from the murderers of the infants, was brought to the royal house, God preparing to do great things by him, and was nursed and adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, that was the name of all the kings of Egypt, and became so great a man that he, yea, rather God, who had promised this to Abraham by him, drew that nation so wonderfully multiplied out of the yoke of hardest and most grievous servitude it had borne there. At first, indeed, he fled thence, we are told he fled into the land of Midian, because in defending an Israelite he had slain an Egyptian and was afraid. Afterward, being divinely commissioned in the power of the Spirit of God, he overcame the Magi of Pharaoh who resisted him. Then, when the Egyptians would not let God's people go, ten memorable plagues were brought by him upon them. The water turned into blood, the frogs and lice, the flies, the death of the cattle, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness, the death of the firstborn. At last the Egyptians were destroyed in the Red Sea while pursuing the Israelites, whom they had let go when at length they were broken by so many great plagues. The divided sea made a way for the Israelites who were departing, but, returning on itself, it overwhelmed their pursuers with its waves. Then for forty years the people of God went through the desert, under the leadership of Moses, when the tabernacle of testimony was dedicated, in which God was worshipped by sacrifices prophetic of things to come, and that was after the law had been very terribly given in the mount, for its divinity was most plainly attested by wonderful signs and voices. This took place soon after the exodus from Egypt, when the people had entered the desert, on the fiftieth day after the Passover was celebrated by the offering up of a lamb, which is so completely a type of Christ, foretelling that through his sacrificial passion he should go from this world to the Father, for Pasha in the Hebrew tongue means transit, that when the new covenant was revealed after Christ our Passover was offered up, the Holy Spirit came from heaven on the fiftieth day, and he is called in the gospel the finger of God, because he recalls to our remembrance the things done before by way of types, and because the tables of that law are said to have been written by the finger of God. On the death of Moses, Joshua, the son of Nun, ruled the people, and led them into the land of promise, and divided it among them. 
By these two wonderful leaders, wars were also carried on most prosperously and wonderfully, God calling to witness that they had got these victories not so much on account of the merit of the Hebrew people as on account of the sins of the nations they subdued. After these leaders there were judges, when the people were settled in the land of promise, so that in the meantime the first promise made to Abraham began to be fulfilled about the one nation, that is, the Hebrew, and about the land of Canaan, but not as yet the promise about all nations and the whole wide world, for that was to be fulfilled not by the observances of the old law, but by the advent of Christ in the flesh and by the faith of the gospel. And it was to prefigure this that it was not Moses who received the law for the people on Mount Sinai that led the people into the land of promise, but Joshua, whose name also was changed at God's command, so that he was called Jesus. But in the times of the judges prosperity alternated with adversity and war, according as the sins of the people and the mercy of God were displayed. We come next to the times of the kings. The first who reigned was Saul, and when he was rejected and laid low in battle, and his offspring rejected, so that no king should arise out of it, David succeeded to the kingdom, whose son Christ is chiefly called. He was made a kind of starting point and beginning of the advanced youth of God's people, who had passed a kind of age of puberty from Abraham to this David. And it is not in vain that the evangelist Matthew records the generations in such a way as to sum up this first period from Abraham to David in fourteen generations. For from the age of puberty man begins to be capable of generation, therefore he starts the list of generations from Abraham, who also was made the father of many nations when he got his name changed. So that previously this family of God's people was in its childhood from Noah to Abraham, and for that reason the first language was then learned, that is, the Hebrew. For man begins to speak in childhood, the age succeeding infancy, which is so termed because then he cannot speak. And that first age is quite drowned in oblivion, just as the first age of the human race was blotted out by the flood. For who is there that can remember his infancy? Wherefore, in this progress of the city of God, as the previous book contained that first age, so this one ought to contain the second and third ages, in which third age, as was shown by the heifer of three years old, the she-goat of three years old, and the ram of three years old, the yoke of the law was imposed, and there appeared abundance of sins, and the beginning of the earthly kingdom arose, in which there were not lacking spiritual men, of whom the turtle-dove and pigeon represented the mystery. Book 17. Chapter 1. By the favor of God we have treated distinctly of his promises made to Abraham, that both the nation of Israel according to the flesh, and all nations according to faith, should be his seed, and the city of God, proceeding according to the order of time, will point out how they were fulfilled. Having therefore in the previous book come down to the reign of David, we shall now treat of what remains, so far as may seem sufficient for the object of this work, beginning at the same reign. Now from the time when holy Samuel began to prophesy, and ever onward until the people of Israel was led captive into Babylonia, and until, according to the prophecy of the holy Jeremiah, on Israel's return thence after seventy years, the house of God was built anew, this whole period is the prophetic age. 
For although both the patriarch Noah himself, in whose days the whole earth was destroyed by the flood, and others before and after him, down to this time, when there began to be kings over the people of God, may not undeservedly be styled prophets, on account of certain things pertaining to the city of God and the kingdom of heaven, which they either predicted or in any way signified should come to pass, and especially since we read that some of them, as Abraham and Moses, were expressly so styled, yet those are most and chiefly called the days of the prophets, from the time when Samuel began to prophesy, who at God's command first anointed Saul to be king, and on his rejection David himself, whom others of his issue should succeed as long as it was fitting they should do so. If, therefore, I wish to rehearse all that the prophets have predicted concerning Christ, while the city of God, with its members dying and being born in constant succession, ran its course through those times, this work would extend beyond all bounds. First, because the scripture itself, even when, in treating an order of the kings and of their deeds and the events of their reigns, it seems to be occupied in narrating as with historical diligence the affairs transacted, will be found, if the things handled by it are considered with the aid of the Spirit of God, either more or certainly not less intent on foretelling things to come than on relating things past. And who that thinks even a little about it does not know how laborious and prolix a work it would be, and how many volumes it would require to search this out by thorough investigation and demonstrate it by argument? And then, because of that which without dispute pertains to prophecy, there are so many things concerning Christ and the kingdom of heaven, which is the city of God, that to explain these a larger discussion would be necessary than the due proportion of this work admits of. Therefore I shall, if I can, so limit myself, that in carrying through this work I may, with God's help, neither say what is superfluous, nor omit what is necessary. Chapter 2 In the preceding book we said that in the promise of God to Abraham two things were promised from the beginning, the one, namely, that his seed should possess the land of Canaan, which was intimated when it was said, Go into a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. But the other far more excellent, concerning not the carnal, but the spiritual seed, by which he is the father, not of the one nation of Israel, but of all nations who follow the footsteps of his faith, which began to be promised in these words, And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And thereafter we showed by yet many other proofs that these two things were promised, Therefore the seed of Abraham, that is, the people of Israel according to the flesh, already was in the land of promise, and there, not only by holding and possessing the cities of the enemies, but also by having kings, had already begun to reign, the promises of God concerning that people being already in great part fulfilled. Not only those that were made to those three fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and whatever others were made in their times, but those also that were made through Moses himself, by whom the same people was set free from servitude in Egypt, and by whom all bygone things were revealed in his times, when he led the people through the wilderness. But neither by the illustrious leader Jesus, the son of Nun, who led that people into the land of promise, and, after driving out the nations, divided it among the twelve tribes according to God's command, and died, nor after him in the whole time of the judges was the promise of God concerning the land of Canaan fulfilled, that it should extend from some river of Egypt even to the great river Euphrates. Nor yet was it still prophesied as to come, 
but its fulfillment was expected. And it was fulfilled through David and Solomon his son, whose kingdom was extended over the whole promised space, for they subdued all those nations and made them tributary. And thus under those kings the seed of Abraham was established in the land of promise according to the flesh, that is, in the land of Canaan, so that nothing yet remained to the complete fulfillment of that earthly promise of God, except that, so far as pertains to temporal prosperity, the Hebrew nation should remain in the same land by the succession of posterity, in an unshaken state, even to the end of this mortal age, if it obeyed the laws of the Lord its God. But since God knew it would not do this, he used his temporal punishments also for training his few faithful ones in it, and for giving needful warning to those who should afterwards be in all nations, in whom the other promise revealed in the New Testament was about to be fulfilled through the incarnation of Christ. Chapter 3 Wherefore, just as that divine oracle to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the other prophetic signs or sayings which are given in the earlier sacred writings, so also the other prophecies from this time of the kings pertain partly to the nation of Abraham's flesh, and partly to that seed of his in which all nations are blessed, as fellow heirs of Christ by the New Testament, to the possessing of eternal life and the kingdom of the heavens. Therefore they pertain partly to the bondmaid who gendereth the bondage, that is, the earthly Jerusalem, which is in bondage with her children, but partly to the free city of God, that is, the true Jerusalem eternal in the heavens, whose children are all those that live according to God in the earth. But there are some things among them which are understood to pertain to both, to the bondmaid properly, to the free woman figuratively. Therefore prophetic utterances of three kinds are to be found, forasmuch as there are some relating to the earthly Jerusalem, some to the heavenly, and some to both. I think it proper to prove what I say by examples. The prophet Nathan was sent to convict King David of heinous sin, and predict to him what future evil should be consequent on it. Who can question that this and the like pertain to the terrestrial city, whether publicly, that is, for the safety or help of the people, or privately, when there are given forth for each one's private good divine utterances, whereby something of the future may be known for the use of temporal life. But where we read, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah a new testament, not according to the testament that I settled for their fathers in the day when I laid hold of their hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my testament, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the testament that I will make for the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will give my laws in their mind, and will write them upon their hearts, and I will see to them, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Without doubt this is prophesied to the Jerusalem above, whose reward is God himself, and whose chief and entire good it is to have him and to be his. But this pertains to both, that the city of God is called Jerusalem, and that it is prophesied the house of God shall be in it. And this prophecy seems to be fulfilled when King Solomon builds that most noble temple. For these things both happened in the earthly Jerusalem, as history shows, and were types of the heavenly Jerusalem. And this kind of prophecy, as it were compacted and commingled of both the others in the ancient canonical books containing historical narratives, 
is of very great significance, and has exercised, and exercises greatly, the wits of those who search holy writ. For example, what we read of historically as predicted and fulfilled in the seed of Abraham according to the flesh, we must also inquire the allegorical meaning of, as it is to be fulfilled in the seed of Abraham according to faith. And so much is this the case, that some have thought there is nothing in these books, either foretold and effected, or effected although not foretold, that does not insinuate something else which is to be referred by figurative signification to the city of God on high, and to her children who are pilgrims in this life. But if this be so, then the utterances of the prophets, or rather the whole of those scriptures that are reckoned under the title of the Old Testament, will be not of three, but of two different kinds. For there will be nothing there which pertains to the terrestrial Jerusalem only, if whatever is there said and fulfilled of or concerning her signifies something which also refers by allegorical prefiguration to the celestial Jerusalem. But there will be only two kinds, one that pertains to the free Jerusalem, the other to both. But just as, I think, they err greatly who are of opinion that none of the records of affairs in that kind of writings mean anything more than that they so happened, so I think those very daring who contend that the whole gist of their contents lies in allegorical significations. Therefore, I have said, they are threefold, not twofold. Yet, in holding this opinion, I do not blame those who may be able to draw out of everything there a spiritual meaning, only saving, first of all, the historical truth. For the rest, what believer can doubt that those things are spoken vainly, which are such that whether said to have been done, or to be yet to come, they do not beseem either human or divine affairs? Who would not recall these to spiritual understanding if he could, or confess that they should be recalled by him who is able? Chapter 4. Therefore the advance of the city of God, where it reached the times of the kings, yielded a figure, when, on the rejection of Saul, David first obtained the kingdom on such a footing that thenceforth his descendants should reign in the earthly Jerusalem in continual succession. For the course of affairs signified and foretold, what is not to be passed by in silence, concerning the change of things to come, what belongs to both testaments, the old and the new, where the priesthood and kingdom are changed by one who is a priest, and at the same time a king, new and everlasting, even Christ Jesus. For both the substitution and the ministry of God, on Eli's rejection as priest, of Samuel, who executed at once the office of priest and judge, and the establishment of David in the kingdom, when Saul was rejected, typified this of which I speak. And Hannah herself, the mother of Samuel, who formerly was barren, and afterwards was gladdened with fertility, does not seem to prophesy anything else, when she exultingly pours forth her thanksgiving to the Lord, on yielding up to God the same boy she had borne and weaned, with the same piety with which she had vowed him. For she says, My heart is made strong in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in my God. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies. I am made glad in thy salvation." Because there is none holy as the Lord, and none as righteous as our God, there is none holy save thee. Do not glory so proudly, and do not speak lofty things, neither let vaunting talk come out of your mouth. For a God of knowledge is the Lord, and a God preparing his curious designs. The bow of the mighty hath he made weak, and the weak are girded with strength. They that were full of bread are diminished, and the hungry have passed beyond the earth. For the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. 
The Lord killeth, and maketh alive. He bringeth down to hell, and bringeth up again. The Lord maketh poor, and maketh rich. He bringeth low, and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill, that he may set him among the mighty of his people, and make them inherit the throne of glory, giving the vow to him that voweth, and he hath blessed the years of the just, for man is not mighty in strength. The Lord shall make his adversary weak, the Lord is holy. Let not the prudent glory in his prudence, and let not the mighty glory in his might, and let not the rich glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, to understand and know the Lord, and to do judgment and justice in the midst of the earth. The Lord hath ascended into the heavens, and hath thundered. He shall judge the ends of the earth, for he is righteous, and he giveth strength to our kings, and shall exalt the horn of his Christ. Do you say that these are the words of a single weak woman giving thanks for the birth of a son? Can the mind of men be so much averse to the light of truth as not to perceive that the sayings this woman pours forth exceed her measure? Moreover, he who is suitably interested in these things, which have already begun to be fulfilled even in this earthly pilgrimage also, does he not apply his mind and perceive and acknowledge that through this woman, whose very name, which is Hannah, means his grace, the very Christian religion, the very city of God, whose king and founder is Christ, in fine, the very grace of God, hath thus spoken by the prophetic spirit, whereby the proud are cut off so that they fall, and the humble are filled so that they rise, which that hymn chiefly celebrates. Unless perchance any one will say that this woman prophesied nothing, but only lauded God with exulting praise on account of the Son, whom she had obtained in answer to prayer. What then does she mean when she says, The bow of the mighty hath he made weak, and the weak are girded with strength. They that were full of bread are diminished, and the hungry have gone beyond the earth. For the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. Had she herself borne seven, although she had been barren? She had only one when she said that, neither did she bear seven afterwards, nor six, with whom Samuel himself might be the seventh, but three males and two females. And then, when as yet no one was king over that people, whence, if she did not prophesy, did she say what she puts at the end, He giveth strength to our kings, and shall exalt the horn of his Christ. Therefore let the church of Christ, the city of the great king, full of grace, prolific of offspring, let her say what the prophecy uttered about her so long before by the mouth of this pious mother confesses, My heart is made strong in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in my God. Her heart is truly made strong, and her horn is truly exalted, because not in herself, but in the Lord her God. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because even in pressing straits the word of God is not bound, not even in preachers who are bound. I am made glad, she says, in thy salvation. This is Christ Jesus himself, whom old Simeon, as we read in the gospel, embracing as a little one, yet recognizing as great, said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Therefore may the church say, I am made glad in thy salvation, for there is none holy as the Lord, and none is righteous as our God, as holy and sanctifying, just and justifying. There is none holy beside thee, because no one becomes so except by reason of thee. And then it follows, Do not glory so proudly, and do not speak lofty things, 
neither let vaunting talk come out of your mouth, for a God of knowledge is the Lord. He knows you even when no one knows, for he who thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing deceiveth himself. These things are said to the adversaries of the city of God who belong to Babylon, who presume in their own strength and glory in themselves, not in the Lord, of whom are also the carnal Israelites, the earth-born inhabitants of the earthly Jerusalem, who, as saith the apostle, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that is, which God, who alone is just, and the justifier, gives to man, and wishing to establish their own, that is, which is, as it were, procured by their own selves, not bestowed by him, are not subject to the righteousness of God, just because they are proud, and think they are able to please God with their own, not with that which is of God, who is the God of knowledge, and therefore also takes the oversight of consciences, there beholding the thoughts of men, that they are vain, if they are of men, and are not from him. And preparing, she says, his curious designs. What curious designs do we think these are, save that the proud must fall, and the humble rise? These curious designs she recounts, saying, The bow of the mighty is made weak, and the weak are girded with strength. The bow is made weak, that is, the intention of those who think themselves so powerful that without the gift and help of God they are able by human sufficiency to fulfill the divine commandments. And those are girded with strength, whose inward cry is, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. They that were full of bread, she says, are diminished, and the hungry have gone beyond the earth. Who are to be understood as full of bread, except those same who were as if mighty, that is, the Israelites, to whom were committed the oracles of God? But among that people the children of the bondmaid were diminished, by which word minus, although it is Latin, the idea is well expressed, that from being greater they were made less, because even in the very bread, that is, the divine oracles, which the Israelites alone of all nations have received, they savor earthly things. But the nations to whom that law was not given, after they have come through the New Testament to these oracles, by thirsting much, have gone beyond the earth, because in them they have savored not earthly but heavenly things. And the reason why this is done is as it were sought. For the barren, she says, hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. Here all that had been prophesied hath shone forth to those who understood the number seven, which signifies the perfection of the universal church. For which reason also the Apostle John writes to the seven churches, showing in that way that he writes to the totality of the one church. And in the Proverbs of Solomon it is said aforetime, prefiguring this, Wisdom hath builded her house, she hath strengthened her seven pillars. For the city of God was barren in all nations before that child arose whom we see. We also see that the temporal Jerusalem, who had many children, is now waxed feeble, because whoever in her were sons of the free woman were her strength. But now, forasmuch as the letter is there, and not the spirit, having lost her strength, she is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He has killed her who had many children, and made this barren one alive, so that she has borne seven. Although it may be more suitably understood that he has made those same alive whom he has killed. For she, as it were, repeats that by adding, He bringeth down to hell, and bringeth up. To whom truly the apostle says, 
If ye be dead with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Therefore they are killed by the Lord in a salutary way, so that he adds, Savor things which are above, not things on the earth, so that these are they who hungering have passed beyond the earth. For ye are dead, he says, behold how God savingly kills. Then there follows, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Behold how God makes the same alive. But does he bring them down to hell and bring them up again? It is without controversy among believers that we best see both parts of this work fulfilled in him, to wit our head, with whom the apostle has said our life is hid in God. For when he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, in that way certainly he has killed him. And forasmuch as he raised him up again from the dead, he has made him alive again. And since his voice is acknowledged in the prophecy, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, he has brought him down to hell, and brought him up again. By this poverty of his we are made rich, for the Lord maketh poor, and maketh rich. But that we may know what this is, let us hear what follows, He bringeth low, and lifteth up. And truly he humbles the proud, and exalts the humble. Which we also read elsewhere, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. This is the burden of the entire song of this woman whose name is interpreted his grace. Farther, what is added, he raiseth up the poor from the earth, I understand of none better than of him who, as was said a little ago, was made poor for us when he was rich, that by his poverty we might be made rich. For he raised him from the earth so quickly that his flesh did not see corruption. Nor shall I divert from him what is added, and raiseth up the poor from the dunghill. For indeed he who is the poor man is also the beggar. But by the dunghill from which he is lifted up, we are with the greatest reason to understand the persecuting Jews, of whom the apostle says, when telling that when he belonged to them he persecuted the church, What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, and I have counted them not only loss, but even dung, that I might win Christ. Therefore that poor one is raised up from the earth above all the rich, and that beggar is lifted up from that dunghill above all the wealthy, that he may sit among the mighty of the people, to whom he says, Ye shall sit upon twelve thrones, and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For these mighty ones had said, Lo, we have forsaken all and followed thee. They had most mightily vowed this vow. But whence do they receive this except from him of whom it is here immediately said, giving the vow to him that voweth? Otherwise they would be of those mighty ones whose bow is weakened. Giving, she saith, the vow to him that voweth. For no one could vow anything acceptable to God unless he received from him that which he might vow. There follows, And he hath blessed the years of the just, to wit, that he may live for ever with him to whom it is said, and thy years shall have no end. For there the years abide, but here they pass away, yea, they perish. For before they come they are not, and when they shall have come they shall not be, because they bring their own end with them. Now of these two, that is, giving the vow to him that voweth, and he hath blessed the years of the just, the one is what we do, the other what we receive. But this other is not received from God, the liberal giver, until he, the helper, himself has enabled us for the former. For man is not mighty in strength. The Lord shall make his adversary weak, 
to wit, him who envies the man that vows, and resists him, lest he should fulfill what he has vowed. Owing to the ambiguity of the Greek, it may also be understood his own adversary. For when God has begun to possess us, immediately he who had been our adversary becomes his, and is conquered by us, but not by our own strength, for man is not mighty in strength. Therefore the Lord shall make his own adversary weak, the Lord is holy, that he may be conquered by the saints, whom the Lord, the Holy of Holies, hath made saints. For this reason let not the prudent glory in his prudence, and let not the mighty glory in his might, and let not the rich glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, to understand and know the Lord, and to do judgment and justice in the midst of the earth. He in no small measure understands and knows the Lord, who understands and knows that even this, that he can understand and know the Lord, is given to him by the Lord. For what hast thou, saith the apostle, that thou hast not received? But if thou hast received it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? That is, as if thou hadst to thine own self, whereof thou mightest glory. Now he does judgment and justice, who lives or right. But he lives aright who yields obedience to God when he commands. The end of the commandment, that is, to which the commandment has reference, is charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. Moreover, this charity, as the Apostle John testifies, is of God. Therefore, to do justice and judgment is of God. But what is in the midst of the earth? For ought those who dwell in the ends of the earth not to do judgment and justice? Who would say so? Why then is it added, In the midst of the earth? For if this had not been added, and it had only been said, To do judgment and justice, this commandment would rather have pertained to both kinds of men, both those dwelling inland and those on the sea-coast. But lest any one should think that after the end of the life led in this body there remains a time for doing judgment and justice which he has not done while he was in the flesh, and that the divine judgment can thus be escaped, in the midst of the earth appears to me to be said of the time when every one lives in the body. For in this life every one carries about his own earth, which, on a man's dying, the common earth takes back, to be surely returned to him on his rising again. Therefore, in the midst of the earth, that is, while our soul is shut up in this earthly body, judgment and justice are to be done, which shall be profitable for us hereafter, when every one shall receive according to that he hath done in the body, whether good or bad. For when the apostle there says in the body, he means in the time he has lived in the body. Yet if any one blaspheme with malicious mind and impious thought, without any member of his being employed in it, he shall not therefore be guiltless, because he has not done it with bodily motion, for he will have done it in that time which he has spent in the body. In the same way we may suitably understand what we read in the psalm, But God our King before the worlds hath wrought salvation in the midst of the earth, so that the Lord Jesus may be understood to be our God who is before the worlds, because by him the worlds were made, working our salvation in the midst of the earth, for the word was made flesh and dwelt in an earthly body. Then, after Hannah has prophesied in these words that he who glorieth ought to glory not in himself at all, but in the Lord, she says, on account of the retribution which is to come on the day of judgment, the Lord hath ascended into the heavens, and hath thundered, he shall judge the ends of the earth, for he is righteous. 
Throughout she holds to the order of the creed of Christians, for the Lord Christ has ascended into heaven, and is to come thence to judge the quick and dead. For, as saith the apostle, who hath ascended but he who hath also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Therefore he hath thundered through his clouds, which he hath filled with his Holy Spirit when he ascended up. Concerning which the bondmaid Jerusalem, that is, the unfruitful vineyard, is threatened in Isaiah the prophet that they shall rain no showers upon her. But he shall judge the ends of the earth is spoken as if it had been said, even the extremes of the earth. For it does not mean that he shall not judge the other parts of the earth, who without doubt shall judge all men. But it is better to understand by the extremes of the earth the extremes of man, since those things shall not be judged which in the middle time are changed for the better or the worse, but the ending in which he shall be found who is judged. For which reason it is said, He that shall persevere even unto the end, the same shall be saved. He therefore who perseveringly does judgment and justice in the midst of the earth shall not be condemned when the extremes of the earth shall be judged. And giveth, she saith, strength to our kings, that he may not condemn them in judging. He giveth them strength, whereby as kings they rule the flesh, and conquer the world in him who hath poured out his blood for them. And shall exalt the horn of his Christ. How shall Christ exalt the horn of his Christ? For he of whom it was said above, The Lord hath ascended into the heavens, meaning the Lord Christ, himself, as it is said here, shall exalt the horn of his Christ. Who therefore is the Christ of his Christ? Does it mean that he shall exalt the horn of each one of his believing people, as she says in the beginning of this hymn, Mine horn is exalted in my God? For we can rightly call all those Christs who are anointed with his chrism, forasmuch as the whole body with its head is one Christ. These things hath Hannah, the mother of Samuel, the holy and much praised man, prophesied, in which indeed the change of the ancient priesthood was then figured and is now fulfilled, since she that had many children is waxed feeble, that the baron who hath borne seven might have the new priesthood in Christ. Chapter 5 But this is said more plainly by a man of God sent to Eli the priest himself, whose name indeed is not mentioned, but whose office and ministry show him to have been indubitably a prophet. For it is thus written, And there came a man of God unto Eli, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I plainly revealed myself unto thy father's house, when they were in the land of Egypt, slaves in Pharaoh's house. And I chose thy father's house out of all the scepters of Israel to fill the office of priest for me, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and wear the ephod, and I gave thy father's house for food all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel. Wherefore then hast thou looked at mine incense and at mine offerings with an impudent eye, and hast glorified thy sons above me to bless the firstfruits of every sacrifice in Israel before me? Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I said thy house and thy father's house should walk before me for ever, but now the Lord saith, Be it far from me, for them that honour me will I honour, and he that despiseth me shall be despised. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thy seed, and the seed of thy father's house, and thou shalt never have an old man in my house. 
and I will cut off the man of thine from mine altar, so that his eyes shall be consumed, and his heart shall melt away, and every one of thy house that is left shall fall by the sword of men. And this shall be a sign unto thee, that shall come upon these thy two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. And I will raise me up a faithful priest, that shall do according to all that is in mine heart and in my soul. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my Christ for ever. And it shall come to pass, that he who is left in thine house shall come to worship him with a piece of money, saying, Put me into one part of thy priesthood, that I may eat bread. We cannot say that this prophecy, in which the change of the ancient priesthood is foretold with so great plainness, was fulfilled in Samuel. For although Samuel was not of another tribe than that which had been appointed by God to serve at the altar, yet he was not of the sons of Aaron, whose offspring was set apart that the priests might be taken out of it. And thus by that transaction also the same change which had come to pass through Christ Jesus is shadowed forth, and the prophecy itself indeed, not in word, belonged to the Old Testament properly, but figuratively to the New, signifying by the fact just what was said by the word to Eli the priest through the prophet. For there were afterwards priests of Aaron's race, such as Zadok and Abiathar during David's reign, and others in succession before the time came when those things which were predicted so long before about the changing of the priesthood behooved to be fulfilled by Christ. But who that now views these things with a believing eye does not see that they are fulfilled? Since indeed no tabernacle, no temple, no altar, no sacrifice, and therefore no priest either has remained to the Jews, to whom it was commanded in the law of God that he should be ordained of the seed of Aaron, which is also mentioned here by the prophet when he says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I said, Thy house and thy father's house shall walk before me for ever. But now the Lord saith, That be far from me. For them that honour me will I honour, and he that despiseth me shall be despised. For that in naming his father's house he does not mean that of his immediate father, but that of Aaron, who was first appointed to be priest, to be succeeded by others descended from him, is shown by the preceding words when he says, I was revealed unto thy father's house, when they were in the land of Egypt slaves in Pharaoh's house. And I chose thy father's house out of all the scepters of Israel to fill the office of priest for me. Which of the fathers in that Egyptian slavery but Aaron was his father, who, when they were set free, was chosen to the priesthood? It was of his lineage, therefore, he has said in this passage, it should come to pass, that they should no longer be priests, which already we see fulfilled. If faith be watchful, the things are before us, they are discerned, they are grasped, and are forced on the eyes of the unwilling, so that they are seen. Behold, the days come, he says, that I will cut off thy seed and the seed of thy father's house, and thou shalt never have an old man in mine house. And I will cut off the man of thine from mine altar, so that his eyes shall be consumed, and his heart shall melt away. Behold, the days which were foretold have already come. There is no priest after the order of Aaron, and whoever is a man of his lineage, when he sees the sacrifice of the Christians prevailing over the whole world, but that great honour taken away from himself, his eyes fail, and his soul melts away, consumed with grief. But what follows belongs properly to the house of Eli, to whom these things were said, And every one of thine house that is left shall fall by the sword of men. 
and this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon these thy two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. This, therefore, is made a sign of the change of the priesthood from this man's house, by which it is signified that the priesthood of Aaron's house is to be changed. For the death of this man's sons signified the death not of the men, but of the priesthood itself of the sons of Aaron. But what follows pertains to that priest whom Samuel typified by succeeding this one. Therefore the things which follow are said of Christ Jesus, the true priest of the New Testament, and I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to all that is in mine heart and in my soul, and I will build him a sure house. The same is the eternal Jerusalem above. And he shall walk, saith he, before my Christ always. He shall walk means he shall be conversant with, just as he had said before of Aaron's house, I said that thine house and thy father's house shall walk before me for ever. But what he says, he shall walk before my Christ, is to be understood entirely of the house itself, not of the priest, who is Christ himself, the mediator and saviour. His house, therefore, shall walk before him. Shall walk may also be understood to mean from death to life, all the time this mortality passes through, even to the end of this world. But where God says, Who will do all that is in mine heart and in my soul, we must not think that God has a soul, for he is the author of souls, but this is said of God tropically, not properly, just as he is said to have hands and feet and other corporal members. And, lest it should be supposed from such language that man in the form of this flesh is made in the image of God, wings also are ascribed to him, which man has not at all. And it is said to God, Hide me under the shadow of thy wings, that men may understand that such things are said of that ineffable nature, not in proper, but in figurative words. But what is added, and it shall come to pass that he who is left in thine house shall come to worship him, is not said properly of the house of this Eli, but of that Aaron, the men of which remained even to the advent of Jesus Christ, of which race there are not wanting men even to this present. For of that house of Eli it had already been said above, And every one of thine house that is left shall fall by the sword of men. How, therefore, could it be truly said here, And it shall come to pass that every one that is left shall come to worship him, if that is true, that no one shall escape the avenging sword, unless he would have it understood of those who belong to the race of that whole priesthood after the order of Aaron? Therefore, if it is of these the predestinated remnant, about whom another prophet has said, The remnant shall be saved, whence the apostle also says, Even so, then, at this time also the remnant according to the election of grace is saved, since it is easily understood to be of such a remnant that it is said, He that is left in thine house, assuredly he believes in Christ, just as in the time of the apostle very many of that nation believed. Nor are there now wanting those, although very few, who yet believe, and in them is fulfilled what this man of God has here immediately added, he shall come to worship him with a piece of money. To worship whom, if not that chief priest who is also God? For in that priesthood, after the order of Aaron, men did not come to the temple or altar of God for the purpose of worshipping the priest. But what is that he says, was a piece of money, if not the short word of faith, about which the apostle quotes the saying, A consummating and shortening word will the Lord make upon the earth. But that money is put for the word the psalm is a witness, 
where it is sung, The words of the Lord are pure words, money tried with the fire. What then does he say who comes to worship the priest of God, even the priest who is God? Put me into one part of thy priesthood to eat bread. I do not wish to be set in the honor of my fathers, which is none. Put me in a part of thy priesthood. For I have chosen to be mean in thine house. I desire to be a member, no matter what or how small, of thy priesthood. By the priesthood he here means the people itself, of which he is the priest who is the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This people the apostle Peter calls a holy people, a royal priesthood. But some have translated of thy sacrifice, not of thy priesthood, which no less signifies the same Christian people. Whence the apostle Paul says, We being many are one bread, one body. And again he says, Present your bodies a living sacrifice. What therefore he has added to eat bread also elegantly expresses the very kind of sacrifice of which the priest himself says, The bread which I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The same is the sacrifice not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. Let him that readeth understand. Therefore this short and salutarily humble confession, in which it is said, Put me in a part of thy priesthood to eat bread, is itself the piece of money, for it is both brief, and it is the word of God who dwells in the heart of one who believes. For because he had said above that he had given for food to Aaron's house the sacrificial victims of the Old Testament, where he says, I have given thy father's house for food all things which are offered by fire of the children of Israel, which indeed were the sacrifices of the Jews, therefore here he has said to eat bread, which is in the New Testament the sacrifice of the Christians. Chapter 6 while, therefore, these things now shine forth as clearly as they were loftily foretold, still someone may not vainly be moved to ask, How can we be confident that all things are to come to pass which are predicted in these books as about to come, if this very thing which is there divinely spoken, Thine house and thy father's house shall walk before me forever, could not have effect? For we see that the priesthood has been changed, and there can be no hope that what was promised to that house may sometime be fulfilled, because that which succeeds on its being rejected and changed is rather predicted as eternal. He who says this does not yet understand, or does not recollect, that this very priesthood after the order of Aaron was appointed as the shadow of a future eternal priesthood, and therefore when eternity is promised to it, it is not promised to the mere shadow and figure, but to what is shadowed forth and prefigured by it. But lest it should be thought the shadow itself was to remain, therefore its mutation also behooved to be foretold. In this way, too, the kingdom of Saul himself, who certainly was reprobated and rejected, was the shadow of a kingdom yet to come, which should remain to eternity. For indeed the oil with which he was anointed, and from that chrism he is called Christ, is to be taken in a mystical sense, and is to be understood as a great mystery, which David himself venerated so much in him that he trembled with smitten heart, when, being hid in a dark cave, which Saul also entered when pressed by the necessity of nature, he had come secretly behind him and cut off a small piece of his robe, that he might be able to prove how he had spared him when he could have killed him, and might thus remove from his mind the suspicion through which he had vehemently persecuted the holy David, thinking him his enemy. 
Therefore he was much afraid, lest he should be accused of violating so great a mystery in soul, because he had thus meddled even his clothes. For thus it is written, and David's heart smote him, because he had taken away the skirt of his cloak. But to the men with him, who advised him to destroy Saul, thus delivered up into his hands, he saith, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's Christ, to lay my hand upon him, because he is the Lord's Christ. Therefore he showed so great reverence to this shadow of what was to come, not for its own sake, but for the sake of what it prefigured. Whence also that which Samuel says to Saul, since thou hast not kept my commandment which the Lord commanded thee, whereas now the Lord would have prepared thy kingdom over Israel for ever, yet now thy kingdom shall not continue for thee, and the Lord will seek him a man after his own heart, and the Lord will command him to be prince over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee, is not to be taken as if God had settled that Saul himself should reign for ever, and afterwards on his sinning would not keep this promise, nor was he ignorant that he would sin, but he had established his kingdom that it might be a figure of the eternal kingdom. Therefore he added, Yet now thy kingdom shall not continue for thee. Therefore what it signified has stood and shall stand, but it shall not stand for this man, because he himself was not to reign for ever, nor his offspring, so that at least that word for ever might seem to be fulfilled through his posterity one to another. And the Lord, he saith, will seek him a man, meaning either David or the mediator of the New Testament, who is figured in the chrism with which David also and his offspring was anointed. But it is not as if he knew not where he was, that God thus seeks him a man, but speaking through a man, he speaks as a man, and in this sense seeks us. For not only to God the Father, but also to his only begotten, who came to seek what was lost, we had been known already even so far as to be chosen in him before the foundation of the world. He will seek him, therefore means he will have his own, just as if he had said, whom he already has known to be his own, he will show to others to be his friend. Whence in Latin this word, querit, receives a preposition and becomes acquirit, acquires, the meaning of which is plain enough, although even without the addition of the preposition querere is understood as aquirere, whence gains are called questus. Chapter 7 Again Saul sinned through disobedience, and again Samuel says to him in the word of the Lord, Because thou hast despised the word of the Lord, the Lord hath despised thee, that thou mayest not be king over Israel. And again for the same sin, when Saul confessed it, and prayed for pardon, and besought Samuel to return with him to appease the Lord, he said, I will not return with thee, for thou hast despised the word of the Lord, and the Lord will despise thee, that thou mayest not be king over Israel. And Samuel turned his face to go away, and Saul laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and rent it. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom from Israel out of thine hand this day, and will give it to thy neighbor, who is good above thee, and will divide Israel in twain. And he will not be changed, neither will he repent, for he is not as a man that he should repent, who threatens and does not persist. He to whom it is said, The Lord will despise thee, that thou mayest not be king over Israel, and the Lord hath rent the kingdom from Israel out of thine hand this day, reigned forty years over Israel, that is, just as long a time as David himself, 
yet heard this in the first period of his reign, that we may understand it was said, because none of his race was to reign, and that we may look to the race of David, whence also is sprung, according to the flesh, the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But the scripture has not what is read in most Latin copies, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel out of thine hand this day, but just as we have set it down, it is found in the Greek copies, The Lord hath rent the kingdom from Israel out of thine hand, that the words out of thine hand may be understood to mean from Israel. Therefore this man figuratively represented the people of Israel, which was to lose the kingdom, Christ Jesus our Lord being about to reign, not carnally, but spiritually. And when it is said of him, and will give it to thy neighbor, that is to be referred to the fleshly kinship, for Christ, according to the flesh, was of Israel, whence also soul sprang. But what is added, good above thee, may indeed be understood better than thee, and indeed some have thus translated it. But it is better taken thus, good above thee, as meaning that, because he is good, therefore he must be above thee, according to that other prophetic saying, till I put all thine enemies under thy feet. And among them is Israel, from whom, as his persecutor, Christ took away the kingdom, although the Israel in whom there was no guile may have been there too, a sort of grain, as it were, of that chaff. For certainly thence came the apostles, thence so many martyrs, of whom Stephen is the first, thence so many churches which the apostle Paul names, magnifying God in their conversion. Of which thing I do not doubt what follows is to be understood, and will divide Israel in twain, to wit, into Israel pertaining to the bondwoman, and Israel pertaining to the free. For these two kinds were at first together, as Abraham still clave to the bondwoman, until the barren, made fruitful by the grace of God, cried, Cast out the bondwoman and her son. We know indeed that on account of the sin of Solomon, in the reign of his son Rehoboam, Israel was divided in two, and continued so, the separate parts having their own kings, until that whole nation was overthrown with a great destruction, and carried away by the Chaldeans. But what was this to Saul, when if any such thing was threatened, it would be threatened against David himself, whose son Solomon was? Finally, the Hebrew nation is not now divided internally, but is dispersed through the earth indiscriminately in the fellowship of the same error. But that division with which God threatened the kingdom and people in the person of Saul who represented them is shown to be eternal and unchangeable by this which is added, and he will not be changed, neither will he repent, for he is not as a man that he should repent, who threatens and does not persist. That is, a man threatens and does not persist, but not God, who does not repent like man. For when we read that he repents, a change of circumstance is meant, flowing from the divine immutable foreknowledge. Therefore, when God is said not to repent, it is to be understood that he does not change. We see that this sentence concerning this division of the people of Israel, divinely uttered in these words, has been altogether irremediable and quite perpetual. For whoever have turned, or are turning, or shall turn thence to Christ, it has been according to the foreknowledge of God, not according to the one and the same nature of the human race. Certainly none of the Israelites who, cleaving to Christ, have continued in him, shall ever be among those Israelites who persist in being his enemies even to the end of this life, but shall forever remain in the separation which is here foretold. 
For the Old Testament from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, profiteth nothing, unless because it bears witness to the New Testament. Otherwise, however long Moses is read, the veil is put over their heart. But when any one shall turn thence to Christ, the veil shall be taken away. For the very desire of those who turn is changed from the old to the new, so that each no longer desires to obtain carnal but spiritual felicity. Wherefore that great prophet Samuel himself, before he had anointed Saul, when he had cried to the Lord for Israel, and he had heard him, and when he had offered a whole burnt offering, as the aliens were coming to battle against the people of God, and the Lord thundered above them, and they were confused, and fell before Israel, and were overcome, then he took one stone, and set it up between the old and new Masiphat, Mizpah, and called its name Ebenezer, which means the stone of the helper, and said, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Masiphat is interpreted desire. That stone of the helper is the mediation of the Saviour by which we go from the old Masiphat to the new, that is, from the desire with which carnal happiness was expected in the carnal kingdom to the desire with which the truest spiritual happiness is expected in the kingdom of heaven. And since nothing is better than that, the Lord helpeth us hitherto. Chapter 8 and now I see I must show what pertaining to the matter I treat of God promised to David himself, who succeeded Saul in the kingdom, whose change prefigured that final change on account of which all things were divinely spoken, all things were committed to writing. When many things had gone prosperously with King David, he thought to make a house for God, even that temple of most excellent renown which was afterwards built by King Solomon his son. While he was thinking of this, the word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet, which he brought to the king, in which, after God had said that a house should not be built unto him by David himself, and that in all that long time he had never commanded any of his people to build him a house of cedar, he says, And now thus shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith God Almighty, I took thee from the sheepcote that thou mightest be for a ruler over my people in Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies from before thy face, and have made thee a name according to the name of the great ones who were over the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant him, and he shall dwell apart, and shall be troubled no more. And the son of wickedness shall not humble him any more, as from the beginning, from the days when I appointed judges over my people Israel." and I will give thee rest from all thine enemies, and the Lord will tell, hath told, thee, because thou shalt build an house for him. And it shall come to pass, when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will prepare his kingdom. He shall build me an house for my name, and I will order his throne even to eternity. I will be his father, and he shall be my son." And if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my mercy I will not take away from him, as I took it away from those whom I put away from before my face. And his house shall be faithful, and his kingdom even for evermore before me, and his throne shall be set up even for evermore. He who thinks this grand promise was fulfilled in Solomon greatly errs, for he attends to the saying, He shall build me an house, but he does not attend to the saying, His house shall be faithful, and his kingdom for evermore before me. 
Let him therefore attend and behold the house of Solomon full of strange women worshipping false gods, and the king himself, aforetime wise, seduced by them, and cast down into the same idolatry. And let him not dare to think that God either promised this falsely, or was unable to foreknow that Solomon and his house would become what they did. But we ought not to be in doubt here, or to see the fulfillment of these things, save in Christ our Lord, who was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, lest we should vainly and uselessly look for some other here, like the carnal Jews. For even they understand this much, that the son whom they read of in that place as promised to David was not Solomon, so that with wonderful blindness to him who was promised and is now declared with so great manifestation, they say they hope for another. Indeed, even in Solomon there appeared some image of the future event, in that he built the temple and had peace according to his name, for Solomon means pacific, and in the beginning of his reign was wonderfully praiseworthy. But while, as a shadow of him that should come, he foreshadowed Christ our Lord, he did not also in his own person resemble him. Whence some things concerning him are so written as if they were prophesied of himself, while the Holy Scripture, prophesying even by events, somehow delineates in him the figure of things to come. For besides the books of divine history in which his reign is narrated, the seventy-second psalm also is inscribed in the title with his name, in which so many things are said which cannot at all apply to him, but which apply to the Lord Christ with such evident fitness as makes it quite apparent that in the one the figure is in some way shadowed forth, but in the other the truth itself is presented. For it is known within what bounds the kingdom of Solomon was enclosed, and yet in that psalm, not to speak of other things, we read, He shall have dominion even from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth, which we see fulfilled in Christ. Truly he took the beginning of his reigning from the river where John baptized, for when pointed out by him, he began to be acknowledged by the disciples, who called him not only Master, but also Lord. Nor was it for any other reason that while his father David was still living, Solomon began to reign, which happened to none other of their kings, except that from this also it might be clearly apparent that it was not himself this prophecy spoken to his father signified beforehand, saying, And it shall come to pass, when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will prepare his kingdom." How, therefore, shall it be thought on account of what follows, he shall build me in house, that this Solomon is prophesied, and not rather be understood on account of what proceeds, when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will raise up thy seed after thee, that another pacific one is promised, who is foretold as about to be raised up, not before David's death, as he was, but after it. For however long the interval of time might be before Jesus Christ came, beyond doubt it was after the death of King David, to whom he was so promised that he behooved to come, who should build an house of God, not of wood and stone, but of men, such as we rejoice he does build. For to this house, that is, to believers, the apostle saith, The temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Chapter 9 Wherefore also in the eighty-ninth psalm, of which the title is, An Instruction for Himself by Ethan the Israelite, mention is made of the promises God made to King David, and some things are there added similar to those found in the book of Samuel, such as this, I have sworn to David my servant that I will prepare his seed for ever. 
And again, then thou spakest in vision to thy sons, and saidst, I have laid help upon the mighty one, and have exalted the chosen one out of my people. I have found David my servant, and with my holy oil I have anointed him. For mine hand shall help him, and mine arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not prevail against him, and the son of iniquity shall harm him no more. And I will beat down his foes from before his face, and those that hate him will I put to flight. And my truth and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea, and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the undertaker of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn high among the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him for evermore, and my covenant shall be faithful, sure, with him. His seed also will I set for ever and ever, and his throne is the days of heaven. Which words, when rightly understood, are all understood to be about the Lord Jesus Christ, under the name of David, on account of the form of a servant, which the same mediator assumed from the virgin of the seed of David. For immediately something is said about the sins of his children, such as is set down in the book of Samuel, and is more readily taken as if of Solomon. For there, that is, in the book of Samuel, he says, And if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men, and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my mercy will I not take away from him, meaning by stripes the strokes of correction. Hence that saying, Touch ye not my Christ's. For what else is that, then, do not harm them? But in the psalm, when speaking as if of David, he says something of the same kind there too. If his children, saith he, forsake my law, and walk not in my judgments, if they profane my righteousnesses, and keep not my commandments, I will visit their iniquities with a rod, and their faults with stripes, but my mercy I will not make void from him. He did not say from them, although he spoke of his children, not of himself, but he said from him, which means the same thing, if rightly understood. For if Christ himself, who is the head of the church, there could not be found any sins which required to be divinely restrained by human correction, mercy being still continued, but they are found in his body and members, which is his people. Therefore in the book of Samuel it is said, Iniquity of him, but in the psalm, of his children, that we may understand that what is said of his body is in some way said of himself. Wherefore also, when Saul persecuted his body, that is, his believing people, he himself saith from heaven, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Then in the following words of the psalm he says, Neither will I hurt in my truth, nor profane my covenant, and the things that proceed from my lips I will not disallow. Once have I sworn by my holiness, if I lie unto David, that is, I will in no wise lie unto David, for Scripture is wont to speak thus. But what that is in which he will not lie, he adds, saying, His seed shall endure for ever, and his throne is the sun before me, and is the moon perfected for ever, and a faithful witness in heaven. Chapter 10 that it might not be supposed that a promise so strongly expressed and confirmed was fulfilled in Solomon, as if he hoped for, yet did not find it, he says, But thou hast cast off, and hast brought to nothing, O Lord. This truly was done concerning the kingdom of Solomon among his posterity, even to the overthrow of the earthly Jerusalem itself, which was the seat of the kingdom, and especially the destruction of the very temple which had been built by Solomon. 
but lest on this account God should be thought to have done contrary to his promise, immediately he adds, Thou hast delayed thy Christ. Therefore he is not Solomon, nor yet David himself, if the Christ of the Lord is delayed. For while all the kings are called his Christs, who were consecrated with that mystical chrism, not only from King David downwards, but even from that Saul who first was anointed king of that same people, David himself indeed calling him the Lord's Christ, yet there was one true Christ, whose figure they bore by the prophetic unction, who, according to the opinion of men, who thought he was to be understood as come in David or in Solomon, was long delayed, but who, according as God had disposed, was to come in his own time. The following part of this psalm goes on to say what, in the meantime, while he was delayed, was to become of the kingdom of the earthly Jerusalem, where it was hoped he would certainly reign. Thou hast overthrown the covenant of thy servant, thou hast profaned in the earth his sanctuary, thou hast broken down all his walls, thou hast put his strongholds in fear. All that pass by the way spoil him, he has made a reproach to his neighbors. Thou hast set up the right hand of his enemies, thou hast made all his enemies to rejoice. Thou hast turned aside the help of his sword, and hast not helped him in war. Thou hast destroyed him from cleansing, thou hast dashed down his seat to the ground. Thou hast shortened the days of his seat, thou hast poured confusion over him. All these things came upon Jerusalem the bondwoman, in which some also reigned who were children of the free woman, holding that kingdom in temporary stewardship, but holding the kingdom of the heavenly Jerusalem, whose children they were, in true faith and hoping in the true Christ. But how these things came upon that kingdom, the history of its affairs points out, if it is read. Chapter 11 But after having prophesied these things, the prophet betakes him to praying to God, yet even the very prayer is prophecy. How long, Lord, dost thou turn away in the end? Thy face is understood, as it is elsewhere said, How long dost thou turn away thy face from me? For therefore some copies have here not dust, but wilt thou turn away, although it could be understood, thou turnest away thy mercy which thou didst promise to David. But when he says in the end, what does it mean except even to the end? By which end is to be understood the last time, when even that nation is to believe in Christ Jesus, before which end what he has just sorrowfully bewailed must come to pass. On account of which it is also added here, Thy wrath shall burn like fire. Remember what is my substance. This cannot be better understood than of Jesus himself, the substance of his people, of whose nature his flesh is. For not in vain, he says, hast thou made all the sons of men. For unless the one son of man had been the substance of Israel, through which son of man, many sons of men, should be set free, all the sons of men would have been made holy in vain. But now indeed all mankind through the fall of the first man has fallen from the truth into vanity, for which reason another psalm says, Man is like to vanity, his days pass away as a shadow. Yet God has not made all the sons of men in vain, because he frees many from vanity through the mediator Jesus, and those whom he did not foreknow as to be delivered, he made not wholly in vain in the most beautiful and most just ordination of the whole rational creation, for the use of those who were to be delivered, and for the comparison of the two cities by mutual contrast. Thereafter it follows, Who is the man that shall live and shall not see death? Shall he snatch his soul from the hand of hell? 
Who is this but that substance of Israel out of the seed of David, Christ Jesus, of whom the apostle says, that rising from the dead he now dieth not, and death shall no more have dominion over him? For he shall so live, and not see death, that yet he shall have been dead, but shall have delivered his soul from the hand of hell, whither he had descended in order to loose some from the chains of hell. But he hath delivered it by that power of which he says in the gospel, I have the power of laying down my life, and I have the power of taking it again. Chapter 12 But the rest of this psalm runs thus, where are thine ancient compassions, Lord, which thou swearest unto David in thy truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of thy servants, which I have borne in my bosom of many nations, wherewith thine enemies have reproached, O Lord, wherewith they have reproached the change of thy Christ. Now it may with very good reason be asked whether this is spoken in the person of those Israelites who desire that the promise made to David might be fulfilled to them, or rather of the Christians, who are Israelites not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This certainly was spoken or written in the time of Ethan, from whose name this psalm gets its title, and that was the same as the time of David's reign, and therefore it would not have been said, Where are thine ancient compassions, Lord, which thou hast sworn unto David in thy truth? unless the prophet had assumed the person of those who should come long afterwards, to whom that time when these things were promised to David was ancient. But it may be understood thus, that many nations, when they persecuted the Christians, reproached them with the passion of Christ, which Scripture calls his change, because by dying he is made immortal. The change of Christ, according to this passage, may also be understood to be reproached by the Israelites, because when they hoped he would be theirs, he was made the saviour of the nations. And many nations who have believed in him by the New Testament now reproach them who remain in the old with this, so that it is said, Remember, Lord, the reproach of thy servants, because through the Lord's not forgetting, but rather pitying them, even they, after this reproach, are to believe. But what I have put first seemed to me the most suitable meaning. For to the enemies of Christ, who are reproached with this, that Christ hath left them, turning to the Gentiles, this speech is incongruously assigned, Remember, Lord, the reproach of thy servants, for such Jews are not to be styled the servants of God. But these words fit those who, if they suffered great humiliations through persecution for the name of Christ, could call to mind that an exalted kingdom had been promised to the seed of David, and in desire of it could say, not despairingly, but as asking, seeking, knocking, Where are thine ancient compassions, Lord, which thou swearest unto David in thy truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of thy servants that I have borne in my bosom of many nations, that is, have patiently endured in my inward parts. That thine enemies have reproached, O Lord, wherewith they have reproached the change of thy Christ, not thinking it a change, but a consumption. For what does remember, Lord, mean, but that thou wouldst have compassion, and wouldst for my patiently born humiliation reward me with the excellency which thou swearest unto David in thy truth? But if we assign these words to the Jews, those servants of God who, on the conquest of the earthly Jerusalem, before Jesus Christ was born after the manner of men, were led into captivity, could say such things, understanding the change of Christ, because indeed through him was to be surely expected not an earthly and carnal felicity, such as appeared during the few years of King Solomon, but a heavenly and spiritual felicity. 
and when the nations, then ignorant of this through unbelief, exulted over and insulted the people of God for being captives, what else was this than ignorantly to reproach with the change of Christ those who understand the change of Christ? And therefore what follows when this psalm is concluded, Let the blessing of the Lord be for evermore, Amen, Amen, is suitable enough for the whole people of God belonging to the heavenly Jerusalem, whether for those things that lay hid in the Old Testament before the New was revealed, or for those that being now revealed in the New Testament are manifestly discerned to belong to Christ. For the blessing of the Lord in the seed of David does not belong to any particular time, such as appeared in the days of Solomon, but is forevermore to be hoped for, in which most certain hope it is said, Amen, Amen. For this repetition of the word is the confirmation of that hope. Therefore David, understanding this, says in the second book of Kings, in the passage from which we digress to this psalm, Thou hast spoken also for thy servant's house for a great while to come. Therefore also a little after he says, Now begin and bless the house of thy servant for evermore, etc., because the son was then about to be born from whom his posterity should be continued to Christ, through whom his house should be eternal, and should also be the house of God. For it is called the house of David on account of David's race, but the selfsame is called the house of God on account of the temple of God, made of men, not of stones, where shall dwell for evermore the people with and in their God, and God with and in his people, so that God may fill his people, and the people be filled with their God, while God shall be all in all, himself their reward in peace, who is their strength in war. Therefore, when it is said in the words of Nathan, And the Lord will tell thee what an house thou shalt build for him, it is afterwards said in the words of David, For thou, Lord Almighty, God of Israel, hast opened the ear of thy servant, saying, I will build thee an house. For this house is built both by us through living well, and by God through helping us to live well. For except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And when the final dedication of this house shall take place, then what God here says by Nathan shall be fulfilled. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant him, and he shall dwell apart, and shall be troubled no more. And the son of iniquity shall not humble him any more, as from the beginning, from the days when I appointed judges over my people Israel. Chapter 13 Whoever hopes for this so great good in this world and in this earth, his wisdom is but folly. Can any one think it was fulfilled in the peace of Solomon's reign? Scripture certainly commends that peace with excellent praise as a shadow of that which is to come. But this opinion is to be vigilantly opposed, since after it is said, And the son of iniquity shall not humble him any more, it is immediately added, as from the beginning, from the days in which I appointed judges over my people Israel. For the judges were appointed over that people from the time when they received the land of promise before kings had begun to be there. And certainly the son of iniquity, that is, the foreign enemy, humbled him through periods of time in which we read that peace alternated with wars. And in that period longer times of peace are found than Solomon had, who reigned forty years. For under that judge who was called Ehud there were eighty years of peace. Be it far from us, therefore, that we should believe the times of Solomon are predicted in this promise, much less indeed those of any other king whatever. 
for none other of them reigned in such great peace as he, nor did that nation ever at all hold that kingdom so as to have no anxiety, lest it should be subdued by enemies. For in the very great mutability of human affairs such great security is never given to any people, that it should not dread invasions hostile to this life. Therefore the place of this promised peaceful and secure habitation is eternal, and of right belongs eternally to Jerusalem the free mother, where the genuine people of Israel shall be. For this name is interpreted seeing God, in the desire of which reward a pious life is to be led through faith in this miserable pilgrimage. Chapter 14 In the progress of the city of God through the ages, therefore, David first reigned in the earthly Jerusalem as a shadow of that which was to come. Now David was a man skilled in songs, who dearly loved musical harmony, not with a vulgar delight, but with a believing disposition, and by it served his God, who is the true God, by the mystical representation of a great thing. For the rational and well-ordered concord of diverse sounds and harmonious variety suggests the compact unity of the well-ordered city. Then almost all his prophecy is in psalms, of which a hundred and fifty are contained in what we call the book of psalms, of which some will have it, those only were made by David, which are inscribed with his name. But there are also some who think none of them were made by him, except those which are marked of David. But those which have in the title for David have been made by others who assumed his person." which opinion is refuted by the voice of the Saviour himself in the Gospel, when he says that David himself by the Spirit said Christ was his Lord. For the 110th Psalm begins thus, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And truly that very Psalm, like many more, has in the title not of David, but for David. But those seem to me to hold the more credible opinion who ascribe to him the authorship of all these hundred and fifty psalms, and think that he prefixed to some of them the names even of other men, who prefigured something pertinent to the matter, but chose to have no man's name in the titles of the rest, just as God inspired him in the management of this variety, which, although dark, is not meaningless. Neither ought it to move one not to believe this, that the names of some prophets who lived long after the times of King David are read in the inscriptions of certain psalms in that book, and that the things said there seemed to be spoken, as it were, by them. Nor was the prophetic spirit unable to reveal to King David, when he prophesied, even these names of future prophets, so that he might prophetically sing something which should suit their persons, just as it was revealed to a certain prophet that King Josiah should arise and reign after more than three hundred years, who predicted his future deeds also, along with his name. Chapter 15 and now, I see, it may be expected of me that I shall open up in this part of this book what David may have prophesied in the Psalms concerning the Lord Jesus Christ or his church. But although I have already done so in one instance, I am prevented from doing, as that expectation seems to demand, rather by the abundance than the scarcity of matter. For the necessity of shunning prolixity forbids my setting down all things, Yet I fear, lest if I select some, I shall appear to many who know these things to have passed by the more necessary. 
Besides, the proof that is adduced ought to be supported by the context of the whole psalm, so that at least there may be nothing against it if everything does not support it, lest we should seem, after the fashion of the centos, to gather for the thing we wish, as it were, verses out of a grand poem, what shall be found to have been written not about it, but about some other and widely different thing. But ere this could be pointed out in each psalm, the whole of it must be expounded, and how great a work that would be, the volumes of others, as well as our own, in which we have done it, show well enough. Let him then who will or can read these volumes, and he will find out how many and great things David, at once king and prophet, has prophesied concerning Christ and his church, to wit, concerning the king and the city which he has built. Chapter 16 for whatever direct and manifest prophetic utterances there may be about anything, it is necessary that those which are tropical should be mingled with them, which chiefly on account of those of slower understanding thrust upon the more learned the laborious task of clearing up and expounding them. Some of them indeed on the very first blush, as soon as they are spoken, exhibit Christ in the church, although some things in them that are less intelligible remain to be expounded at leisure. We have an example of this in that same book of Psalms. My heart bubbled up a good matter. I utter my words to the king. My tongue is the pen of a scribe writing swiftly. Thy form is beautiful beyond the sons of men. Grace is poured out in thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee for evermore. Gird thy sword about thy thigh, O most mighty. With thy goodliness and thy beauty go forward, proceed prosperously, and reign because of thy truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall lead thee forth wonderfully. Thy sharp arrows are most powerful in the heart of the king's enemies. The people shall fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever, a rod of direction is the rod of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hast hated iniquity, therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of exultation above thy fellows. Myrrh and drops and cassia from thy vestments from the houses of ivory, out of which the daughters of kings have delighted thee in thine honor. Who is there, no matter how slow, but must here recognize Christ, whom we preach, and in whom we believe, if he hears that he is God, whose throne is for ever and ever, and that he is anointed by God, as God indeed anoints, not with a visible, but with a spiritual and intelligible chrism? For who is so untaught in this religion, or so deaf to its far and widespread fame, as not to know that Christ is named from this chrism, that is, from this anointing? But when it is acknowledged that this king is Christ, let each one who is already subject to him who reigns because of truth, meekness, and righteousness, inquire at his leisure into these other things that are here said tropically, how his form is beautiful beyond the sons of men, with a certain beauty that is the more to be loved and admired the less it is corporeal, and what his sword, arrows, and other things of that kind may be, which are set down, not properly, but tropically. Then let him look upon his church, joined to her so great husband in spiritual marriage and divine love, of which it is said in these words which follow, The queen stood upon thy right hand in gold-embroidered vestments, girded about with variety. Hearken, O daughter, and look, and incline thine ear. Forget also thy people and thy father's house, because the king hath greatly desired thy beauty, for he is the Lord thy God. And the daughters of Tyre shall worship him with gifts. The rich among the people shall entreat thy face. 
The daughter of the king has all her glory within, in golden fringes, girded about with variety. The virgins shall be brought after her to the king, her neighbors shall be brought to thee. They shall be brought with gladness and exultation, they shall be led into the temple of the king. Instead of thy fathers, sons shall be born to thee, thou shalt establish them as princes over all the earth. They shall be mindful of thy name in every generation and descent. Therefore shall the people acknowledge thee for evermore, even for ever and ever. I do not think any one is so stupid as to believe that some poor woman is here praised and described as the spouse to wit of him to whom it is said, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever, a rod of direction is the rod of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of exultation above thy fellows, that is, plainly, Christ above Christians. For these are his fellows, out of the unity and concord of whom in all nations that queen is formed, as it is said of her in another psalm, the city of the great king. The same is Zion spiritually, which name in Latin is interpreted speculatio, discovery, for she descries the great good of the world to come, because her attention is directed thither. In the same way she is also Jerusalem spiritually, of which we have already said many things. Her enemy is the city of the devil, Babylon, which is interpreted confusion. Yet out of this Babylon this queen is in all nations set free by regeneration, and passes from the worst to the best king, that is, from the devil to Christ. Wherefore it is said to her, Forget thy people and thy father's house. Of this impious city those also are a portion who are Israelites only in the flesh and not by faith, enemies also of this great king himself and of his queen. For Christ, having come to them and been slain by them, has the more become the king of others whom he did not see in the flesh. Whence our king himself says through the prophecy of a certain psalm, Thou wilt deliver me from the contradictions of the people, thou wilt make me head of the nations. A people whom I have not known hath served me, in the hearing of the ear it hath obeyed me. Therefore this people of the nations, which Christ did not know in his bodily presence, yet has believed in that Christ as announced to it, so that it might be said of it with good reason, In the hearing of the ear it hath obeyed me, for faith is by hearing. This people, I say, added to those who were the true Israelites, both by the flesh and by faith, is the city of God, which has brought forth Christ himself according to the flesh, since he was in these Israelites only. For thence came the Virgin Mary, in whom Christ assumed flesh, that he might be man. Of which city another psalm says, Mother Zion shall a man say, and the man is made in her, and the highest himself hath founded her. Who is this highest save God? And thus Christ, who is God, before he became man through Mary in that city, himself founded it by the patriarchs and prophets. As therefore was said by prophecy so long before to this queen, the city of God, what we already can see fulfilled, instead of thy fathers, sons are born to thee, thou shalt make them princes over all the earth. So out of her sons truly are set up even her fathers, princes, through all the earth, when the people, coming together to her, confess to her with the confession of eternal praise for ever and ever. Beyond doubt, whatever interpretation is put on what is here expressed somewhat darkly in figurative language ought to be in agreement with these most manifest things. Chapter 17 
Just as in that psalm also where Christ is most openly proclaimed as priest, even as he is here as king, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That Christ sits on the right hand of God the Father is believed, not seen. That his enemies also are put under his feet doth not yet appear. It is being done, therefore it will appear at last. Yea, this is now believed, afterward it shall be seen. But what follows, the Lord will send forth the rod of thy strength out of Zion, and rule thou in the midst of thine enemies, is so clear that to deny it would imply not merely unbelief and mistake, but downright impudence. And even enemies must certainly confess that out of Zion has been sent the law of Christ, which we call the gospel, and acknowledge as the rod of his strength but that he rules in the midst of his enemies, these same enemies among whom he rules themselves bear witness, gnashing their teeth and consuming away, and having power to do nothing against him. Then what he says a little after, The Lord hath sworn, and will not repent, by which words he intimates that what he adds is immutable, Thou art a priest for ever after the order of Melchizedek, who is permitted to doubt of whom these things are said, seeing that now there is nowhere a priesthood and sacrifice after the order of Aaron, and everywhere men offer under Christ as the priest, which Melchizedek showed when he blessed Abraham? Therefore to these manifest things are to be referred, when rightly understood, those things in the same psalm that are set down a little more obscurely, and we have already made known in our popular sermons how these things are to be rightly understood so also in that where Christ utters through prophecy the humiliation of his passion, saying, They pierced my hands and feet, they counted all my bones, yea, they looked and stared at me. By which words he certainly met his body stretched out on the cross, with the hands and feet pierced and perforated by the striking through of the nails, and that he had in that way made himself a spectacle to those who looked and stared. And he adds, They parted my garments among them, and over my vesture they cast lots. How this prophecy has been fulfilled, the gospel history narrates. Then indeed the other things also which are said there less openly are rightly understood when they agree with those which shine with so great clearness, especially because those things also which we do not believe as past, but survey as present, are beheld by the whole world, being now exhibited just as they are read of in this very psalm as predicted so long before. For it is there said a little after, All the ends of the earth shall remember, and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before him, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he shall rule the nations." Chapter 18. About his resurrection also the oracles of the Psalms are by no means silent. For what else is it that is sung in his person in the third Psalm, I laid me down and took a sleep, and I awaked, for the Lord shall sustain me? Is there perchance anyone so stupid as to believe that the prophet chose to point it out to us as something great that he had slept and risen up, unless that sleep had been death, and that awaking the resurrection, which behooved to be thus prophesied concerning Christ. For in the forty-first psalm also it is shown much more clearly, where in the person of the mediator, in the usual way, things are narrated as if past which were prophesied as yet to come, 
since these things which were yet to come were in the predestination and foreknowledge of God, as if they were done, because they were certain. He says, Mine enemies speak evil of me. When shall he die, and his name perish? And if he came in to see me, his heart spake vain things. He gathered iniquity to himself. He went out of doors, and uttered it all at once. Against me all mine enemies whisper together. Against me do they devise evil. They have planned an unjust thing against me. Shall not he that sleeps also rise again? These words are certainly so set down here that he may be understood to say nothing else than if he said, Shall not he that died recover life again? The previous words clearly show that his enemies have meditated and planned his death, and that this was executed by him who came in to see and went out to betray. But to whom does not Judas here occur, who, from being his disciple, became his betrayer? Therefore, because they were about to do what they had plotted, that is, were about to kill him, he, to show them that with useless malice they were about to kill him who should rise again, so adds this verse, as if he said, What vain thing are you doing? What will be your crime will be my sleep. Shall not he that sleeps also rise again? And yet he indicates in the following verses that they should not commit so great an impiety with impunity, saying, Yea, the man of my peace, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, hath enlarged the heel over me, that is, hath trampled me under foot. But thou, he saith, O Lord, be merciful unto me, and raise me up, that I may requite them. Who can now deny this, who sees the Jews, after the passion and resurrection of Christ, utterly rooted up from their abodes by warlike slaughter and destruction? For, being slain by them, he has risen again, and has requited them meanwhile by temporary discipline, save that for those who are not corrected he keeps it in store for the time when he shall judge the quick and the dead. For the Lord Jesus himself, in pointing out that very man to the apostles as his betrayer, quoted this very verse of this psalm, and said it was fulfilled in himself, He that ate my bread enlarged the heel over me. But what he says, in whom I trusted, does not suit the head, but the body. For the Saviour himself was not ignorant of him concerning whom he had already said before, One of you is a devil. But he is wont to assume the person of his members, and to ascribe to himself what should be said of them, because the head and the body is one Christ. Whence that saying in the Gospel, I was hungered, and you gave me to eat. Expounding which, he says, since ye did it to one of the least of mine, ye did it to me. Therefore he said that he had trusted, because his disciples then had trusted concerning Judas, for he was numbered with the apostles. But the Jews do not expect that the Christ whom they expect will die. Therefore they do not think ours to be him whom the law and the prophets announced, but feign to themselves I know not whom of their own, exempt from the suffering of death. Therefore, with wonderful emptiness and blindness, they contend that the words we have set down signify not death and resurrection, but sleep and awaking again. But the sixteenth psalm also cries to them, Therefore my heart is jocund, and my tongue hath exalted. Moreover, my flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou give thine holy one to see corruption." Who but he that rose again the third day could say his flesh had rested in this hope, 
that his soul, not being left in hell, but speedily returning to it, should revive it, that it should not be corrupted, as corpses are wont to be, which they can in no wise say of David the prophet and king. The sixty-eighth psalm also cries out, Our God is the God of salvation, even of the Lord, the exit was by death. What could be more openly said? For the God of salvation is the Lord Jesus, which is interpreted Savior or Healing One. For this reason this name was given when it was said before he was born of the Virgin, Thou shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Because his blood was shed for the remission of their sins, it behooved him to have no other exit from this life than death. Therefore, when it had been said, Our God is the God of salvation, immediately it was added, Even of the Lord the exit was by death, in order to show that we were to be saved by his dying. But that saying is marvelous, even of the Lord, as if it was said, Such is that life of mortals, that not even the Lord himself could go out of it otherwise, save through death. Chapter 19 but when the Jews will not in the least yield to the testimonies of this prophecy, which are so manifest, and are also brought by events to so clear and certain a completion, certainly that is fulfilled in them which is written in that psalm which here follows. For when the things which pertain to his passion are prophetically spoken there also in the person of Christ, that is mentioned which is unfolded in the gospel. They gave me gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar for drink. And as it were, after such a feast and dainties in this way given to himself, presently he brings in these words, Let their table become a trap before them, and a retribution, and an offense. Let their eyes be dimmed that they see not, and their back be always bowed down, etc., which things are not spoken as wished for, but are predicted under the prophetic form of wishing. What wonder, then, if those whose eyes are dimmed that they see not do not see these manifest things? What wonder if those do not look up at heavenly things whose back is always bowed down, that they may grovel among earthly things? For these words transferred from the body signify mental faults. Let these things which have been said about the Psalms, that is, about King David's prophecy, suffice, that we may keep within some bound. But let those readers excuse us who knew them all before, and let them not complain about those perhaps stronger proofs which they know or think I have passed by. Chapter 20 David therefore reigned in the earthly Jerusalem, a son of the heavenly Jerusalem, much praised by the divine testimony. For even his faults are overcome by great piety through the most salutary humility of his repentance, that he is altogether one of those whom he himself says, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. After him Solomon his son reigned over the same whole people, who, as was said before, began to reign while his father was still alive. This man, after good beginnings, made a bad end. For indeed prosperity, which wears out the minds of the wise, hurt him more than that wisdom profited him, which even yet is and shall hereafter be renowned, and was then praised far and wide. He also is found to have prophesied in his books, of which three are received as of canonical authority, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. 
but it has been customary to ascribe to Solomon other two, of which one is called Wisdom, the other Ecclesiasticus, on account of some resemblance of style. But the more learned have no doubt that they are not his. Yet of old the Church, especially the Western, received them into authority. In the one of which, called the Wisdom of Solomon, the Passion of Christ is most openly prophesied. For indeed his impious murderers are quoted as saying, let us lie in wait for the righteous, for he is unpleasant to us, and contrary to our works. And he upbraideth us with our transgressions of the law, and objecteth to our disgrace the transgressions of our education. He professeth to have the knowledge of God, and he calleth himself the Son of God. He was made to reprove our thoughts. He is grievous for us even to behold, for his life is unlike other men's, and his ways are different. We are esteemed of him as counterfeits, and he abstaineth from our ways as from filthiness. He extols the latter end of the righteous, and glorieth that he hath God for his father. Let us see, therefore, if his words be true, and let us try what shall happen to him, and we shall know what shall be the end of him. For if the righteous be the Son of God, he will undertake for him, and deliver him out of the hand of those that are against him. Let us put him to the question with contumely and torture, that we may know his reverence and prove his patience. Let us condemn him to the most shameful death, for by his own sayings he shall be respected. These things did they imagine, and were mistaken, for their own malice hath quite blinded them. But in Ecclesiasticus the future faith of the nations is predicted in this manner. Have mercy upon us, O God, ruler of all, and send thy fear upon all the nations. Lift up thine hand over the strange nations, and let them see thy power. As thou wast sanctified in us before them, so be thou sanctified in them before us, and let them acknowledge thee according as we also have acknowledged thee. For there is not a God beside thee, O Lord." We see this prophecy in the form of a wish and prayer fulfilled through Jesus Christ. But the things which are not written in the canon of the Jews cannot be quoted against their contradictions with so great validity. But as regards those three books which it is evident are Solomon's and held canonical by the Jews, to show what of this kind may be found in them pertaining to Christ and the Church demands a laborious discussion which, if now entered on, would lengthen this work unduly. Yet what we read in the Proverbs of impious men, saying, Let us unrighteously hide in the earth the righteous man, yea, let us swallow him up alive as hell, and let us take away his memory from the earth, let us seize his precious possession, is not so obscure that it may not be understood without laborious exposition of Christ and his possession, the Church. Indeed, the gospel parable about the wicked husbandman shows that our Lord Jesus himself said something like it, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. In like manner also that passage in this same book on which we have already touched when we were speaking of the barren woman who hath borne seven, must soon after it was uttered have come to be understood of only Christ and the church by those who knew that Christ was the wisdom of God. Wisdom hath builded her an house, and hath set up seven pillars. She hath sacrificed her victims, she hath mingled her wine in the bowl, she hath also furnished her table. She hath sent her servants summoning to the bowl with excellent proclamation, saying, Who is simple, let him turn aside to me. And to the void of sense she hath said, 
Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine which I have mingled for you. Here certainly we perceive that the wisdom of God, that is, the word co-eternal with the Father, hath builded him in house, even a human body in the virgin womb, and hath subjoined the church to it as members to a head, hath slain the martyrs as victims, hath furnished a table with wine and bread, where appears also the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, and hath called the simple and the void of sense, because, as saith the apostle, he hath chosen the weak things of this world, that he might confound the things which are mighty. Yet to these weak ones she saith what follows, Forsake simplicity, that ye may live, and seek prudence, that ye may have life. But to be made partakers of this table is itself to begin to have life. For when he says in another book, which is called Ecclesiastes, There is no good for a man except that he should eat and drink, what can he be more credibly understood to say than what belongs to the participation of this table which the mediator of the New Testament himself, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, furnishes with his own body and blood? For that sacrifice has succeeded all the sacrifices of the Old Testament which were slain as a shadow of that which was to come. Wherefore also we recognize the voice in the fortieth psalm as that of the same mediator speaking through prophecy. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, but a body hast thou perfected for me. Because instead of all these sacrifices and oblations his body is offered, and is served up to the partakers of it. For that this Ecclesiastes, in that sentence about eating and drinking, which he often repeats, and very much commends, does not savor the dainties of carnal pleasures, is made plain enough when he says, It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. And a little after he says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, and the heart of the simple in the house of feasting. But I think that more worthy of quotation from this book which relates to both cities, the one of the devil, the other of Christ, and to their kings, the devil and Christ. Woe to thee, O land, he says, when thy king is a youth, and thy princes eat in the morning. Blessed art thou, O land, when thy king is the son of nobles, and thy princes eat in season, in fortitude, and not in confusion. He has called the devil a youth because of the folly and pride and rashness and unruliness and other vices which are wont to abound at that age. But Christ is the son of nobles, that is, of the holy patriarchs, of those belonging to the free city, of whom he was begotten in the flesh. The princes of that and other cities are eaters in the morning, that is, before the suitable hour, because they do not expect the seasonable felicity, which is the true in the world to come, desiring to be speedily made happy with the renown of this world. But the princes of the city of Christ patiently wait for the time of a blessedness that is not fallacious. This is expressed by the words, in fortitude and not in confusion, because hope does not deceive them, of which the apostle says, But hope maketh not ashamed. A psalm also saith, For they that hope in thee shall not be put to shame. But now the song of songs is a certain spiritual pleasure of holy minds in the marriage of that king and queen city, that is, Christ and the church. But this pleasure is wrapped up in allegorical veils, that the bridegroom may be more ardently desired, and more joyfully unveiled, and may appear. To whom it is said in this same song, Equity hath delighted thee, 
and the bride who there hears, charity is in thy delights. We pass over many things in silence in our desire to finish this work. Chapter 21 The other kings of the Hebrews after Solomon are scarcely found to have prophesied, through certain enigmatic words or actions of theirs, what may pertain to Christ and the Church, either in Judah or Israel, for so were the parts of that people styled, when, on account of Solomon's offense, from the time of Rehoboam his son, who succeeded him in the kingdom, it was divided by God as a punishment. The ten tribes, indeed, which Jeroboam the servant of Solomon received, being appointed the king in Samaria, were distinctively called Israel, although this had been the name of that whole people. But the two tribes, namely of Judah and Benjamin, which for David's sake, lest the kingdom should be wholly wrenched from his race, remained subject to the city of Jerusalem, were called Judah, because that was the tribe whence David sprang. But Benjamin, the other tribe, which, as was said, belonged to the same kingdom, was that whence Saul sprang before David. But these two tribes together, as was said, were called Judah, and were distinguished by this name from Israel, which was the distinctive title of the ten tribes under their own king. For the tribe of Levi, because it was the priestly one, bound to the servitude of God, not of the kings, was reckoned the thirteenth. For Joseph, one of the twelve sons of Israel, did not, like the others, form one tribe, but two, Ephraim and Manasseh. Yet the tribe of Levi also belonged more to the kingdom of Jerusalem, where was the temple of God whom it served. On the division of the people, therefore, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, reigned in Jerusalem as the first king of Judah, and Jeroboam, servant of Solomon, in Samaria as king of Israel. And when Rehoboam wished as a tyrant to pursue that separated part with war, the people were prohibited from fighting with their brethren by God, who told them through a prophet that he had done this, once it appeared that in this matter there had been no sin either of the king or people of Israel, but the accomplished will of God the Avenger. When this was known, both parts settled down peaceably, for the division made was not religious, but political. Chapter 22 but Jeroboam, king of Israel, with perverse mind, not believing in God, whom he had proved true in promising and giving him the kingdom, was afraid, lest by coming to the temple of God which was in Jerusalem, where, according to the divine law, that whole nation was to come in order to sacrifice, the people should be seduced from him and return to David's line as the seed royal, and set up idolatry in his kingdom, and with horrible impiety beguiled the people, ensnaring them to the worship of idols with himself. Yet God did not altogether cease to reprove by the prophets not only that king, but also his successors and imitators in his impiety, and the people too. For there the great and illustrious prophet Elijah and Elisha, his disciple, arose, who also did many wonderful works. Even there, when Elijah said, O Lord, they have slain thy prophets, they have digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life, it was answered that seven thousand men were there who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Chapter 23 so also in the kingdom of Judah pertaining to Jerusalem, prophets were not lacking even in the times of succeeding kings, just as it pleased God to send them, either for the prediction of what was needful, or for correction of sin and instruction in righteousness. 
For there too, although far less than in Israel, kings arose who grievously offended God by their impieties, and, along with their people, who were like them, were smitten with moderate scourges. The no small merits of the pious kings there are praised indeed. But we read that in Israel the kings were, some more, others less, yet all, wicked. Each part, therefore, as the divine providence either ordered or permitted, was both lifted up by prosperity and weighed down by adversity of various kinds, and it was afflicted not only by foreign, but also by civil wars with each other, in order that by certain existing causes the mercy or anger of God might be manifested, until, by his growing indignation, that whole nation was by the conquering Chaldeans not only overthrown in its abode, but also, for the most part, transported to the lands of the Assyrians, first that part of the thirteen tribes called Israel, but afterwards Judah also, when Jerusalem and that most noble temple was cast down, in which lands it rested seventy years in captivity. Being after that time sent forth thence, they rebuilt the overthrown temple. And although very many stayed in the lands of the strangers, yet the kingdom no longer had two separate parts, with different kings over each, but in Jerusalem there was one prince over them, and at certain times, from every direction, wherever they were, and from whatever place they could, they all came to the temple of God which was there. Yet not even then were they without foreign enemies and conquerors, Yea, Christ found them tributaries of the Romans. Chapter 24 But in that whole time after they returned from Babylon, after Malachi, Haggai, and Zechariah, who then prophesied, and Ezra, they had no prophets down to the time of the Saviour's advent, except another Zechariah, the father of John, and Elizabeth his wife, when the nativity of Christ was already close at hand. And when he was already born, Simeon the aged, and Anna a widow, and now very old, and last of all John himself, who, being a young man, did not predict that Christ, now a young man, was to come, but by prophetic knowledge pointed him out, although unknown. For which reason the Lord himself says, The law and the prophets were until John. But the prophesying of these five is made known to us in the Gospel, where the virgin mother of our Lord herself is also found to have prophesied before John. But this prophecy of theirs the wicked Jews do not receive, but those innumerable persons received it who from them believed the gospel. For then truly Israel was divided in two by that division which was foretold by Samuel the prophet to King Saul as immutable. But even the reprobate Jews hold Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra as the last received into canonical authority. For there are also writings of these, as of others, who, being but a very few in the great multitude of prophets, have written those books which have obtained canonical authority, of whose predictions it seems good to me to put in this work some which pertain to Christ and his church, and this, by the Lord's help, shall be done more conveniently in the following book, that we may not further burden this one, which is already too long. Book 18 Chapter 1 I promise to write of the rise, progress, and appointed end of the two cities, one of which is God's, the other this world's, in which, so far as mankind is concerned, the former is now a stranger. 
But first of all I undertook, so far as his grace should enable me, to refute the enemies of the city of God, who prefer their gods to Christ its founder, and fiercely hate Christians with the most deadly malice. And this I have done in the first ten books. Then, as regards my threefold promise which I have just mentioned, I have treated distinctly in the four books which follow the tenth of the rise of both cities. After that I have proceeded from the first man down to the flood in one book, which is the fifteenth of this work, and from that again down to Abraham our work has followed both in chronological order. From the patriarch Abraham down to the time of the Israelite kings, at which we close our sixteenth book, and thence down to the advent of Christ himself in the flesh, to which period the seventeenth book reaches, the city of God appears from my way of writing to have run its course alone, whereas it did not run its course alone in this age, for both cities, in their course amid mankind, certainly experienced checkered times together just as from the beginning. But I did this in order that first of all, from the time when the promises of God began to be more clear, down to the virgin birth of him in whom those things promised from the first were to be fulfilled, the course of that city which is God's might be made more distinctly apparent, without interpolation of foreign matter from the history of the other city, although down to the revelation of the new covenant it ran its course not in light but in shadow. Now, therefore, I think fit to do what I passed by, and show, so far as seems necessary, how that other city ran its course from the times of Abraham, so that attentive readers may compare the two. CHAPTER Two. The society of mortals spread abroad through the earth everywhere, and in the most diverse places, although bound together by a certain fellowship of our common nature, is yet for the most part divided against itself, and the strongest oppress the others, because all follow after their own interests and lusts, while what is longed for either suffices for none, or not for all, because it is not the very thing. For the vanquished succumb to the victorious, preferring any sort of peace and safety to freedom itself, so that they who chose to die rather than be slaves have been greatly wondered at. For in almost all nations the very voice of nature somehow proclaims that those who happen to be the conquered should choose rather to be subject to their conquerors than to be killed by all kinds of warlike destruction. This does not take place without the providence of God, in whose power it lies that any one either subdues or is subdued in war, that some are endowed with kingdoms, others made subject to kings. Now among the very many kingdoms of the earth into which, by earthly interest or lust, society is divided, which we call by the general name of the city of this world, we see that two, settled and kept distinct from each other both in time and place, have grown far more famous than the rest, first that of the Assyrians, then that of the Romans. First came the one, then the other. The former arose in the east, and immediately on its close the latter in the west. I may speak of other kingdoms and other kings as appendages of these. Ninus, then, who succeeded his father Belus, the first king of Assyria, was already the second king of that kingdom when Abraham was born in the land of the Chaldees. There was also at that time a very small kingdom of Sicyon, with which, as from an ancient date, that most universally learned man Marcus Varro begins in writing of the Roman race. 
For from these kings of Sicyon he passes to the Athenians, from them to the Latins, and from these to the Romans. Yet very little is related about these kingdoms before the foundation of Rome in comparison with that of Assyria. For although even Sallust, the Roman historian, admits that the Athenians were very famous in Greece, yet he thinks they were greater in fame than in fact. For in speaking of them, he says, The deeds of the Athenians, as I think, were very great and magnificent, but yet somewhat less than reported by fame. But because writers of great genius arose among them, the deeds of the Athenians were celebrated throughout the world as very great. Thus the virtue of those who did them was held to be as great as men of transcendent genius could represent it to be by the power of laudatory words. This city also derived no small glory from literature and philosophy, the study of which chiefly flourished there. But as regards empire, none in the earliest times was greater than the Assyrian, or so widely extended. For when Ninus, the son of Belus, was king, he is reported to have subdued the whole of Asia, even to the boundaries of Libya, which as to number is called the third part, but as to size is found to be the half of the whole world. The Indians in the eastern regions were the only people over whom he did not reign. But after his death, Semiramis, his wife, made war on them. Thus it came to pass that all the people and kings in those countries were subject to the kingdom and authority of the Assyrians, and did whatever they were commanded. Now Abraham was born in that kingdom among the Chaldees in the time of Ninus. But since Grecian affairs are much better known to us than Assyrian, and those who have diligently investigated the antiquity of the Roman nation's origin have followed the order of time through the Greeks to the Latins, and from them to the Romans, who themselves are Latins, we ought on this account, where it is needful, to mention the Assyrian kings, that it may appear how Babylon, like a first Rome, ran its course along with the city of God, which is a stranger in this world. But the things proper for insertion in this work in comparing the two cities, that is, the earthly and heavenly, ought to be taken mostly from the Greek and Latin kingdoms, where Rome herself is like a second Babylon. At Abraham's birth, then, the second kings of Assyria and Sicyon, respectively, were Ninus and Europe's, the first having been Belus and Ajalius. But when God promised Abraham on his departure from Babylonia that he should become a great nation, and that in his seed all nations of the earth should be blessed, the Assyrians had their seventh king, the Sicyons their fifth. For the son of Ninus reigned among them after his mother Semiramis, who is said to have been put to death by him for attempting to defile him by incestuously lying with him. Some think that she founded Babylon, and indeed she may have founded it anew. But we have told in the sixteenth book when or by whom it was founded. Now the son of Ninus and Semiramis, who succeeded his mother in the kingdom, is also called Ninus by some, but by others Nineus, a patronymic word. Telexian then held the kingdom of the Sicyons. In his reign times were quiet and joyful to such a degree that after his death they worshipped him as a god by offering sacrifices and by celebrating games, which are said to have been first instituted on this occasion. Chapter 3 in his times also, by the promise of God, Isaac, the son of Abraham, was born to his father when he was a hundred years old, of Sarah his wife, 
who, being barren and old, had already lost hope of issue. Aurelius was then the fifth king of the Assyrians. To Isaac himself, in his sixtieth year, were born twin sons, Esau and Jacob, whom Rebekah his wife bore to him, their grandfather Abraham, who died on completing a hundred and seventy years, being still alive, and reckoning his hundred and sixtieth year. At that time there reigned as the seventh kings, among the Assyrians, that more ancient Xerxes, who was also called Belaeus, and among the Sicyons, Thuriacus, or, as some write his name, Therimachus. The kingdom of Argus, in which Inachus first reigned, arose in the time of Abraham's grandchildren. And I must not omit what Varro relates, that the Sicyons were also wont to sacrifice at the tomb of their seventh king, Thuriacus. In the reign of Armamitres in Assyria, and Leucippus and Sicyon as the eighth kings, and of Inachus as the first in Argus, God spoke to Isaac, and promised the same two things to him as to his father, namely the land of Canaan to his seed, and the blessing of all nations in his seed. These same things were promised to his son, Abraham's grandson, who was at first called Jacob, afterwards Israel, when Belicus was the ninth king of Assyria, and Phoranaeus, the son of Inachus, reigned as the second king of Argus, Leucippus still continuing king of Sicyon. In those times, under the Argive king Phoranaeus, Greece was made more famous by the institution of certain laws and judges. On the death of Phoranaeus, his younger brother Phagoas built a temple at his tomb, in which he was worshipped as God, and oxen were sacrificed to him. I believe they thought him worthy of so great honor, because in his part of the kingdom, for their father had divided his territories between them, in which they reigned during his life, he had founded chapels for the worship of the gods, and had taught them to measure time by months and years, and to that extent to keep count and reckoning of events. Men still uncultivated, admiring him for these novelties, either fancied he was, or resolved that he should be made a god after his death. Io also is said to have been the daughter of Inachus, who was afterwards called Isis, when she was worshipped in Egypt as a great goddess although others write that she came as a queen out of Ethiopia, and because she ruled extensively and justly, and instituted for her subjects letters and many useful things, such divine honor was given her there after she died, that if any one said she had been human, he was charged with a capital crime. Chapter 4 in the reign of Belaeus, the ninth king of Assyria, and Mesippus, the eighth of Sicyon, who is said by some to have been also called Cephissus, if indeed the same man had both names, and those who put the other name in their writings have not rather confounded him with another man, while Apis was third king of Argus, Isaac died a hundred and eighty years old, and left his twin sons a hundred and twenty years old. Jacob, the younger of these, belonged to the city of God about which we write, the elder being wholly rejected, and had twelve sons, one of whom, called Joseph, was sold by his brothers to merchants going down to Egypt, while his grandfather Isaac was still alive. But when he was thirty years of age, Joseph stood before Pharaoh, being exalted out of the humiliation he endured, because, in divinely interpreting the king's dreams, he foretold that there would be seven years of plenty, the very rich abundance of which would be consumed by seven other years of famine that should follow. 
On this account the king made him ruler over Egypt, liberating him from prison, into which he had been thrown for keeping his chastity intact, for he bravely preserved it from his mistress, who wickedly loved him, and told lies to his weakly credulous master, and did not consent to commit adultery with her, but fled from her, leaving his garment in her hands when she laid hold of him. In the second of the seven years of famine Jacob came down into Egypt to his son with all he had, being a hundred and thirty years old, as he himself said in answer to the king's question. Joseph was then thirty-nine, if we add seven years of plenty and two of famine to the thirty he reckoned when honored by the king. Chapter 5 In these times Apis, king of Argus, crossed over into Egypt in ships, and on dying there was made Serapis, the chief god of all the Egyptians. Now Varro gives this very ready reason why, after his death, he was called not Apis, but Serapis. The ark in which he was placed when dead, which everyone now calls a sarcophagus, was then called in Greek Soros, and they began to worship him when buried in it before his temple was built. And from Soros and Apis he was called first Sorosapis, or Sorapis, and then Serapis, by changing a letter, as easily happens. It was decreed regarding him also that whoever should say he had been a man should be capitally punished. And since in every temple where Isis and Serapis were worshipped, there was also an image which, with finger pressed on the lips, seemed to warn men to keep silence, Varro thinks this signifies that it should be kept secret that they had been human. But that bull which, with wonderful folly, deluded Egypt, nourished with abundant delicacies in honor of him, was not called Serapis, but Apis, because they worshipped him alive without a sarcophagus. On the death of that bull, when they sought and found a calf of the same color, that is, similarly marked with certain white spots, they believed it was something miraculous and divinely provided for them. Yet it was no great thing for the demons, in order to deceive them, to show to a cow, when she was conceiving and pregnant, the image of such a bull, which she alone could see, and by it attract the breeding passion of the mother, so that it might appear in a bodily shape in her young, just as Jacob so managed with the spotted broads that the sheep and goats were born spotted. For what men can do with real colors and substances, the demons can very easily do by showing unreal forms to breeding animals. Chapter 6 Apis, then, who died in Egypt, was not the king of Egypt, but of Argus. He was succeeded by his son Argus, from whose name the land was called Argos, and the people Argives, for under the earlier kings neither the place nor the nation as yet had this name. While he then reigned over Argos, and Aratus over Sicyon, and Belaeus still remained king of Assyria, Jacob died in Egypt a hundred and forty-seven years old, after he had, when dying, blessed his sons and his grandsons by Joseph, and prophesied most plainly of Christ, saying, in the blessing of Judah, A prince shall not fail out of Judah, nor a leader from his thighs, until those things come which are laid up for him, and he is the expectation of the nations. In the reign of Argus, Greece began to use fruits, and to have crops of corn in cultivated fields, the seed having been brought from other countries. Argus also began to be accounted a god after his death, and was honored with the temple and sacrifices. 
this honor was conferred in his reign before being given to him on a private individual for being the first to yoke oxen in the plough. This was one Homagyrus who was struck by lightning. Chapter 7 In the reign of Mamatus, the twelfth king of Assyria, and Plemnaeus, the eleventh of Sicyon, while Argus still reigned over the Argives, Joseph died in Egypt a hundred and ten years old. After his death, the people of God, increasing wonderfully, remained in Egypt a hundred and forty-five years, in tranquility at first, until those who knew Joseph were dead. Afterward, through envy of their increase, and the suspicion that they would at length gain their freedom, they were oppressed with persecutions and the labors of intolerable servitude, amid which, however, they still grew, being multiplied with God-given fertility. During this period the same kingdoms continued in Assyria and Greece. Chapter 8 When Sapphras reigned as the fourteenth king of Assyria, and Orthopolis as the twelfth of Sicyon, and Chryasus as the fifth of Argus, Moses was born in Egypt, by whom the people of God were liberated from the Egyptian slavery, in which they behooved to be thus tried, that they might desire the help of their Creator. Some have thought that Prometheus lived during the reign of the kings now named. He is reported to have formed men out of clay, because he was esteemed the best teacher of wisdom, yet it does not appear what wise men there were in his days. His brother Atlas is said to have been a great astrologer, and this gave occasion for the fable that he held up the sky, although the vulgar opinion about his holding up the sky appears rather to have been suggested by a high mountain named after him. Indeed, from those times many other fabulous things began to be invented in Greece, yet down to Cecrops, king of Athens, in whose reign that city received its name, and in whose reign God brought his people out of Egypt by Moses, only a few dead heroes are reported to have been deified according to the vain superstition of the Greeks. Among these were Melantomis, the wife of King Chryasus, and Phorbus their son, who succeeded his father as sixth king of the Argives, and Iasus, son of Triopus, their seventh king, and their ninth king, Sthenelus, or Sthenelaus, or Sthenelus, for his name is given differently by different authors. In those times also Mercury, the grandson of Atlas by his daughter Maia, is said to have lived according to the common report in books. He was famous for his skill in many arts, and taught them to men, for which they resolved to make him, and even believed that he deserved to be a god after death. Hercules is said to have been later, yet belonging to the same period, although some, whom I think mistaken, assign him an earlier date than Mercury. But at whatever time they were born, it is agreed among grave historians who have committed these ancient things to writing that both were men, and that they merited divine honors from mortals because they conferred on them many benefits to make this life more pleasant to them. Minerva was far more ancient than these, for she is reported to have appeared in virgin age in the times of Agages at the lake called Triton, from which she is also styled Tritonia, the inventress truly of many works, and the more readily believed to be a goddess because her origin was so little known. For what is sung about her, having sprung from the head of Jupiter, belongs to the region of poetry and fable, and not to that of history and real fact. And historical writers are not agreed when Augages flourished, in whose time also a great flood occurred, 
not that greatest one from which no man escaped except those who could get into the ark, for neither Greek nor Latin history knew of it, yet a greater flood than that which happened afterward in Deucalion's time. For Varro begins the book I have already mentioned at this date, and does not propose to himself, as the starting point from which he may arrive at Roman affairs, anything more ancient than the flood of Augages, that is, which happened in the time of Augages. Now our writers of chronicles, first Eusebius and afterwards Jerome, who entirely follow some earlier historians in this opinion, relate that the flood of Augages happened more than three hundred years after, during the reign of Foronaeus, the second king of Argos. But whenever he may have lived, Minerva was already worshipped as a goddess when Cecrops reigned in Athens, in whose reign the city itself is reported to have been rebuilt or founded. Chapter 9 Athens certainly derived its name from Minerva, who in Greek is called Athena, and Varro points out the following reason why it was so called. When an olive tree suddenly appeared there, and water burst forth in another place, these prodigies moved the king to send to the Delphic Apollo to inquire what they meant and what he should do. He answered that the olive signified Minerva, the water Neptune, and that the citizens had it in their power to name their city as they chose, after either of these two gods whose signs these were. On receiving this oracle, Cecrops convoked all the citizens of either sex to give their vote, for it was then the custom in those parts for the women also to take part in public deliberations. When the multitude was consulted, the men gave their votes for Neptune, the women for Minerva, and as the women had a majority of one, Minerva conquered. Then Neptune, being enraged, laid waste the lands of the Athenians by casting up the waves of the sea, for the demons have no difficulty in scattering any waters more widely. The same authority said that to appease his wrath the women should be visited by the Athenians with a threefold punishment, that they should no longer have any vote, that none of their children should be named after their mothers, and that no one should call them Athenians. Thus that city, the mother and nurse of liberal doctrines, and of so many and so great philosophers, than whom Greece had nothing more famous and noble, by the mockery of demons about the strife of their gods, a male and female, and from the victory of the female one through the women, received the name of Athens, and on being damaged by the vanquished god, was compelled to punish the very victory of the victress, fearing the waters of Neptune more than the arms of Minerva. For in the women who were thus punished, Minerva, who had conquered, was conquered too, and could not even help her voters so far that although the right of voting was henceforth lost, and the mothers could not give their names to the children, they might at least be allowed to be called Athenians, and to merit the name of that goddess whom they had made victorious over a male god by giving her their votes. What and how much could be said about this, if we had not to hasten to other things in our discourse, is obvious. Chapter 10 Marcus Varro, however, is not willing to credit lying fables against the gods, lest he should find something dishonoring to their majesty, and therefore he will not admit that the Areopagus, the place where the Apostle Paul disputed with the Athenians, got this name because Mars, who in Greek is called Ares, when he was charged with the crime of homicide, and was judged by twelve gods in that field, was acquitted by the sentence of six, because it was the custom, when the votes were equal, to acquit rather than condemn. 
Against this opinion, which is much most widely published, he tries, from the notices of obscure books, to support another reason for this name, lest the Athenians should be thought to have called it Areopagus from the words Mars and Field, as if it were the field of Mars, to the dishonor of the gods, forsooth, from whom he thinks lawsuits and judgments far removed. And he asserts that this which is said about Mars is not less false than what is said about the three goddesses, to wit Juno, Minerva, and Venus, whose contest for the palm of beauty before Paris is judge, in order to obtain the golden apple, is not only related, but is celebrated in songs and dances amid the applause of the theatres, in plays meant to please the gods who take pleasure in these crimes of their own, whether real or fabled. Varro does not believe these things because they are incompatible with the nature of the gods and of morality, and yet in giving not a fabulous but a historic reason for the name of Athens, he inserts in his books the strife between Neptune and Minerva as to whose name should be given to that city which was so great that when they contended by the display of prodigies even Apollo dared not judge between them when consulted. But in order to end the strife of the gods, just as Jupiter sent the three goddesses we have named to Paris, so he sent them to men when Minerva won by the vote, and yet was defeated by the punishment of her own voters, for she was unable to confer the title of Athenians on the women who were her friends, although she could impose it on the men who were her opponents. In these times when Cronaeus reigned at Athens as the successor of Cecrops, as Varro writes, but, according to our Eusebius and Jerome, while Cecrops himself still remained, the flood occurred which was called Deucalion's, because it occurred chiefly in those parts of the earth in which he reigned. But this flood did not at all reach Egypt or its vicinity. Chapter 11 Moses led the people out of Egypt in the last time of Cecrops, king of Athens, when Ascatides reigned in Assyria, Marathus in Sicyon, Triopus in Argus. And having led forth the people, he gave them at Mount Sinai the law he received from God, which is called the Old Testament, because it has earthly promises, and because, through Jesus Christ, there was to be a New Testament in which the kingdom of heaven should be promised. For the same order behooved to be observed in this as is observed in each man who prospers in God, according to the saying of the Apostle, That is not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, since, as he says, and that truly, the first man of the earth is earthly, the second man from heaven is heavenly. Now Moses ruled the people for forty years in the wilderness, and died a hundred and twenty years old, after he had prophesied of Christ by the types of carnal observances in the tabernacle, priesthood, and sacrifices, and many other mystic ordinances. Joshua, the son of Nun, succeeded Moses, and settled in the land of promise the people he had brought in, having by divine authority conquered the people by whom it was formerly possessed. He also died after ruling the people twenty-seven years after the death of Moses, when Amatus reigned in Assyria as the eighteenth king, Corachus as the sixteenth in Sicyon, Danaeus as the tenth in Argus, Erichthonius as the fourth in Athens. Book 18 Chapter 12 during this period, that is, from Israel's exodus from Egypt down to the death of Joshua, the son of Nun, through whom that people received the land of promise, rituals were instituted to the false gods by the kings of Greece, 
which by stated celebration recalled the memory of the flood, and of men's deliverance from it, and of that troublous life they then led in migrating to and fro between the heights and the plains. For even the Luperci, when they ascend and descend the sacred path, are said to represent the men who sought the mountain summits because of the inundation of water, and returned to the lowlands on its subsidence. In those times Dionysus, who was also called Father Liber, and was esteemed a god after death, is said to have shown the vine to his host in Attica. Then the musical games were instituted for the Delphic Apollo to appease his anger, through which they thought the regions of Greece were afflicted with barrenness, because they had not defended his temple, which Danaeus burnt when he invaded those lands, for they were warned by his oracle to institute these games. But King Erichthonius first instituted games to him at Attica, and not to him only, but also to Minerva, in which games the olive was given as the prize to the victors, because they relate that Minerva was the discoverer of that fruit, as Liber was of the grape. In those years Europa is alleged to have been carried off by Xanthus, king of Crete, to whom we find some give another name, and to have borne him Radamanthus, Sarpedon, and Minos, who are more commonly reported to have been the sons of Jupiter by the same woman. Now those who worship such gods regard what we have said about Xanthus, king of Crete, as true history. But this about Jupiter, which the poets sing, the theatres applaud, and the people celebrate, as empty fable got up as a reason for games to appease the deities, even with the false ascription of crimes to them. In those times Hercules was held in honour entire, but that was not the same one as he whom we spoke of above. In the more secret history there are said to have been several who were called Father Liber and Hercules. This Hercules, whose great deeds are reckoned as twelve, not including the slaughter of Antaeus the African, because that affair pertains to another Hercules, is declared in their books to have burned himself on Mount Etna, because he was not able, by that strength with which he had subdued monsters, to endure the disease under which he languished. At that time the king, or rather tyrant Bucerus, who is alleged to have been the son of Neptune by Libya, the daughter of Epaphus, is said to have offered up his guests in sacrifice to the gods. Now it must not be believed that Neptune committed this adultery, lest the gods should be criminated, yet such things must be ascribed to them by the poets and in the theatres that they may be pleased with them. Vulcan and Minerva are said to have been the parents of Erichthonius, king of Athens, in whose last years Joshua, the son of Nun, is found to have died. But since they will have it that Minerva is a virgin, they say that Vulcan, being disturbed in the struggle between them, poured out his seed into the earth, and on that account the man born of it received that name. For in the Greek language Eris is strife, and Chthon earth, of which two words Erichthonius is a compound. Yet it must be admitted that the more learned disprove and disown such things concerning their gods, and declare that this fabulous belief originated in the fact that at the temple at Athens, which Vulcan and Minerva had in common, a boy who had been exposed was found wrapped up in the coils of a dragon, which signified that he would become great, and as his parents were unknown, he was called the son of Vulcan and Minerva, because they had the temple in common. Yet that fable accounts for the origin of his name better than this history. But what does it matter to us? Let the one in books that speak the truth edify religious men, and the other in lying fables delight impure demons. Yet these religious men worship them as gods.
Still, while they deny these things concerning them, they cannot clear them of all crime, because at their demand they exhibit plays in which the very things they wisely deny are basely done, and the gods are appeased by these false and base things. Now even although the play celebrates an unreal crime of the gods, yet to delight in the ascription of an unreal crime is a real one. Chapter 13 after the death of Joshua, the son of Nun, the people of God had judges, in whose times they were alternately humbled by afflictions on account of their sins, and consoled by prosperity through the compassion of God. In those times were invented the fables about Triptolemus, who, at the command of Ceres, borne by winged snakes, bestowed corn on the needy lands in flying over them about that beast the Minotaur, which was shut up in the labyrinth, from which men who entered its inextricable mazes could find no exit, about the centaurs, whose form was a compound of horse and man, about Cerberus, the three-headed dog of hell, about Phrixus and his sister Hellas, who fled, borne by a winged ram, about the Gorgon, whose hair was composed of serpents, and who turned those who looked on her into stone about Bellerophon, who was carried by a winged horse called Pegasus, about Amphion, who charmed and attracted the stones by the sweetness of his harp, about the artificer Daedalus and his son Icarus, who flew on wings they had fitted on, about Oedipus, who compelled a certain four-footed monster with a human face called a sphinx to destroy herself by casting herself headlong, having solved the riddle she was wont to propose as insoluble, about Antaeus, who was the son of the earth, for which reason, on falling on the earth, he was wont to rise up stronger, whom Hercules slew, and perhaps there are others which I have forgotten. These fables, easily found in histories containing a true account of events, bring us down to the Trojan War, at which Marcus Varro has closed his second book about the race of the Roman people, and they are so skillfully invented by men as to involve no scandal to the gods. But whoever had pretended as to Jupiter's rape of Ganymede, a very beautiful boy, that King Tantalus committed the crime, and the fable ascribed it to Jupiter, or as to his impregnating Danae as a golden shower, that it means that the woman's virtue was corrupted by gold, whether these things were really done or only fabled in those days, or were really done by others and falsely ascribed to Jupiter, it is impossible to tell how much wickedness must have been taken for granted in men's hearts that they should be thought able to listen to such lies with patience. And yet they willingly accepted them, when indeed the more devotedly they worshipped Jupiter, they ought the more severely to have punished those who durst say such things of him. But they not only were not angry at those who invented these things, but were afraid that the gods would be angry at them if they did not act such fictions even in the theatres. In those times Latona bore Apollo, not him of whose oracle we have spoken above as so often consulted, but him who is said, along with Hercules, to have fed the flocks of King Admetus. Yet he was so believed to be a god that very many, indeed almost all, have believed him to be the self-same Apollo. Then also Father Liber made war in India, and led in his army many women called Bacchae, who were notable not so much for valor as for fury. Some indeed write that this Liber was both conquered and bound, and some that he was slain in Persia, even telling where he was buried, 
and yet in his name, as that of a god, the unclean demons have instituted the sacred, or rather the sacrilegious, bacchanalia, of the outrageous vileness of which the Senate, after many years, became so much ashamed as to prohibit them in the city of Rome. Men believed that in those times Perseus and his wife Andromeda were raised into heaven after their death, so that they were not ashamed or afraid to mark out their images by constellations and call them by their names. Chapter 14 During the same period of time arose the poets, who were also called theologues because they made hymns about the gods, yet about such gods as, although great men, were yet but men, or the elements of this world which the true God made, or creatures who were ordained as principalities and powers according to the will of the Creator and their own merit. And if, among much that was vain and false, they sang anything of the one true God, yet by worshipping him, along with others who are not gods, and showing them the service that is due to him alone, they did not serve him at all rightly. And even such poets as Orpheus, Musaeus, and Linus were unable to abstain from dishonouring their gods by fables. But yet these theologues worshipped the gods, and were not worshipped as gods, although the city of the ungodly is wont, I know not how, to set Orpheus over the sacred, or rather sacrilegious, rites of hell. The wife of King Athamas, who was called Ino, and her son Melisertes, perished by throwing themselves into the sea, and were, according to popular belief, reckoned among the gods, like other men of the same times, among whom were Castor and Pollux. The Greeks indeed called her who was the mother of Melisertes, Leucothea, the Latins, Matuta, but both thought her a goddess. Chapter 15 During those times the kingdom of Argus came to an end, being transferred to Mycenae, from which Agamemnon came, and the kingdom of Laurentum arose, of which Picus, the son of Saturn, was the first king, when the woman Deborah judged the Hebrews. But it was the Spirit of God who used her as his agent, for she was also a prophetess, although her prophecy is so obscure that we could not demonstrate, without a long discussion, that it was uttered concerning Christ. Now the Laurentes already reigned in Italy, from whom the origin of the Roman people is quite evidently derived after the Greeks. Yet the kingdom of Assyria still lasted, in which Lampares was the twenty-third king, when Picus first began to reign at Laurentum. The worshippers of such gods may see what they are to think of Saturn, the father of Picus, who denied that he was a man, of whom some also have written that he himself reigned in Italy before Picus his son. And Virgil, in his well-known book, says, that race indocile, and through mountains high dispersed, he settled, and endowed with laws, and named their country Latium, because latent within their coasts he dwelt secure. Tradition says the golden ages pure began when he was king. But they regard these as poetic fancies, and assert that the father of Picus was Sterces, rather, and relate that being a most skillful husbandman, he discovered that the fields could be fertilized by the dung of animals, which was called Stercus from his name. Some say he was called Stercutius, but for whatever reason they chose to call him Saturn, it is yet certain that they made this Sterces or Stercutius a god for his merit in agriculture, and they likewise received into the number of these gods Picus his son, whom they affirmed to have been a famous augur and warrior. 
Picos begat Faunus, the second king of Laurentum, and he too is, or was, a god with them. These divine honors they gave to dead men before the Trojan War. Chapter 16 Troy was overthrown, and its destruction was everywhere sung and made well known, even to boys, for it was signally published and spread abroad, both by its own greatness and by writers of excellent style. And this was done in the reign of Latinus, the son of Faunus, from whom the kingdom began to be called Latium instead of Laurentum. The victorious Greeks, on leaving Troy destroyed and returning to their own countries, were torn and crushed by diverse and horrible calamities. Yet even from among them they increased the number of their gods, for they made Diomede a god. They alleged that his return home was prevented by a divinely imposed punishment, and they prove not by fabulous and poetic falsehood, but by historic attestation that his companions were turned into birds. Yet they think that even although he was made a god, he could neither restore them to the human form by his own power, nor yet obtain it from Jupiter his king, as a favor granted to a new inhabitant of heaven. They also say that his temple is in the island of Diomedia, not far from Mount Garganus in Apulia, and that these birds fly round about this temple and worship in it with such wonderful obedience that they fill their beaks with water and sprinkle it. And if Greeks or those born of the Greek race come there, they are not only still, but fly to meet them. But if they are foreigners, they fly up at their heads and wound them with such severe strokes as even to kill them. For they are said to be well enough armed for these combats with their hard and large beaks. Chapter 17 In support of this story, Varro relates others no less incredible about that most famous sorceress, Circe, who changed the companions of Ulysses into beasts, and about the Arcadians, who, by lot, swam across a certain pool, and were turned into wolves there, and lived in the deserts of that region with wild beasts like themselves. But if they never fed on human flesh for nine years, they were restored to the human form on swimming back again through the same pool. Finally, he expressly names one Demenetus, who, on tasting a boy offered up in sacrifice by the Arcadians to their god Lysias, according to their custom, was changed into a wolf, and being restored to his proper form in the tenth year, trained himself as a pugilist, and was victorious at the Olympic Games. And the same historian thinks that the epithet Lysias was applied in Arcadia to Pan and Jupiter for no other reason than this metamorphosis of men into wolves, because it was thought it could not be wrought except by a divine power. For a wolf is called in Greek Leucos, from which the name Lysias appears to be formed. He says also that the Roman Luperci were, as it were, sprung of the seed of these mysteries. Chapter 18 Perhaps our readers expect us to say something about this so great delusion wrought by the demons, and what shall we say but that men must fly out of the midst of Babylon? For this prophetic precept is to be understood spiritually in this sense, that by going forward in the living God, by the steps of faith which worketh by love, we must flee out of the city of this world, which is altogether a society of ungodly angels and men. Yea, the greater we see the power of the demons to be in these depths, so much the more tenaciously must we cleave to the Mediator through whom we ascend from these lowest to the highest places. 
For if we should say these things are not to be credited, there are not wanting even now some who would affirm that they had either heard on the best authority, or even themselves experienced something of that kind. Indeed we ourselves, when in Italy, heard such things about a certain region there, where landladies of inns, imbued with these wicked arts, were said to be in the habit of giving to such travellers as they chose, or could manage, something in a piece of cheese, by which they were changed on the spot into beasts of burden, and carried whatever was necessary, and were restored to their own form when the work was done. Yet their mind did not become bestial, but remained rational and human, just as Apuleius, in the books he wrote with the title of The Golden Ass, has told, or feigned, that it happened to his own self that on taking poison he became an ass while retaining his human mind. These things are either false or so extraordinary as to be with good reason disbelieved. But it is to be most firmly believed that Almighty God can do whatever He pleases, whether in punishing or favoring, and that the demons can accomplish nothing by their natural power, for their created being is itself angelic, although made malign by their own fault, except what He may permit, whose judgments are often hidden, but never unrighteous. And indeed the demons, if they really do such things as these on which this discussion turns, do not create real substances, but only change the appearance of things created by the true God, so as to make them seem to be what they are not. I cannot therefore believe that even the body, much less the mind, can rarely be changed into bestial forms and lineaments by any reason, art, or power of the demons. But the phantasm of a man which even in thought or dreams goes through innumerable changes may, when the man's senses are laid asleep or overpowered, be presented to the senses of others in a corporeal form in some indescribable way unknown to me, so that men's bodies themselves may lie somewhere, alive indeed, yet with their senses locked up much more heavily and firmly than by sleep, while that phantasm, as it were embodied in the shape of some animal, may appear to the senses of others, and may even seem to the man himself to be changed, just as he may seem to himself in sleep to be so changed, and to bear burdens. And these burdens, if they are real substances, are borne by the demons, that men may be deceived by beholding at the same time the real substance of the burdens, and the simulated bodies of the beasts of burden. For a certain man called Prestantius used to tell that it had happened to his father in his own house, that he took that poison and a piece of cheese, and lay in his bed as if sleeping, yet could by no means be aroused. But he said that after a few days he, as it were, woke up and related the things he had suffered as if they had been dreams, namely, that he had been made a sumpter horse, and, along with other beasts of burden, had carried provisions for the soldiers of what is called the Rhetian Legion, because it was sent to Rhetia. And all this was found to have taken place just as he told, yet it had seemed to him to be his own dream. And another man declared that in his own house at night, before he slept, he saw a certain philosopher, whom he knew very well, come to him and explain to him some things in the Platonic philosophy, which he had previously declined to explain when asked. And when he had asked this philosopher why he did in his house what he had refused to do at home, he said, I did not do it, but I dreamed I had done it. And thus what the one saw when sleeping was shown to the other when awake by a phantasmal image. These things have not come to us from persons we might deem unworthy of credit, but from informants we could not suppose to be deceiving us. 
Therefore, what men say and have committed to writing about the Arcadians being often changed into wolves by the Arcadian gods, or demons, rather, and what is told in song about Circe transforming the companions of Ulysses, if they were really done, may, in my opinion, have been done in the way I have said. As for Diomedes' birds, since their race is alleged to have been perpetuated by constant propagation, I believe they were not made through the metamorphosis of men, but were slyly substituted for them on their removal, just as the hind was for Iphigenia, the daughter of King Agamemnon. For juggleries of this kind could not be difficult for the demons if permitted by the judgment of God, and since that virgin was afterwards found alive, it is easy to see that a hind had been slightly substituted for her. But because the companions of Diomede were of a sudden nowhere to be seen, and afterwards could nowhere be found, being destroyed by bad avenging angels, they were believed to have been changed into those birds which were secretly brought there from other places where such birds were, and suddenly substituted for them by fraud. But that they bring water in their beaks and sprinkle it on the temple of Diomede, and that they fawn on men of Greek race and persecute aliens, is no wonderful thing to be done by the inward influence of the demons, whose interest it is to persuade men that Diomede was made a god, and thus to beguile them into worshipping many false gods to the great dishonour of the true god, and to serve dead men who even in their lifetime did not truly live, with temples, altars, sacrifices, and priests, all which, when of the right kind, are due only to the one living and true God. Chapter 19 After the capture and destruction of Troy, Aeneas, with twenty ships laden with the Trojan relics, came into Italy, when Latinus reigned there, Menestheus in Athens, Polyphidos in Sicyon, and Tautanus in Assyria, and Abdon was judge of the Hebrews. On the death of Latinus, Aeneas reigned three years, the same kings continuing in the above-named places, except that Pelasgus was now king in Sicyon, and Samson was judge of the Hebrews, who is thought to be Hercules because of his wonderful strength. Now the Latins made Aeneas one of their gods because, at his death, he was nowhere to be found. The Sabines also placed among the gods their first king, Sangus, or Sanctus, as some call him. At that time Codrus, king of Athens, exposed himself incognito to be slain by the Peloponnesian foes of that city, and so was slain. In this way, they say, he delivered his country. For the Peloponnesians had received a response from the oracle that they should overcome the Athenians only on condition that they did not slay their king. Therefore he deceived them by appearing in a poor man's dress, and provoking them by quarreling to murder him. Whence Virgil says, or the quarrels of Codrus, and the Athenians worshipped this man as a god with sacrificial honours. The fourth king of the Latins was Silvius, the son of Aeneas, not by Creusa, of whom Ascanius, the third king, was born, but by Lavinia, the daughter of Latinus, and he is said to have been his posthumous child. Onius was the twenty-ninth king of Assyria, Melanthius the sixteenth of the Athenians, and Eli the priest was judge of the Hebrews, and the kingdom of Sicyon then came to an end, after lasting, it is said, for nine hundred and fifty-nine years. Chapter 20 While these kings reigned in the places mentioned, the period of the judges being ended, the kingdom of Israel next began with King Saul, when Samuel the prophet lived. 
At that date those Latin kings began who were surnamed Silvii, having that surname in addition to their proper name from their predecessor, that son of Aeneas, who was called Silvius, just as long afterward the successors of Caesar Augustus were surnamed Caesars. Saul being rejected so that none of his issue should reign, on his death David succeeded him in the kingdom after he had reigned forty years. Then the Athenians ceased to have kings after the death of Codrus, and began to have a magistracy to rule the republic. After David, who also reigned forty years, his son Solomon was king of Israel, who built that most noble temple of God at Jerusalem. In his time Alba was built among the Latins, from which thereafter the kings began to be styled kings not of the Latins, but of the Albans, although in the same Latium. Solomon was succeeded by his son Rehoboam, under whom that people was divided into two kingdoms, and its separate parts began to have separate kings. Chapter 21 After Aeneas, whom they deified, Latium had eleven kings, none of whom was deified. But Aventinus, who was the twelfth after Aeneas, having been laid low in war and buried in that hill still called by his name, was added to the number of such gods as they made for themselves. Some, indeed, were unwilling to write that he was slain in battle, but said he was nowhere to be found, and that it was not from his name, but from the alighting of birds, that hill was called Aventinus. After this no god was made in Latium, except Romulus, the founder of Rome. But two kings were found between these two, the first of whom I shall describe in the Virgilian verse. Next came that Procus, glory of the Trojan race. That greatest of all kingdoms, the Assyrian, had its long duration brought to a close in his time, the time of Rome's birth drawing nigh. For the Assyrian Empire was transferred to the Medes after nearly thirteen hundred and five years, if we include the reign of Belus, who begot Ninus, and, content with a small kingdom, was the first king there. Now Procus reigned before Amulius, and Amulius had made his brother Numitor's daughter, Rhea by name, who was also called Ilia, a vestal virgin, who conceived twin sons by Mars, as they will have it, in that way honoring or excusing her adultery, adding as a proof that a she-wolf nursed the infants when exposed. For they think this kind of beast belongs to Mars, so that the she-wolf is believed to have given her teats to the infants, because she knew they were the sons of Mars, her lord. Although there are not wanting persons who say that when the crying babes lay exposed, they were first of all picked up by I know not what harlot, and sucked her breasts first. Now harlots were called lupe, she-wolves, from which their vile abodes are even yet called lupinaria and that afterwards they came into the hands of the shepherd Faustulus, and were nursed by Acca his wife. Yet what wonder is it if, to rebuke the king who had cruelly ordered them to be thrown into the water, God was pleased, after divinely delivering them from the water, to succor, by means of a wild beast giving milk, these infants by whom so great a city was to be founded? Amulius was succeeded in the Latian kingdom by his brother Numitor, the grandfather of Romulus, and Rome was founded in the first year of this Numitor, who from that time reigned along with his grandson Romulus. Chapter 22 
To be brief, the city of Rome was founded like another Babylon, and, as it were, the daughter of the former Babylon, by which God was pleased to conquer the whole world, and subdue it far and wide by bringing it into one fellowship of government and laws. For there were already powerful and brave peoples and nations trained to arms, who did not easily yield, and whose subjugation necessarily involved great danger and destruction, as well as great and horrible labor. For when the Assyrian kingdom subdued almost all Asia, although this was done by fighting, yet the wars could not be very fierce or difficult, because the nations were as yet untrained to resist, and neither so many nor so great as afterward. Forasmuch as, after that greatest and indeed universal flood, when only eight men escaped in Noah's ark, not much more than a thousand years had passed when Ninus subdued all Asia with the exception of India. But Rome did not with the same quickness and facility wholly subdue all those nations of the east and west which we see brought under the Roman Empire, because, in its gradual increase, in whatever direction it was extended, it found them strong and warlike. At the time when Rome was founded, then, the people of Israel had been in the land of promise seven hundred and eighteen years. Of these years, twenty-seven belonged to Joshua, the son of Nun, and after that three hundred and twenty-nine to the period of the judges. But from the time when the kings began to reign there, three hundred and sixty-two years had passed. And at that time there was a king in Judah called Ahaz, or, as others compute, Hezekiah, his successor, the best and most pious king, who it is admitted reigned in the times of Romulus. And in that part of the Hebrew nation called Israel, Hoshea had begun to reign. Chapter 23 Some say the Erythrian Sibyl prophesied at this time. Now Varro declares there were many Sibyls, and not merely one. This Sibyl of Erythrae certainly wrote some things concerning Christ which are quite manifest, and we first read them in the Latin tongue, in verses of bad Latin and unrhythmical, through the unskilfulness, as we afterwards learned, of some interpreter unknown to me. For Flacianus, a very famous man, who was also a proconsul, a man of most ready eloquence and much learning, when we were speaking about Christ, produced a Greek manuscript, saying that it was the prophecies of the Erythrean Sibyl, in which he pointed out a certain passage which had the initial letters of the lines so arranged that these words could be read in them, Jesus Christos Theo Huios Soter, which means Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Saviour. And these verses, of which the initial letters yield that meaning, contain what follows as translated by someone into Latin in good rhythm. Judgment shall moisten the earth with the sweat of its standard. Ever enduring, behold, the king shall come through the ages, sent to be here in the flesh and judge at the last of the world. O God, the believing and faithless alike shall behold thee, uplifted with saints, when at last the ages are ended, seated before him are souls in the flesh for his judgment. Hid in thick vapors, the wild desolate lieth the earth, rejected by men are the idols and long-hidden treasures. Earth is consumed by the fire, and it searcheth the ocean and heaven. Issuing forth, it destroyeth the terrible portals of hell. Saints in their body and soul freedom and light shall inherit. Those who are guilty shall burn in fire and brimstone for ever. Occult actions revealing, each one shall publish his secrets. Secrets of every man's heart God shall reveal in the light. 
Then shall be weeping and wailing, yea, and gnashing of teeth. Eclipsed is the sun, and silenced the stars in their chorus. Over and gone is the splendor of moonlight, melted the heaven. Uplifted by him are the valleys, and cast down the mountains. Utterly gone among men are distinctions of lofty and lowly. Into the plains rush the hills, the skies and oceans are mingled. Oh, what an end of all things, earth broken in pieces, shall perish. Swelling together at once shall the waters and flames flow in rivers. Sounding the archangel's trumpet shall peal down from heaven over the wicked who groan in their guilt and their manifold sorrows. Trembling the earth shall be opened, revealing chaos and hell. Every king before God shall stand in that day to be judged. Rivers of fire and brimstone shall fall from the heavens. In these Latin verses the meaning of the Greek is correctly given, although not in the exact order of the lines as connected with the initial letters. For in three of them, the fifth, eighteenth, and nineteenth, where the Greek letter upsilon occurs, Latin words could not be found beginning with the corresponding letter and yielding a suitable meaning. So that, if we note down together the initial letters of all the lines in our Latin translation, except those three in which we retain the letter upsilon in the proper place, they will express in five Greek words this meaning, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior. And the verses are twenty-seven, which is the cube of three. For three times three are nine, and nine itself, if tripled so as to rise from the superficial square to the cube, comes to twenty-seven. But if you join the initial letters of these five Greek words, Jesus Christos Theo Huios Soter, which mean Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, they will make the word ichthus, that is, fish, in which word Christ is mystically understood, because he was able to live, that is, to exist, without sin in the abyss of this mortality, as in the depth of waters. But this Sibyl, whether she is the Erythrean, or, as some rather believe, the Comian, in her whole poem, of which this is a very small portion, not only has nothing that can relate to the worship of the false or feigned gods, but rather speaks against them and their worshippers in such a way that we might even think she ought to be reckoned among those who belong to the city of God. Lactantius also inserted in his work the prophecies about Christ of a certain Sibyl, he does not say which. But I have thought fit to combine in a single extract, which may seem long, what he has set down in many short quotations. She says, Afterward he shall come into the injurious hands of the unbelieving, and they will give God buffets with profane hands, and with impure mouth will spit out envenomed spittle, but he will with simplicity yield his holy back to stripes, and he will hold his peace when struck with the fist, that no one may find out what word or whence he comes to speak to hell, and he shall be crowned with a crown of thorns. And they gave him gall for meat, and vinegar for his thirst, they will spread this table of inhospitality. For thou thyself, being foolish, hast not understood thy God, deluding the minds of mortals, but hast both crowned him with thorns, and mingled for him bitter gall. But the veil of the temple shall be rent, and at midday it shall be darker than night for three hours. And he shall die the death, taking sleep for three days. And then, returning from hell, he first shall come to the light, the beginning of the resurrection being shown to the recalled. 
Lactantius made use of these Sibylline testimonies, introducing them bit by bit in the course of his discussion as the things he intended to prove seemed to require, and we have set them down in one connected series, uninterrupted by comment, only taking care to mark them by capitals, if only the transcribers do not neglect to preserve them hereafter. Some writers indeed say that the Erythrian Sibyl was not in the time of Romulus, but of the Trojan War. Chapter 24 while Romulus reigned, Thales the Milesian is said to have lived, being one of the seven sages who succeeded the theological poets, of whom Orpheus was the most renowned, and were called Sophoi, that is, sages. During that time the ten tribes, which on the division of the people were called Israel, were conquered by the Chaldeans and led captive into their lands, while the two tribes, which were called Judah, and had the seat of their kingdom in Jerusalem, remained in the land of Judea. As Romulus, when dead, could nowhere be found, the Romans, as is everywhere notorious, placed him among the gods, a thing which by that time had already ceased to be done, and which was not done afterwards till the time of the Caesars, and then not through error, but in flattery, so that Cicero ascribes great praises to Romulus, because he merited such honours not in rude and unlearned times, when men were easily deceived, but in times already polished and learned, although the subtle and acute loquacity of the philosophers had not yet culminated. But although the later times did not deify dead men, still they did not cease to hold and worship as gods those deified of old. Nay, by images which the ancients never had, they even increased the allurements of vain and impious superstition, the unclean demons affecting this in their heart, and also deceiving them by lying oracles, so that even the fabulous crimes of the gods, which were not once imagined by a more polite age, were yet basely acted in the plays in honour of these same false deities. Numa reigned after Romulus, and although he had thought that Rome would be better defended the more gods there were, yet on his death he himself was not counted worthy of a place among them, as if it were supposed that he had so crowded heaven that a place could not be found for him there. They report that the Samian Sibyl lived while he reigned at Rome, and when Manasseh began to reign over the Hebrews, an impious king by whom the prophet Isaiah is said to have been slain. Chapter 25 When Zedekiah reigned over the Hebrews, and Tarquinius Priscus, the successor of Ancus Martius, over the Romans, the Jewish people was led captive into Babylon, Jerusalem and the temple built by Solomon being overthrown. For the prophets, in chiding them for their iniquity and impiety, predicted that these things should come to pass, especially Jeremiah, who even stated the number of years. Pittacus of Mytilene, another of the sages, is reported to have lived at that time. And Eusebius writes that while the people of God were held captive in Babylon, the five other sages lived, who must be added to Thales, whom we mentioned above, and Pittacus, in order to make up the seven. These are Solon of Athens, Chilo of Lacedaemon, Periander of Corinth, Cleobulus of Lindus, and Bias of Priene. These flourished after the theological poets, and were called sages, because they excelled other men in a certain laudable line of life, and summed up some moral precepts and epigrammatic sayings. But they left posterity no literary monuments, except that Solon is alleged to have given certain laws to the Athenians, and Thales was a natural philosopher, and left books of his doctrine in short proverbs. 
in that time of the Jewish captivity, Anaximander, Anaximenes, and Xenophanes, the natural philosophers, flourished. Pythagoras also lived then, and at this time the name philosopher was first used. Chapter 26 at this time Cyrus, king of Persia, who also ruled the Chaldeans and Assyrians, having somewhat relaxed the captivity of the Jews, made fifty thousand of them return in order to rebuild the temple. They only began the first foundations and built the altar, but, owing to hostile invasions, they were unable to go on, and the work was put off to the time of Darius. During the same time also these things were done, which are written in the book of Judith, which indeed the Jews are said not to have received into the canon of the Scriptures. Under Darius king of Persia, then, on the completion of the seventy years predicted by Jeremiah the prophet, the captivity of the Jews was brought to an end, and they were restored to liberty. Tarquin then reigned as the seventh king of the Romans. On his expulsion they also began to be free from the rule of their kings. Down to this time the people of Israel had prophets, but although they were numerous, the canonical writings of only a few of them have been preserved among the Jews and among us. In closing the previous book I promised to set down something in this one about them, and I shall now do so. Chapter 27 In order that we may be able to consider these times, let us go back a little to earlier times. At the beginning of the book of the prophet Hosea, who is placed first of the twelve, it is written, The word of the Lord which came to Hosea in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Amos also writes that he prophesied in the days of Uzziah, and adds the name of Jeroboam, king of Israel, who lived at the same time. Isaiah the son of Amos, either the above-named prophet, or, as is rather affirmed, another who was not a prophet, but was called by the same name, also puts at the head of his book these four kings named by Hosea, saying by way of preface that he prophesied in their days. Micah also names the same times as those of his prophecy after the days of Uzziah, for he names the same three kings as Hosea named, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We find from their own writings that these men prophesied contemporaneously. To these are added Jonah in the reign of Uzziah, and Joel in that of Jotham, who succeeded Uzziah. But we can find the date of these two prophets in the Chronicles, not in their own writings, for they say nothing about it themselves. Now these days extend from Procus, king of the Latins, or his predecessor Aventinus, down to Romulus, king of the Romans, or even to the beginning of the reign of his successor Numa Pompilius. Hezekiah, king of Judah, certainly reigned till then so that thus these fountains of prophecy, as I may call them, burst forth at once during those times when the Assyrian kingdom failed and the Roman began, so that just as in the first period of the Assyrian kingdom Abraham arose, to whom the most distinct promises were made that all nations should be blessed in his seed, so at the beginning of the western Babylon, in the time of whose government Christ was to come, in whom these promises were to be fulfilled, the oracles of the prophets were given, not only in spoken but in written words, for a testimony that so great a thing should come to pass. For although the people of Israel hardly ever lacked prophets from the time when they began to have kings, these were only for their own use, not for that of the nations. But when the more manifestly prophetic scripture began to be formed, which was to benefit the nations too, it was fitting that it should begin when this city was founded which was to rule the nations. Chapter 28 
The prophet Hosea speaks so very profoundly that it is laborious work to penetrate his meaning. But, according to promise, we must insert something from his book. He says, And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Even the apostles understood this as a prophetic testimony of the calling of the nations who did not formerly belong to God, and because this same people of the Gentiles is itself spiritually among the children of Abraham, and for that reason is rightly called Israel, therefore he goes on to say, And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together in one, and shall appoint themselves one headship, and shall ascend from the earth. We should but weaken the savour of this prophetic oracle if we set ourselves to expound it. Let the reader but call to mind that cornerstone and those two walls of partition, the one of the Jews, the other of the Gentiles, and he will recognise them, the one under the term sons of Judah, the other as sons of Israel, supporting themselves by one and the same headship, and ascending from the earth. But that those carnal Israelites who are now unwilling to believe in Christ shall afterward believe, that is, their children shall, for they themselves, of course, shall go to their own place by dying, this same prophet testifies, saying, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an altar, without a priesthood, without manifestations. Who does not see that the Jews are now thus? But let us hear what he adds. And afterward shall the children of Israel return, and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and shall be amazed at the Lord, and at his goodness in the latter days. Nothing is clearer than this prophecy, in which by David, as distinguished by the title of king, Christ is to be understood, who is made, as the apostle says, of the seed of David according to the flesh. This prophet has also foretold the resurrection of Christ on the third day, as it behooved to be foretold with prophetic loftiness, when he says, He will heal us after two days, and in the third day we shall rise again. In agreement with this, the apostle says to us, If ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Amos also prophesies thus concerning such things, Prepare thee that thou mayest invoke thy God, O Israel, for lo, I am binding the thunder, and creating the Spirit, and announcing to men their Christ. And in another place he says, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and build up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and will build them up again as in the days of old, that the residue of men may inquire for me, and all the nations upon whom my name is invoked, saith the Lord that doeth this. Chapter 29 the prophecy of Isaiah is not in the book of the twelve prophets, who are called the minor from the brevity of their writings, as compared with those who are called the greater prophets, because they published larger volumes. Isaiah belongs to the latter, yet I connect him with the two named above, because he prophesied at the same time. Isaiah, then, together with his rebukes of wickedness, precepts of righteousness, and predictions of evil, also prophesied much more than the rest about Christ and the church, that is, about the king and that city which he founded, so that some say he should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet. But in order to finish this work, I quote only one out of many in this place. Speaking in the person of the Father, he says, Behold, my servant shall understand, and shall be exalted and glorified very much, as many shall be astonished at thee. This is about Christ. 
But let us now hear what follows about the church. He says, Rejoice, O barren, thou that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that didst not travail with child, for many more are the children of the desolate than of her that has an husband. But these must suffice, and some things in them ought to be expounded, yet I think those parts sufficient which are so plain that even enemies must be compelled against their will to understand them. Chapter 30 the prophet Micah, representing Christ under the figure of a great mountain, speaks thus, It shall come to pass in the last days that the manifested mountain of the Lord shall be prepared on the tops of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall hasten unto it. Many nations shall go, and shall say, Come, let us go up into the mountain of the Lord, and into the house of the God of Jacob, and he will show us his way, and we will go in his paths. For out of Zion shall proceed the law, and the word of the Lord out of Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. This prophet predicts the very place in which Christ was born, saying, and thou, Bethlehem, of the house of Ephratah, art the least that can be reckoned among the thousands of Judah. Out of thee shall come forth unto me a leader, to be the prince in Israel, and his going forth is from the beginning, even from the days of eternity. Therefore will he give them up even until the time when she that travaileth shall bring forth, and the remnant of his brethren shall be converted to the sons of Israel and he shall stand and see and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, and in the dignity of the name of the Lord his God, for now shall he be magnified even to the utmost of the earth. The prophet Jonah, not so much by speech as by his own painful experience, prophesied Christ's death and resurrection much more clearly than if he had proclaimed them with his voice. For why was he taken into the whale's belly and restored on the third day, but that he might be a sign that Christ should return from the depths of hell on the third day? I should be obliged to use many words in explaining all that Joel prophesies in order to make clear those that pertain to Christ and the church. But there is one passage I must not pass by, which the apostles also quoted when the Holy Spirit came down from above on the assembled believers according to Christ's promise. He says, And it shall come to pass after these things that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream, and your young men shall see visions, and even on my servants and mine handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit. Chapter 31 the date of three of the minor prophets, Obadiah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, is neither mentioned by themselves nor given in the chronicles of Eusebius and Jerome. For although they put Obadiah with Micah, yet when Micah prophesied does not appear from that part of their writings in which the dates are noted. And this, I think, has happened through their error in negligently copying the works of others. But we could not find the two others now mentioned in the copies of the chronicles which we have, yet because they are contained in the canon we ought not to pass them by. Obadiah, so far as his writings are concerned, the briefest of all the prophets, speaks against Idumea, that is, the nation of Esau, that reprobate elder of the twin sons of Isaac and grandsons of Abraham. Now if by that form of speech in which a part is put for the whole, we take Idumea as put for the nations, we may understand of Christ what he says, among other things, but upon Mount Zion shall be safety, and there shall be a holy one. 
and a little after, at the end of the same prophecy, he says, And those who are saved again shall come up out of Mount Zion, that they may defend Mount Esau, and it shall be a kingdom to the Lord. It is quite evident this was fulfilled when those saved again out of Mount Zion, that is, the believers in Christ from Judea, of whom the apostles are chiefly to be acknowledged, went up to defend Mount Esau. How could they defend it except by making safe, through the preaching of the gospel, those who believed that they might be delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God? This he expressed as an inference, adding, And it shall be to the Lord a kingdom. For Mount Zion signifies Judea, where it is predicted there shall be safety, and a holy one, that is, Christ Jesus. But Mount Esau is Idumea, which signifies the church of the Gentiles, which, as I have expounded, those saved again out of Zion have defended that it should be a kingdom to the Lord. This was obscure before it took place, but what believer does not find it out now that it is done? As for the prophet Nahum, through him God says, I will exterminate the graven and the molten things, I will make thy burial. For lo, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, and announceth peace, are swift upon the mountains. O Judah, celebrate thy festival days, and perform thy vows, for now they shall not go on any more so as to become antiquated. It is completed, it is consumed, it is taken away. He ascendeth who breathes in thy face, delivering thee out of tribulation. Let him that remembers the gospel call to mind who hath ascended from hell and breathed the Holy Spirit in the face of Judah, that is, of the Jewish disciples, for they belong to the New Testament, whose festival days are so spiritually renewed that they cannot become antiquated. Moreover, we already see the graven and molten things, that is, the idols of the false gods, exterminated through the gospel, and given up to oblivion as of the grave, and we know that this prophecy is fulfilled in this very thing. Of what else than the advent of Christ, who was to come, is Habakkuk understood to say, And the Lord answered me, and said, Write the vision openly on a tablet of boxwood, and he that readeth these things may understand. For the vision is yet for a time appointed, and it will arise in the end, and will not become void. If it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, and will not be delayed. Chapter 32 In his prayer with a song, to whom but the Lord Christ does he say, O Lord, I have heard thy hearing, and was afraid. O Lord, I have considered thy works, and was greatly afraid. What is this but the inexpressible admiration of the foreknown, new, and sudden salvation of men? In the midst of two living creatures thou shalt be recognized. What is this but either between the two testaments, or between the two thieves, or between Moses and Elias talking with him on the mount? While the years draw nigh thou wilt be recognized, at the coming of the time thou wilt be shown, does not even need exposition. While my soul shall be troubled at him, in wrath thou wilt be mindful of mercy. What is this but that he puts himself for the Jews, of whose nation he was, who were troubled with great anger and crucified Christ, when he, mindful of mercy, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God shall come from Teman, and the Holy One from the shady and close mountain. What is said here, he shall come from Teman, some interpret from the south, or from the southwest, by which is signified the noonday, that is, the fervor of charity and the splendor of truth. 
The shady and close mountain might be understood in many ways, yet I prefer to take it as meaning the depth of the divine scriptures in which Christ is prophesied. For in the scriptures there are many things shady and close which exercise the mind of the reader, and Christ comes thence when he who has understanding finds him there. His power covereth up the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. What is this but what is also said in the psalm? Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory above all the earth. His splendor shall be as the light. What is it but that the fame of him shall illuminate believers? Horns are in his hands. What is this but the trophy of the cross? And he hath placed the firm charity of his strength, needs no exposition. Before his face shall go the word, and it shall go forth into the field after his feet. What is this but that he should both be announced before his coming hither, and after his return hence? He stood, and the earth was moved. What is this but that he stood for succor, and the earth was moved to believe? He regarded, and the nations melted. That is, he had compassion, and made the people penitent. The mountains are broken with violence. That is, through the power of those who work miracles, the pride of the haughty is broken. The everlasting hills flowed down, that is, they are humbled in time, that they may be lifted up for eternity. I saw his goings made eternal for his labors, that is, I beheld his labor of love not left without the reward of eternity. The tents of Ethiopia shall be greatly afraid in the tents of the land of Midian, that is, even those nations which are not under the Roman authority, being suddenly terrified by the news of thy wonderful works, shall become a Christian people. Wert thou angry at the rivers, O Lord, or was thy fury against the rivers, or was thy rage against the sea? This is said because he does not now come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For thou shalt mount upon thy horses, and thy riding shall be salvation that is, thine evangelists shall carry thee, for they are guided by thee, and thy gospel is salvation to them that believe in thee. Bending thou wilt bend thy bow against the scepters, saith the Lord, that is, thou wilt threaten even the kings of the earth with thy judgment. The earth shall be cleft with rivers, that is, by the sermons of those who preach thee flowing in upon them, men's hearts shall be opened to make confession, to whom it is said, Rend your hearts, and not your garments. What does the people shall see thee and grieve mean, but that in mourning they shall be blessed? What is scattering the waters in marching, but that by walking in those who everywhere proclaim thee, thou wilt scatter hither and thither the streams of thy doctrine? What is the abyss uttered its voice? Is it not that the depth of the human heart expressed what it perceived? The words, the depth of its fantasy, are an explanation of the previous verse, for the depth is the abyss and uttered its voice as to be understood before them, that is, as we have said, it expressed what it perceived. Now the fantasy is the vision which it did not hold or conceal, but poured forth in confession. The sun was raised up, and the moon stood still in her course, that is, Christ descended into heaven, and the church was established under her king. Thy dart shall go in the light, that is, thy word shall not be sent in secret, but openly. For he had said to his own disciples, What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in the light. By threatening thou shalt diminish the earth, that is, by that threatening thou shalt humble men. And in fury thou shalt cast down the nations, 
for in punishing those who exalt themselves thou dashest them one against another. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, that thou mightest save thy Christ. Thou hast sent death on the heads of the wicked. None of these words require exposition. Thou hast lifted up the bonds even to the neck. This may be understood even of the good bonds of wisdom, that the feet may be put into its fetters, and the neck into its collar. Thou hast struck off an amazement of mind, the bonds, must be understood for, he lifts up the good and strikes off the bad, about which it is said to him, Thou hast broken asunder my bonds, and that in amazement of mind, that is, wonderfully. The heads of the mighty shall be moved in it, to wit, in that wonder. They shall open their teeth like a poor man, eating secretly. For some of the mighty among the Jews shall come to the Lord, admiring his works and words, and shall greedily eat the bread of his doctrine in secret for fear of the Jews, just as the gospel has shown they did. And thou hast sent into the sea thy horses, troubling many waters, which are nothing else than many people, for unless all were troubled, some would not be converted with fear, others pursued with fury. I gave heed, and my belly trembled at the voice of the prayer of my lips, and trembling entered into my bones, and my habit of body was troubled under me. He gave heed to those things which he said, and was himself terrified at his own prayer, which he had poured forth prophetically, and in which he discerned things to come. For when many people are troubled, he saw the threatening tribulation of the church, and at once acknowledged himself a member of it, and said, I shall rest in the day of tribulation, as being one of those who are rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. That I may ascend, he says, among the people of my pilgrimage, departing quite from the wicked people of his carnal kinship, who are not pilgrims in this earth, and do not seek the country above. Although the fig tree, he says, shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, and the labor of the olive shall lie, and the fields shall yield no meat, the sheep shall be cut off from the meat, and there shall be no oxen in the stalls. He sees that nation which was to slay Christ about to lose the abundance of spiritual supplies, which in prophetic fashion he has set forth by the figure of earthly plenty. And because that nation was to suffer such wrath of God, because being ignorant of the righteousness of God it wished to establish its own, he immediately says, Yet will I rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in God my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will set my feet in completion. He will place me above the heights that I may conquer in his song. To wit, in that song of which something similar is said in the psalm, He has set my feet upon a rock, and directed my goings, and put in my mouth a new song, a hymn to our God. He therefore conquers in the song of the Lord, who takes pleasure in his praise, not in his own, that he that glorieth let him glory in the Lord. But some copies have, I will joy in God my Jesus, which seems to me better than the version of those who, wishing to put it in Latin, have not set down that very name which for us it is dearer and sweeter to name. Chapter 33 Jeremiah, like Isaiah, is one of the greater prophets, not of the minor, like the others from whose writings I have just given extracts. He prophesied when Josiah reigned in Jerusalem, and Ancus Martius at Rome, when the captivity of the Jews was already at hand, and he continued to prophesy down to the fifth month of the captivity, as we find from his writings. 
Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets, is put along with him, because he himself says that he prophesied in the days of Josiah, but he does not say till when. Jeremiah thus prophesied not only in the times of Ancus Martius, but also in those of Tarquinius Priscus, whom the Romans had for their fifth king. For he had already begun to reign when that captivity took place. Jeremiah, in prophesying of Christ, says, The breath of our mouth, the Lord Christ, was taken in our sins, thus briefly showing both that Christ is our Lord and that he suffered for us. Also, in another place, he says, This is my God, and there shall none other be accounted of in comparison of him, who hath found out all the way of prudence, and hath given it to Jacob his servant, and to Israel his beloved. Afterwards he was seen on the earth, and conversed with men. Some attribute this testimony not to Jeremiah, but to his secretary, who was called Baruch, but it is more commonly ascribed to Jeremiah. Again, the same prophet says concerning him, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise up unto David a righteous shoot, and a king shall reign, and shall be wise, and shall do judgment and justice in the earth. In those days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell confidently, and this is the name which they shall call him, our righteous Lord. And of the calling of the nations which was to come to pass, and which we now see fulfilled, he thus spoke, O Lord my God, and my refuge in the day of evils, to thee shall the nations come from the utmost end of the earth, saying, Truly our fathers have worshipped lying images, wherein there is no prophet. But that the Jews, by whom he behooved even to be slain, were not going to acknowledge him, this prophet thus intimates, Heavy is the heart through all, and he is a man, and who shall know him? That passage also is his, which I have quoted in the seventeenth book, concerning the New Testament, of which Christ is the mediator. For Jeremiah himself says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will complete over the house of Jacob a new testament, and the rest which may be read there. For the present I shall put down those predictions about Christ by the prophet Zephaniah, who prophesied with Jeremiah. Wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, in the day of my resurrection in the future, because it is my determination to assemble the nations and gather together the kingdoms. And again he says, The Lord will be terrible upon them, and will exterminate all the gods of the earth, and they shall worship him every man from his place, even all the isles of the nations. And a little after he says, then will I turn to the people a tongue, and to his offspring, that they may call upon the name of the Lord, and serve him under one yoke. From the borders of the rivers of Ethiopia shall they bring sacrifices unto me. In that day thou shalt not be confounded for all thy curious inventions, which thou hast done impiously against me. For then I will take away from thee the naughtiness of thy trespass, and thou shalt no more magnify thyself above thy holy mountain." And I will leave in thee a meek and humble people, and they who shall be left of Israel shall fear the name of the Lord. These are the remnant of whom the apostle quotes that which is elsewhere prophesied. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. These are the remnant of that nation who have believed in Christ. Chapter 34 Daniel and Ezekiel, other two of the greater prophets, also first prophesied in the very captivity of Babylon. Daniel even defined the time when Christ was to come and suffer by the exact date. 
It would take too long to show this by computation, and it has been done often by others before us. But of his power and glory he has thus spoken, I saw in a night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came even to the Ancient of Days, and he was brought into his presence. And to him there was given dominion, and honor, and a kingdom, and all people, tribes, and tongues shall serve him. His power is an everlasting power which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Ezekiel also, speaking prophetically in the person of God the Father, thus foretells Christ, speaking of him in the prophetic manner as David, because he assumed flesh of the seed of David, and on account of that form of a servant in which he was made man, he who is the Son of God is also called the servant of God. He says, And I will set up over my sheep one shepherd who will feed them, even my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince in the midst of them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And in another place he says, And one king shall be over them all, and they shall no more be two nations, neither shall they be divided any more into two kingdoms, neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, and their abominations, and all their iniquities. And I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And my servant David shall be king over them, and there shall be one shepherd for them all. Chapter 35 There remain three minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, who prophesied at the close of the captivity. Of these, Haggai more openly prophesies of Christ and the church thus briefly. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet one little while, and I will shake the heaven, and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land, and I will move all nations, and the desired of all nations shall come. The fulfillment of this prophecy is in part already seen, and in part hoped for in the end. For he moved the heaven by the testimony of the angels and the stars when Christ became incarnate. He moved the earth by the great miracle of his birth of the Virgin. He moved the sea and the dry land when Christ was proclaimed both in the isles and in the whole world. So we see all nations move to the faith, and the fulfillment of what follows, and the desired of all nations shall come, is looked for at his last coming. For ere men can desire and wait for him, they must believe and love him. Zechariah says of Christ in the church, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout joyfully, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king shall come unto thee, just and the Saviour, himself poor and mounting an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. And his dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. How this was done, when the Lord Christ on his journey used a beast of burden of this kind, we read in the Gospel, where also as much of this prophecy is quoted as appears sufficient for the context. In another place, speaking in the spirit of prophecy to Christ himself of the remission of sins through his blood, he says, Thou also, by the blood of thy testament, hast sent forth thy prisoners from the lake wherein is no water. Different opinions may be held consistently with right belief as to what he meant by this lake. Yet it seems to me that no meaning suits better than that of the depth of human misery, which is, as it were, dry and barren, where there are no streams of righteousness, but only the mire of iniquity. 
for it is said of it in the Psalms, And he led me forth out of the lake of misery, and from the miry clay. Malachi, foretelling the church which we now behold propagated through Christ, says most openly to the Jews in the person of God, I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept a gift at your hand. For from the rising even to the going down of the sun my name is great among the nations, and in every place sacrifice shall be made, and a pure oblation shall be offered unto my name, for my name shall be great among the nations, saith the Lord. Since we can already see this sacrifice offered to God in every place from the rising of the sun to his going down, through Christ's priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek, while the Jews, to whom it was said, I have no pleasure in you, neither will I accept a gift at your hand, cannot deny that their sacrifice has ceased, why do they still look for another Christ, when they read this in the prophecy, and see it fulfilled, which could not be fulfilled except through him? And a little after he says of him, in the person of God, my covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave to him that he might fear me with fear, and be afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, directing in peace he hath walked with me, and hath turned many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips shall keep knowledge, and they shall seek the law at his mouth, for he is the angel of the Lord Almighty. Nor is it to be wondered at that Christ Jesus is called the angel of the Almighty God. For just as he is called a servant on account of the form of a servant in which he came to men, so he is called an angel on account of the evangel which he proclaimed to men. For if we interpret these Greek words, evangel is good news, and angel is messenger. Again he says of him, Behold, I will send mine angel, and he will look out the way before my face. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come into his temple, even the angel of the testament whom ye desire. Behold, he cometh, saith the Lord Almighty, and who shall abide the day of his entry, or who shall stand at his appearing? In this place he has foretold both the first and second advent of Christ, the first to wit of which he says, And he shall come suddenly into his temple, that is, into his flesh, of which he said in the gospel, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And of the second advent he says, Behold, he cometh, saith the Lord Almighty, and who shall abide the day of his entry, or who shall stand at his appearing? But what he says, The Lord whom ye seek, and the angel of the testament whom ye desire, just means that even the Jews, according to the scriptures which they read, shall seek and desire Christ. But many of them did not acknowledge that he whom they sought and desired had come, being blinded in their hearts, which were preoccupied with their own merits. Now what he here calls the testament, either above, where he says, My testament had been with him, or here, where he has called him the angel of the testament, we ought beyond a doubt to take to be the new testament, in which the things promised are eternal, and not the old, in which they are only temporal. Yet many who are weak are troubled when they see the wicked abound in such temporal things, because they value them greatly, and serve the true God to be rewarded with them. On this account, to distinguish the eternal blessedness of the New Testament, which shall be given only to the good, from the earthly felicity of the old, which for the most part is given to the bad as well, the same prophet says, Ye have made your words burdensome to me, yet ye have said, In what have we spoken ill of thee? Ye have said, Foolish is every one who serves God, and what profit is it that we have kept his observances, and that we have walked as suppliants before the face of the Lord Almighty? 
and now we call the aliens blessed. Yea, all that do wicked things are built up again. Yea, they are opposed to God, and are saved. They that feared the Lord uttered these reproaches, every one to his neighbor. And the Lord hearkened, and heard, and he wrote a book of remembrance before him, for them that fear the Lord, and that revere his name. By that book is meant the New Testament. Finally, let us hear what follows. And they shall be an acquisition for me, saith the Lord Almighty, in the day which I make, and I will choose them as a man chooseth his son that serveth him. And ye shall return, and shall discern between the just and the unjust, and between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. For behold, the day cometh burning as an oven, and it shall burn them up, and all the aliens and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that shall come will set them on fire, saith the Lord Almighty, and shall leave neither root nor branch. And unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise, and health shall be in his wings, and ye shall go forth and exult as calves let loose from bonds. And ye shall tread down the wicked, and they shall be ashes under your feet, in the day in which I shall do this, saith the Lord Almighty. This day is the day of judgment, of which, if God will, we shall speak more fully in its own place. Chapter 36 After these three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, during the same period of the liberation of the people from the Babylonian servitude, Esdras also wrote, who is historical rather than prophetical, as is also the book called Esther, which is found to relate, for the praise of God, events not far from those times, unless perhaps Esdras is to be understood as prophesying of Christ in that passage where, on a question having arisen among certain young men as to what is the strongest thing, when one had said kings, another wine, the third women, who for the most part rule kings, yet that same third youth demonstrated that the truth is victorious over all. For by consulting the gospel we learn that Christ is the truth. From this time, when the temple was rebuilt, down to the time of Aristobulus, the Jews had not kings but princes, and the reckoning of their dates is found not in the holy scriptures which are called canonical, but in others, among which are also the books of the Maccabees. These are held as canonical not by the Jews but by the church, on account of the extreme and wonderful sufferings of certain martyrs, who, before Christ had come in the flesh, contended for the law of God even unto death, and endured most grievous and horrible evils. Chapter 37 In the time of our prophets, then, whose writings had already come to the knowledge of almost all nations, the philosophers of the nations had not yet arisen, at least not those who were called by that name, which originated with Pythagoras the Samian, who was becoming famous at the time when the Jewish captivity ended. Much more, then, are the other philosophers found to be later than the prophets. For even Socrates the Athenian, the master of all who were then most famous, holding the preeminence in that department that is called the moral or active, is found after Estrus in the Chronicles. Plato also was born not much later, who far outwent the other disciples of Socrates. If besides these we take their predecessors, who had not yet been styled philosophers, to wit the seven sages, and then the physicists, who succeeded Thales, and imitated his studious search into the nature of things, namely Anaximander, Anaximenes, and Anaxagoras, and some others, before Pythagoras first professed himself a philosopher, 
Even these did not precede the whole of our prophets in antiquity of time, since Thales, whom the others succeeded, is said to have flourished in the reign of Romulus, when the stream of prophecy burst forth from the fountains of Israel in those writings which spread over the whole world. So that only those theological poets, Orpheus, Linus, and Musaeus, and, it may be, some others among the Greeks, are found earlier in date than the Hebrew prophets whose writings we hold as authoritative. But not even these preceded in time our true divine, Moses, who authentically preached the one true God, and whose writings are first in the authoritative canon, and therefore the Greeks, in whose tongue the literature of this age chiefly appears, have no ground for boasting of their wisdom, in which our religion, wherein is true wisdom, is not evidently more ancient at least, if not superior. Yet it must be confessed that before Moses there had already been, not indeed among the Greeks, but among barbarous nations, as in Egypt, some doctrine which might be called their wisdom, else it would not have been written in the holy books that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, as he was, when, being born there, and adopted and nursed by Pharaoh's daughter, he was also liberally educated. Yet not even the wisdom of the Egyptians could be antecedent in time to the wisdom of our prophets, because even Abraham was a prophet. And what wisdom could there be in Egypt before Isis had given them letters, whom they thought fit to worship as a goddess after her death? Now Isis is declared to have been the daughter of Inachus, who first began to reign in Argus, when the grandsons of Abraham are known to have been already born. Chapter 38 if I may recall far more ancient times, our patriarch Noah was certainly even before that great deluge, and I might not undeservedly call him a prophet, forasmuch as the ark he made, in which he escaped with his family, was itself a prophecy of our times. What of Enoch, the seventh from Adam? Does not the canonical epistle of the apostle Jude declare that he prophesied? But the writings of these men could not be held as authoritative either among the Jews or us, on account of their too great antiquity, which made it seem needful to regard them with suspicion, lest false things should be set forth instead of true. For some writings which are said to be theirs are quoted by those who, according to their own humor, loosely believe what they please. But the purity of the canon has not admitted these writings, not because the authority of these men who pleased God is rejected, but because they are not believed to be theirs. Nor ought it to appear strange if writings for which so great antiquity is claimed are held in suspicion, seeing that in the very history of the kings of Judah and Israel containing their acts, which we believe to belong to the canonical scripture, very many things are mentioned which are not explained there, but are said to be found in other books which the prophets wrote, the very names of these prophets being sometimes given, and yet they are not found in the canon which the people of God received. Now I confess the reason of this is hidden from me, only I think that even those men to whom certainly the Holy Spirit revealed those things which ought to be held as of religious authority, might write some things as men by historical diligence, and others as prophets by divine inspiration, and these things were so distinct that it was judged that the former should be ascribed to themselves, but the latter to God speaking through them, and so the one pertained to the abundance of knowledge, the other to the authority of religion. In that authority the canon is guarded, so that if any writings outside of it are now brought forward under the name of the ancient prophets, they cannot serve even as an aid to knowledge, because it is uncertain whether they are genuine. 
and on this account they are not trusted, especially those of them in which some things are found that are even contrary to the truth of the canonical books, so that it is quite apparent they do not belong to them. Chapter 39 now we must not believe that Heber, from whose name the word Hebrew is derived, preserved and transmitted the Hebrew language to Abraham only as a spoken language, and that the Hebrew letters began with the giving of the law through Moses, but rather that this language, along with its letters, was preserved by that succession of fathers. Moses indeed appointed some among the people of God to teach letters before they could know any letters of the divine law. The scripture calls these men grammatai sagogis, who may be called in Latin inductores or introductores of letters, because they, as it were, introduce them into the hearts of the learners, or rather lead those whom they teach into them. Therefore no nation could vaunt itself over our patriarchs and prophets by any wicked vanity for the antiquity of its wisdom, since not even Egypt, which is wont falsely and vainly to glory in the antiquity of her doctrines, is found to have preceded in time the wisdom of our patriarchs in her own wisdom, such as it is. Neither will any one dare to say that they were most skilful in wonderful sciences before they knew letters, that is, before Isis came and taught them there. Besides, what for the most part was that memorable doctrine of theirs which was called wisdom, but astronomy, and it may be some other sciences of that kind, which usually have more power to exercise men's wit than to enlighten their minds with true wisdom. As regards philosophy, which professes to teach men something which shall make them happy, studies of that kind flourished in those lands about the times of Mercury, whom they called Trismegistus, long before the sages and philosophers of Greece, but yet after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and even after Moses himself. At that time, indeed, when Moses was born, Atlas is found to have lived, that great astronomer, the brother of Prometheus, and maternal grandson of the elder Mercury, of whom that Mercury Trismegistus was the grandson. Chapter 40 in vain, then, do some babble with most empty presumption, saying that Egypt has understood the reckoning of the stars for more than a hundred thousand years. For in what books have they collected that number who learned letters from Isis, their mistress, not much more than two thousand years ago? Varro, who has declared this, is no small authority in history, and it does not disagree with the truth of the divine books. For as it is not yet six thousand years since the first man, who is called Adam, are not those to be ridiculed rather than refuted, who try to persuade us of anything regarding a space of time so different from, and contrary to, the ascertained truth? For what historian of the past should we credit more than him who has also predicted things to come which we now see fulfilled? And the very disagreement of the historians among themselves furnishes a good reason why we ought rather to believe him who does not contradict the divine history which we hold. But, on the other hand, the citizens of the impious city, scattered everywhere through the earth, when they read the most learned writers, none of whom seems to be of contemptible authority, and find them disagreeing among themselves about affairs most remote from the memory of our age, cannot find out whom they ought to trust. But we, being sustained by divine authority in the history of our religion, have no doubt that whatever is opposed to it is most false, whatever may be the case regarding other things in secular books, which, whether true or false, yield nothing of moment to our living rightly and happily. Chapter 41 
but let us omit further examination of history and return to the philosophers from whom we digress to these things. They seem to have labored in their studies for no other end than to find out how to live in a way proper for laying hold of blessedness. Why then have the disciples dissented from their masters and the fellow disciples from one another, except because as men they have sought after these things by human sense and human reasonings? Now although there might be among them a desire of glory, so that each wished to be thought wiser and more acute than another, and in no way addicted to the judgment of others, but the inventor of his own dogma and opinion, yet I may grant that there were some, or even very many of them, whose love of truth severed them from their teachers or fellow disciples, that they might strive for what they thought was the truth, whether it was so or not. But what can human misery do, or how or where can it reach forth so as to attain blessedness if divine authority does not lead it? Finally, let our authors, among whom the canon of the sacred books is fixed and bounded, be far from disagreeing in any respect. It is not without good reason, then, that not merely a few people prating in the schools and gymnasia in captious disputations, but so many and great people, both learned and unlearned, in countries and cities, have believed that God spoke to them or by them, that is, the canonical writers, when they wrote these books. There ought indeed to be but few of them, lest on account of their multitude what ought to be religiously esteemed should grow cheap and yet not so few that their agreement should not be wonderful. For among the multitude of philosophers, who in their works have left behind them the monument of their dogmas, no one will easily find any who agree in all their opinions. But to show this is too long a task for this work. But what author of any sect is so approved in this demon-worshipping city that the rest who have differed from or opposed him in opinion have been disapproved? The Epicureans asserted that human affairs were not under the providence of the gods, and the Stoics, holding the opposite opinion, agreed that they were ruled and defended by favorable and tutelary gods. Yet were not both sects famous among the Athenians? I wonder, then, why Anaxagoras was accused of a crime for saying that the sun was a burning stone and denying that it was a god at all, while in the same city Epicurus flourished gloriously and lived securely, although he not only did not believe that the sun or any star was a god, but contended that neither Jupiter nor any of the gods dwelt in the world at all, so that the prayers and supplications of men might reach them. Were not both Aristippus and Antisthenes there, two noble philosophers, and both Socratic, yet they placed the chief end of life within bounds so diverse and contradictory that the first made the delight of the body the chief good, while the other asserted that man was made happy mainly by the virtue of the mind. The one also said that the wise man should flee from the republic, the other that he should administer its affairs. Yet did not each gather disciples to follow his own sect? Indeed, in the conspicuous and well-known porch, in gymnasia, in gardens, in places public and private, they openly strove in bands, each for his own opinion, some asserting there was one world, others innumerable worlds, some that this world had a beginning, others that it had not, some that it would perish, others that it would exist always, some that it was governed by the divine mind, others by chance and accident some that souls are immortal, others that they are mortal. 
and of those who asserted their immortality, some said they transmigrated through beasts, others that it was by no means so, while of those who asserted their mortality, some said they perished immediately after the body, others that they survived either a little while or a longer time, but not always, some fixing supreme good in the body, some in the mind, some in both, others adding to the mind and body external good things, some thinking that the bodily senses ought to be trusted always, some not always, others never. Now what people, senate, power, or public dignity of the impious city has ever taken care to judge between all these and other well-nigh innumerable dissensions of the philosophers, approving and accepting some, and disapproving and rejecting others? Has it not held in its bosom at random, without any judgment, and confusedly, so many controversies of men at variance, not about fields, houses, or anything of a pecuniary nature, but about those things which make life either miserable or happy? Even if some true things were said in it, yet falsehoods were uttered with the same license, so that such a city has not amiss received the title of the mystic Babylon. For Babylon means confusion, as we remember we have already explained." nor does it matter to the devil, its king, how they wrangle among themselves in contradictory errors, since all alike deservedly belong to him on account of their great and varied impiety. But that nation, that people, that city, that republic, these Israelites, to whom the oracles of God were entrusted, by no means confounded with similar license false prophets with the true prophets, but, agreeing together and differing in nothing, acknowledged and upheld the authentic authors of their sacred books. These were their philosophers, these were their sages, divines, prophets, and teachers of probity and piety. Whoever was wise and lived according to them was wise and lived not according to men, but according to God, who hath spoken by them. If sacrilege is forbidden there, God hath forbidden it. If it is said, Honor thy father and thy mother, God hath commanded it. If it is said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, and other similar commandments, not human lips, but the divine oracles, have enounced them. Whatever truth certain philosophers, amid their false opinions, were able to see, and strove by laborious discussions to persuade men of, such as that God had made this world, and himself most providently governs it, or of the nobility of the virtues, of the love of country, of fidelity and friendship, of good works, and everything pertaining to virtuous manners, although they know not to what end and what rule all these things were to be referred, all these by words prophetic, that is, divine, although spoken by men, were commended to the people in that city, and not inculcated by contention and arguments, so that he who should know them might be afraid of contemning, not the wit of men, but the oracle of God. Chapter 42 One of the Ptolemies, kings of Egypt, desired to know and have these sacred books. For after Alexander of Macedon, who is also styled the Great, had by his most wonderful but by no means enduring power subdued the whole of Asia, yea, almost the whole world, partly by force of arms, partly by terror, and, among other kingdoms of the east, had entered and obtained Judea also, on his death his generals did not peaceably divide that most ample kingdom among them for a possession, but rather dissipated it, wasting all things by wars. Then Egypt began to have the Ptolemies as her kings. The first of them, the son of Lagus, carried many captive out of Judea into Egypt. 
But another Ptolemy, called Philadelphus, who succeeded him, permitted all whom he had brought under the yoke to return free, and more than that sent kingly gifts to the temple of God, and begged Eleazar, who was the high priest, to give him the scriptures which he had heard by report were truly divine, and therefore greatly desired to have in that most noble library he had made. When the high priest had sent them to him in Hebrew, he afterwards demanded interpreters of him, and there were given him seventy-two, out of each of the twelve tribes six men, most learned in both languages, to wit the Hebrew and Greek, and their translation is now by custom called the Septuagint. It is reported indeed that there was an agreement in their words so wonderful, stupendous, and plainly divine, that when they had sat at this work, each one apart, for so it pleased Ptolemy to test their fidelity, they differed from each other in no word which had the same meaning and force, or in the order of the words, but as if the translators had been one, so what all had translated was one, because in very deed the one spirit had been in them all. And they received so wonderful a gift of God, in order that the authority of these scriptures might be commended not as human, but divine, as indeed it was, for the benefit of the nations who should at some time believe, as we now see them doing. Chapter 43 for while there were other interpreters who translated these sacred oracles out of the Hebrew tongue into Greek, as Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodotion, and also that translation which, as the name of the author is unknown, is quoted as the fifth edition, yet the church has received this Septuagint translation just as if it were the only one, and it has been used by the Greek Christian people, most of whom are not aware that there is any other. From this translation there has also been made a translation in the Latin tongue, which the Latin churches use. Our times, however, have enjoyed the advantage of the presbyter Jerome, a man most learned and skilled in all three languages, who translated these same scriptures into the Latin speech, not from the Greek, but from the Hebrew. But although the Jews acknowledge this very learned labor of his to be fruitful, while they contend that the Septuagint translators have erred in many places, still the churches of Christ judge that no one should be preferred to the authority of so many men, chosen for this very great work by Eleazar, who was then high priest. For even if there had not appeared in them one spirit, without doubt divine, and the seventy learned men had, after the manner of men, compared together the words of their translation, that what pleased them all might stand, no single translator ought to be preferred to them. But since so great a sign of divinity has appeared in them, certainly if any other translator of their scriptures from the Hebrew into any other tongue is faithful, in that case he agrees with these seventy translators, and if he is not found to agree with them, then we ought to believe that the prophetic gift is with them. For the same spirit who was in the prophets when they spoke these things was also in the seventy men when they translated them, so that assuredly they could also say something else, just as if the prophet himself had said both, because it would be the same spirit who said both, and could say the same thing differently, so that, although the words were not the same, yet the same meaning should shine forth to those of good understanding and could omit or add something, so that even by this it might be shown that there was in that work not human bondage, which the translator owed to the words, but rather divine power, which filled and ruled the mind of the translator. Some, however, have thought that the Greek copies of the Septuagint version should be emended from the Hebrew copies. 
yet they did not dare to take away what the Hebrew lacked and the Septuagint had, but only added what was found in the Hebrew copies and was lacking in the Septuagint, and noted them by placing at the beginning of the verses certain marks in the form of stars, which they call asterisks. And those things which the Hebrew copies have not, but the Septuagint have, they have in like manner marked at the beginning of the verses by horizontal spit-shaped marks, like those by which we denote ounces. And many copies having these marks are circulated even in Latin. But we cannot, without inspecting both kinds of copies, find out those things which are neither omitted nor added, but expressed differently, whether they yield another meaning not in itself unsuitable, or can be shown to explain the same meaning in another way. If, then, as it behooves us, we behold nothing else in these scriptures than what the Spirit of God has spoken through men, if anything is in the Hebrew copies and is not in the version of the seventy, the Spirit of God did not choose to say it through them, but only through the prophets. But whatever is in the Septuagint and not in the Hebrew copies, the same Spirit chose rather to say through the latter, thus showing that both were prophets. For in that manner he spoke as he chose, some things through Isaiah, some through Jeremiah, some through several prophets, or else the same thing through this prophet and through that. Further, whatever is found in both editions, that one and the same Spirit will to say through both, but so as that the former proceeded in prophesying, and the latter followed in prophetically interpreting them. Because, as the one Spirit of peace was in the former, when they spoke true and concordant words, so the selfsame one Spirit hath appeared in the latter, when, without mutual conference, they yet interpreted all things as if with one mouth. Chapter 44 But someone may say, How shall I know whether the prophet Jonah said to the Ninevites, Yet three days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, or forty days? For who does not see that the prophet could not say both, when he was sent to terrify the city by the threat of imminent ruin? For if its destruction was to take place on the third day, it certainly could not be on the fortieth, but if on the fortieth, then certainly not on the third. If then I am asked which of these Jonah may have said, I rather think what is read in the Hebrew, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet the seventy, interpreting long afterward, could say what was different and yet pertinent to the matter, and agree in the selfsame meaning, although under a different signification. And this may admonish the reader not to despise the authority of either, but to raise himself above the history and search for those things which the history itself was written to set forth. These things indeed took place in the city of Nineveh, but they also signified something else too great to apply to that city. Just as, when it happened that the prophet himself was three days in the whale's belly, it signified besides that he who was lord of all the prophets should be three days in the depths of hell. Wherefore, if that city is rightly held as prophetically representing the church of the Gentiles, to wit, as brought down by penitence, so as no longer to be what it had been, since this was done by Christ in the church of the Gentiles, which Nineveh represented, Christ himself was signified both by the forty and by the three days. By the forty, because he spent that number of days with his disciples after the resurrection, and then ascended into heaven, but by the three days, because he rose on the third day. 
so that if the reader desires nothing else than to adhere to the history of events, he may be aroused from his sleep by the Septuagint interpreters as well as the prophets to search into the depth of the prophecy, as if they had said, In the forty days seek him in whom thou mayest also find the three days, the one thou wilt find in his ascension, the other in his resurrection. Because that which could be most suitably signified by both numbers, of which one is used by Jonah the prophet, the other by the prophecy of the Septuagint version, the one and selfsame spirit hath spoken. I dread prolixity, so that I must not demonstrate this by many instances in which the seventy interpreters may be thought to differ from the Hebrew, and yet, when well understood, are found to agree. For which reason I also, according to my capacity, following the footsteps of the apostles, who themselves have quoted prophetic testimonies from both, that is, from the Hebrew and the Septuagint, have thought that both should be used as authoritative, since both are one and divine. But let us now follow out as we can what remains. Chapter 45 the Jewish nation no doubt became worse after it ceased to have prophets just at the very time when on the rebuilding of the temple after the captivity in Babylon it hoped to become better. For so indeed did that carnal people understand what was foretold by Haggai the prophet, saying, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former. Now that this is said of the New Testament he showed a little above, where he says, evidently promising Christ, and I will move all nations, and the desired one shall come to all nations. In this passage the Septuagint translators giving another sense more suitable to the body than the head, that is, to the church than to Christ, have said by prophetic authority, The things shall come that are chosen of the Lord from all nations, that is, men, of whom Jesus saith in the gospel, Many are called, but few are chosen. For by such chosen ones of the nations there is built, through the New Testament, with living stones, a house of God far more glorious than that temple which was constructed by King Solomon and rebuilt after the captivity. For this reason, then, that nation had no prophets from that time, but was afflicted with many plagues by kings of alien race and by the Romans themselves, lest they should fancy that this prophecy of Haggai was fulfilled by that rebuilding of the temple. For not long after, on the arrival of Alexander, it was subdued, when, although there was no pillaging because they dared not resist him, and thus, being very easily subdued, received him peaceably, yet the glory of that house was not so great as it was when under the free power of their own kings. Alexander indeed offered up sacrifices in the temple of God, not as a convert to his worship in true piety, but thinking with impious folly that he was to be worshipped along with false gods. Then Ptolemy, son of Lagus, whom I have already mentioned, after Alexander's death, carried them captive into Egypt. His successor, Ptolemy Philadelphus, most benevolently dismissed them, and by him it was brought about, as I have narrated a little before, that we should have the Septuagint version of the Scriptures. Then they were crushed by the wars which are explained in the books of the Maccabees. Afterward they were taken captive by Ptolemy, king of Alexandria, who was called Epiphanes. Then Antiochus, king of Syria, compelled them by many and most grievous evils to worship idols, and filled the temple itself with the sacrilegious superstitions of the Gentiles. Yet their most vigorous leader Judas, who was also called Maccabeus, after beating the generals of Antiochus, cleansed it from all that defilement of idolatry. 
But not long after, one Alcimus, although an alien from the sacerdotal tribe, was, through ambition, made pontiff, which was an impious thing. After almost fifty years, during which they never had peace, although they prospered in some affairs, Aristobulus first assumed the diadem among them, and was made both king and pontiff. Before that, indeed, from the time of their return from the Babylonish captivity and the rebuilding of the temple, they had not kings but generals or principes. Although a king himself may be called a prince from his principality in governing, and a leader because he leads the army, but it does not follow that all who are princes and leaders may also be called kings, as that Aristobulus was. He was succeeded by Alexander, also both king and pontiff, who is reported to have reigned over them cruelly. After him his wife Alexandra was queen of the Jews, and from her time downwards more grievous evils pursued them, for this Alexandra's sons, Aristobulus and Hyrcanus, when contending with each other for the kingdom, called in the Roman forces against the nation of Israel, for Hyrcanus asked assistance from them against his brother. At that time Rome had already subdued Africa and Greece, and ruled extensively in other parts of the world also, and yet, as if unable to bear her own weight, had, in a manner, broken herself by her own size. For indeed she had come to grave domestic seditions, and from that to social wars, and by and by to civil wars, and had enfeebled and worn herself out so much that the changed state of the republic in which she should be governed by kings was now imminent. Pompey, then, a most illustrious prince of the Roman people, having entered Judea with an army, took the city, threw open the temple, not with the devotion of a suppliant, but with the authority of a conqueror, and went, not reverently, but profanely, into the Holy of Holies, where it was lawful for none but the pontiff to enter. Having established Hyrcanus in the pontificate, and set Antipater over the subjugated nation as guardian or procurator, as they were then called, he led Aristobulus with him bound. From that time the Jews also began to be Roman tributaries. Afterward Cassius plundered the very temple. Then after a few years it was their desert to have Herod, a king of foreign birth, in whose reign Christ was born. For the time had now come signified by the prophetic spirit through the mouth of the patriarch Jacob, when he says, There shall not be lacking a prince out of Judah, nor a teacher from his loins, until he shall come for whom it is reserved, and he is the expectation of the nations. There lacked not therefore a Jewish prince of the Jews until that Herod, who was the first king of a foreign race, received by them. Therefore it was now the time when he should come, for whom that was reserved, which is promised in the New Testament, that he should be the expectation of the nations. But it was not possible that the nations should expect he would come, as we see they did, to do judgment in the splendor of power, unless they should first believe in him when he came to suffer judgment in the humility of patience. Chapter 46 while Herod, therefore, reigned in Judea, and Caesar Augustus was emperor at Rome, the state of the republic being already changed, and the world being set at peace by him, Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judah, man manifest out of a human virgin, God hidden out of God the Father. For so had the prophet foretold, Behold, a virgin shall conceive in the womb, and bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, being interpreted, is God with us. 
he did many miracles that he might commend God in himself, some of which, even as many as seemed sufficient to proclaim him, are contained in the evangelic scripture. The first of these is that he was so wonderfully born, and the last that with his body raised up again from the dead he ascended into heaven. But the Jews who slew him, and would not believe in him, because it behooved him to die and rise again, were yet more miserably wasted by the Romans, and utterly rooted out from their kingdom, where aliens had already ruled over them, and were dispersed through the lands, so that indeed there is no place where they are not, and are thus by their own scriptures a testimony to us that we have not forged the prophecies about Christ. And very many of them, considering this, even before his passion, but chiefly after his resurrection, believed on him of whom it was predicted, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved. But the rest are blinded of whom it was predicted, let their table be made before them a trap, and a retribution, and a stumbling block, let their eyes be darkened lest they see, and bow down their back alway. Therefore, when they do not believe our scriptures, their own, which they blindly read, are fulfilled in them, lest perchance any one should say that the Christians have forged these prophecies about Christ, which are quoted under the name of the Sibyl, or of others, if such there be, who do not belong to the Jewish people. For us, indeed, those suffice which are quoted from the books of our enemies, to whom we make our acknowledgment on account of this testimony which, in spite of themselves, they contribute by their possession of these books, while they themselves are dispersed among all nations, wherever the church of Christ is spread abroad. For a prophecy about this thing was sent before in the Psalms, which they also read, where it was written, My God, his mercy shall prevent me. My God hath shown me concerning mine enemies, that thou shalt not slay them, lest they should at last forget thy law, disperse them in thy might. Therefore God has shown the church in her enemies, the Jews, the grace of his compassion, since, as saith the apostle, their offense is the salvation of the Gentiles. And therefore he has not slain them, that is, he has not let the knowledge that they are Jews be lost in them, although they have been conquered by the Romans, lest they should forget the law of God, and their testimony should be of no avail in this matter of which we treat. But it was not enough that he should say, Slay them not, lest they should at last forget thy law, unless he had also added, Disperse them, because if they had only been in their own land with that testimony of the Scriptures, and not everywhere, certainly the church which is everywhere could not have had them as witnesses among all nations to the prophecies which were sent before, concerning Christ. Chapter 47 Wherefore, if we read of any foreigner, that is, one neither born of Israel nor received by that people into the canon of the sacred books, having prophesied something about Christ, if it has come or shall come to our knowledge, we can refer to it over and above, not that this is necessary, even if wanting, but because it is not incongruous to believe that even in other nations there may have been men to whom this mystery was revealed, and who were also impelled to proclaim it, whether they were partakers of the same grace, or had no experience of it, but were taught by bad angels, who, as we know, even confessed the present Christ, whom the Jews did not acknowledge. Nor do I think the Jews themselves dare contend that no one has belonged to God except the Israelites, since the increase of Israel began on the rejection of his elder brother. For in very deed there was no other people who were specially called the people of God, 
but they cannot deny that there have been certain men even of other nations who belonged not by earthly but heavenly fellowship to the true Israelites, the citizens of the country that is above. Because if they deny this, they can be most easily confuted by the case of the holy and wonderful man Job, who was neither a native nor a proselyte, that is, a stranger joining the people of Israel, but, being bred of the Idumean race, arose there and died there too, and who is so praised by the divine oracle that no man of his times is put on a level with him as regards justice and piety. And although we do not find his date in the Chronicles, yet from his book, which for its merits the Israelites have received as of canonical authority, we gather that he was in the third generation after Israel. And I doubt not it was divinely provided that from this one case we might know that among other nations also there might be men pertaining to the spiritual Jerusalem who have lived according to God and have pleased him. And it is not to be supposed that this was granted to any one unless the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, was divinely revealed to him, who was pre-announced to the saints of old as yet to come in the flesh, even as he is announced to us as having come, that the selfsame faith through him may lead all to God who are predestinated to be the city of God, the house of God, and the temple of God. But whatever prophecies concerning the grace of God through Christ Jesus are quoted, they may be thought to have been forged by the Christians, so that there is nothing of more weight for confuting all sorts of aliens if they contend about this matter, and for supporting our friends if they are truly wise, than to quote those divine predictions about Christ which are written in the books of the Jews, who have been torn from their native abode and dispersed over the whole world in order to bear this testimony, so that the church of Christ has everywhere. Chapter 48 this house of God is more glorious than that first one which was constructed of wood and stone, metals, and other precious things. Therefore the prophecy of Haggai was not fulfilled in the rebuilding of that temple. For it can never be shown to have had so much glory after it was rebuilt as it had in the time of Solomon. Yea, rather, the glory of that house is shown to have been diminished, first by the ceasing of prophecy, and then by the nation itself suffering so great calamities, even to the final destruction made by the Romans, as the things above mentioned prove. But this house which pertains to the New Testament is just as much more glorious as the living stones, even believing renewed men, of which it is constructed, are better. But it was typified by the rebuilding of that temple for this reason, because the very renovation of that edifice typifies in the prophetic oracle another testament which is called the New. When, therefore, God said by the prophet just named, And I will give peace in this place, he has understood who is typified by that typical place. For since by that rebuilt place is typified the church which was to be built by Christ, nothing else can be accepted as the meaning of the saying, I will give peace in this place, except I will give peace in the place which that place signifies. For all typical things seem in some way to personate those whom they typify, as it is said by the Apostle, that rock was Christ. Therefore the glory of this New Testament house is greater than the glory of the Old Testament house, and it will show itself as greater when it shall be dedicated. For then shall come the desired of all nations, as we read in the Hebrew. For before his advent he had not yet been desired by all nations, for they knew not him whom they ought to desire, in whom they had not believed. 
then also, according to the Septuagint's interpretation, for it also is a prophetic meaning, shall come those who are elected of the Lord out of all nations. For then indeed there shall come only those who are elected, whereof the apostle saith, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. For the master builder who said, Many are called, but few are chosen, did not say this of those who, on being called, came in such a way as to be cast out from the feast, but would point out the house built up of the elect, which henceforth shall dread no ruin. Yet because the churches are also full of those who shall be separated by the winnowing, as in the threshing-floor, the glory of this house is not so apparent now as it shall be when every one who is there shall be there always. Chapter 49 In this wicked world, in these evil days, when the church measures her future loftiness by her present humility, and is exercised by goading fears, tormenting sorrows, disquieting labors, and dangerous temptations, when she soberly rejoices, rejoicing only in hope, there are many reprobate mingled with the good, and both are gathered together by the gospel, as in a dragnet. And in this world, as in a sea, both swim enclosed without distinction in the net, until it is brought ashore, when the wicked must be separated from the good, that in the good, as in his temple, God may be all in all. We acknowledge indeed that his word is now fulfilled who spake in the psalm, and said, I have announced and spoken, they are multiplied above number. This takes place now, since he has spoken, first by the mouth of his forerunner John, and afterward by his own mouth, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He chose disciples, whom he also called apostles, of lowly birth, unhonored and illiterate, so that whatever great thing they might be or do, he might be and do it in them. He had one among them whose wickedness he could use well in order to accomplish his appointed passion, and furnish his church an example of bearing with the wicked. Having sown the holy gospel as much as that behooved to be done by his bodily presence, he suffered, died, and rose again, showing by his passion what we ought to suffer for the truth, and by his resurrection what we ought to hope for in adversity saving always the mystery of the sacrament, by which his blood was shed for the remission of sins. He held converse on the earth forty days with his disciples, and in their sight ascended into heaven, and after ten days sent the promised Holy Spirit. It was given as the chief and most necessary sign of his coming on those who had believed that every one of them spoke in the tongues of all nations, thus signifying that the unity of the Catholic Church would embrace all nations, and would in like manner speak in all tongues. Chapter 50 Then was fulfilled that prophecy, Out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord out of Jerusalem, and the prediction of the Lord Christ himself, when after the resurrection he opened the understanding of his amazed disciples, that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, That thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And again, when in reply to their questioning about the day of his last coming, he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive the power of the Holy Ghost coming upon you, 
and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and even unto the ends of the earth. First of all the church spread herself abroad from Jerusalem, and when very many in Judea and Samaria had believed, she also went into other nations by those who announced the gospel, whom, as lights, he himself had both prepared by his word, and kindled by his Holy Spirit. For he had said to them, Fear ye not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. And that they might not be frozen with fear, they burned with fire of charity. Finally, the gospel of Christ was preached in the whole world, not only by those who had seen and heard him both before his passion and after his resurrection, but also after their death by their successors, amid the horrible persecutions, diverse torments, and deaths of the martyrs, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, that the people of the nations, believing in him who was crucified for their redemption, might venerate with Christian love the blood of the martyrs which they had poured forth with devilish fury, and the very kings by whose laws the church had been laid waste, might become profitably subject to that name they had cruelly striven to take away from the earth, and might begin to persecute the false gods for whose sake the worshippers of the true God had formerly been persecuted. Chapter 51 But the devil, seeing the temples of the demons deserted, and the human race running to the name of the liberating mediator, has moved the heretics under the Christian name to resist the Christian doctrine, as if they could be kept in the city of God indifferently without any correction, just as the city of confusion indifferently held the philosophers who were of diverse and adverse opinions. Those, therefore, in the church of Christ who savor anything morbid and depraved, and, on being corrected that they may savor what is wholesome and right, contumaciously resist, and will not amend their pestiferous and deadly dogmas, but persist in defending them, become heretics, and, going without, are to be reckoned as enemies who serve for her discipline. For even thus they profit by their wickedness those true Catholic members of Christ, since God makes a good use even of the wicked, and all things work together for good to them that love him. For all the enemies of the church, whatever error blinds or malice depraves them, exercise her patience if they receive the power to afflict her corporally, and if they only oppose her by wicked thought, they exercise her wisdom. But at the same time, if these enemies are loved, they exercise her benevolence, or even her beneficence, whether she deals with them by persuasive doctrine or by terrible discipline. And thus the devil, the prince of the impious city, when he stirs up his own vessels against the city of God that sojourns in this world, is permitted to do her no harm. For without doubt the divine providence procures for her both consolation through prosperity, that she may not be broken by adversity, and trial through adversity, that she may not be corrupted by prosperity. And thus each is tempered by the other, as we recognize in the Psalms that voice which arises from no other cause. According to the multitude of my griefs in my heart, thy consolations have delighted my soul. Hence also is that saying of the Apostle, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. For it is not to be thought that what the same teacher says can at any time fail, whoever will live piously in Christ shall suffer persecution. 
because even when those who are without do not rage, and thus there seems to be, and really is, tranquillity, which brings very much consolation, especially to the weak, yet there are not wanting, yea, there are many within, who by their abandoned manners torment the hearts of those who live piously, since by them the Christian and Catholic name is blasphemed. And the dearer that name is to those who will live piously in Christ, the more do they grieve that through the wicked, who have a place within, it comes to be less loved than pious minds desire. The heretics themselves also, since they are thought to have the Christian name and sacraments, scriptures and profession, cause great grief in the hearts of the pious, both because many who wish to be Christians are compelled by their dissensions to hesitate, and many evil speakers also find in them matter for blaspheming the Christian name, because they too are at any rate called Christians. By these and similar depraved manners and errors of men, those who will live piously in Christ suffer persecution, even when no one molests or vexes their body. For they suffer this persecution not in their bodies, but in their hearts. Whence is that word, according to the multitude of my griefs in my heart? for he does not say in my body. Yet on the other hand, none of them can perish, because the immutable divine promises are thought of. And because the apostle says, The Lord knoweth them that are his, for whom he did foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, none of them can perish. Therefore it follows in that psalm, Thy consolations have delighted my soul." But that grief which arises in the hearts of the pious, who are persecuted by the manners of bad or false Christians, is profitable to the sufferers, because it proceeds from the charity in which they do not wish them either to perish or to hinder the salvation of others. Finally, great consolations grow out of their chastisement, which imbue the souls of the pious with a fecundity as great as the pains with which they were troubled concerning their own perdition. Thus in this world, in these evil days, not only from the time of the bodily presence of Christ and his apostles, but even from that of Abel, whom first his wicked brother slew because he was righteous, and thenceforth even to the end of this world, the church has gone forward on pilgrimage amid the persecutions of the world and the consolations of God. Chapter 52 I do not think, indeed, that what some have thought or may think is rashly said or believed, that until the time of Antichrist the Church of Christ is not to suffer any persecutions besides those she has already suffered, that is, ten, and that the eleventh and last shall be afflicted by Antichrist. They reckon as the first that made by Nero, the second by Domitian, the third by Trajan, the fourth by Antoninus, the fifth by Severus, the sixth by Maximin, the seventh by Decius, the eighth by Valerian, the ninth by Aurelian, the tenth by Diocletian and Maximian. For as there were ten plagues in Egypt before the people of God could begin to go out, they think this is to be referred to as showing that the last persecution by Antichrist must be like the eleventh plague, in which the Egyptians, while following the Hebrews with hostility, perished in the Red Sea when the people of God passed through on dry land. Yet I do not think persecutions were prophetically signified by what was done in Egypt, however nicely and ingeniously those who think so may seem to have compared the two in detail, not by the prophetic spirit, but by the conjecture of the human mind, which sometimes hits the truth and sometimes is deceived. But what can those who think this say of the persecution in which the Lord himself was crucified? In which number will they put it? 
and if they think the reckoning is to be made exclusive of this one, as if those must be counted which pertain to the body, and not that in which the head himself was set upon and slain, what can they make of that one which, after Christ ascended into heaven, took place in Jerusalem when the blessed Stephen was stoned, when James the brother of John was slaughtered with a sword, when the apostle Peter was imprisoned to be killed, and was set free by the angel, when the brethren were driven away and scattered from Jerusalem, when Saul, who afterward became the Apostle Paul, wasted the church, and when he himself, publishing the glad tidings of the faith he had persecuted, suffered such things as he had inflicted, either from the Jews or from other nations, where he most fervently preached Christ everywhere. Why then do they think fit to start with Nero, when the church in her growth had reached the times of Nero, amid the most cruel persecutions, about which it would be too long to say anything? But if they think that only the persecutions made by kings ought to be reckoned, it was King Herod who also made a most grievous one after the ascension of the Lord. And what account do they give of Julian, whom they do not number in the ten? Did not he persecute the church who forbade the Christians to teach or learn liberal letters? Under him the elder Valentinian, who was the third emperor after him, stood forth as a confessor of the Christian faith, and was dismissed from his command in the army. I shall say nothing of what he did at Antioch, except to mention his being struck with wonder at the freedom and cheerfulness of one most faithful and steadfast young man, who, when many were seized to be tortured, was tortured during a whole day, and sang under the instrument of torture, until the emperor feared lest he should succumb under the continued cruelties, and put him to shame at last, which made him dread and fear that he would be yet more dishonorably put to the blush by the rest. Lastly, within our own recollection, did not Valens the Arian, brother of the foresaid Valentinian, waste the Catholic Church by great persecution throughout the East? But how unreasonable it is not to consider that the Church, which bears fruit and grows through the whole world, may suffer persecution from kings in some nations, even when she does not suffer it in others. Perhaps, however, it was not to be reckoned a persecution when the king of the Goths, in Gothia itself, persecuted the Christians with wonderful cruelty, when there were none but Catholics there, of whom very many were crowned with martyrdom, as we have heard from certain brethren who had been there at that time as boys, and unhesitatingly called to mind that they had seen these things. And what took place in Persia of late? Was not persecution so hot against the Christians, if even yet it is allayed, that some of the fugitives from it came even to Roman towns? When I think of these and the like things, it does not seem to me that the number of persecutions with which the church is to be tried can be definitely stated. But on the other hand, it is no less rash to affirm that there will be some persecutions by kings besides that last one, about which no Christian is in doubt. Therefore we leave this undecided, supporting or refuting neither side of this question, but only restraining men from the audacious presumption of affirming either of them. Chapter 53 Truly Jesus himself shall extinguish by his presence that last persecution which is to be made by Antichrist. For so it is written that he shall slay him with the breath of his mouth, and empty him with the brightness of his presence. It is customary to ask, When shall that be? But this is quite unreasonable. For had it been profitable for us to know this, by whom could it better have been told than by God himself, the Master, when the disciples questioned him? For they were not silent when with him, but inquired of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time present the kingdom to Israel, or when? 
But he said, It is not for you to know the times which the Father hath put in his own power. When they got that answer, they had not at all questioned him about the hour, or day, or year, but about the time. In vain, then, do we attempt to compute definitely the years that may remain to this world, when we may hear from the mouth of the truth that it is not for us to know this. Yet some have said that four hundred, some five hundred, others a thousand years may be completed from the ascension of the Lord up to his final coming. But to point out how each of them supports his own opinion would take too long, and is not necessary, for indeed they use human conjectures and bring forward nothing certain from the authority of the canonical scriptures. But on this subject he puts aside the figures of the calculators and orders silence, who says, It is not for you to know the times which the Father hath put in his own power. But because this sentence is in the gospel, it is no wonder that the worshippers of the many and false gods have been none the less restrained from feigning that by the responses of the demons, whom they worship as gods, it has been fixed how long the Christian religion is to last. For when they saw that it could not be consumed by so many and great persecutions, but rather drew from them wonderful enlargements, they invented I know not what Greek verses, as if poured forth by a divine oracle to some one consulting it, in which indeed they make Christ innocent of this, as it were, sacrilegious crime, but add that Peter, by enchantments, brought it about that the name of Christ should be worshipped for three hundred and sixty-five years, and, after the completion of that number of years, should at once take end. O oh, the hearts of learned men! O oh, learned wits, meet to believe such things about Christ, as you are not willing to believe in Christ, that his disciple Peter did not learn magic arts from him, yet that although he was innocent his disciple was an enchanter, and chose that his name rather than his own should be worshipped through his magic arts, his great labours and perils, and at last even the shedding of his blood. If Peter the enchanter made the world so love Christ, what did Christ the innocent do to make Peter so love him? Let them answer themselves then, and, if they can, let them understand that the world, for the sake of eternal life, was made to love Christ by that same supernal grace which made Peter also love Christ, for the sake of the eternal life to be received from him, and that even to the extent of suffering temporal death for him. And then what kinds of gods are these, who are able to predict such things, yet are not able to avert them, succumbing in such a way to a single enchanter and wicked magician, who, as they say, having slain a yearling boy and torn him to pieces, buried him with nefarious rites, that they permitted the sect hostile to themselves to gain strength for so great a time, and to surmount the horrid cruelties of so many great persecutions, not by resisting, but by suffering, and to procure the overthrow of their own images, temples, rituals, and oracles. Finally, what god was it, not ours certainly, but one of their own, who was either enticed or compelled by so great wickedness to perform these things. For those verses say that Peter bound not any demon, but a god to do these things. Such a god have they who have not Christ. Chapter 54 I might collect these and many similar arguments, if that year had not already passed, by which lying divination has promised and deceived vanity has believed. But as a few years ago three hundred and sixty-five years were completed since the time when the worship of the name of Christ was established by his presence in the flesh, and by the apostles, what other proof need we seek to refute that falsehood? 
for not to place the beginning of this period at the nativity of Christ, because as an infant and boy he had no disciples, yet when he began to have them, beyond doubt the Christian doctrine and religion then became known through his bodily presence, that is, after he was baptized in the river Jordan by the ministry of John. From this account that prophecy went before concerning him, he shall reign from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. But since before he suffered and rose from the dead the faith had not yet been defined to all, but was defined in the resurrection of Christ, for so the Apostle Paul speaks to the Athenians, saying, But now he announces to men that all everywhere should repent, because he hath appointed a day in which to judge the world in equity, by the man in whom he hath defined the faith to all men, raising him from the dead. It is better that in settling this question we should start from that point, especially because the Holy Spirit was then given, just as he behooved to be given after the resurrection of Christ, in that city from which the second law, that is, the New Testament, ought to begin. For the first, which is called the Old Testament, was given from Mount Sinai through Moses. But concerning this, which was to be given by Christ, it was predicted, Out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord out of Jerusalem, whence he himself said that repentance in his name behooved to be preached among all nations, but yet beginning at Jerusalem. There, therefore, the worship of this name took its rise, that Jesus should be believed in, who died and rose again. There this faith blazed up with such noble beginnings, that several thousand men, being converted to the name of Christ with wonderful alacrity, sold their goods for distribution among the needy, thus by a holy resolution and most ardent charity, coming to voluntary poverty, and prepared themselves amid the Jews who raged and thirsted for their blood, to contend for the truth even to death, not with armed power, but with more powerful patience. If this was accomplished by no magic arts, why do they hesitate to believe that the other could be done throughout the whole world by the same divine power by which this was done? But supposing Peter wrought that enchantment so that so great a multitude of men at Jerusalem was thus kindled to worship the name of Christ, who had either seized and fastened him to the cross, or reviled him when fastened there, we must still inquire when the three hundred and sixty-five years must be completed, counting from that year. Now Christ died when the Gemini were consuls, on the eighth day before the calends of April. He rose the third day, as the apostles have proved by the evidence of their own senses. Then, forty days after, he ascended into heaven. Ten days after, that is, on the fiftieth after his resurrection, he sent the Holy Spirit. Then three thousand men believed when the apostles preached him. Then, therefore, arose the worship of that name, as we believe, and according to the real truth by the efficacy of the Holy Spirit, but, as impious vanity has feigned or thought, by the magic arts of Peter. A little afterward, too, on a wonderful sign being wrought, when at Peter's own word a certain beggar, so lame from his mother's womb that he was carried by others, and laid down at the gate of the temple, where he begged alms, was made whole in the name of Jesus Christ, and leaped up, five thousand men believed, and thenceforth the church grew by sundry accessions of believers. Thus we gather the very day with which that year began, namely that on which the Holy Spirit was sent, that is, during the Ides of May. And, on counting the consuls, the three hundred and sixty-five years are found completed on the same Ides in the consulate of Honorius and Eutychianus. 
Now, in the following year, in the consulate of Malleus Theodorus, when, according to that oracle of the demons or figment of men, there ought already to have been no Christian religion, it was not necessary to inquire what perchance was done in other parts of the earth. But as we know, in the most noted and eminent city, Carthage, in Africa, Gaudentius and Jovius, officers of the Emperor Honorius, on the fourteenth day before the calends of April, overthrew the temples and broke the images of the false gods. And from that time to the present, during almost thirty years, who does not see how much the worship of the name of Christ has increased, especially after many of those became Christians who had been kept back from the faith by thinking that divination true, but saw, when that same number of years was completed, that it was empty and ridiculous? We, therefore, who are called and are Christians, do not believe in Peter, but in him whom Peter believed, being edified by Peter's sermons about Christ, not poisoned by his incantations, and not deceived by his enchantments, but aided by his good deeds. Christ himself, who was Peter's master in the doctrine which leads to eternal life, is our master too. But let us now at last finish this book, after thus far treating of, and showing as far as seemed sufficient, what is the mortal course of the two cities, the heavenly and the earthly, which are mingled together from the beginning down to the end. Of these the earthly one has made to herself, of whom she would, either from any other quarter, or even from among men, false gods whom she might serve by sacrifice. But she which is heavenly, and is a pilgrim on the earth, does not make false gods, but is herself made by the true God, of whom she herself must be the true sacrifice. Yet both alike either enjoy temporal good things, or are afflicted with temporal evils, but with diverse faith, diverse hope, and diverse love, until they must be separated by the last judgment, and each must receive her own end, of which there is no end. About these ends of both we must next treat. Book 19, Chapter 1 as I see that I have still to discuss the fit destinies of the two cities, the earthly and the heavenly, I must first explain, so far as the limits of this work allow me, the reasonings by which men have attempted to make for themselves a happiness in this unhappy life, in order that it may be evident, not only from divine authority, but also from such reasons as can be adduced to unbelievers, how the empty dreams of the philosophers differ from the hope which God gives to us, and from the substantial fulfillment of it which he will give us as our blessedness. Philosophers have expressed a great variety of diverse opinions regarding the ends of goods and of evils, and this question they have eagerly canvassed, that they might, if possible, discover what makes a man happy. For the end of our good is that for the sake of which other things are to be desired, while it is to be desired for its own sake and the end of evil is that on account of which other things are to be shunned, while it is avoided on its own account. Thus, by the end of good, we at present mean not that by which good is destroyed, so that it no longer exists, but that by which it is finished, so that it becomes complete, and by the end of evil we mean not that which abolishes it, but that which completes its development. These two ends, therefore, are the supreme good and the supreme evil, and, as I have said, those who have in this vain life professed the study of wisdom have been at great pains to discover these ends, and to obtain the supreme good and avoid the supreme evil in this life. 
and although they erred in a variety of ways, yet natural insight has prevented them from wandering from the truth so far that they have not placed the supreme good and evil, some in the soul, some in the body, and some in both. From this tripartite distribution of the sects of philosophy, Marcus Varro, in his book De Philosophia, has drawn so large a variety of opinions that by a subtle and minute analysis of distinctions he numbers without difficulty as many as 288 sects, not that these have actually existed, but sects which are possible. To illustrate briefly what he means, I must begin with his own introductory statement in the above-mentioned book, that there are four things which men desire, as it were by nature, without a master, without the help of any instruction, without industry or the art of living which is called virtue, and which is certainly learned, either pleasure, which is an agreeable stirring of the bodily sense, or repose, which excludes every bodily inconvenience, or both these, which Epicurus calls by the one name pleasure, or the primary objects of nature which comprehend the things already named and other things, either bodily, such as health and safety and integrity of the members, or spiritual, such as the greater and less mental gifts that are found in men. Now these four things, pleasure, repose, the two combined, and the primary objects of nature, exist in us in such sort that we must either desire virtue on their account, or them for the sake of virtue, or both for their own sake. And consequently there arise from this distinction twelve sects, for each is by this consideration tripled. I will illustrate this in one instance, and having done so, it will not be difficult to understand the others. According, then, as bodily pleasure is subjected, preferred, or united to virtue, there are three sects. It is subjected to virtue when it is chosen as subservient to virtue. Thus it is a duty of virtue to live for one's country, and for its sake to beget children, neither of which can be done without bodily pleasure. For there is pleasure in eating and drinking, pleasure also in sexual intercourse. But when it is preferred to virtue, it is desired for its own sake, and virtue is chosen only for its sake, and to effect nothing else than the attainment or preservation of bodily pleasure. And this indeed is to make life hideous, for where virtue is the slave of pleasure it no longer deserves the name of virtue. Yet even this disgraceful distortion has found some philosophers to patronize and defend it. Then virtue is united to pleasure when neither is desired for the other's sake, but both for their own. And therefore, as pleasure, according as it is subjected, preferred, or united to virtue, makes three sects, so also do repose, pleasure, and repose combined, and the prime natural blessings make their three sects each. For as men's opinions vary, and these four things are sometimes subjected, sometimes preferred, and sometimes united to virtue, there are produced twelve sects. But this number again is doubled by the addition of one difference, that is, the social life. For whoever attaches himself to any of these sects does so either for his own sake alone, or for the sake of a companion, for whom he ought to wish what he desires for himself. And thus there will be twelve of those who think some one of these opinions should be held for their own sakes, and the other twelve who decide that they ought to follow this or that philosophy not for their own sakes only, but also for the sake of others whose good they desire as their own. These twenty-four sects again are doubled and become forty-eight by adding a difference taken from the new academy. For each of these four and twenty sects can hold and defend their opinion as certain, as the Stoics defended the position that the supreme good of man consisted solely in virtue, 
or they can be held as probable but not certain, as the new academics did. There are therefore twenty-four who hold their philosophy as certainly true, other twenty-four who hold their opinions as probable but not certain. Again, as each person who attaches himself to any of these sects may adopt the mode of life either of the cynics or of the other philosophers, this distinction will double the number and so make ninety-six sects. Then lastly, as each of these sects may be adhered to either by men who love a life of ease, as those who have through choice or necessity addicted themselves to study, or by men who love a busy life, as those who, while philosophizing, have been much occupied with state affairs and public business, or by men who choose a mixed life, in imitation of those who have apportioned their time partly to erudite leisure, partly to necessary business, by these differences the number of the sects is tripled and becomes two hundred and eighty-eight. I have thus, as briefly and lucidly as I could, given in my own words the opinions which Varro expresses in his book. But how he refutes all the rest of these sects, and chooses one, the old academy instituted by Plato, and continuing to Polemo, the fourth teacher of that school of philosophy, which held that their system was certain, and how on this ground he distinguishes it from the new academy, which began with Polemo's successor Arcesilus, and held that all things are uncertain, and how he seeks to establish that the old academy was as free from error as from doubt, all this, I say, were too long to enter upon in detail, and yet I must not altogether pass it by in silence. Varro then rejects, as a first step, all those differences which have multiplied the number of sects, and the ground on which he does so is that they are not differences about the supreme good. He maintains that in philosophy a sect is created only by its having an opinion of its own different from other schools on the point of the ends in chief. For man has no other reason for philosophizing than that he may be happy, but that which makes him happy is itself the supreme good. In other words, the supreme good is the reason of philosophizing, and therefore that cannot be called a sect of philosophy which pursues no way of its own towards the supreme good. Thus, when it is asked whether a wise man will adopt the social life, and desire and be interested in the supreme good of his friend as in his own, or will, on the contrary, do all that he does merely for his own sake, there is no question here about the supreme good, but only about the propriety of associating or not associating a friend in its participation, whether the wise man will do this not for his own sake, but for the sake of his friend, in whose good he delights as in his own. So, too, when it is asked whether all things about which philosophy is concerned are to be considered uncertain, as by the new academy, or certain, as the other philosophers maintain, the question here is not what end should be pursued, but whether or not we are to believe in the substantial existence of that end, or, to put it more plainly, whether he who pursues the supreme good must maintain that it is a true good, or only that it appears to him to be true, though possibly it may be delusive, both pursuing one and the same good. The distinction, too, which is founded on the dress and manners of the cynics does not touch the question of the chief good, but only the question whether he who pursues that good which seems to himself true should live as do the cynics. There were, in fact, men who, though they pursued different things as the supreme good, some choosing pleasure, others virtue, yet adopted that mode of life which gave the cynics their name. Thus, whatever it is which distinguishes the cynics from other philosophers, this has no bearing on the choice and pursuit of that good which constitutes happiness. 
for if it had any such bearing, then the same habits of life would necessitate the pursuit of the same chief good, and diverse habits would necessitate the pursuit of different ends. CHAPTER Two. The same may be said of those three kinds of life, the life of studious leisure in search after truth, the life of easy engagement in affairs, and the life in which both these are mingled. When it is asked which of these should be adopted, this involves no controversy about the end of good, but inquires which of these three puts a man in the best position for finding and retaining the supreme good. For this good, as soon as a man finds it, makes him happy. But lettered leisure, or public business, or the alternation of these, do not necessarily constitute happiness. Many, in fact, find it possible to adopt one or other of these modes of life, and yet to miss what makes a man happy. The question, therefore, regarding the supreme good and the supreme evil, in which distinguishes sects of philosophy, is one, and these questions concerning the social life, the doubt of the academy, the dress and food of the cynics, the three modes of life, the active, the contemplative, and the mixed, these are different questions, into none of which the question of the chief good enters. And therefore, as Marcus Varro multiplied the sects to the number of 288, or whatever larger number he chose, by introducing these four differences derived from the social life, the new academy, the cynics, and the threefold form of life, so by removing these differences as having no bearing on the supreme good, and as therefore not constituting what can properly be called sects, he returns to those twelve schools which concern themselves with inquiring what that good is which makes man happy, and he shows that one of these is true, the rest false. In other words, he dismisses the distinction founded on the threefold mode of life, and so decreases the whole number by two-thirds, reducing the sects to ninety-six. Then, putting aside the cynic peculiarities, the number decreases by a half to forty-eight. Taking away next the distinction occasioned by the hesitancy of the new academy, the number is again halved and reduced to twenty-four. Treating in a similar way the diversity introduced by the consideration of the social life, there are left but twelve, which this difference had doubled to twenty-four. Regarding these twelve, no reason can be assigned why they should not be called sects, for in them the sole inquiry is regarding the supreme good and the ultimate evil, that is to say, regarding the supreme good, for this being found, the opposite evil is thereby found. Now to make these twelve sects, he multiplies by three these four things, pleasure, repose, pleasure and repose combined, and the primary objects of nature, which Varro calls primigenia. For as these four things are sometimes subordinated to virtue, so that they seem to be desired not for their own sake, but for virtue's sake, sometimes preferred to it, so that virtue seems to be necessary not on its own account, but in order to attain these things, sometimes joined with it, so that both they and virtue are desired for their own sakes, we must multiply the four by three, and thus we get twelve sects. But from those four things Varro eliminates three, pleasure, repose, pleasure and repose combined, not because he thinks these are not worthy of the place assigned them, but because they are included in the primary objects of nature. And what need is there, at any rate, to make a threefold division out of these two ends, pleasure and repose, taking them first severally and then conjunctly, since both they and many other things besides are comprehended in the primary objects of nature? Which of the three remaining sects must be chosen? This is the question that Varro dwells upon. For whether one of these three, or some other, be chosen, reason forbids that more than one be true. 
This we shall afterwards see, but meanwhile let us explain as briefly and distinctly as we can how Varro makes his selection from these three, that is, from the sects which severally hold that the primary objects of nature are to be desired for virtue's sake, that virtue is to be desired for their sake, and that virtue and these objects are to be desired each for their own sake. CHAPTER three. Which of these three is true, and to be adopted, he attempts to show in the following manner. As it is the supreme good not of a tree, or of a beast, or of a god, but of man, that philosophy is in quest of, he thinks that, first of all, we must define man. He is of opinion that there are two parts in human nature, body and soul, and makes no doubt that of these two the soul is the better and by far the more worthy part. But whether the soul alone is the man, so that the body holds the same relation to it as a horse to the horseman, this he thinks has to be ascertained. The horseman is not a horse and a man, but only a man, yet he is called a horseman because he is in some relation to the horse. Again, is the body alone the man, having a relation to the soul such as the cup has to the drink? For it is not the cup and the drink it contains which are called the cup, but the cup alone yet it is so cold because it is made to hold the drink. Or lastly, is it neither the soul alone nor the body alone, but both together which are man, the body and the soul being each a part, but the whole man being both together, as we call two horses yoked together a pair, of which pair the near and the off horse is each a part, but we do not call either of them, no matter how connected with the other, a pair, but only both together. Of these three alternatives, then, Varro chooses the third, that man is neither the body alone, nor the soul alone, but both together. And therefore the highest good in which lies the happiness of man is composed of goods of both kinds, both bodily and spiritual. And consequently he thinks that the primary objects of nature are to be sought for their own sake, and that virtue, which is the art of living and can be communicated by instruction, is the most excellent of spiritual goods. This virtue, then, or art of regulating life, when it has received these primary objects of nature which existed independently of it, and prior to any instruction, seeks them all, and itself also, for its own sake. And it uses them, as it also uses itself, that from them all it may derive profit and enjoyment, greater or less, according as they are themselves greater or less, and while it takes pleasure in all of them, it despises the less that it may obtain or retain the greater when occasion demands. Now of all goods, spiritual or bodily, there is none at all to compare with virtue. For virtue makes a good use both of itself and of all other goods in which lies man's happiness. And where it is absent, no matter how many good things a man has, they are not for his good, and consequently should not be called good things while they belong to one who makes them useless by using them badly. The life of man, then, is called happy when it enjoys virtue and these other spiritual and bodily good things without which virtue is impossible. It is called happier if it enjoys some or many other good things which are not essential to virtue, and happiest of all if it lacks not one of the good things which pertain to the body and the soul. For life is not the same thing as virtue, since not every life but a wisely regulated life is virtue. And yet, while there can be life of some kind without virtue, there cannot be virtue without life. 
This I might apply to memory and reason and such mental faculties, for these exist prior to instruction, and without them there cannot be any instruction, and consequently no virtue, since virtue is learned. But bodily advantages, such as swiftness of foot, beauty, or strength, are not essential to virtue, neither is virtue essential to them, and yet they are good things. And according to our philosophers, even these advantages are desired by virtue for its own sake, and are used and enjoyed by it in a becoming manner. They say that this happy life is also social, and loves the advantages of its friends as its own, and for their sake wishes for them what it desires for itself, whether these friends live in the same family, as a wife, children, domestics, or in the locality where one's home is, as the citizens of the same town, or in the world at large, as the nations bound in common human brotherhood, or in the universe itself, comprehended in the heavens and the earth, as those whom they call gods, and provide as friends for the wise man, and whom we more familiarly call angels. Moreover, they say that regarding the supreme good and evil there is no room for doubt, and that they therefore differ from the new academy in this respect, and they are not concerned whether a philosopher pursues those ends which they think true in the cynic dress and manner of life, or in some other. And lastly, in regard to the three modes of life, the contemplative, the active, and the composite, they declare in favor of the third. That these were the opinions and doctrines of the old academy, Varro asserts on the authority of Antiochus, Cicero's master, and his own, though Cicero makes him out to have been more frequently in accordance with the Stoics than with the old academy. But of what importance is this to us, who ought to judge the matter on its own merits, rather than to understand accurately what different men have thought about it? CHAPTER four. If, then, we be asked what the city of God has to say upon these points, and, in the first place, what its opinion regarding the supreme good and evil is, it will reply that life eternal is the supreme good, death eternal the supreme evil, and that to obtain the one and escape the other we must live rightly. And thus it is written, The just lives by faith, for we do not as yet see our good, and must therefore live by faith. Neither have we in ourselves power to live rightly, but can do so only if he who has given us faith to believe in his help do help us when we believe and pray. As for those who have supposed that the sovereign good and evil are to be found in this life, and have placed it either in the soul or the body or in both, or, to speak more explicitly, either in pleasure or in virtue or in both, in repose or in virtue or in both, in pleasure and repose or in virtue, or in all combined, in the primary objects of nature, or in virtue, or in both. All these have, with a marvellous shallowness, sought to find their blessedness in this life and in themselves. Contempt has been poured upon such ideas by the truth, saying by the prophet, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of men, or, as the Apostle Paul cites the passage, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. For what flood of eloquence can suffice to detail the miseries of this life? Cicero, in the consolation on the death of his daughter, has spent all his ability in lamentation, but how inadequate was even his ability here? For when, where, how, in this life can these primary objects of nature be possessed so that they may not be assailed by unforeseen accidents? Is the body of the wise man exempt from any pain which may dispel pleasure, from any disquietude which may banish repose? The amputation or decay of the members of the body puts an end to its integrity, 
Deformity blights its beauty, weakness its health, lassitude its vigor, sleepiness or sluggishness its activity. And which of these is it that may not assail the flesh of the wise man? Comely and fitting attitudes and movements of the body are numbered among the prime natural blessings. But what if some sickness makes the members tremble? What if a man suffers from curvature of the spine to such an extent that his hands reach the ground, and he goes upon all fours like a quadruped? Does not this destroy all beauty and grace in the body, whether at rest or in motion? What shall I say of the fundamental blessings of the soul, sense, and intellect, of which the one is given for the perception, and the other for the comprehension of truth? But what kind of sense is it that remains when a man becomes deaf and blind? Where are reason and intellect when disease makes a man delirious? We can scarcely, or not at all, refrain from tears when we think of or see the actions and words of such frantic persons, and consider how different from, and even opposed to their own sober judgment and ordinary conduct, their present demeanour is. And what shall I say of those who suffer from demoniacal possession? Where is their own intelligence hidden and buried while the malignant spirit is using their body and soul according to his own will? And who is quite sure that no such thing can happen to the wise man in this life? Then, as to the perception of truth, what can we hope for even in this way while in the body, as we read in the true book of wisdom, the corruptible body weigheth down the soul, and the earthly tabernacle presseth down the mind that museth upon many things? And eagerness, or desire of action, if this is the right meaning to put upon the Greek orme, is also reckoned among the primary advantages of nature, and yet is it not this which produces those pitiable movements of the insane, and those actions which we shudder to see when sense is deceived and reason deranged? In fine, virtue itself, which is not among the primary objects of nature, but succeeds to them as the result of learning, though it holds the highest place among human good things, what is its occupation save to wage perpetual war with vices, not those that are outside of us, but within, not other men's, but our own, a war which is waged especially by that virtue which the Greeks call sophrosune, and we temperance, and which bridles carnal lusts and prevents them from winning the consent of the spirit to wicked deeds. For we must not fancy that there is no vice in us when, as the apostle says, the flesh lusteth against the spirit. For to this vice there is a contrary virtue when, as the same writer says, the spirit lusteth against the flesh. For these two, he says, are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things which you would. But what is it we wish to do when we seek to attain the supreme good, unless that the flesh should cease to lust against the spirit, and that there be no vice in us against which the spirit may lust? And as we cannot attain to this in the present life, however ardently we desire it, let us by God's help accomplish at least this, to preserve the soul from succumbing and yielding to the flesh that lusts against it, and to refuse our consent to the perpetration of sin. Far be it from us, then, to fancy that while we are still engaged in this intestine war, we have already found the happiness which we seek to reach by victory. And who is there so wise that he has no conflict at all to maintain against his vices? What shall I say of that virtue which is called prudence? Is not all its vigilance spent in the discernment of good from evil things, so that no mistake may be admitted about what we should desire and what avoid? 
and thus it is itself a proof that we are in the midst of evils, or that evils are in us, for it teaches us that it is an evil to consent to sin, and a good to refuse this consent. And yet this evil, to which prudence teaches and temperance enables us not to consent, is removed from this life neither by prudence nor by temperance. And justice, whose office it is to render to every man his due, whereby there is in man himself a certain just order of nature, so that the soul is subjected to God, and the flesh to the soul, and consequently both soul and flesh to God, does not this virtue demonstrate that it is as yet rather laboring towards its end than resting in its finished work? For the soul is so much the less subjected to God as it is less occupied with the thought of God, and the flesh is so much the less subjected to the spirit as it lusts more vehemently against the spirit. So long, therefore, as we are beset by this weakness, this plague, this disease, how shall we dare to say that we are safe? And if not safe, then how can we be already enjoying our final beatitude? Then that virtue which goes by the name of fortitude is the plainest proof of the ills of life, for it is these ills which it is compelled to bear patiently. And this holds good no matter though the ripest wisdom coexists with it. And I am at a loss to understand how the Stoic philosophers can presume to say that these are no ills, though at the same time they allow the wise man to commit suicide and pass out of this life if they become so grievous that he cannot or ought not to endure them. But such is the stupid pride of these men who fancy that the supreme good can be found in this life, and that they can become happy by their own resources, that their wise man, or at least the man whom they fancifully depict as such, is always happy, even though he become blind, deaf, dumb, mutilated, racked with pains, or suffer any conceivable calamity such as may compel him to make away with himself, and they are not ashamed to call the life that is beset with these evils happy. O oh, happy life, which seeks the aid of death to end it! If it is happy, let the wise man remain in it. But if these ills drive him out of it, in what sense is it happy? Or how can they say that these are not evils which conquer the virtue of fortitude, and force it not only to yield, but so to rave, that it in one breath calls life happy, and recommends it to be given up? For who is so blind as not to see that if it were happy, it would not be fled from? And if they say we should flee from it on account of the infirmities that beset it, why then do they not lower their pride and acknowledge that it is miserable? Was it, I would ask, fortitude or weakness which prompted Cato to kill himself? For he would not have done so had he not been too weak to endure Caesar's victory. Where, then, is his fortitude? It has yielded, it has succumbed, it has been so thoroughly overcome as to abandon, forsake, flee this happy life. Or was it no longer happy? then it was miserable. How then were these not evils which made life miserable, and a thing to be escaped from? And therefore those who admit that these are evils, as the peripatetics do in the old academy, the sect which Varro advocates, express a more intelligible doctrine. But theirs also is a surprising mistake, for they contend that this is a happy life which is beset by these evils, even though they be so great that he who endures them should commit suicide to escape them. Pains and anguish of body, says Varro, are evils, and so much the worse in proportion to their severity, and to escape them you must quit this life. What life, I pray? This life, he says, which is oppressed by such evils. Then it is happy in the midst of these very evils on account of which you say we must quit it? 
or do you call it happy because you are at liberty to escape these evils by death? What then, if by some secret judgment of God you are held fast, and not permitted to die, nor suffered to live without these evils? In that case, at least, you would say that such a life was miserable. It is soon relinquished, no doubt, but this does not make it not miserable, for were it eternal, you yourself would pronounce it miserable. Its brevity, therefore, does not clear it of misery, neither ought it to be called happiness, because it is a brief misery. Certainly there is a mighty force in these evils which compel a man, according to them even a wise man, to cease to be a man that he may escape them, though they say, and say truly, that it is, as it were, the first and strongest demand of nature that a man cherish himself, and naturally therefore avoid death, and should so stand his own friend as to wish and vehemently aim at continuing to exist as a living creature, and subsisting in this union of soul and body. There is a mighty force in these evils to overcome this natural instinct by which death is by every means and with all a man's efforts avoided, and to overcome it so completely that what was avoided is desired, sought after, and if it cannot in any other way be obtained, is inflicted by the man on himself. There is a mighty force in these evils which make fortitude a homicide, if indeed that is to be called fortitude which is so thoroughly overcome by these evils, that it not only cannot preserve by patience the man whom it undertook to govern and defend, but is itself obliged to kill him. The wise man, I admit, ought to bear death with patience, but when it is inflicted by another. If then, as these men maintain, he is obliged to inflict it on himself, certainly it must be owned that the ills which compel him to this are not only evils, but intolerable evils. The life, then, which is either subject to accidents, or environed with evils so considerable and grievous, could never have been called happy, if the men who give it this name had condescended to yield to the truth, and to be conquered by valid arguments, when they inquired after the happy life, as they yield to unhappiness, and are overcome by overwhelming evils, when they put themselves to death, and if they had not fancied that the supreme good was to be found in this mortal life. For the very virtues of this life, which are certainly its best and most useful possessions, are all the more telling proofs of its miseries in proportion as they are helpful against the violence of its dangers, toils, and woes. For if these are true virtues, and such cannot exist save in those who have true piety, they do not profess to be able to deliver the men who possess them from all miseries. For true virtues tell no such lies, but they profess that by the hope of the future world this life, which is miserably involved in the many and great evils of this world, is happy, as it is also safe. For if not yet safe, how could it be happy? And therefore the Apostle Paul, speaking not of men without prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice, but of those whose lives were regulated by true piety, and whose virtues were therefore true, says, for we are saved by hope. Now hope which is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. As therefore we are saved, so we are made happy by hope. And as we do not as yet possess a present, but look for a future salvation, so is it with our happiness, and this with patience. For we are encompassed with evils which we ought patiently to endure until we come to the ineffable enjoyment of unmixed good, for there shall be no longer anything to endure. Salvation, such as it shall be in the world to come, shall itself be our final happiness. 
and this happiness these philosophers refuse to believe in because they do not see it and attempt to fabricate for themselves a happiness in this life based upon a virtue which is as deceitful as it is proud. Chapter 5 We give a much more unlimited approval to their idea that the life of the wise man must be social, for how could the city of God, concerning which we are already writing no less than the nineteenth book of this work, either take a beginning or be developed or attain its proper destiny if the life of the saints were not a social life? But who can enumerate all the great grievances with which human society abounds in the misery of this mortal state? Who can weigh them? Hear how one of their comic writers makes one of his characters express the common feelings of all men in this matter. I am married, this is one misery. Children are born to me, they are additional cares. What shall I say of the miseries of love which Terence also recounts? Slights, suspicions, quarrels, war today, peace tomorrow. Is not human life full of such things? Do they not often occur even in honorable friendships? On all hands we experience these slights, suspicions, quarrels, war, all of which are undoubted evils, while, on the other hand, peace is a doubtful good, because we do not know the heart of our friend, and though we did know it today, we should be as ignorant of what it might be tomorrow. Who ought to be, or who are, more friendly than those who live in the same family? And yet, who can rely even upon this friendship, seeing that secret treachery has often broken it up, and produced enmity as bitter as the amity was sweet, or seemed sweet, by the most perfect dissimulation? It is on this account that the words of Cicero so move the heart of every one and provoke a sigh. There are no snares more dangerous than those which lurk under the guise of duty or the name of relationship. For the man who is your declared foe you can easily baffle by precaution, but this hidden, intestine, and domestic danger not merely exists, but overwhelms you before you can foresee and examine it. It is also to this that allusion is made by the divine saying, A man's foes are those of his own household, words which one cannot hear without pain. For though a man have sufficient fortitude to endure it with equanimity, and sufficient sagacity to baffle the malice of a pretended friend, yet if he himself is a good man, he cannot but be greatly pained at the discovery of the perfidy of wicked men, whether they have always been wicked and merely feigned goodness, or have fallen from a better to a malicious disposition. If, then, home, the natural refuge from the ills of life, is itself not safe, what shall we say of the city, which, as it is larger, is so much the more filled with lawsuits, civil and criminal, and is never free from the fear, if sometimes from the actual outbreak, of disturbing and bloody insurrections and civil wars? Chapter 6 what shall I say of these judgments which men pronounce on men, and which are necessary in communities, whatever outward peace they enjoy? Melancholy and lamentable judgments they are, since the judges are men who cannot discern the consciences of those at their bar, and are therefore frequently compelled to put innocent witnesses to the torture to ascertain the truth regarding the crimes of other men. What shall I say of torture applied to the accused himself? He is tortured to discover whether he is guilty, so that, though innocent, he suffers most undoubted punishment for crime that is still doubtful, 
not because it is proved that he committed it, but because it is not ascertained that he did not commit it. Thus the ignorance of the judge frequently involves an innocent person in suffering. And what is still more unendurable, a thing indeed to be bewailed, and, if that were possible, watered with fountains of tears, is this, that when the judge puts the accused to the question, that he may not unwittingly put an innocent man to death, the result of this lamentable ignorance is that this very person, whom he tortured, that he might not condemn him if innocent, is condemned to death, both tortured and innocent. For if he has chosen, in obedience to the philosophical instructions to the wise man, to quit this life rather than endure any longer such tortures, he declares that he has committed the crime which in fact he has not committed. And when he has been condemned and put to death, the judge is still in ignorance whether he has put to death an innocent or a guilty person, though he put the accused to the torture for the very purpose of saving himself from condemning the innocent. And consequently he has both tortured an innocent man to discover his innocence, and has put him to death without discovering it. If such darkness shrouds social life, will a wise judge take his seat on the bench, or no? Beyond question he will. For human society, which he thinks it a wickedness to abandon, constrains him and compels him to this duty. And he thinks it no wickedness that innocent witnesses are tortured regarding the crimes of which other men are accused, or that the accused are put to the torture, so that they are often overcome with anguish, and, though innocent, make false confessions regarding themselves, and are punished. Or that, though they be not condemned to die, they often die during, or in consequence of, the torture, or that sometimes the accusers, who perhaps have been prompted by a desire to benefit society by bringing criminals to justice, are themselves condemned through the ignorance of the judge, because they are unable to prove the truth of their accusations, though they are true, and because the witnesses lie, and the accused endures the torture without being moved to confession. These numerous and important evils he does not consider sins, for the wise judge does these things not with any intention of doing harm, but because his ignorance compels him, and because human society claims him as a judge. But though we therefore acquit the judge of malice, we must none the less condemn human life as miserable. And if he is compelled to torture and punish the innocent, because his office and his ignorance constrain him, is he a happy as well as a guiltless man? Surely it were proof of more profound considerateness and finer feeling were he to recognize the misery of these necessities and shrink from his own implication in that misery. And had he any piety about him, he would cry to God, From my necessities deliver thou me. Chapter 7 After the state or city comes the world, the third circle of human society, the first being the house, and the second the city. And the world, as it is larger, so it is fuller of dangers, as the greater sea is the more dangerous. And here, in the first place, man is separated from man by the difference of languages. For if two men, each ignorant of the other's language, meet, and are not compelled to pass, but, on the contrary, to remain in company, dumb animals, though of different species, would more easily hold intercourse than they, human beings though they be. For their common nature is no help to friendliness when they are prevented by diversity of language from conveying their sentiments to one another, so that a man would more readily hold intercourse with his dog than with a foreigner. 
but the imperial city has endeavored to impose on subject nations not only her yoke but her language as a bond of peace so that interpreters far from being scarce are numberless this is true but how many great wars how much slaughter and bloodshed have provided this unity and though these are past the end of these miseries has not yet come for though there have never been wanting nor are yet wanting hostile nations beyond the empire against whom wars have been and are waged yet supposing there were no such nations the very extent of the empire itself has produced wars of a more obnoxious description social and civil wars and with these the whole race has been agitated either by the actual conflict or the fear of a renewed outbreak if i attempted to give an adequate description of these manifold disasters these stern and lasting necessities though i am quite unequal to the task what limit could i set but say they the wise man will wage just wars as if he would not all the rather lament the necessity of just wars if he remembers that he is a man for if they were not just he would not wage them and would therefore be delivered from all wars for it is the wrongdoing of the opposing party which compels the wise man to wage just wars and this wrongdoing even though it gave rise to no war would still be matter of grief to man because it is man's wrongdoing let every one then who thinks with pain on all these great evils so horrible so ruthless acknowledge that this is misery and if any one either endures or thinks of them without mental pain this is a more miserable plight still for he thinks himself happy because he has lost human feeling chapter eight in our present wretched condition we frequently mistake a friend for an enemy and an enemy for a friend and if we escape this pitiable blindness is not the unfeigned confidence and mutual love of true and good friends our one solace in human society filled as it is with misunderstandings and calamities and yet the more friends we have and the more widely they are scattered the more numerous are our fears that some portion of the vast masses of the disasters of life may light upon them for we are not only anxious lest they suffer from famine war disease captivity or the inconceivable horrors of slavery but we are also affected with the much more painful dread that their friendship may be changed into perfidy malice and injustice and when these contingencies actually occur as they do the more frequently the more friends we have and the more widely they are scattered and when they come to our knowledge who but the man who has experienced it can tell with what pangs the heart is torn we would in fact prefer to hear that they were dead although we could not without anguish hear of even this for if their life has solaced us with the charms of friendship can it be that their death should affect us with no sadness he who will have none of this sadness must if possible have no friendly intercourse let him interdict or extinguish friendly affection let him burst with ruthless insensibility the bonds of every human relationship or let him contrive so to use them that no sweetness shall distill into his spirit but if this is utterly impossible how shall we contrive to feel no bitterness in the death of those whose life has been sweet to us hence arises that grief which affects the tender heart like a wound or a bruise and which is healed by the application of kindly consolation for though the cure is effected all the more easily and rapidly the better condition the soul is in we must not on this account suppose that there is nothing at all to heal 
Although, then, our present life is afflicted, sometimes in a milder, sometimes in a more painful degree, by the death of those very dear to us, and especially of useful public men, yet we would prefer to hear that such men were dead, rather than to hear or perceive that they had fallen from the faith or from virtue, in other words, that they were spiritually dead. Of this vast material for misery the earth is full, and therefore it is written, is not human life upon earth a trial? And with the same reference the Lord says, Woe to the world because of offences, and again, Because iniquity abounded, the love of many shall wax cold. And hence we enjoy some gratification when our good friends die, for though their death leaves us in sorrow, we have the consolatory assurance that they are beyond the ills by which in this life even the best of men are broken down or corrupted, or are in danger of both results. CHAPTER Nine. The philosophers who wished us to have the gods for our friends rank the friendship of the holy angels in the fourth circle of society, advancing now from the three circles of society on earth to the universe, and embracing heaven itself. And in this friendship we have indeed no fear that the angels will grieve us by their death or deterioration. But as we cannot mingle with them as familiarly as with men, which itself is one of the grievances of this life, and as Satan, as we read, sometimes transforms himself into an angel of light to tempt those whom it is necessary to discipline or just to deceive, there is great need of God's mercy to preserve us from making friends of demons in disguise, while we fancy we have good angels for our friends. For the astuteness and deceitfulness of these wicked spirits is equaled by their hurtfulness. And is this not a great misery of human life that we are involved in such ignorance as, but for God's mercy, makes us a prey to these demons. And it is very certain that the philosophers of the godless city, who have maintained that the gods were their friends, had fallen a prey to the malignant demons who rule that city, and whose eternal punishment is to be shared by it. For the nature of these beings is sufficiently evinced by the sacred or rather sacrilegious observances which form their worship, and by the filthy games in which their crimes are celebrated, and which they themselves originated and exacted from their worshippers as a fit propitiation. Chapter 10 But not even the saints and faithful worshippers of the one true and most high God are safe from the manifold temptations and deceits of the demons. For in this abode of weakness, and in these wicked days, this state of anxiety has also its use, stimulating us to seek with keener longing for that security where peace is complete and unassailable. There we shall enjoy the gifts of nature, that is to say, all that God the Creator of all natures has bestowed upon ours, gifts not only good but eternal, not only of the spirit, healed now by wisdom, but also of the body renewed by the resurrection. There the virtue shall no longer be struggling against any vice or evil, but shall enjoy the reward of victory, the eternal peace which no adversary shall disturb. This is the final blessedness, this the ultimate consummation, the unending end. Here indeed we are said to be blessed when we have such peace as can be enjoyed in a good life, but such blessedness is mere misery compared to that final felicity. When we mortals possess such peace as this mortal life can afford, virtue, if we are living rightly, makes a right use of the advantages of this peaceful condition, 
and when we have it not, virtue makes a good use even of the evils a man suffers. But this is true virtue, when it refers all the advantages it makes a good use of, and all that it does in making good use of good and evil things, and itself also, to that end in which we shall enjoy the best and greatest peace possible. Chapter 11 and thus we may say of peace, as we have said of eternal life, that it is the end of our good, and the rather because the psalmist says of the city of God, the subject of this laborious work, Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem, praise thy God, O Zion, for he hath strengthened the bars of thy gates, he hath blessed thy children within thee, who hath made thy borders peace. For when the bars of her gates shall be strengthened, none shall go in or come out from her. Consequently, we ought to understand the peace of her borders as that final peace we are wishing to declare. For even the mystical name of the city itself, that is, Jerusalem, means, as I have already said, vision of peace. But as the word peace is employed in connection with things in this world in which certainly life eternal has no place, we have preferred to call the end or supreme good of this city life eternal rather than peace. Of this end the apostle says, But now, being freed from sin, and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end life eternal. But on the other hand, as those who are not familiar with Scripture may suppose that the life of the wicked is eternal life, either because of the immortality of the soul, which some of the philosophers even have recognized, or because of the endless punishment of the wicked, which forms a part of our faith, and which seems impossible unless the wicked live forever, it may therefore be advisable, in order that everyone may readily understand what we mean, to say that the end or supreme good of this city is either peace in eternal life, or eternal life in peace. For peace is a good so great that even in this earthly and mortal life there is no word we hear with such pleasure, nothing we desire with such zest, or find to be more thoroughly gratifying. So that, if we dwell for a little longer on this subject, we shall not, in my opinion, be wearisome to our readers, who will attend both for the sake of understanding what is the end of this city of which we speak, and for the sake of the sweetness of peace which is dear to all. Chapter 12. Whoever gives even moderate attention to human affairs and to our common nature will recognize that if there is no man who does not wish to be joyful, neither is there any one who does not wish to have peace. For even they who make war desire nothing but victory, desire, that is to say, to attain to peace with glory. For what else is victory than the conquest of those who resist us? And when this is done, there is peace. It is therefore with the desire for peace that wars are waged, even by those who take pleasure in exercising their warlike nature and command and battle. And hence it is obvious that peace is the end sought for by war. For every man seeks peace by waging war, but no man seeks war by making peace. For even they who intentionally interrupt the peace in which they are living have no hatred of peace, but only wished it changed into a peace that suits them better. They do not, therefore, wish to have no peace, but only one more to their mind. And in the case of sedition, when men have separated themselves from the community, they yet do not effect what they wish unless they maintain some kind of peace with their fellow conspirators. 
and therefore even robbers take care to maintain peace for their comrades, that they may with greater effect and greater safety invade the peace of other men. And if an individual happened to be of such unrivaled strength, and to be so jealous of partnership, that he trusts himself with no comrades, but makes his own plots, and commits depredations and murders on his own account, yet he maintains some shadow of peace with such persons as he is unable to kill, and from whom he wishes to conceal his deeds. In his own home, too, he makes it his aim to be at peace with his wife and children, and any other members of his household, for unquestionably their prompt obedience to his every look is a source of pleasure to him. And if this be not rendered, he is angry, he chides and punishes, and even by this storm he secures the calm peace of his own home, as occasion demands, for he sees that peace cannot be maintained unless all the members of the same domestic circle be subject to one head, such as he himself is in his own house. And therefore, if a city or nation offered to submit itself to him, to serve him in the same style as he had made his household serve him, he would no longer lurk in a brigand's hiding-places, but lift his head in open day as a king, though the same covetousness and wickedness should remain in him. And thus all men desire to have peace with their own circle whom they wish to govern as suits themselves. For even those whom they make war against they wish to make their own and impose on them the laws of their own peace. But let us suppose a man such as poetry and mythology speak of, a man so insociable and savage as to be called rather a semi-man than a man. Although, then, his kingdom was the solitude of a dreary cave, and he himself was so singularly bad-hearted that he was named Kakos, which is the Greek word for bad, though he had no wife to soothe him with endearing talk, no children to play with, no sons to do his bidding, no friend to enliven him with intercourse, not even his father Vulcan, though in one respect he was happier than his father, not having begotten a monster like himself, although he gave to no man, but took as he wished whatever he could, for whomsoever he could, when he could. Yet in that solitary den, the floor of which, as Virgil says, was always reeking with recent slaughter, there was nothing else than peace sought, a peace in which no one should molest him or disquiet him with any assault or alarm. With his own body he desired to be at peace, and he was satisfied only in proportion as he had this peace. For he ruled his members, and they obeyed him, and for the sake of pacifying his mortal nature, which rebelled when it needed anything, and of allaying the sedition of hunger which threatened to banish the soul from the body, he made forays, slew, and devoured, but used the ferocity and savageness he displayed in these actions only for the preservation of his own life's peace. So that, had he been willing to make with other men the same peace which he made with himself in his own cave, he would neither have been called bad, nor a monster, nor a semi-man. Or if the appearance of his body and his vomiting smoky fires frightened men from having any dealings with him, perhaps his fierce ways arose not from a desire to do mischief, but from the necessity of finding a living. But he may have had no existence, or at least he was not such as the poets fancifully describe him, for they had to exalt Hercules, and did so at the expense of Cacus. It is better, then, to believe that such a man or semi-man never existed, and that this, in common with many other fancies of the poets, is mere fiction. For the most savage animals, and he is said to have been almost a wild beast, encompassed their own species with a ring of protecting peace.
They cohabit, begat, produce, suckle, and bring up their young, though very many of them are not gregarious but solitary, not like sheep, deer, pigeons, starlings, bees, but such as lions, foxes, eagles, bats. For what tigress does not gently purr over her cubs and lay aside her ferocity to fondle them? What kite, solitary as he is when circling over his prey, does not seek a mate, build a nest, hatch the eggs, bring up the young birds, and maintain with the mother of his family as peaceful a domestic alliance as he can? How much more powerfully do the laws of man's nature move him to hold fellowship and maintain peace with all men so far as in him lies, since even wicked men wage war to maintain the peace of their own circle, and wish that if possible all men belonged to them, that all men and things might serve but one head, and might, either through love or fear, yield themselves to peace with him. It is thus that pride in its perversity apes God. It abhors equality with other men under him, but instead of his rule it seeks to impose a rule of its own upon its equals. It abhors, that is to say, the just peace of God, and loves its own unjust peace, but it cannot help loving peace of one kind or other. For there is no vice so clean contrary to nature that it obliterates even the faintest traces of nature. He then who prefers what is right to what is wrong, and what is well ordered to what is perverted, sees that the peace of unjust men is not worthy to be called peace in comparison with the peace of the just. And yet even what is perverted must of necessity be in harmony with and in dependence on, and in some part of the order of things, for otherwise it would have no existence at all. Suppose a man hangs with his head downwards, this is certainly a perverted attitude of body and arrangement of its members, for that which nature requires to be above is beneath, and vice versa. This perversity disturbs the peace of the body, and is therefore painful. Nevertheless the spirit is at peace with its body, and labors for its preservation, and hence the suffering. But if it is banished from the body by its pains, then, so long as the bodily framework holds together, there is in the remains a kind of peace among the members, and hence the body remains suspended. And inasmuch as the earthly body tends towards the earth, and rests on the bond by which it is suspended, it tends thus to its natural peace, and the voice of its own weight demands a place for it to rest. And though now lifeless and without feeling, it does not fall from the peace that is natural to its place in creation, whether it already has it or is tending towards it. For if you apply embalming preparations to prevent the bodily frame from moldering and dissolving, a kind of peace still unites part to part and keeps the whole body in a suitable place on the earth, in other words, in a place that is at peace with the body. If, on the other hand, the body receive no such care, but be left to the natural course, it is disturbed by exhalations that do not harmonize with one another, and that offend our senses. For it is this which is perceived in putrefaction, until it is assimilated to the elements of the world, and particle by particle enters into peace with them. Yet throughout this process the laws of the Most High Creator and Governor are strictly observed, for it is by him the peace of the universe is administered. For although minute animals are produced from the carcass of a larger animal, all these little atoms, by the law of the same Creator, serve the animals they belong to in peace. 
And although the flesh of dead animals be eaten by others, no matter where it be carried, nor what it be brought into contact with, nor what it be converted and changed into, it still is ruled by the same laws which pervade all things for the conservation of every mortal race, and which bring things that fit one another into harmony. CHAPTER Thirteen. The peace of the body, then, consists in the duly proportioned arrangement of its parts. The peace of the irrational soul is the harmonious repose of the appetites, and that of the rational soul the harmony of knowledge and action. The peace of body and soul is the well-ordered and harmonious life and health of the living creature. Peace between man and God is the well-ordered obedience of faith to eternal law. Peace between man and man is well-ordered concord. Domestic peace is the well-ordered concord between those of the family who rule and those who obey. Civil peace is a similar concord among the citizens. The peace of the celestial city is the perfectly ordered and harmonious enjoyment of God and of one another in God. The peace of all things is the tranquility of order. Order is the distribution which allots things equal and unequal, each to its own place. And hence, though the miserable, in so far as they are such, do certainly not enjoy peace, but are severed from that tranquillity of order in which there is no disturbance, nevertheless, inasmuch as they are deservedly and justly miserable, they are, by their very misery, connected with order. They are not, indeed, conjoined with the blessed, but they are disjoined from them by the law of order. And though they are disquieted, their circumstances are notwithstanding adjusted to them, and consequently they have some tranquillity of order, and therefore some peace. But they are wretched, because, although not wholly miserable, they are not in that place where any mixture of misery is impossible. They would, however, be more wretched if they had not that peace which arises from being in harmony with the natural order of things. When they suffer, their peace is in so far disturbed, but their peace continues in so far as they do not suffer, and in so far as their nature continues to exist. As, then, there may be life without pain, while there cannot be pain without some kind of life, so there may be peace without war, but there cannot be war without some kind of peace, because war supposes the existence of some natures to wage it, and these natures cannot exist without peace of one kind or other. And therefore there is a nature in which evil does not or even cannot exist, but there cannot be a nature in which there is no good. Hence not even the nature of the devil himself is evil, in so far as it is nature, but it was made evil by being perverted. Thus he did not abide in the truth, but could not escape the judgment of the truth. He did not abide in the tranquillity of order, but did not therefore escape the power of the ordainer. The good imparted by God to his nature did not screen him from the justice of God by which order was preserved in his punishment. Neither did God punish the good which he had created, but the evil which the devil had committed. God did not take back all he had imparted to his nature, but something he took and something he left, that there might remain enough to be sensible of the loss of what was taken. And this very sensibility to pain is evidence of the good which has been taken away and the good which has been left. For were nothing good left, there could be no pain on account of the good which had been lost. 
for he who sins is still worse if he rejoices in his loss of righteousness. But he who is in pain, if he derives no benefit from it, mourns at least the loss of health. And as righteousness and health are both good things, and as the loss of any good thing is matter of grief, not of joy, if at least there is no compensation, as spiritual righteousness may compensate for the loss of bodily health, certainly it is more suitable for a wicked man to grieve in punishment than to rejoice in his fault. As then the joy of a sinner who has abandoned what is good is evidence of a bad will, so his grief for the good he has lost when he is punished is evidence of a good nature. For he who laments the peace his nature has lost is stirred to do so by some relics of peace which make his nature friendly to itself. And it is very just that in the final punishment the wicked and godless should in anguish bewail the loss of the natural advantages they enjoyed, and should perceive that they were most justly taken from them by that God whose benign liberality they had despised. God, then, the most wise creator and most just ordainer of all natures, who placed the human race upon earth as its greatest ornament, imparted to men some good things adapted to this life, to wit, temporal peace, such as we can enjoy in this life from health and safety and human fellowship, and all things needful for the preservation and recovery of this peace, such as the objects which are accommodated to our outward senses, light, night, the air, and waters suitable for us, and everything the body requires to sustain, shelter, heal, or beautify it and all under this most equitable condition, that every man who made a good use of these advantages suited to the peace of this mortal condition should receive ampler and better blessings, namely the peace of immortality, accompanied by glory and honor in an endless life made fit for the enjoyment of God and of one another in God, but that he who used the present blessings badly should both lose them and should not receive the others. Chapter 14 the whole use, then, of things temporal has a reference to this result of earthly peace in the earthly community, while in the city of God it is connected with eternal peace. And therefore, if we were irrational animals, we should desire nothing beyond the proper arrangement of the parts of the body and the satisfaction of the appetites, nothing, therefore, but bodily comfort and abundance of pleasures that the peace of the body might contribute to the peace of the soul. For if bodily peace be a wanting, a bar is put to the peace even of the irrational soul, since it cannot obtain the gratification of its appetites. And these two together help out the mutual peace of soul and body, the peace of harmonious life and health. For as animals, by shunning pain, show that they love bodily peace, and by pursuing pleasure to gratify their appetites, show that they love peace of soul, so their shrinking from death is a sufficient indication of their intense love of that peace which binds soul and body in close alliance. But as man has a rational soul, he subordinates all this which he has in common with the beasts to the peace of his rational soul, that his intellect may have free play, and may regulate his actions, and that he may thus enjoy the well-ordered harmony of knowledge and action, which constitutes, as we have said, the peace of the rational soul. And for this purpose he must desire to be neither molested by pain, nor disturbed by desire, nor extinguished by death, that he may arrive at some useful knowledge by which he may regulate his life and manners. 
but owing to the liability of the human mind to fall into mistakes, this very pursuit of knowledge may be a snare to him unless he has a divine master whom he may obey without misgiving, and who may at the same time give him such help as to preserve his own freedom. And because, so long as he is in this mortal body, he is a stranger to God, he walks by faith, not by sight, and he therefore refers all peace, bodily or spiritual or both, to that peace which mortal man has with the immortal God, so that he exhibits the well-ordered obedience of faith to eternal law. But as this divine master inculcates two precepts, the love of God and the love of our neighbor, and as in these precepts a man finds three things he has to love, God, himself, and his neighbor, and that he who loves God loves himself thereby, it follows that he must endeavor to get his neighbor to love God, since he is ordered to love his neighbor as himself. He ought to make this endeavor in behalf of his wife, his children, his household, all within his reach, even as he would wish his neighbor to do the same for him if he needed it, and consequently he will be at peace or in well-ordered concord with all men as far as in him lies. And this is the order of this concord, that a man in the first place injure no one, and in the second do good to everyone he can reach. Primarily, therefore, his own household are his care, for the law of nature and of society gives him readier access to them and greater opportunity of serving them. And hence the apostle says, Now if any provide not for his own, and specially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. This is the origin of domestic peace, or the well-ordered concord of those in the family who rule and those who obey. For they who care for the rest rule, the husband, the wife, the parents, the children, the masters, the servants, and they who are cared for obey, the women their husbands, the children their parents, the servants their masters. But in the family of the just man who lives by faith, and is as yet a pilgrim journeying on to the celestial city, even those who rule serve those whom they seem to command, for they rule not from a love of power, but from a sense of the duty they owe to others, not because they are proud of authority, but because they love mercy. Chapter 15 This is prescribed by the order of nature. It is thus that God has created man. For let them, he says, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every creeping thing which creepeth on the earth. He did not intend that his rational creature, who was made in his image, should have dominion over anything but the irrational creation, not man over man, but man over the beasts. And hence the righteous men in primitive times were made shepherds of cattle rather than kings of men, God intending thus to teach us what the relative position of the creatures is, and what the desert of sin. For it is with justice we believe that the condition of slavery is the result of sin. And this is why we do not find the word slave in any part of Scripture until righteous Noah branded the sin of his son with his name. It is a name, therefore, introduced by sin and not by nature. The origin of the Latin word for slave is supposed to be found in the circumstance that those who by the law of war were liable to be killed were sometimes preserved by their victors and were hence called servants. And these circumstances could never have arisen save through sin. For even when we wage a just war, our adversaries must be sinning, 
and every victory, even though gained by wicked men, is a result of the first judgment of God, who humbles the vanquished either for the sake of removing or of punishing their sins. Witness that man of God, Daniel, who, when he was in captivity, confessed to God his own sins and the sins of his people, and declares with pious grief that these were the cause of the captivity. The prime cause, then, of slavery is sin, which brings man under the dominion of his fellow. That which does not happen save by the judgment of God, with whom is no unrighteousness, and who knows how to award fit punishments to every variety of offense. But our Master in heaven says, Everyone who doeth sin is the servant of sin. And thus there are many wicked masters who have religious men as their slaves, and who are yet themselves in bondage. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. And beyond question it is a happier thing to be the slave of a man than of a lust, for even this very lust of ruling, to mention no others, lays waste men's hearts with the most ruthless dominion. Moreover, when men are subjected to one another in a peaceful order, the lowly position does as much good to the servant as the proud position does harm to the master. But by nature, as God first created us, no one is the slave either of man or of sin. This servitude is, however, penal, and is appointed by that law which enjoins the preservation of the natural order and forbids its disturbance. For if nothing had been done in violation of that law, there would have been nothing to restrain by penal servitude. And therefore the apostle admonishes slaves to be subject to their masters, and to serve them heartily and with good will, so that if they cannot be freed by their masters, they may themselves make their slavery in some sort free by serving not in crafty fear, but in faithful love, until all unrighteousness pass away, and all principality and every human power be brought to nothing, and God be all in all. Chapter 16 and therefore, although our righteous fathers had slaves, and administered their domestic affairs so as to distinguish between the condition of slaves and the heirship of sons in regard to the blessings of this life, yet in regard to the worship of God, in whom we hope for eternal blessings, they took an equally loving oversight of all the members of their household. And this is so much in accordance with the natural order that the head of the household was called pater familias, and this name has been so generally accepted that even those whose rule is unrighteous are glad to apply it to themselves. But those who are true fathers of their households desire and endeavor that all the members of their household, equally with their own children, should worship and win God, and should come to that heavenly home in which the duty of ruling men is no longer necessary, because the duty of caring for their everlasting happiness has also ceased. But until they reach that home, masters ought to feel their position of authority a greater burden than servants their service. And if any member of the family interrupts the domestic peace by disobedience, he is corrected either by word or blow, or some kind of just and legitimate punishment, such as society permits, that he may himself be the better for it, and be readjusted to the family harmony from which he had dislocated himself. For as it is not benevolent to give a man help at the expense of some greater benefit he might receive, so it is not innocent to spare a man at the risk of his falling into graver sin. 
To be innocent, we must not only do harm to no man, but also restrain him from sin or punish his sin, so that either the man himself who is punished may profit by his experience, or others be warned by his example. Since then the house ought to be the beginning or element of the city, and every beginning bears reference to some end of its own kind, and every element to the integrity of the whole of which it is an element, it follows plainly enough that domestic peace has a relation to civic peace. In other words, that the well-ordered concord of domestic obedience and domestic rule has a relation to the well-ordered concord of civic obedience and civic rule. And therefore it follows further that the father of the family ought to frame his domestic rule in accordance with the law of the city, so that the household may be in harmony with the civic order. Chapter 17 but the families which do not live by faith seek their peace and the earthly advantages of this life, while the families which live by faith look for those eternal blessings which are promised, and use as pilgrims such advantages of time and of earth as do not fascinate and divert them from God, but rather aid them to endure with greater ease, and to keep down the number of those burdens of the corruptible body which weigh upon the soul. Thus the things necessary for this mortal life are used by both kinds of men and families alike, but each has its own peculiar and widely different aim in using them. The earthly city, which does not live by faith, seeks an earthly peace, and the end it proposes, in the well-ordered concord of civic obedience and rule, is the combination of men's wills to attain the things which are helpful to this life. The heavenly city, or rather the part of it which sojourns on earth and lives by faith, makes use of this peace only because it must, until this mortal condition which necessitates it shall pass away. Consequently, so long as it lives like a captive and a stranger in the earthly city, though it has already received the promise of redemption and the gift of the Spirit as the earnest of it, it makes no scruple to obey the laws of the earthly city whereby the things necessary for the maintenance of this mortal life are administered. And thus, as this life is common to both cities, so there is a harmony between them in regard to what belongs to it. But as the earthly city has had some philosophers whose doctrine is condemned by the divine teaching, and who, being deceived either by their own conjectures or by demons, supposed that many gods must be invited to take an interest in human affairs, and assign to each a separate function and a separate department, to one the body, to another the soul, and in the body itself, to one the head, to another the neck, and each of the other members to one of the gods, and in like manner in the soul to one god the natural capacity was assigned, to another education, to another anger, to another lust, and so the various affairs of life were assigned, cattle to one, corn to another, wine to another, oil to another, the woods to another, money to another, navigation to another, wars and victories to another, marriages to another, births and fecundity to another, and other things to other gods, and as the celestial city, on the other hand, knew that one god only was to be worshipped, and that to him alone was due that service which the Greeks call Latreia, and which can be given only to a god, 
it has come to pass that the two cities could not have common laws of religion, and that the heavenly city has been compelled in this matter to dissent, and to become obnoxious to those who think differently, and to stand the brunt of their anger and hatred and persecutions, except in so far as the minds of their enemies have been alarmed by the multitude of the Christians, and quelled by the manifest protection of God accorded to them. This heavenly city, then, while it sojourns on earth, calls citizens out of all nations, and gathers together a society of pilgrims of all languages, not scrupling about diversities in the manners, laws, and institutions whereby earthly peace is secured and maintained, but recognizing that however various these are, they all tend to one and the same end of earthly peace. It therefore is so far from rescinding and abolishing these diversities that it even preserves and adopts them so long only as no hindrance to the worship of the one supreme and true God is thus introduced. Even the heavenly city, therefore, while in its state of pilgrimage, avails itself of the peace of earth, and, so far as it can, without injuring faith and godliness, desires and maintains a common agreement among men regarding the acquisition of the necessaries of life, and makes this earthly peace bear upon the peace of heaven. For this alone can be truly called and esteemed the peace of the reasonable creatures, consisting as it does in the perfectly ordered and harmonious enjoyment of God, and of one another in God. When we shall have reached that peace, this mortal life shall give place to one that is eternal, and our body shall be no more this animal body, which by its corruption weighs down the soul, but a spiritual body feeling no want, and in all its members subjected to the will. In its pilgrim state the heavenly city possesses this peace by faith, and by this faith it lives righteously when it refers to the attainment of that peace every good action towards God and man, for the life of the city is a social life. Chapter 18 As regards the uncertainty about everything which Varro alleges to be the differentiating characteristic of the new academy, the city of God thoroughly detests such doubt as madness. Regarding matters which it apprehends by the mind and reason, it has most absolute certainty, although its knowledge is limited because of the corruptible body pressing down the mind, for, as the Apostle says, we know in part. It believes also the evidence of the senses which the mind uses by aid of the body, for if one who trusts his senses is sometimes deceived, he is more wretchedly deceived who fancies he should never trust them. It believes also the holy scriptures, old and new, which we call canonical, and which are the source of the faith by which the just lives, and by which we walk without doubting whilst we are absent from the Lord. So long as this faith remains inviolate and firm, we may without blame entertain doubts regarding some things which we have neither perceived by sense nor by reason, and which have not been revealed to us by the canonical scriptures, nor come to our knowledge through witnesses whom it is absurd to disbelieve. Chapter 19 it is a matter of no moment in the city of God whether he who adopts the faith that brings men to God adopts it in one dress and manner of life or another, so long only as he lives in conformity with the commandments of God. And hence when philosophers themselves become Christians, they are compelled indeed to abandon their erroneous doctrines, but not their dress and mode of living, which are no obstacle to religion. 
so that we make no account of that distinction of sects which Varro adduced in connection with the cynic school, provided always nothing indecent or self-indulgent is retained. As to these three modes of life, the contemplative, the active, and the composite, although so long as a man's faith is preserved, he may choose any of them without detriment to his eternal interests, yet he must never overlook the claims of truth and duty. No man has a right to lead such a life of contemplation as to forget in his own ease the service due to his neighbor, nor has any man a right to be so immersed in active life as to neglect the contemplation of God. The charm of leisure must not be indolent vacancy of mind, but the investigation or discovery of truth, that thus every man may make solid attainments without grudging that others do the same. And in active life it is not the honors or power of this life we should covet, since all things under the sun are vanity, but we should aim at using our position and influence, if these have been honorably attained, for the welfare of those who are under us in the way we have already explained. It is to this the Apostle refers when he says, He that desireth the Episcopate desireth a good work. He wished to show that the Episcopate is the title of a work, not of an honor. It is a Greek word, and signifies that he who governs superintends, or takes care of those whom he governs, for epi means over, and skopein to see, therefore episkopein means to oversee, so that he who loves to govern rather than to do good is no bishop. Accordingly, no one is prohibited from the search after truth, for in this leisure may most laudably be spent but it is unseemly to covet the high position requisite for governing the people, even though that position be held and that government be administered in a seemly manner. And therefore holy leisure is longed for by the love of truth, but it is the necessity of love to undertake requisite business. If no one imposes this burden upon us, we are free to sift and contemplate truth, but if it be laid upon us, we are necessitated for love's sake to undertake it. And yet not even in this case are we obliged wholly to relinquish the sweets of contemplation, for were these to be withdrawn, the burden might prove more than we could bear. Chapter 20 Since then the supreme good of the city of God is perfect and eternal peace, not such as mortals pass into and out of by birth and death, but the peace of freedom from all evil, in which the immortals ever abide, who can deny that that future life is most blessed, or that, in comparison with it, this life which we now live is most wretched, be it filled with all blessings of body and soul and external things? And yet, if any man uses this life with a reference to that other which he ardently loves and confidently hopes for, he may well be called even now blessed, though not in reality so much as in hope. But the actual possession of the happiness of this life, without the hope of what is beyond, is but a false happiness and profound misery. For the true blessings of the soul are not now enjoyed, for that is no true wisdom which does not direct all its prudent observations, manly actions, virtuous self-restraint, and just arrangements to that end in which God shall be all in all, in a secure eternity and perfect peace. Chapter 21 
This, then, is the place where I should fulfill the promise I gave in the second book of this work, and explain as briefly and clearly as possible that if we are to accept the definitions laid down by Scipio in Cicero's De Republica, there never was a Roman Republic, for he briefly defines a Republic as the wheel of the people. And if this definition be true, there never was a Roman Republic, for the people's will was never attained among the Romans. For the people, according to his definition, is an assemblage associated by a common acknowledgment of right and by a community of interests. And what he means by a common acknowledgment of right he explains at large, showing that a Republic cannot be administered without justice. Where, therefore, there is no true justice, there can be no right. For that which is done by right is justly done, and what is unjustly done cannot be done by right. For the unjust inventions of men are neither to be considered nor spoken of as rights, for even they themselves say that right is that which flows from the fountain of justice, and deny the definition which is commonly given by those who misconceive the matter, that right is that which is useful to the stronger party. Thus, where there is not true justice, there can be no assemblage of men associated by a common acknowledgment of right, and therefore there can be no people, as defined by Scipio or Cicero. And if no people, then no wheel of the people, but only of some promiscuous multitude unworthy of the name of people. Consequently, if the Republic is the wheel of the people, and there is no people, if it be not associated by a common acknowledgment of right, and if there is no right where there is no justice, then most certainly it follows that there is no Republic where there is no justice. Further, justice is that virtue which gives everyone his due. Where, then, is the justice of man when he deserts the true God and yields himself to impure demons? Is this to give every one his due? Or is he who keeps back a piece of ground from the purchaser, and gives it to a man who has no right to it, unjust, while he who keeps back himself from the God who made him, and serves wicked spirits, is just? This same book, De Republica, advocates the cause of justice against injustice with great force and keenness. The pleading for injustice against justice was first heard, and it was asserted that without injustice a republic could neither increase nor even subsist, for it was laid down as an absolutely unassailable position that it is unjust for some men to rule and some to serve. And yet the imperial city to which the republic belongs cannot rule her provinces without having recourse to this injustice. It was replied in behalf of justice that this ruling of the provinces is just, because servitude may be advantageous to the provincials, and is so when rightly administered, that is to say, when lawless men are prevented from doing harm. And further, as they became worse and worse so long as they were free, they will improve by subjection. To confirm this reasoning there is added an eminent example drawn from nature, for why, it is asked, does God rule man, the soul, the body, the reason, the passions, and other vicious parts of the soul? This example leaves no doubt that, to some, servitude is useful, and indeed to serve God is useful to all. And it is when the soul serves God that it exercises a right control over the body, and in the soul itself the reason must be subject to God if it is to govern as it ought the passions and other vices. 
Hence, when a man does not serve God, what justice can we ascribe to him, since in this case his soul cannot exercise a just control over the body, nor his reason over his vices? And if there is no justice in such an individual, certainly there can be none in a community composed of such persons. Here, therefore, there is not that common acknowledgment of right which makes an assemblage of men a people whose affairs we call a republic. And why need I speak of the advantageousness, the common participation in which, according to the definition, makes a people? For although, if you choose to regard the matter attentively, you will see that there is nothing advantageous to those who live godlessly, as everyone lives who does not serve God, but demons, whose wickedness you may measure by their desire to receive the worship of men, though they are most impure spirits. Yet what I have said of the common acknowledgment of right is enough to demonstrate that according to the above definition there can be no people, and therefore no republic, where there is no justice. For if they assert that in their republic the Romans did not serve unclean spirits, but good and holy gods, must we therefore again reply to this evasion, though already we have said enough, and more than enough, to expose it. He must be an uncommonly stupid or a shamelessly contentious person who has read through the foregoing books to this point and can yet question whether the Romans served wicked and impure demons. But not to speak of their character, it is written in the law of the true God, He that sacrificeth unto any god save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. He therefore who uttered so menacing a commandment decreed that no worship should be given either to good or bad gods. Chapter 22 But it may be replied, Who is this God, or what proof is there that he alone is worthy to receive sacrifice from the Romans? One must be very blind to be still asking who this God is. He is the God whose prophets predicted the things we see accomplished. He is the God from whom Abraham received the assurance, In thy seed shall all nations be blessed. That this was fulfilled in Christ, who according to the flesh sprang from that seed, is recognized, whether they will or no, even by those who have continued to be the enemies of this name. He is the God whose divine spirit spake by the men whose predictions I cited in the preceding books, and which are fulfilled in the church which has extended over all the world. This is the God whom Varro, the most learned of the Romans, supposed to be Jupiter, though he knows not what he says. Yet I think it right to note the circumstance that a man of such learning was unable to suppose that this God had no existence or was contemptible, but believed him to be the same as the supreme God. In fine, he is the God whom Porphyry, the most learned of the philosophers, though the bitterest enemy of the Christians, confesses to be a great God, even according to the oracles of those whom he esteems gods. Chapter 23 For in his book called Eclogion Philosophias, in which he collects and comments upon the responses which he pretends were uttered by the gods concerning divine things, he says, I give his own words as they have been translated from the Greek. To one who inquired what god he should propitiate in order to recall his wife from Christianity, Apollo replied in the following verses. Then the following words are given as those of Apollo. 
you will probably find it easier to write lasting characters on the water, or lightly fly like a bird through the air, than to restore right feeling in your impious wife once she has polluted herself. Let her remain as she pleases in her foolish deception, and sing false laments to her dead God, who was condemned by right-minded judges, and perished ignominiously by a violent death. Then, after these verses of Apollo, which we have given in a Latin version that does not preserve the metrical form, he goes on to say, In these verses Apollo exposed the incurable corruption of the Christians, saying that the Jews, rather than the Christians, recognized God. See how he misrepresents Christ, giving the Jews the preference to the Christians and the recognition of God. This was his explanation of Apollo's verses, in which he says that Christ was put to death by right-minded or just judges, in other words, that he deserved to die. I leave the responsibility of this oracle regarding Christ on the lying interpreter of Apollo, or on this philosopher who believed it, or possibly himself invented it. As to its agreement with Porphyry's opinions, or with other oracles, we shall in a little have something to say. In this passage, however, he says that the Jews, as the interpreters of God, judge justly in pronouncing Christ to be worthy of the most shameful death. He should have listened, then, to this God of the Jews to whom he bears this testimony, when that God says, He that sacrificeth to any other God save to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. But let us come to still plainer expressions, and hear how great a god Porphyry thinks the god of the Jews is. Apollo, he says, when asked whether word, that is, reason or law, is the better thing, replied in the following verses. Then he gives the verses of Apollo, from which I select the following as sufficient. God, the generator, and the king prior to all things, before whom heaven and earth and the sea and the hidden places of hell tremble, and the deities themselves are afraid, for their law is the Father whom the holy Hebrews honor. In this oracle of his god Apollo, Porphyry avowed that the god of the Hebrews is so great that the deities themselves are afraid before him. I am surprised, therefore, that when God said, He that sacrificeth the other god shall be utterly destroyed, Porphyry himself was not afraid, lest he should be destroyed for sacrificing to other gods. This philosopher, however, has also some good to say of Christ, oblivious, as it were, of that contumely of his of which we have just been speaking, or as if his God spoke evil of Christ only while asleep, and recognized him to be good, and gave him his deserved praise when they awoke. For as if he were about to proclaim some marvelous thing passing belief, he says, What we are going to say will certainly take some by surprise. For the gods have declared that Christ was very pious, and has become immortal, and that they cherish his memory. That the Christians, however, are polluted, contaminated, and involved in error. And many other such things, he says, do the gods say against the Christians. Then he gives specimens of the accusations made, as he says, by the gods against them, and then goes on. But to some who asked Hecate whether Christ were a god, she replied, you know the condition of the disembodied immortal soul, and that if it has been severed from wisdom it always errs. The soul you refer to is that of a man foremost in piety. They worship it because they mistake the truth. To this so-called oracular response he adds the following words of his own. 
Of this very pious man, then, Hecate said that the soul, like the souls of other good men, was after death dowered with immortality, and that the Christians, through ignorance, worship it. And to those who ask why he was condemned to die, the oracle of the goddess replied, The body indeed is always exposed to torments, but the souls of the pious abide in heaven. And the soul you inquire about has been the fatal cause of error to other souls which were not fated to receive the gifts of the gods and to have the knowledge of immortal Jove. Such souls are therefore hated by the gods, for they who were fated not to receive the gifts of the gods and not to know God were fated to be involved in error by means of him you speak of. He himself, however, was good, and heaven has been open to him as to other good men. You are not then to speak evil of him, but to pity the folly of men, and through him men's danger is imminent. Who is so foolish as not to see that these oracles were either composed by a clever man with a strong animus against the Christians, or were uttered as responses by impure demons with a similar design? That is to say, in order that their praise of Christ may win credence for their vituperation of Christians, and that thus they may, if possible, close the way of eternal salvation which is identical with Christianity. For they believe that they are by no means counterworking their own hurtful craft by promoting belief in Christ, so long as their calumniation of Christians is also accepted. For they thus secure that even the man who thinks well of Christ declines to become a Christian, and is therefore not delivered from their own rule by the Christ he praises. Besides, their praise of Christ is so contrived that whosoever believes in him, as thus represented, will not be a true Christian, but a Photinian heretic, recognizing only the humanity and not also the divinity of Christ, and will thus be precluded from salvation and from deliverance out of the meshes of those devilish lies. For our part, we are no better pleased with Hecate's praises of Christ than with Apollo's calumniation of him. Apollo says that Christ was put to death by right-minded judges, implying that he was unrighteous. Hecate says that he was a most pious man, but no more. The intention of both is the same, to prevent men from becoming Christians, because if this be secured, men shall never be rescued from their power. But it is incumbent on our philosopher, or rather on those who believe in these pretended oracles against the Christians, first of all, if they can, to bring Apollo and Hecate to the same mind regarding Christ, so that either both may condemn or both praise him. And even if they succeeded in this, we for our part would notwithstanding repudiate the testimony of demons, whether favorable or adverse to Christ. But when our adversaries find a god and goddess of their own at variance about Christ, the one praising, the other vituperating him, they can certainly give no credence, if they have any judgment, to mere men who blaspheme the Christians. When Porphyry or Hecate praises Christ and adds that he gave himself to the Christians as a fatal gift, that they might be involved in error, he exposes, as he thinks, the causes of this error. But before I cite his words to that purpose, I would ask, if Christ did thus give himself to the Christians to involve them in error, did he do so willingly or against his will? If willingly, how is he righteous? If against his will, how is he blessed? However, let us hear the causes of this error. 
There are, he says, in a certain place very small earthly spirits subject to the power of evil demons. The wise men of the Hebrews, among whom was this Jesus, as you have heard from the oracles of Apollo cited above, turned religious persons from these very wicked demons and minor spirits, and taught them rather to worship the celestial gods, and especially to adore God the Father. This, he said, the gods enjoin, and we have already shown how they admonish the soul to turn to God and command it to worship him. But the ignorant and the ungodly, who were not destined to receive favors from the gods, nor to know the immortal Jupiter, not listening to the gods and their messages, have turned away from all gods, and have not only refused to hate, but have venerated the prohibited demons. Professing to worship God, they refuse to do those things by which alone God is worshipped. For God indeed, being the Father of all, is in need of nothing. But for us it is good to adore Him by means of justice, chastity, and other virtues, and thus to make life itself a prayer to Him, by inquiring into and imitating His nature. For inquiry, says he, purifies, and imitation deifies us, by moving us nearer to Him. He is right in so far as he proclaims God the Father, and the conduct by which we should worship Him. Of such precepts the prophetic books of the Hebrews are full when they praise or blame the life of the saints. But in speaking of the Christians he is in error and calumniates them as much as is desired by the demons whom he takes for gods, as if it were difficult for any man to recollect the disgraceful and shameful actions which used to be done in the theatres and temples to please the gods, and to compare with these things what is heard in our churches and what is offered to the true God, and from this comparison to conclude where character is edified and where it is ruined. But who but a diabolical spirit has told or suggested to this man so manifest and vain a lie as that the Christians reverenced rather than hated the demons whose worship the Hebrews prohibited? But that God whom the Hebrew sages worshipped forbids sacrifice to be offered even to the holy angels of heaven and divine powers, whom we in this our pilgrimage venerate and love as our most blessed fellow-citizens. For in the law which God gave to his Hebrew people, he utters this menace as in a voice of thunder, He that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. And that no one might suppose that this prohibition extends only to the very wicked demons and earthly spirits, whom this philosopher calls very small and inferior, for even these are in the scripture called gods, not of the Hebrews, but of the nations, as the Septuagint translators have shown in the psalm, where it is said, For all the gods of the nations are demons. That no one might suppose, I say, that sacrifice to these demons was prohibited, but that sacrifice might be offered to all or some of the celestials, it was immediately added, Save unto the Lord alone. The God of the Hebrews, then, to whom this renowned philosopher bears this signal testimony, gave to his Hebrew people a law, composed in the Hebrew language, and not obscure, and unknown, but published now in every nation. And in this law it is written, He that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord alone, he shall be utterly destroyed. What need is there to seek further proofs in the law or the prophets of this same thing? Seek, we need not say, for the passages are neither few nor difficult to find. 
but what need to collect and apply to my argument the proofs which are thickly sown and obvious, and by which it appears clear as day that sacrifice may be paid to none but the supreme and true God. Here is one brief but decided, even menacing, and certainly true utterance of that God whom the wisest of our adversaries so highly extol. Let this be listened to, feared, fulfilled, that there may be no disobedient soul cut off. He that sacrifices, he says, not because he needs anything, but because it behooves us to be his possession. Hence the psalmist in the Hebrew Scriptures sings, I have said to the Lord, Thou art my God, for thou needest not my good. For we ourselves, who are his own city, are his most noble and worthy sacrifice, and it is this mystery we celebrate in our sacrifices, which are well known to the faithful, as we have explained in the preceding books. For through the prophets the oracles of God declared that the sacrifices which the Jews offered, as a shadow of that which was to be, would cease, and that the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun, would offer one sacrifice. From these oracles which we now see accomplished, we have made such selections as seemed suitable to our purpose in this work. And therefore, where there is not this righteousness whereby the one supreme God rules the obedient city according to his grace, so that it sacrifices to none but him, and whereby, in all the citizens of this obedient city, the soul consequently rules the body and reason the vices in the rightful order, so that, as the individual just man, so also the community and people of the just live by faith which works by love, that love whereby man loves God as he ought to be loved, and his neighbor as himself. There, I say, there is not an assemblage associated by a common acknowledgment of right and by a community of interests. But if there is not this, there is not a people, if our definition be true, and therefore there is no republic, for where there is no people, there can be no republic. Chapter 24 But if we discard this definition of a people, and, assuming another, say that a people is an assemblage of reasonable beings bound together by a common agreement as to the objects of their love, then, in order to discover the character of any people, we have only to observe what they love. Yet whatever it loves, if only it is an assemblage of reasonable beings and not of beasts, and is bound together by an agreement as to the objects of love, it is reasonably called a people, and it will be a superior people in proportion as it is bound together by higher interests, inferior in proportion as it is bound together by lower. According to this definition of ours, the Roman people is a people, and its wheel is without doubt a commonwealth or republic. But what its tastes were in its early and subsequent days, and how it declined into sanguinary seditions, and then to social and civil wars, and so burst asunder or rotted off the bond of concord in which the health of a people consists, history shows, and in the preceding books I have related at large. And yet I would not on this account say either that it was not a people, or that its administration was not a republic, so long as there remains an assemblage of reasonable beings bound together by a common agreement as to the objects of love. But what I say of this people and of this republic, I must be understood to think and say of the Athenians, or any Greek state, of the Egyptians, of the early Assyrian Babylon, and of every other nation, great or small, which had a public government. 
For in general the city of the ungodly, which did not obey the command of God, that it should offer no sacrifice save to him alone, and which therefore could not give to the soul its proper command over the body, nor to the reason its just authority over the vices, is void of true justice. Chapter 25 for though the soul may seem to rule the body admirably, and the reason the vices, if the soul and reason do not themselves obey God as God has commanded them to serve him, they have no proper authority over the body and the vices. For what kind of mistress of the body and the vices can that mind be which is ignorant of the true God, and which, instead of being subject to his authority, is prostituted to the corrupting influences of the most vicious demons? It is for this reason that the virtues which it seems to itself to possess, and by which it restrains the body and the vices that it may obtain and keep what it desires, are rather vices than virtues, so long as there is no reference to God in the matter. For although some suppose that virtues which have a reference only to themselves, and are desired only on their own account, are yet true and genuine virtues, the fact is that even then they are inflated with pride, and are therefore to be reckoned vices rather than virtues. For as that which gives life to the flesh is not derived from flesh, but is above it, so that which gives blessed life to man is not derived from man, but is something above him. And what I say of man is true of every celestial power and virtue whatsoever. Chapter 26 Wherefore, as the life of the flesh is the soul, so the blessed life of man is God, of whom the sacred writings of the Hebrews say, Blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. Miserable, therefore, is the people which is alienated from God. Yet even this people has a peace of its own which is not to be lightly esteemed, though indeed it shall not in the end enjoy it, because it makes no good use of it before the end. But it is our interest that it enjoy this peace meanwhile in this life, for as long as the two cities are commingled, we also enjoy the peace of Babylon. For from Babylon the people of God is so freed that it meanwhile sojourns in its company. And therefore the apostle also admonished the church to pray for kings and those in authority, assigning as the reason that we may live a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and love. And the prophet Jeremiah, when predicting the captivity that was to befall the ancient people of God, and giving them the divine command to go obediently to Babylonia, and thus serve their God, counseled them also to pray for Babylonia, saying, In the peace thereof shall ye have peace, the temporal peace which the good and the wicked together enjoy. Chapter 27 but the peace which is peculiar to ourselves we enjoy now with God by faith, and shall hereafter enjoy eternally with him by sight. But the peace which we enjoy in this life, whether common to all or peculiar to ourselves, is rather the solace of our misery than the positive enjoyment of felicity. Our very righteousness, too, though true in so far as it has respect to the true good, is yet in this life of such a kind that it consists rather in the remission of sins than in the perfecting of virtues. Witness the prayer of the whole city of God in its pilgrim state, for it cries to God by the mouth of all its members, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this prayer is efficacious not for those whose faith is without works and dead, but for those whose faith worketh by love. 
For as reason, though subjected to God, is yet pressed down by the corruptible body, so long as it is in this mortal condition, it has not perfect authority over vice, and therefore this prayer is needed by the righteous. For though it exercises authority, the vices do not submit without a struggle. For however well one maintains the conflict, and however thoroughly he has subdued these enemies, there steals in some evil thing, which, if it do not find ready expression and act, slips out by the lips or insinuates itself into the thought, and therefore his peace is not full so long as he is at war with his vices. For it is a doubtful conflict he wages with those that resist, and his victory over those that are defeated is not secure, but full of anxiety and effort. Amidst these temptations, therefore, of all which it has been summarily said in the divine oracles, is not human life upon earth a temptation? Who but a proud man can presume that he so lives that he has no need to say to God, Forgive us our debts? And such a man is not great, but swollen and puffed up with vanity, and is justly resisted by him who abundantly gives grace to the humble. Whence it is said, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. In this, then, consists the righteousness of a man, that he submit himself to God, his body to his soul, and his vices, even when they rebel, to his reason, which either defeats or at least resists them and also that he beg from God grace to do his duty, and the pardon of his sins, and that he renders to God thanks for all the blessings he receives. But in that final peace to which all our righteousness has reference, and for the sake of which it is maintained, as our nature shall enjoy a sound immortality and incorruption, and shall have no more vices, and as we shall experience no resistance either from ourselves or from others, it will not be necessary that reason should rule vices which no longer exist, but God shall rule the man, and the soul shall rule the body, with a sweetness and facility suitable to the felicity of a life which is done with bondage. And this condition shall there be eternal, and we shall be assured of its eternity, and thus the peace of this blessedness and the blessedness of this peace shall be the supreme good. Chapter 28 but, on the other hand, they who do not belong to this city of God shall inherit eternal misery, which is also called the second death, because the soul shall then be separated from God its life, and therefore cannot be said to live, and the body shall be subjected to eternal pains. And consequently this second death shall be the more severe, because no death shall terminate it. But war being contrary to peace, as misery to happiness, and life to death, it is not without reason asked what kind of war can be found in the end of the wicked answering to the peace which is declared to be the end of the righteous. The person who puts this question has only to observe what it is in war that is hurtful and destructive, and he shall see that it is nothing else than the mutual opposition and conflict of things. And can he conceive a more grievous and bitter war than that in which the will is so opposed to passion and passion to the will that their hostility can never be terminated by the victory of either, and in which the violence of pain so conflicts with the nature of the body that neither yields to the other? For in this life, when this conflict has arisen, either pain conquers and death expels the feeling of it, or nature conquers and health expels the pain. 
but in the world to come the pain continues that it may torment, and the nature endures that it may be sensible of it, and neither ceases to exist, lest punishment also should cease. Now, as it is through the last judgment that men pass to these ends, the good to the supreme good, the evil to the supreme evil, I will treat of this judgment in the following book. Book 20. Chapter 1. Intending to speak, in dependence on God's grace, of the day of his final judgment, and to affirm it against the ungodly and incredulous, we must first of all lay, as it were, in the foundation of the edifice, the divine declarations. Those persons who do not believe such declarations do their best to oppose to them false and elusive sophisms of their own, either contending that what is adduced from Scripture has another meaning, or altogether denying that it is an utterance of God's. For I suppose no man who understands what is written and believes it to be communicated by the supreme and true God through holy men refuses to yield and consent to these declarations, whether he orally confesses his consent, or is from some evil influence ashamed or afraid to do so, or even, with an opinionativeness closely resembling madness, makes strenuous efforts to defend what he knows and believes to be false against what he knows and believes to be true. That, therefore, which the whole church of the true God holds and professes as its creed, that Christ shall come from heaven to judge quick and dead, this we call the last day, or last time, of the divine judgment. For we do not know how many days this judgment may occupy, but no one who reads the scriptures, however negligently, need be told that in them day is customarily used for time. And when we speak of the day of God's judgment, we add the word last or final for this reason, because even now God judges, and has judged from the beginning of human history, banishing from paradise, and excluding from the tree of life, those first men who perpetrated so great a sin. Yea, he was certainly exercising judgment also when he did not spare the angels who sinned, whose prince, overcome by envy, seduced men after being himself seduced. Neither is it without God's profound and just judgment that the life of demons and men, the one in the air, the other on earth, is filled with misery, calamities, and mistakes. And even though no one had sinned, it could only have been by the good and right judgment of God that the whole rational creation could have been maintained in eternal blessedness by a persevering adherence to its Lord. He judges, too, not only in the mass, condemning the race of devils and the race of men to be miserable on account of the original sin of these races, but he also judges the voluntary and personal acts of individuals. For even the devils pray that they may not be tormented, which proves that without injustice they might either be spared or tormented according to their deserts. And men are punished by God for their sins, often visibly, always secretly, either in this life or after death, although no man acts rightly save by the assistance of divine aid, and no man or devil acts unrighteously save by the permission of the divine and most just judgment. For as the Apostle says, there is no unrighteousness with God, and as he elsewhere says, his judgments are inscrutable, and his ways past finding out. 
In this book, then, I shall speak, as God permits, not of those first judgments, nor of these intervening judgments of God, but of the last judgment, when Christ is to come from heaven to judge the quick and the dead. For that day is properly called the day of judgment, because in it there shall be no room left for the ignorant questioning why this wicked person is happy and that righteous man unhappy. In that day true and full happiness shall be the lot of none but the good, while deserved and supreme misery shall be the portion of the wicked, and of them only. CHAPTER Two. In this present time we learn to bear with equanimity the ills to which even good men are subject, and to hold cheap the blessings which even the wicked enjoy. And consequently, even in those conditions of life in which the justice of God is not apparent, his teaching is salutary. For we do not know by what judgment of God this good man is poor and that bad man rich. Why, he who, in our opinion, ought to suffer acutely for his abandoned life enjoys himself, while sorrow pursues him whose praiseworthy life leads us to suppose he should be happy. Why, the innocent man is dismissed from the bar, not only unavenged, but even condemned, being either wronged by the iniquity of the judge, or overwhelmed by false evidence, while his guilty adversary, on the other hand, is not only discharged with impunity, but even has his claims admitted. Why, the ungodly enjoys good health, while the godly pines in sickness. Why, ruffians are of the soundest constitution, while they who could not hurt any one, even with a word, are from infancy afflicted with complicated disorders. Why, he who is useful to society is cut off by premature death, while those who, as it might seem, ought never to have been so much as born, have lives of unusual length. Why, he who is full of crimes is crowned with honors, while the blameless man is buried in the darkness of neglect. But who can collect or enumerate all the contrasts of this kind? But if this anomalous state of things were uniform in this life, in which, as the sacred psalmist says, man is like to vanity, his days as a shadow that passeth away, so uniform that none but wicked men won the transitory prosperity of earth, while only the good suffered its ills, this could be referred to the just and even benign judgment of God. We might suppose that they who were not destined to obtain those everlasting benefits which constitute human blessedness were either deluded by transitory blessings as the just reward of their wickedness, or were in God's mercy consoled by them, and that they who were not destined to suffer eternal torments were afflicted with temporal chastisement for their sins, or were stimulated to greater attainment in virtue. But now, as it is, since we not only see good men involved in the ills of life, and bad men enjoying the good of it, which seems unjust, but also that evil often overtakes evil men, and good surprises the good, the rather on this account are God's judgments unsearchable, and his ways past finding out. Although, therefore, we do not know by what judgment these things are done or permitted to be done by God, with whom is the highest virtue, the highest wisdom, the highest justice, no infirmity, no rashness, no unrighteousness, yet it is salutary for us to learn to hold cheap such things, be they good or evil, as they attach indifferently to good men and bad, and to covet those good things which belong only to good men, and flee those evils which belong only to evil men. 
But when we shall have come to that judgment, the date of which is called peculiarly the day of judgment, and sometimes the day of the Lord, we shall then recognize the justice of all God's judgments, not only of such as shall then be pronounced, but of all which take effect from the beginning, or may take effect before that time. And in that day we shall also recognize with what justice so many, or almost all, the just judgments of God in the present life defy the scrutiny of human sense or insight, though in this matter it is not concealed from pious minds that what is concealed is just. Chapter 3 Solomon, the wisest king of Israel, who reigned in Jerusalem, thus commences the book called Ecclesiastes, which the Jews number among their canonical scriptures. Vanity of vanities, said Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he hath taken under the sun? And after going on to enumerate, with this as his text, the calamities and delusions of this life, and the shifting nature of the present time, in which there is nothing substantial, nothing lasting, he bewails among the other vanities that are under the sun this also, that though wisdom excelleth folly, as light excelleth darkness, and though the eyes of the wise man are in his head, while the fool walketh in darkness, yet one event happeneth to them all, that is to say, in this life under the sun, unquestionably alluding to those evils which we see befall good and bad men alike. He says further that the good suffer the ills of life as if they were evildoers, and the bad enjoy the good of life as if they were good. There is a vanity which is done upon the earth, that there be just men unto whom it happeneth according to the work of the wicked. Again, there be wicked men to whom it happeneth according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. This wisest man devoted this whole book to a full exposure of this vanity, evidently with no other object than that we might long for that life in which there is no vanity under the sun, but verity under him who made the sun. In this vanity, then, was it not by the just and righteous judgment of God that man, made like to vanity, was destined to pass away? But in these days of vanity it makes an important difference whether he resists or yields to the truth, and whether he is destitute of true piety or a partaker of it. Important not so far as regards the acquirement of the blessings or the evasion of the calamities of this transitory and vain life, but in connection with the future judgment which shall make over to good men good things, and to bad men bad things, in permanent inalienable possession. In fine, this wise man concludes this book of his by saying, Fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is every man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every despised person, whether it be good or whether it be evil. What truer, terser, more salutary announcement could be made? Fear God, he says, and keep his commandments, for this is every man. For whosoever has real existence is this, is a keeper of God's commandments, and he who is not this is nothing. For so long as he remains in the likeness of vanity, he is not renewed in the image of the truth. For God shall bring into judgment every work, that is, whatever man does in this life, whether it be good or whether it be evil, with every despised person, that is, with every man who here seems despicable and is therefore not considered, 
for God sees even him, and does not despise him, nor pass over him in his judgment. Chapter 4 The proofs, then, of this last judgment of God which I propose to adduce shall be drawn first from the New Testament, and then from the Old. For although the Old Testament is prior in point of time, the New has the precedence in intrinsic value, for the Old acts the part of herald to the New. We shall therefore first cite passages from the New Testament and confirm them by quotations from the Old Testament. The Old contains the Law and the Prophets, the New the Gospel and the Apostolic Epistles. Now the Apostle says, By the Law is the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God without the Law is manifested, being witnessed by the Law and the Prophets. Now the righteousness of God is by faith of Jesus Christ upon all them that believe. This righteousness of God belongs to the New Testament, and evidence for it exists in the old books, that is to say, in the Law and the Prophets. I shall first, then, state the case, and then call the witnesses. This order Jesus Christ himself directs us to observe, saying, The scribe instructed in the kingdom of God is like a good householder, bringing out of his treasure things new and old. He did not say old and new, which he certainly would have said had he not wished to follow the order of merit rather than that of time. Chapter 5 The Saviour himself, while reproving the cities in which he had done great works, but which had not believed, and while setting them in unfavourable comparison with foreign cities, says, But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And a little after he says, Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Here he most plainly predicts that a day of judgment is to come. And in another place he says, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the words of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Two things we learn from this passage, that a judgment is to take place, and that it is to take place at the resurrection of the dead. For when he spoke of the Ninevites and the queen of the south, he certainly spoke of dead persons, and yet he said that they should rise up in the day of judgment. He did not say, They shall condemn, as if they themselves were to be the judges, but because, in comparison with them, the others shall be justly condemned. Again, in another passage, in which he was speaking of the present intermingling and future separation of the good and bad, the separation which shall be made in the day of judgment, he adduced a comparison drawn from the sown wheat and the tares sown among them, and gave this explanation of it to his disciples. He that soweth the good seed is the son of man, etc. Here, indeed, he did not name the judgment or the day of judgment, but indicated it much more clearly by describing the circumstances, and foretold that it should take place in the end of the world. In like manner he says to his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Here we learn that Jesus shall judge with his disciples. And therefore he said elsewhere to the Jews, If I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Neither ought we to suppose that only twelve men shall judge along with him, though he says that they shall sit upon twelve thrones. For by the number twelve is signified the completeness of the multitude of those who shall judge. For the two parts of the number seven, which commonly symbolizes totality, that is to say four and three, multiplied into one another, give twelve. For four times three, or three times four, are twelve. There are other meanings, too, in this number twelve. Were not this the right interpretation of the twelve thrones, then, since we read that Matthias was ordained an apostle in the room of Judas the traitor, the apostle Paul, though he labored more than them all, should have no throne of judgment, but he unmistakably considers himself to be included in the number of the judges when he says, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? The same rule is to be observed in applying the number twelve to those who are to be judged. For though it was said, Judging the twelve tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi, which is the thirteenth, shall not on this account be exempt from judgment, neither shall judgment be passed only on Israel, and not on the other nations. And by the words, In the regeneration, he certainly meant the resurrection of the dead to be understood. For our flesh shall be regenerated by incorruption, as our soul is regenerated by faith. Many passages I omit, because, though they seem to refer to the last judgment, yet on a closer examination they are found to be ambiguous, or to allude rather to some other event, whether to that coming of the Saviour which continually occurs in his church, that is, in his members, in which he comes little by little, and piece by piece, since the whole church is his body, or to the destruction of the earthly Jerusalem. For when he speaks even of this, he often uses language which is applicable to the end of the world and that last and great day of judgment, so that these two events cannot be distinguished unless all the corresponding passages bearing on the subject in the three evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are compared with one another. For some things are put more obscurely by one evangelist and more plainly by another, so that it becomes apparent what things are meant to be referred to one event. It is this which I have been at pains to do in a letter which I wrote to Hesychius of blessed memory, Bishop of Salon, and entitled, Of the End of the World. I shall now cite from the Gospel according to Matthew the passage which speaks of the separation of the good from the wicked by the most efficacious and final judgment of Christ. When the Son of Man, he says, shall come in his glory, then shall he say also unto them on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Then he in like manner recounts to the wicked the things they had not done, but which he had said those on the right hand had done. And when they ask when they had seen him in need of these things, he replies that inasmuch as they had not done it to the least of his brethren, they had not done it unto him, and concludes his address in the words, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Moreover, the evangelist John most distinctly states that he had predicted that the judgment should be at the resurrection of the dead. For after saying, The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. 
He that honoureth not the Son honoureth not the Father which hath sent him. He immediately adds, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Here he said that believers on him should not come into judgment. How then shall they be separated from the wicked by judgment, and be set at his right hand, unless judgment be in this passage used for condemnation? For into judgment in this sense they shall not come who hear his word, and believe on him that sent him. Chapter 6 After that he adds the words, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. As yet he does not speak of the second resurrection, that is, the resurrection of the body, which shall be in the end, but of the first, which now is. It is for the sake of making this distinction that he says, The hour is coming, and now is. Now this resurrection regards not the body, but the soul. For souls, too, have a death of their own in wickedness and sins, whereby they are the dead of whom the same lips say, Suffer the dead to bury their dead, that is, let those who are dead in soul bury them that are dead in body. It is of these dead, then, the dead in ungodliness and wickedness, that he says, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. They that hear, that is, they who obey, believe, and persevere to the end. Here no difference is made between the good and the bad. For it is good for all men to hear his voice and live by passing to the life of godliness from the death of ungodliness. Of this death the Apostle Paul says, Therefore all are dead, and he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, and rose again. Thus all, without one exception, were dead in sins, whether original or voluntary sins, sins of ignorance or sins committed against knowledge, and for all the dead there died the one only person who lived, that is, who had no sin whatever, in order that they who live by the remission of their sins should live not to themselves, but to him who died for all, for our sins, and rose again for our justification, that we, believing in him who justifies the ungodly, and being justified from ungodliness, or quickened from death, may be able to attain to the first resurrection which now is. For in this first resurrection none have a part save those who shall be eternally blessed. But in the second, of which he goes on to speak, all, as we shall learn, have a part, both the blessed and the wretched. The one is the resurrection of mercy, the other of judgment. And therefore it is written in the psalm, I will sing of mercy and of judgment, unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. And of this judgment he went on to say, And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Here he shows that he will come to judge in that flesh in which he had come to be judged. For it is to show this, he says, because he is the Son of Man. And then follow the words for our purpose. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. 
they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. This judgment he uses here in the same sense as a little before, when he says, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life, that is, by having a part in the first resurrection, by which a transition from death to life is made in this present time, he shall not come into damnation, which he mentions by the name of judgment, as also in the place where he says, But they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment, that is, of damnation. He, therefore, who would not be damned in the second resurrection, let him rise in the first. For the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live, that is, shall not come into damnation, which is called the second death, into which death, after the second or bodily resurrection, they shall be hurled who do not rise in the first or spiritual resurrection. For the hour is coming, but here he does not say, and now is, because it shall come in the end of the world, in the last and greatest judgment of God, when all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. He does not say, as in the first resurrection, and they that hear shall live, for all shall not live, at least with such life as ought alone to be called life, because it alone is blessed. For some kind of life they must have in order to hear, and come forth from the graves in their rising bodies. And why all shall not live, he teaches in the words that follow, they that have done good to the resurrection of life, these are they who shall live, but they that have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, these are they who shall not live, for they shall die in the second death. They have done evil because their life has been evil, and their life has been evil because it has not been renewed in the first or spiritual resurrection which now is, or because they have not persevered to the end in their renewed life. As then there are two regenerations of which I have already made mention, the one according to faith, and which takes place in the present life by means of baptism, the other according to the flesh, and which shall be accomplished in its incorruption and immortality by means of the great and final judgment, so are there also two resurrections, the one the first and spiritual resurrection, which has place in this life, and preserves us from coming into the second death, the other the second, which does not occur now, but in the end of the world, and which is of the body, not of the soul, and which by the last judgment shall dismiss some into the second death, others into that life which has no death. Chapter 7 The evangelist John has spoken of these two resurrections in the book which is called the Apocalypse, but in such a way that some Christians do not understand the first of the two, and so construe the passage into ridiculous fancies. For the apostle John says in the aforesaid book, and I saw an angel come down from heaven. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Those who, on the strength of this passage, have suspected that the first resurrection is future and bodily, 
have been moved, among other things, specially by the number of a thousand years, as if it were a fit thing that the saints should thus enjoy a kind of Sabbath rest during that period, a holy leisure after the labors of the six thousand years since man was created, and was on account of his great sin dismissed from the blessedness of paradise into the woes of this mortal life, so that thus, as it is written, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, there should follow on the completion of six thousand years, as of six days, a kind of seventh-day Sabbath in the succeeding thousand years, and that it is for this purpose the saints rise, that is, to celebrate this Sabbath. And this opinion would not be objectionable if it were believed that the joys of the saints in that Sabbath shall be spiritual, and consequent on the presence of God. For I myself, too, once held this opinion. But as they assert that those who then rise again shall enjoy the leisure of immoderate carnal banquets, furnished with an amount of meat and drink such as not only to shock the feeling of the temperate, but even to surpass the measure of credulity itself, such assertions can be believed only by the carnal. They who do believe them are called by the spiritual Kiliasts, which we may literally reproduce by the name millenarians. It were a tedious process to refute these opinions point by point. We prefer proceeding to show how that passage of Scripture should be understood. The Lord Jesus Christ himself says, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man meaning by the strong man the devil, because he had power to take captive the human race, and meaning by his goods which he was to take, those who had been held by the devil in diverse sins and iniquities, but were to become believers in himself. It was then for the binding of this strong one that the apostles saw in the apocalypse an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a chain in his hand, and he laid hold, he says, on the dragon, that old serpent, which is called the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, that is, bridled and restrained his power, so that he could not seduce and gain possession of those who were to be freed. Now the thousand years may be understood in two ways, so far as occurs to me, either because these things happen in the sixth thousand of years, or sixth millennium, the latter part of which is now passing, as if during the sixth day, which is to be followed by a Sabbath which has no evening, the endless rest of the saints, so that, speaking of a part under the name of the whole, he calls the last part of the millennium, the part, that is, which had yet to expire before the end of the world, a thousand years, or he used the thousand years as an equivalent for the whole duration of this world, employing the number of perfection to mark the fullness of time. For a thousand is the cube of ten. For ten times ten makes a hundred, that is, the square on a plane superficies. But to give this superficies height and make it a cube, the hundred is again multiplied by ten, which gives a thousand. Besides, if a hundred is sometimes used for totality, as when the Lord said by way of promise to him that left all and followed him, he shall receive in this world an hundredfold, of which the Apostle gives, as it were, an explanation when he says, As having nothing, yet possessing all things. For even of old it had been said, The whole world is the wealth of a believer. 
with how much greater reason is a thousand put for totality, since it is the cube, while the other is only the square. And for the same reason we cannot better interpret the words of the psalm, He hath been mindful of his covenant for ever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, than by understanding it to mean to all generations. And he cast him into the abyss, that is, cast the devil into the abyss. By the abyss is meant the countless multitude of the wicked whose hearts are unfathomably deep in malignity against the church of God. Not that the devil was not there before, but he is said to be cast in thither, because, when prevented from harming believers, he takes more complete possession of the ungodly. For that man is more abundantly possessed by the devil, who is not only alienated from God, but also gratuitously hates those who serve God, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. Shut him up, that is, prohibited him from going out, from doing what was forbidden. And the addition of set a seal upon him seems to me to mean that it was designed to keep it a secret who belonged to the devil's party and who did not. For in this world this is a secret, for we cannot tell whether even the man who seems to stand shall fall, or whether he who seems to lie shall rise again. But by the chain and prison-house of this interdict the devil is prohibited and restrained from seducing those nations which belong to Christ, but which he formerly seduced or held in subjection. For before the foundation of the world God chose to rescue these from the power of darkness, and to translate them into the kingdom of the Son of his love, as the Apostle says. For what Christian is not aware that he seduces nations even now, and draws them with himself to eternal punishment, but not those predestined to eternal life? And let no one be dismayed by the circumstance that the devil often seduces even those who have been regenerated in Christ, and begun to walk in God's way. For the Lord knoweth them that are his, and of these the devil seduces none to eternal damnation. For it is as God, from whom nothing is hid, even of things future, that the Lord knows them, not as a man who sees a man at the present time, if he can be said to see one whose heart he does not see, but does not see even himself so far as to be able to know what kind of person he is to be. The devil, then, is bound and shut up in the abyss, that he may not seduce the nations from which the church is gathered, and which he formerly seduced before the church existed. For it is not said that he should not seduce any man, but that he should not seduce the nations, meaning, no doubt, those among which the church exists, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, that is, either what remains of the sixth day, which consists of a thousand years, or all the years which are to elapse till the end of the world. The words that he should not seduce the nations till the thousand years should be fulfilled are not to be understood as indicating that afterwards he is to seduce only those nations from which the predestined church is composed, and from seducing whom he is restrained by that chain and imprisonment, but they are used in conformity with that usage frequently employed in Scripture and exemplified in the psalm, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God, until he have mercy upon us. Not as if the eyes of his servants would no longer wait upon the Lord their God, when he had mercy upon them. Or the order of the words is unquestionably this, 
and he shut him up, and set a seal upon him till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And the interposed clause, that he should seduce the nations no more, is not to be understood in the connection in which it stands, but separately, and as if added afterwards, so that the whole sentence might be read, and he shut him up, and set a seal upon him, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, that he should seduce the nations no more. That is, he is shut up till the thousand years be fulfilled on this account, that he may no more deceive the nations. Chapter 8 After that, says John, he must be loosed a little season. If the binding and shutting up of the devil means his being made unable to seduce the church, must his loosing be the recovery of this ability? By no means. For the church predestined and elected before the foundation of the world, the church of which it is said, The Lord knoweth them that are his, shall never be seduced by him. And yet there shall be a church in this world, even when the devil shall be loosed, as there has been since the beginning, and shall be always, the places of the dying being filled by new believers. For a little after John says that the devil, being loosed, shall draw the nations whom he has seduced in the whole world to make war against the church, and that the number of these enemies shall be as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them. And the devil who seduced them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night, for ever and ever. This relates to the last judgment, but I have thought fit to mention it now, lest any one might suppose that in that short time during which the devil shall be loose, there shall be no church upon earth, whether because the devil finds no church, or destroys it by manifold persecutions. The devil, then, is not bound during the whole time which this book embraces, that is, from the first coming of Christ to the end of the world, when he shall come the second time, not bound in this sense, that during this interval, which goes by the name of a thousand years, he shall not seduce the church, for not even when loosed shall he seduce it. For certainly, if his being bound means that he is not able or not permitted to seduce the church, what can the loosing of him mean but his being able or permitted to do so? But God forbid that such should be the case. But the binding of the devil is his being prevented from the exercise of his whole power to seduce men, either by violently forcing or fraudulently deceiving them into taking part with him. If he were during so long a period permitted to assail the weakness of men, very many persons, such as God would not wish to expose to such temptation, would have their faith overthrown, or would be prevented from believing, and that this might not happen, he is bound. But when the short time comes, he shall be loosed, for he shall rage with the whole force of himself and his angels for three years and six months, and those with whom he makes war shall have power to withstand all his violence and stratagems. And if he were never loosed, his malicious power would be less patent, and less proof would be given of the steadfast fortitude of the holy city. It would, in short, be less manifest what good use the Almighty makes of his great evil. For the Almighty does not absolutely seclude the saints from his temptation, but shelters only their inner man, where faith resides, that by outward temptation they may grow in grace. 
and he binds him that he may not, in the free and eager exercise of his malice, hinder or destroy the faith of those countless weak persons, already believing, or yet to believe, from whom the church must be increased and completed, and he will, in the end, lose him, that the city of God may see how mighty an adversary it has conquered, to the great glory of its Redeemer, Helper, Deliverer. And what are we in comparison with those believers and saints who shall then exist, seeing that they shall be tested by the loosing of an enemy with whom we make war at the greatest peril even when he is bound? Although it is also certain that even in this intervening period there have been and are some soldiers of Christ so wise and strong that if they were to be alive in this mortal condition at the time of his loosing, they would both most wisely guard against and most patiently endure all his snares and assaults. Now the devil was thus bound not only when the church began to be more and more widely extended among the nations beyond Judea, but is now and shall be bound till the end of the world when he is to be loosed. Because even now men are, and doubtless to the end of the world shall be, converted to the faith from the unbelief in which he held them. And this strong one is bound in each instance in which he is spoiled of one of his goods, and the abyss in which he is shut up is not at an end, when those die who were alive when first he was shut up in it, but these have been succeeded, and shall to the end of the world be succeeded, by others born after them with a like hate of the Christians, and in the depth of whose blind hearts he is continually shut up, as in an abyss. But it is a question whether, during these three years and six months, when he shall be loose, and raging with all his force, any one who has not previously believed shall attach himself to the faith. For how, in that case, would the words hold good, Who entereth into the house of a strong one to spoil his goods, unless first he shall have bound the strong one? Consequently, this verse seems to compel us to believe that during that time, short as it is, no one will be added to the Christian community, but that the devil will make war with those who have previously become Christians, and that, though some of these may be conquered and desert to the devil, these do not belong to the predestinated number of the sons of God. For it is not without reason that John, the same apostle as wrote this apocalypse, says in his epistle regarding certain persons, They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have remained with us. But what shall become of the little ones? For it is beyond all belief that in these days there shall not be found some Christian children born but not yet baptized, and that there shall not also be some born during that very period. And if there be such, we cannot believe that their parents shall not find some way of bringing them to the labor of regeneration. But if this shall be the case, how shall these goods be snatched from the devil when he is loose, since into his house no man enters to spoil his goods unless he has first bound him? On the contrary, we are rather to believe that in these days there shall be no lack either of those who fall away from or of those who attach themselves to the church. But there shall be such resoluteness both in parents to seek baptism for their little ones, and in those who shall then first believe that they shall conquer that strong one even though unbound, 
that is, shall both vigilantly comprehend and patiently bear up against him, though employing such wiles and putting forth such force as he has never before used, and thus they shall be snatched from him, even though unbound. And yet the verse of the gospel will not be untrue, who entereth into the house of the strong one to spoil his goods, unless he shall have first bound the strong one? For in accordance with this true saying that order is observed, the strong one first bound, and then his goods spoiled. For the church is so increased by the weak and strong from all nations far and near, that by its most robust faith in things divinely predicted and accomplished, it shall be able to spoil the goods of even the unbound devil. For as we must own that when iniquity abounds, the love of many waxes cold, and that those who have not been written in the book of life shall in large numbers yield to the severe and unprecedented persecutions and stratagems of the devil now loosed, so we cannot but think that not only those whom that time shall find sound in the faith, but also some who till then shall be without, shall become firm in the faith they have hitherto rejected, and mighty to conquer the devil even though unbound, God's grace aiding them to understand the scriptures, in which, among other things, there is foretold that very end which they themselves see to be arriving. And if this shall be so, his binding is to be spoken of as proceeding, that there might follow a spoiling of him both bound and loosed, for it is of this it is said, Who shall enter into the house of the strong one to spoil his goods, unless he shall first have bound the strong one? Chapter 9 But while the devil is bound, the saints reign with Christ during the same thousand years, understood in the same way, that is, of the time of his first coming. For leaving out of account that kingdom concerning which he shall say in the end, Come, ye blessed of my Father, take possession of the kingdom prepared for you. The church could not now be called his kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven, unless his saints were even now reigning with him, though in another and far different way. For to his saints he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Certainly it is in this present time that the scribe well instructed in the kingdom of God, and of whom we have already spoken, brings forth from his treasure things new and old. And from the church those reapers shall gather out the tares which he suffered to grow with the wheat till the harvest, as he explains in the words, The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered together and burned with fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all offenses. Can he mean out of that kingdom in which there are no offenses? Then it must be out of his present kingdom, the church, that they are gathered. So he says, He that breaketh one of the least of these commandments, and teacheth men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth and teacheth thus, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He speaks of both as being in the kingdom of heaven, both the man who does not perform the commandments which he teaches, for to break means not to keep, not to perform, and the man who does and teaches as he did, but the one he calls least, the other great. And he immediately adds, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, that is, the righteousness of those who break what they teach, for of the scribes and Pharisees he elsewhere says, 
for they say and do not. Unless, therefore, your righteousness exceed theirs, that is, so that you do not break, but rather do what you teach, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. We must understand in one sense the kingdom of heaven, in which exist together both he who breaks what he teaches, and he who does it, the one being least, the other great, and in another sense the kingdom of heaven into which only he who does what he teaches shall enter. Consequently, where both classes exist, it is the church as it now is, but where only the one shall exist, it is the church as it is destined to be when no wicked person shall be in her. Therefore the church even now is the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. Accordingly, even now his saints reign with him, though otherwise than as they shall reign hereafter. And yet, though the tares grow in the church along with the wheat, they do not reign with him. For they reign with him who do what the apostle says, If ye be risen with Christ, mind the things which are above, where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Seek those things which are above, not the things which are on the earth. Of such persons he also says that their conversation is in heaven. In fine, they reign with him who are so in his kingdom that they themselves are his kingdom. But in what sense are those the kingdom of Christ who, to say no more, though they are in it until all offenses are gathered out of it at the end of the world, yet seek their own things in it, and not the things that are Christ's? It is then of this kingdom militant, in which conflict with the enemy is still maintained, and war carried on with warring lusts, or government laid upon them as they yield, until we come to that most peaceful kingdom in which we shall reign without an enemy, and it is of this first resurrection in the present life that the Apocalypse speaks in the words just quoted. For after saying that the devil is bound a thousand years, and is afterwards loosed for a short season, it goes on to give a sketch of what the church does, or of what is done in the church in those days, in the words, And I saw seats, and them that sat upon them, and judgment was given. It is not to be supposed that this refers to the last judgment, but to the seats of the rulers, and to the rulers themselves by whom the church is now governed and no better interpretation of judgment being given can be produced than that which we have in the words, What ye bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what ye loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whence the apostle says, What have I to do with judging them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? And the souls, says John, of those who were slain for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, understanding what he afterwards says, reigned with Christ a thousand years, that is, the souls of the martyrs not yet restored to their bodies. For the souls of the pious dead are not separated from the church, which even now is the kingdom of Christ. Otherwise there would be no remembrance made of them at the altar of God in the partaking of the body of Christ, nor would it do any good and danger to run to his baptism, that we might not pass from this life without it, nor to reconciliation if by penitence or a bad conscience any one may be severed from his body. For why are these things practiced if not because the faithful, even though dead, are his members? Therefore, while these thousand years run on, their souls reign with him, though not as yet in conjunction with their bodies. And therefore in another part of this same book we read, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth, and now, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, 
for their works do follow them. The church, then, begins its reign with Christ, now in the living and in the dead. For as the apostle says, Christ died that he might be Lord both of the living and of the dead. But he mentioned the souls of the martyrs only, because they who have contended even to death for the truth themselves principally reign after death. But taking the part for the whole, we understand the words of all others who belong to the church, which is the kingdom of Christ. As to the words following, and if any have not worshipped the beast, nor his image, nor have received his inscription on their forehead or on their hand, we must take them of both the living and the dead. And what this beast is, though it requires a more careful investigation, yet it is not inconsistent with the true faith to understand it of the ungodly city itself and the community of unbelievers set in opposition to the faithful people and the city of God. His image seems to me to mean his simulation, to wit, in those men who profess to believe but live as unbelievers, for they pretend to be what they are not, and are called Christians not from a true likeness, but from a deceitful image. For to this beast belong not only the avowed enemies of the name of Christ and his most glorious city, but also the tares which are to be gathered out of his kingdom, the church, in the end of the world. And who are they who do not worship the beast and his image, if not those who do what the apostle says, Be not yoked with unbelievers? For such do not worship, that is, do not consent, are not subjected, neither do they receive the inscription, the brand of crime, on their forehead by their profession, on their hand by their practice. They then who are free from these pollutions, whether they still live in this mortal flesh or are dead, reign with Christ even now, through this whole interval which is indicated by the thousand years in a fashion suited to this time. The rest of them, he says, did not live. For now is the hour when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live, and the rest of them shall not live. The words added, until the thousand years are finished, mean that they did not live in the time in which they ought to have lived by passing from death to life. And therefore, when the day of the bodily resurrection arrives, they shall come out of their graves not to life, but to judgment, namely to damnation, which is called the second death. For whosoever has not lived until the thousand years be finished, that is, during this whole life in which the first resurrection is going on, Whosoever has not heard the voice of the Son of God, and passed from death to life, that man shall certainly in the second resurrection, the resurrection of the flesh, pass with his flesh into the second death. For he goes on to say, This is the first resurrection, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, or who experiences it. Now he experiences it who not only revives from the death of sin, but continues in this renewed life. In these the second death hath no power. Therefore it has power in the rest, of whom he said above, The rest of them did not live until the thousand years were finished. For in this whole intervening time called a thousand years, however lustily they lived in the body, they were not quickened to life out of that death in which their wickedness held them, so that by this revived life they should become partakers of the first resurrection, and so the second death should have no power over them. Chapter 10 
There are some who suppose that resurrection can be predicated only of the body, and therefore they contend that this first resurrection of the Apocalypse is a bodily resurrection. For, say they, to rise again can only be said of things that fall. Now bodies fall in death. There cannot therefore be a resurrection of souls, but of bodies. But what do they say to the Apostle who speaks of a resurrection of souls? For certainly it was in the inner and not the outer man that those who had risen again, to whom he says, If ye have risen with Christ, mind the things that are above. The same sense he elsewhere conveyed in other words, saying, That as Christ has risen from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also may walk in newness of life. So too, awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. As to what they say about nothing being able to rise again but what falls, once they conclude that resurrection pertains to bodies only, and not to souls, because bodies fall, why do they make nothing of the words, Ye that fear the Lord, wait for his mercy, and go not aside, lest ye fall, and to his own master he stands or falls, and he that thinketh he standeth, let him take heed, lest he fall. For I fancy this fall that we are to take heed against is a fall of the soul, not of the body. If then rising again belongs to things that fall, and souls fall, it must be owned that souls also rise again. To the words, In them the second death hath no power, are added the words, But they shall be priests of God and Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And this refers not to the bishops alone and presbyters, who are now specially called priests in the church, but as we call all believers Christians on account of the mystical chrism, so we call all priests because they are members of the one priest. Of them the Apostle Peter says, A holy people, a royal priesthood. Certainly he implied, though in a passing and incidental way, that Christ is God, saying, Priests of God and Christ, that is, of the Father and the Son, though it was in his servant form and as Son of Man that Christ was made a priest for ever after the order of Melchizedek. But this we have already explained more than once. Chapter 11 And when the thousand years are finished, Satan shall be loosed from his prison, and shall go out to seduce the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and shall draw them to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. This, then, is his purpose in seducing them, to draw them to this battle. For even before this he was wont to use as many and various seductions as he could continue. And the words, he shall go out, mean he shall burst forth from lurking hatred into open persecution. For this persecution, occurring while the final judgment is imminent, shall be the last which shall be endured by the holy church throughout the world, the whole city of Christ being assailed by the whole city of the devil, as each exists on earth. For these nations which he names Gog and Magog are not to be understood of some barbarous nations in some part of the world, whether the Gete and Massagete, as some conclude from the initial letters, or some other foreign nations not under the Roman government. For John marks that they are spread over the whole earth when he says, The nations which are in the four corners of the earth, and he added that these are Gog and Magog. The meaning of these names we find to be Gog, a roof, 
Magog from a roof, a house, as it were, and he who comes out of the house. They are therefore the nations in which we found that the devil was shut up as in an abyss, and the devil himself coming out from them and going forth, so that they are the roof, he from the roof. Or, if we refer both words to the nations, not one to them and one to the devil, then they are both the roof, because in them the old enemy is at present shut up, and, as it were, roofed in, and they shall be from the roof when they break forth from concealed to open hatred. The words, And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and encompassed the camp of the saints and the beloved city, do not mean that they have come or shall come to one place, as if the camp of the saints and the beloved city should be in some one place, for this camp is nothing else than the church of Christ extending over the whole world. And consequently, wherever the church shall be, and it shall be in all nations, as is signified by the breadth of the earth, there shall also be the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and there it shall be encompassed by the savage persecution of all its enemies, for they too shall exist along with it in all nations. That is, it shall be straitened and hard-pressed and shut up in the straits of tribulation, but shall not desert its military duty, which is signified by the word camp. Chapter 12 The words, And fire came down out of heaven and devoured them, are not to be understood of the final punishment which shall be inflicted when it is said, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. For then they shall be cast into the fire, not fire come down out of heaven upon them. In this place fire out of heaven is well understood of the firmness of the saints, wherewith they refuse to yield obedience to those who rage against them. For the firmament is heaven, by whose firmness these assailants shall be pained with blazing zeal, for they shall be impotent to draw away the saints to the party of Antichrist. This is the fire which shall devour them, and this is from God, for it is by God's grace the saints become unconquerable, and so torment their enemies. For as in a good sense it is said, The zeal of thine house hath consumed me, so in a bad sense it is said, Zeal hath possessed the uninstructed people, and now fire shall consume the enemies. And now, that is to say, not the fire of the last judgment. Or if by this fire coming down out of heaven and consuming them, John meant that blow wherewith Christ in his coming is to strike those persecutors of the church, whom he shall then find alive upon earth, when he shall kill Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, then even this is not the last judgment of the wicked, but the last judgment is that which they shall suffer when the bodily resurrection has taken place. Chapter 13 This last persecution by Antichrist shall last for three years and six months, as we have already said, and as is affirmed both in the book of Revelation and by Daniel the prophet. Though this time is brief, yet not without reason is it questioned whether it is comprehended in the thousand years in which the devil is bound and the saints reign with Christ, or whether this little season should be added over and above to these years. For if we say that they are included in the thousand years, then the saints reign with Christ during a more protracted period than the devil is bound. For they shall reign with their king and conqueror mightily, even in that crowning persecution, when the devil shall now be unbound, and shall rage against them with all his might. 
How then does Scripture define both the binding of the devil and the reign of the saints by the same thousand years if the binding of the devil ceases three years and six months before this reign of the saints with Christ? On the other hand, if we say that the brief space of this persecution is not to be reckoned as a part of the thousand years, but rather as an additional period, we shall indeed be able to interpret the words, The priests of God and of Christ shall reign with him a thousand years, and when the thousand years shall be finished, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. For thus they signify that the reign of the saints and the bondage of the devil shall cease simultaneously, so that the time of the persecution we speak of should be contemporaneous neither with the reign of the saints nor with the imprisonment of Satan, but should be reckoned over and above as a superadded portion of time. But then in this case we are forced to admit that the saints shall not reign with Christ during that persecution. But who can dare to say that his members shall not reign with him at that very juncture when they shall most of all, and with the greatest fortitude, cleave to him, and when the glory of resistance and the crown of martyrdom shall be more conspicuous in proportion to the hotness of the battle? Or if it is suggested that they may be said not to reign because of the tribulations which they shall suffer, it will follow that all the saints who have formerly, during the thousand years, suffered tribulation, shall not be said to have reigned with Christ during the period of their tribulation, and consequently even those whose souls the author of this book says that he saw, and who were slain for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, did not reign with Christ when they were suffering persecution, and they were not themselves the kingdom of Christ, though Christ was then pre-eminently possessing them. This is, indeed, perfectly absurd, and to be scouted. But assuredly the victorious souls of the glorious martyrs, having overcome and finished all griefs and toils, and having laid down their mortal members, have reigned and do reign with Christ till the thousand years are finished, that they may afterwards reign with him when they have received their immortal bodies. And therefore, during these three years and a half, the souls of those who were slain for his testimony, both those which formerly passed from the body, and those which shall pass in that last persecution, shall reign with him till the mortal world come to an end, and pass into that kingdom in which there shall be no death. And thus the reign of the saints with Christ shall last longer than the bonds and imprisonment of the devil, because they shall reign with their king, the Son of God, for these three years and a half, during which the devil is no longer bound. It remains, therefore, that when we read that the priests of God and of Christ shall reign with him a thousand years, and when the thousand years are finished, the devil shall be loosed from his imprisonment, that we understand either that the thousand years of the reign of the saints does not terminate, though the imprisonment of the devil does, so that both parties have their thousand years, that is, their complete time, yet each with a different actual duration appropriate to itself, the kingdom of the saints being longer, the imprisonment of the devil shorter. Or at least that as three years and six months is a very short time, it is not reckoned as either deducted from the whole time of Satan's imprisonment, or as added to the whole duration of the reign of the saints, as we have shown above in the sixteenth book, regarding the round number of four hundred years, which were specified as four hundred, though actually somewhat more. And similar expressions are often found in the sacred writings, if one will mark them. Chapter 14 
After this mention of the closing persecution, he summarily indicates all that the devil and the city of which he is the prince shall suffer in the last judgment. For he says, And the devil who seduced them is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, in which are the beast and the false prophet, and they shall be tormented day and night, for ever and ever. We have already said that by the beast is well understood the wicked city. His false prophet is either Antichrist or that image or figment of which we have spoken in the same place. After this he gives a brief narrative of the last judgment itself which shall take place at the second or bodily resurrection of the dead as that had been revealed to him. I saw a throne great and white and one sitting on it from whose face the heaven and the earth fled away and their place was not found. He does not say, I saw a throne great and white, and one sitting on it, and from his face the heaven and the earth fled away, for it had not happened then, that is, before the living and the dead were judged. But he says that he saw him sitting on the throne, from whose face heaven and earth fled away, but afterwards. For when the judgment is finished, this heaven and earth shall cease to be, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. For this world shall pass away by transmutation, not by absolute destruction. And therefore the apostle says, For the figure of this world passeth away, I would have you be without anxiety. The figure therefore passes away, not the nature. After John had said that he had seen one sitting on the throne, from whose face heaven and earth fled, though not till afterwards, he said, And I saw the dead, great and small, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of the life of each man, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. He said that the books were opened, and a book, but he left us at a loss as to the nature of this book, which is, he says, the book of the life of each man. By those books, then, which he first mentioned, we are to understand the sacred books, old and new, that out of them it might be shown what commandments God had enjoined, and that book of the life of each man is to show what commandments each man has done or omitted to do. If this book be materially considered, who can reckon its size or length, or the time it would take to read a book in which the whole life of every man is recorded? Shall there be present as many angels as men, and shall each man hear his life recited by the angel assigned to him? In that case there will be not one book containing all the lives, but a separate book for every life. But our passage requires us to think of one only. And another book was opened, it says. We must therefore understand it of a certain divine power by which it shall be brought about that every one shall recall to memory all his own works, whether good or evil, and shall mentally survey them with a marvelous rapidity so that this knowledge will either accuse or excuse conscience, and thus all and each shall be simultaneously judged. And this divine power is called a book, because in it we shall, as it were, read all that it causes us to remember. That he may show who the dead, small and great, are who are to be judged, he recurs to this which he had omitted, or rather deferred, and says, And the sea presented the dead which were in it, and death and hell gave up the dead which were in them. This, of course, took place before the dead were judged, yet it is mentioned after. And so, I say, he returns again to what he had omitted. 
but now he preserves the order of events, and for the sake of exhibiting it repeats in its own proper place what he had already said regarding the dead who were judged. For after he had said, And the sea presented the dead which were in it, and death and hell gave up the dead which were in them, he immediately subjoined what he had already said, and they were judged every man according to their works. For this is just what he had said before, and the dead were judged according to their works. Chapter 15 But who are the dead which were in the sea, and which the sea presented? For we cannot suppose that those who die in the sea are not in hell, nor that their bodies are preserved in the sea, nor yet, which is still more absurd, that the sea retained the good while hell received the bad. Who could believe this? But some very sensibly suppose that in this place the sea is put for this world. When John then wished to signify that those whom Christ should find still alive in the body were to be judged along with those who should rise again, he called them dead, both the good to whom it is said, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God, and the wicked, of whom it is said, Let the dead bury their dead. They may also be called dead, because they wear mortal bodies, as the Apostle says, The body indeed is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness, proving that in a living man in the body there is both a body which is dead, and a spirit which is life. Yet he did not say that the body was mortal, but dead, although immediately after he speaks in the more usual way of mortal bodies. These, then, are the dead which were in the sea, and which the sea presented, to wit, the men who were in this world because they had not yet died, and whom the world presented for judgment. And death and hell, he says, gave up the dead which were in them. The sea presented them because they had merely to be found in the place where they were, but death and hell gave them up, or restored them, because they called them back to life, which they had already quitted. And perhaps it was not without reason that neither death nor hell were judged sufficient alone, and both were mentioned, death to indicate the good, who have suffered only death and not hell, hell to indicate the wicked, who suffer also the punishment of hell. For if it does not seem absurd to believe that the ancient saints who believed in Christ and his then future coming were kept in places far removed indeed from the torments of the wicked, but yet in hell, until Christ's blood and his descent into these places delivered them, certainly good Christians, redeemed by that precious price already paid, are quite unacquainted with hell while they wait for their restoration to the body and the reception of their reward. After saying, they were judged every man according to their works, he briefly added what the judgment was. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, by these names designating the devil and the whole company of his angels, for he is the author of death and the pains of hell. For this is what he had already by anticipation said in clearer language, the devil who seduced them was cast into a lake of fire and brimstone. The obscure addition he had made in the words, in which were also the beast and the false prophet, he here explains, they who were not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. This book is not for reminding God as if things might escape him by forgetfulness, but it symbolizes his predestination of those to whom eternal life shall be given. For it is not that God is ignorant and reads in the book to inform himself, 
but rather his infallible prescience is the book of life in which they are written, that is to say, known beforehand. Chapter 16 Having finished the prophecy of judgment, so far as the wicked are concerned, it remains that he speak also of the good. Having briefly explained the Lord's words, These will go away into everlasting punishment, it remains that he explain the connected words, but the righteous into life eternal. And I saw, he says, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no more sea. This will take place in the order which he has by anticipation declared in the words, I saw one sitting on the throne from whose face heaven and earth fled. For as soon as those who are not written in the book of life have been judged and cast into eternal fire, the nature of which fire, or its position in the world or universe, I suppose is known to no man, unless perhaps the divine spirit reveal it to some one, then shall the figure of this world pass away in a conflagration of universal fire, as once before the world was flooded with a deluge of universal water. And by this universal conflagration the qualities of the corruptible elements which suited our corruptible bodies shall utterly perish, and our substance shall receive such qualities as shall, by a wonderful transmutation, harmonize with our immortal bodies, so that, as the world itself is renewed to some better thing, it is fitly accommodated to men, themselves renewed in their flesh to some better thing. As for the statement, And there shall be no more sea, I would not lightly say whether it is dried up with that excessive heat, or is itself also turned into some better thing. For we read that there shall be a new heaven and a new earth, but I do not remember to have anywhere read anything of a new sea, unless what I find in this same book, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. But he was not then speaking of this end of the world, neither does he seem to speak of a literal sea, but as it were a sea. It is possible that, as prophetic diction delights in mingling figurative and real language, and thus in some sort veiling the sense, so the words, and there is no more sea, may be taken in the same sense as the previous phrase, and the sea presented the dead which were in it. For then there shall be no more of this world, no more of the surgings and restlessness of human life, and it is this which is symbolized by the sea. Chapter 17 And I saw, he says, a great city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, but neither shall there be any more pain, because the former things have passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. This city is said to come down out of heaven, because the grace with which God formed it is of heaven. Wherefore he says to it by Isaiah, I am the Lord that formed thee. It is indeed descended from heaven from its commencement, since its citizens during the course of this world grow by the grace of God, which cometh down from above through the labor of regeneration and the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. 
but by God's final judgment, which shall be administered by his Son, Jesus Christ, there shall by God's grace be manifested a glory so pervading and so new that no vestige of what is old shall remain. For even our bodies shall pass from their old corruption and mortality to new incorruption and immortality. For to refer this promise to the present time, in which the saints are reigning with their king a thousand years, seems to me excessively barefaced, when it is most distinctly said, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, but there shall be no more pain. And who is so absurd and blinded by contentious opinionativeness as to be audacious enough to affirm that in the midst of the calamities of this mortal state God's people, or even one single saint, does live, or has ever lived, or shall ever live, without tears or pain, the fact being that the holier a man is, and the fuller of holy desire, so much the more abundant is the tearfulness of his supplication. Are not these the utterances of a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem? My tears have been my meat day and night, and every night shall I make my bed to swim, with my tears shall I water my couch, and my groaning is not hid from thee, and my sorrow was renewed. Or are not those God's children who groan, being burdened, not that they wish to be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality may be swallowed up of life? Do not they even who have the firstfruits of the Spirit groan within themselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of their body? Was not the Apostle Paul himself a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem, and was he not so all the more when he had heaviness and continual sorrow of heart for his Israelitish brethren? But when shall there be no more death in that city except when it shall be said, O death, where is thy contention? O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin. Obviously there shall be no sin when it can be said, Where is? But as for the present, it is not some poor weak citizen of this city, but this same Apostle John himself who says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. No doubt, though this book is called the Apocalypse, there are in it many obscure passages to exercise the mind of the reader, and there are few passages so plain as to assist us in the interpretation of the others, even though we take pains and this difficulty is increased by the repetition of the same things in forms so different that the things referred to seem to be different, although in fact they are only differently stated. But in the words, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, but there shall be no more pain, there is so manifest a reference to the future world and the immortality and eternity of the saints, for only then and only there shall such a condition be realized, that if we think this obscure, we need not expect to find anything plain in any part of Scripture. Chapter 18 Let us now see what the Apostle Peter predicted concerning this judgment. There shall come, he says, in the last days scoffers. Nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. There is nothing said here about the resurrection of the dead, but enough certainly regarding the destruction of this world. 
and by his reference to the deluge he seems as it were to suggest to us how far we should believe the ruin of the world will extend in the end of the world. For he says that the world which then was perished, and not only the earth itself, but also the heavens, by which we understand the air, the place and room of which was occupied by the water. Therefore the whole, or almost the whole, of the gusty atmosphere, which he calls heaven, or rather the heavens, meaning the earth's atmosphere, and not the upper air, in which sun, moon, and stars are set, was turned into moisture, and in this way perished together with the earth, whose former appearance had been destroyed by the deluge. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Therefore the heavens and the earth, or the world which was preserved from the water to stand in place of that world which perished in the flood, is itself reserved to fire at last in the day of the judgment and perdition of ungodly men. He does not hesitate to affirm that in this great change men also shall perish. Their nature, however, shall notwithstanding continue, though in eternal punishments. Someone will perhaps put the question, if after judgment is pronounced the world itself is to burn, where shall the saints be during the conflagration, and before it is replaced by a new heavens and a new earth, since somewhere they must be, because they have material bodies? We may reply that they shall be in the upper regions into which the flame of that conflagration shall not ascend, as neither did the water of the flood, for they shall have such bodies that they shall be wherever they wish. Moreover, when they have become immortal and incorruptible, they shall not greatly dread the blaze of that conflagration, as the corruptible and mortal bodies of the three men were able to live unhurt in the blazing furnace. Chapter 19 I see that I must omit many of the statements of the Gospels and Epistles about this last judgment, that this volume may not become unduly long. But I can on no account omit what the Apostle Paul says in writing to the Thessalonians, We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, etc. No one can doubt that he wrote this of Antichrist and of the day of judgment, which he here calls the day of the Lord, nor that he declared that this day should not come unless he first came who is called the apostate, apostate to it from the Lord God. And if this may justly be said of all the ungodly, how much more of him? But it is uncertain in what temple he shall sit, whether in that ruin of the temple which was built by Solomon, or in the church. For the apostle would not call the temple of any idol or demon the temple of God. And on this account some think that in this passage Antichrist means not the prince himself alone, but his whole body, that is, the mass of men who adhere to him, along with him their prince. And they also think that we should render the Greek more exactly were we to read not in the temple of God, but for or as the temple of God, as if he himself were the temple of God, the church. Then as for the words, And now ye know what withholdeth, that is, ye know what hindrance or cause of delay there is, that he might be revealed in his own time, they show that he was unwilling to make an explicit statement, because he said that they knew. And thus we, who have not their knowledge, wish, and are not able even with pains to understand what the apostle referred to, especially as his meaning is made still more obscure by what he adds. 
for what does he mean by, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now holdeth, let him hold until he be taken out of the way, and then shall the wicked be revealed. I frankly confess I do not know what he means. I will nevertheless mention such conjectures as I have heard or read. Some think the Apostle Paul referred to the Roman Empire, and that he was unwilling to use language more explicit, lest he should incur the calumnious charge of wishing ill to the empire, which it was hoped would be eternal, so that in saying, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, he alluded to Nero, whose deeds already seemed to be as the deeds of Antichrist. And hence some suppose that he shall rise again and be Antichrist. Others, again, suppose that he is not even dead, but that he was concealed that he might be supposed to have been killed, and that he now lives in concealment in the vigor of that same age which he had reached when he was believed to have perished, and will live until he is revealed in his own time and restored to his kingdom. But I wonder that men can be so audacious in their conjectures. However, it is not absurd to believe that these words of the Apostle only he who now holdeth let him hold until he be taken out of the way, refer to the Roman Empire, as if it were said, Only he who now reigneth let him reign until he be taken out of the way. And then shall the wicked be revealed. No one doubts that this means Antichrist. But others think that the words, Ye know what withholdeth, and the mystery of iniquity worketh, refer only to the wicked and the hypocrites who are in the church, until they reach a number so great as to furnish Antichrist with a great people, and that this is the mystery of iniquity, because it seems hidden. Also that the apostle is exhorting the faithful tenaciously to hold the faith they hold when he says, Only he who now holdeth let him hold until he be taken out of the way, that is, until the mystery of iniquity which now is hidden departs from the church. For they suppose that it is to this same mystery John alludes when in his epistle he says, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. As, therefore, there went out from the church many heretics, whom John calls many antichrists, at that time prior to the end, and which John calls the last time, so in the end they shall go out who do not belong to Christ, but to that last antichrist, and then he shall be revealed. Thus various, then, are the conjectural explanations of the obscure words of the apostle. That which there is no doubt he said is this, that Christ will not come to judge quick and dead, unless Antichrist, his adversary, first come to seduce those who are dead in soul, although their seduction is a result of God's secret judgment already past. For, as it is said, his presence shall be after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all seduction of unrighteousness in them that perish. For then shall Satan be loosed, and by means of that Antichrist shall work with all power in a lying, though a wonderful manner. It is commonly questioned whether these works are called signs and lying wonders, because he is to deceive men's senses by false appearances, or because the things he does, though they be true prodigies, shall be a lie to those who shall believe that such things could be done only by God, 
being ignorant of the devil's power, and especially of such unexampled power as he shall then for the first time put forth. For when he fell from heaven as fire, and at a stroke swept away from the holy Job his numerous household and his vast flocks, and then as a whirlwind rushed upon and smote the house and killed his children, these were not deceitful appearances, and yet they were the works of Satan to whom God had given this power. Why they are called signs and lying wonders we shall then be more likely to know when the time itself arrives. But whatever be the reason of the name, they shall be such signs and wonders as shall seduce those who shall deserve to be seduced, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Neither did the apostles scruple to go on to say, For this cause God shall send upon them the working of error, that they should believe a lie. For God shall send, because God shall permit the devil to do these things, the permission being by his own just judgment, though the doing of them is in pursuance of the devil's unrighteous and malignant purpose, that they all might be judged who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Therefore, being judged, they shall be seduced, and being seduced, they shall be judged. But being judged, they shall be seduced by those secretly just and justly secret judgments of God, with which he has never ceased to judge since the first sin of the rational creatures, and, being seduced, they shall be judged in that last and manifest judgment administered by Jesus Christ, who was himself most unjustly judged, and shall most justly judge. Chapter 20 But the Apostle has said nothing here regarding the resurrection of the dead, but in his first epistle to the Thessalonians he says, We would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, etc. These words of the Apostle most distinctly proclaim the future resurrection of the dead, when the Lord Christ shall come to judge the quick and the dead. But it is commonly asked whether those whom our Lord shall find alive upon earth, personated in this passage by the Apostle and those who are alive with him, shall never die at all, or shall pass with incomprehensible swiftness through death to immortality in the very moment during which they shall be caught up along with those who rise again to meet the Lord in the air. For we cannot say that it is impossible that they should both die and revive again while they are carried aloft through the air. For the words, And so shall we ever be with the Lord, are not to be understood as if he meant that we shall always remain in the air with the Lord, for he himself shall not remain there, but shall only pass through it as he comes. For we shall go to meet him as he comes, not where he remains, but so shall we be with the Lord. That is, we shall be with him, possessed of immortal bodies, wherever we shall be with him. We seem compelled to take the words in this sense, and to suppose that those whom the Lord shall find alive upon earth shall, in that brief space, both suffer death and receive immortality. For this same apostle says, In Christ shall all be made alive. While speaking of the same resurrection of the body, he elsewhere says, That which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. How then shall those whom Christ shall find alive upon earth be made alive to immortality in him, if they die not, since on this very account it is said, That which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. Or, if we cannot properly speak of human bodies as sown, unless in so far as by dying they do in some sort return to the earth, 
as also the sentence pronounced by God against the sinning father of the human race runs, Earth thou art, and unto earth shalt thou return, we must acknowledge that those whom Christ at his coming shall find still in the body are not included in these words of the Apostle, nor in those of Genesis. For, being caught up into the clouds, they are certainly not sown, neither going nor returning to the earth, whether they experience no death at all, or die for a moment in the air. But, on the other hand, there meets us the saying of the same apostle when he was speaking to the Corinthians about the resurrection of the body, We shall all rise, or, as other manuscripts read, We shall all sleep. Since, then, there can be no resurrection unless death has proceeded, and since we can in this passage understand by sleep nothing else than death, how shall all either sleep or rise again, if so many persons whom Christ shall find in the body shall neither sleep nor rise again? If, then, we believe that the saints who shall be found alive at Christ's coming, and shall be caught up to meet him, shall in that same ascent pass from mortal to immortal bodies, we shall find no difficulty in the words of the Apostle, either when he says, That which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die, or when he says, We shall all rise, or all sleep, for not even the saints shall be quickened to immortality unless they first die, however briefly, and consequently they shall not be exempt from resurrection which is preceded by sleep, however brief. And why should it seem to us incredible that that multitude of bodies should be, as it were, sown in the air, and should in the air forthwith revive immortal and incorruptible, when we believe on the testimony of the same apostle that the resurrection shall take place in the twinkling of an eye, and that the dust of bodies long dead shall return with incomprehensible facility and swiftness to those members that are now to live endlessly? Neither do we suppose that in the case of these saints the sentence, Earth thou art, and unto earth shalt thou return, is null, though their bodies do not, on dying, fall to earth, but both die and rise again at once while caught up into the air. For thou shalt return to earth means thou shalt at death return to that which thou wert before life began. Thou shalt, when examine it, be that which thou wert before thou wast animate. For it was into a face of earth that God breathed the breath of life when man was made a living soul, as if it were said, Thou art earth with a soul, which thou wast not, thou shalt be earth without a soul, as thou wast. And this is what all bodies of the dead are before they rot, and what the bodies of those saints shall be if they die, no matter where they die, as soon as they shall give up that life which they are immediately to receive back again. In this way, then, they return, or go to earth, inasmuch as from being living men they shall be earth, as that which becomes cinder is said to go to cinder, that which decays to go to decay, and so of six hundred other things. But the manner in which this shall take place we can now only feebly conjecture, and shall understand it only when it comes to pass. For that there shall be a bodily resurrection of the dead when Christ comes to judge quickened dead, we must believe, if we would be Christians. But if we are unable perfectly to comprehend the manner in which it shall take place, our faith is not on this account vain. Now, however, we ought, as we formerly promised, to show, as far as seems necessary, what the ancient prophetic books predicted concerning this final judgment of God. 
and I fancy no great time need be spent in discussing and explaining these predictions if the reader has been careful to avail himself of the help we have already furnished. Chapter 21 The prophet Isaiah says, The dead shall rise again, and all who are in the graves shall rise again, and all who are in the earth shall rejoice. For the dew which is from thee is their health, and the earth of the wicked shall fall. All the former part of this passage relates to the resurrection of the blessed. But the words, the earth of the wicked shall fall, is rightly understood as meaning that the bodies of the wicked shall fall into the ruin of damnation. And if we would more exactly and carefully scrutinize the words which refer to the resurrection of the good, we may refer to the first resurrection the words, The dead shall rise again, and to the second the following words, And all who are in the graves shall rise again. And if we ask what relates to those saints whom the Lord at his coming shall find alive upon earth, the following clause may be suitably referred to them. All who are in the earth shall rejoice, for the dew which is from thee is their health. By health in this place it is best to understand immortality, for that is the most perfect health which is not repaired by nourishment as by a daily remedy. In like manner the same prophet, affording hope to the good and terrifying the wicked regarding the day of judgment, says, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will flow down upon them as a river of peace, and upon the glory of the Gentiles as a rushing torrent. Their sons shall be carried on the shoulders, and shall be comforted on the knees. As one whom his mother comforteth, so shall I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And ye shall see, and your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall rise up like a herb. And the hand of the Lord shall be known by his worshippers, and he shall threaten the contumacious. For behold, the Lord shall come as a fire, and as a whirlwind his chariots, to execute vengeance with indignation, and wasting with a flame of fire. For with fire of the Lord shall all the earth be judged, and all flesh with his sword. Many shall be wounded by the Lord. In his promise to the good he says that he will flow down as a river of peace, that is to say, in the greatest possible abundance of peace. With this peace we shall in the end be refreshed, but of this we have spoken abundantly in the preceding book. It is this river in which he says he shall flow down upon those to whom he promises so great happiness, that we may understand that in the region of that felicity which is in heaven all things are satisfied from this river. But because there shall thence flow, even upon earthly bodies, the peace of incorruption and immortality, therefore he says that he shall flow down as this river, that he may, as it were, pour himself from things above to things beneath, and make men the equals of the angels. By Jerusalem, too, we should understand not that which serves with her children, but that which, according to the Apostle, is our free mother, eternal in the heavens. In her we shall be comforted as we pass toil-worn from earth's cares and calamities, and be taken up as her children on her knees and shoulders. Inexperienced and new to such blandishments, we shall be received into unwanted bliss. There we shall see, and our heart shall rejoice. He does not say what we shall see, but what but God, that the promise and the gospel may be fulfilled in us, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
What shall we see but all those things which now we see not, but believe in, and of which the idea we form, according to our feeble capacity, is incomparably less than the reality? And ye shall see, he says, and your heart shall rejoice. Here ye believe, there ye shall see. But because he said, your heart shall rejoice, lest we should suppose that the blessings of that Jerusalem are only spiritual, he adds, and your bones shall rise up like a herb, alluding to the resurrection of the body, and, as it were, supplying an omission he had made. For it will not take place when we have seen, but we shall see when it has taken place. For he had already spoken of the new heavens and the new earth, speaking repeatedly and under many figures of the things promised to the saints, and saying, there shall be new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind, but they shall find in it gladness and exultation. Behold, I will make Jerusalem an exultation, and my people a joy, and I will exult in Jerusalem and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her and other promises which some endeavour to refer to carnal enjoyment during the thousand years. For in the manner of prophecy figurative and literal expressions are mingled, so that a serious mind may, by useful and salutary effort, reach the spiritual sense. But carnal sluggishness, or the slowness of an uneducated and undisciplined mind, rests in the superficial letter, and thinks there is nothing beneath to be looked for. But let this be enough regarding the style of those prophetic expressions just quoted. And now to return to their interpretation. When he had said, And your bones shall rise up like a herb, in order to show that it was the resurrection of the good, though a bodily resurrection, to which he alluded, he added, And the hand of the Lord shall be known by his worshippers. What is this but the hand of him who distinguishes those who worship from those who despise him? Regarding these, the context immediately adds, and he shall threaten the contumacious, or, as another translator has it, the unbelieving. He shall not actually threaten then, but the threats which are now uttered shall then be fulfilled in effect. For behold, he says, the Lord shall come as a fire, and as a whirlwind his chariots, to execute vengeance with indignation, and wasting with a flame of fire. For with fire of the Lord shall all the earth be judged, and all flesh with his sword, many shall be wounded by the Lord. By fire, whirlwind, sword, he means the judicial punishment of God. For he says that the Lord himself shall come as a fire to those, that is to say, to whom his coming shall be penal. By his chariots, for the word is plural, we suitably understand the ministration of angels. And when he says that all flesh and all the earth shall be judged with his fire and sword, we do not understand the spiritual and holy to be included, but the earthly and carnal, of whom it is said that they mind earthly things, and to be carnally minded is death, and whom the Lord calls simply flesh when he says, My spirit shall not always remain in these men, for they are flesh. As to the words, many shall be wounded by the Lord, this wounding shall produce the second death. It is possible indeed to understand fire, sword, and wound in a good sense, for the Lord said that he wished to send fire on the earth. And the cloven tongues appeared to them as fire when the Holy Spirit came. 
and our Lord says, I am not come to send peace on earth, but a sword. And Scripture says that the word of God is a doubly sharp sword on account of the two edges, the two testaments. And in the Song of Songs, the Holy Church says that she is wounded with love, pierced, as it were, with the arrow of love. But here, where we read or hear that the Lord shall come to execute vengeance, it is obvious in what sense we are to understand these expressions. After briefly mentioning those who shall be consumed in this judgment, speaking of the wicked and sinners under the figure of the meats forbidden by the old law, from which they had not abstained, he summarily recounts the grace of the New Testament from the first coming of the Saviour to the last judgment of which we now speak, and herewith he concludes his prophecy. For he relates that the Lord declares that he is coming to gather all nations, that they may come and witness his glory. For as the Apostle says, all have sinned and are in want of the glory of God. And he says that he will do wonders among them, at which they shall marvel and believe in him, and that from them he will send forth those that are saved into various nations and distant islands which have not heard his name nor seen his glory, and that they shall declare his glory among the nations, and shall bring the brethren of those to whom the prophet was speaking, that is, shall bring to the faith under God the Father the brethren of the elect Israelites, and that they shall bring from all nations an offering to the Lord on beasts of burden and wagons, which are understood to mean the aids furnished by God in the shape of angelic or human ministry, to the holy city Jerusalem, which at present is scattered over the earth in the faithful saints. For where divine aid is given, men believe, and where they believe, they come. And the Lord compared them, in a figure, to the children of Israel offering sacrifice to him in his house with psalms, which is already everywhere done by the church. And he promised that from among them he would choose for himself priests and Levites, which also we see already accomplished. For we see that priests and Levites are now chosen, not from a certain family and blood, as was originally the rule in the priesthood according to the order of Aaron, but as befits the New Testament, under which Christ is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, in consideration of the merit which is bestowed upon each man by divine grace. And these priests are not to be judged by their mere title, which is often borne by unworthy men, but by that holiness which is not common to good men and bad. After having thus spoken of this mercy of God which is now experienced by the church and is very evident and familiar to us, he foretells also the ends to which men shall come when the last judgment has separated the good and the bad, saying by the prophet, or the prophet himself speaking for God, for as the new heavens and the new earth shall remain before me, said the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain, and there shall be to them month after month, and Sabbath after Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me in Jerusalem, said the Lord, and they shall go out and shall see the members of the men who have sinned against me. Their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be for a spectacle to all flesh. At this point the prophet closed his book, as at this point the world shall come to an end. Some indeed have translated carcasses instead of members of the men, meaning by carcasses the manifest punishment of the body, 
although carcass is commonly used only of dead flesh, while the bodies here spoken of shall be animated, else they could not be sensible of any pain. But perhaps they may, without absurdity, be called carcasses, as being the bodies of those who are to fall into the second death. And for the same reason it is said, as I have already quoted by this same prophet, the earth of the wicked shall fall. It is obvious that those translators who use a different word for men do not mean to include only males, for no one will say that the women who sin shall not appear in that judgment. But the male sex, being the more worthy, and that from which the woman was derived, is intended to include both sexes. But that which is especially pertinent to our subject is this, that since the words, All flesh shall come, apply to the good, for the people of God shall be composed of every race of men, for all men shall not be present, since the greater part shall be in punishment. But, as I was saying, since flesh is used of the good, and members or carcasses of the bad, certainly it is thus put beyond a doubt that that judgment in which the good and the bad shall be allotted to their destinies shall take place after the resurrection of the body, our faith in which is thoroughly established by the use of these words. Chapter 22 But in what way shall the good go out to see the punishment of the wicked? Are they to leave their happy abodes by a bodily movement, and proceed to the places of punishment, so as to witness the torments of the wicked in their bodily presence? Certainly not, but they shall go out by knowledge. For this expression, go out, signifies that those who shall be punished shall be without. And thus the Lord also calls these places the outer darkness, to which is opposed that entrance concerning which it is said to the good servant, Enter into the joy of thy Lord, that it may not be supposed that the wicked can enter thither and be known, but rather that the good by their knowledge go out to them, because the good are to know that which is without. For those who shall be in torment shall not know what is going on within in the joy of the Lord, but they who shall enter into that joy shall know what is going on outside in the outer darkness. Therefore it is said, They shall go out, because they shall know what is done by those who are without. For if the prophets were able to know things that had not yet happened, by means of that indwelling of God in their minds, limited though it was, shall not the immortal saints know things that have already happened, when God shall be all in all? The seed, then, and the name of the saints shall remain in that blessedness, the seed to wit of which John says, and his seed remaineth in him, and the name of which it was said through Isaiah himself, I will give them an everlasting name. And there shall be to them month after month, and Sabbath after Sabbath, as if it were said, moon after moon, and rest upon rest, both of which they shall themselves be when they shall pass from the old shadows of time into the new lights of eternity." The worm that dieth not, and the fire that is not quenched, which constitute the punishment of the wicked, are differently interpreted by different people. For some refer both to the body, others refer both to the soul, while others again refer the fire literally to the body, and the worm figuratively to the soul, which seems the more credible idea. But the present is not the time to discuss this difference, for we have undertaken to occupy this book with the last judgment, in which the good and the bad are separated. Their rewards and punishments we shall more carefully discuss elsewhere. 
chapter 23. Daniel prophesies of the last judgment in such a way as to indicate that Antichrist shall first come, and to carry on his description to the eternal reign of the saints. For when in prophetic vision he had seen four beasts signifying four kingdoms, and the fourth conquered by a certain king who is recognized as Antichrist, and after this the eternal kingdom of the Son of Man, that is to say, of Christ, he says, My spirit was terrified, I, Daniel, in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me, etc. Some have interpreted these four kingdoms as signifying those of the Assyrians, Persians, Macedonians, and Romans. They who desire to understand the fitness of this interpretation may read Jerome's book on Daniel, which is written with a sufficiency of care and erudition. But he who reads this passage even half asleep cannot fail to see that the kingdom of Antichrist shall fiercely, though for a short time, assail the church before the last judgment of God shall introduce the eternal reign of the saints. For it is patent from the context that the time, times, and half a time means a year and two years and half a year, that is to say, three years and a half. Sometimes in Scripture the same thing is indicated by months. For though the word times seems to be used here in the Latin indefinitely, that is only because the Latins have no dual, as the Greeks have, and as the Hebrews also are said to have. Times, therefore, is used for two times. As for the ten kings, whom, as it seems, Antichrist is defined in the person of ten individuals when he comes, I own I am afraid we may be deceived in this, and that he may come unexpectedly, while there are not ten kings living in the Roman world. For what if this number ten signifies the whole number of kings who are to precede his coming, as totality is frequently symbolized by a thousand, or a hundred, or seven, or other numbers, which it is not necessary to recount. In another place the same Daniel says, And there shall be a time of trouble such as was not since there was born a nation upon earth until that time. And in that time all thy people which shall be found written in the book shall be delivered. And many of them that sleep in the mound of earth shall arise, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting confusion. And they that be wise shall shine at the brightness of the firmament, and many of the just as the stars for ever. This passage is very similar to the one we have quoted from the Gospel, at least so far as regards the resurrection of dead bodies. For those who are there said to be in the graves are here spoken of as sleeping in the mound of earth, or as others translate, in the dust of earth. There it is said, they shall come forth, so here they shall arise. There they that have done good to the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, here some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting confusion. Neither is it to be supposed a difference, though in place of the expression in the gospel, all who are in their graves, the prophet does not say all, but many of them that sleep on the mound of earth. For many is sometimes used in scripture for all. Thus it was said to Abraham, I have set thee as the father of many nations, though in another place it was said to him, In thy seed shall all nations be blessed. Of such a resurrection it is said a little afterwards to the prophet himself, 
and come thou and rest, for there is yet a day till the completion of the consummation, and thou shalt rest and rise in thy lot in the end of the days. Chapter 24 There are many allusions to the last judgment in the Psalms, but for the most part only casual and slight. I cannot, however, omit to mention what is said there in express terms of the end of this world. In the beginning hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, O Lord, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, and as a vesture thou shalt change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Why is it that Porphyry, while he lauds the piety of the Hebrews in worshipping a god great and true, and terrible to the gods themselves, follows the oracles of these gods in accusing the Christians of extreme folly, because they say that this world shall perish? For here we find it said in the sacred books of the Hebrews, to that god whom this great philosopher acknowledges to be terrible even to the gods themselves, The heavens are the work of thy hands, they shall perish. When the heavens, the higher and more secure part of the world, perish, shall the world itself be preserved? If this idea is not relished by Jupiter, whose oracle is quoted by this philosopher as an unquestionable authority in rebuke of the credulity of the Christians, why does he not similarly rebuke the wisdom of the Hebrews as folly, seeing that the prediction is found in their most holy books? But if this Hebrew wisdom, with which Porphyry is so captivated that he extols it through the utterances of his own gods, proclaims that the heavens are to perish, how is he so infatuated as to detest the faith of the Christians partly, if not chiefly, on this account, that they believe the world is to perish, though how the heavens are to perish if the world does not, is not easy to see. And indeed, in the sacred writings which are peculiar to ourselves and not common to the Hebrews and us, I mean the evangelic and apostolic books, the following expressions are used. The figure of this world passeth away. The world passeth away. Heaven and earth shall pass away. Expressions which are, I fancy, somewhat milder than they shall perish. In the epistle of the Apostle Peter, too, where the world which then was is said to have perished, being overflowed with water, it is sufficiently obvious what part of the world is signified by the whole, and in what sense the word perished is to be taken, and what heavens were kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And when he says a little afterwards, The day of the Lord will come as a thief, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great rush, and the elements shall melt with burning heat, and the earth and the works which are in it shall be burned up, and then adds, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be? These heavens which are to perish may be understood to be the same which he said were kept in store, reserved for fire and the elements which are to be burned are those which are full of storm and disturbance in this lowest part of the world in which he said that these heavens were kept in store. For the higher heavens in whose firmament are set the stars are safe and remain in their integrity. For even the expression of Scripture that the stars shall fall from heaven, not to mention that a different interpretation is much preferable, rather shows that the heavens themselves shall remain if the stars are to fall from them. 
This expression, then, is either figurative, as is more credible, or this phenomenon will take place in this lowest heaven, like that mentioned by Virgil, a meteor with a train of light athwart the sky gleamed dazzling bright, then in Idean woods was lost. But the passage I have quoted from the psalm seems to accept none of the heavens from the destiny of destruction, for he says, The heavens are the works of thy hands, they shall perish, so that, as none of them are accepted from the category of God's works, none of them are accepted from destruction. For our opponents will not condescend to defend the Hebrew piety which has won the approbation of their gods by the words of the Apostle Peter, whom they vehemently detest, nor will they argue that as the Apostle in his epistle understands a part when he speaks of the whole world perishing in the flood, though only the lowest part of it, and the corresponding heavens were destroyed, so in the psalm the whole is used for a part, and it is said they shall perish, though only the lowest heavens are to perish. But since, as I said, they will not condescend to reason thus, lest they should seem to approve of Peter's meaning, or ascribe as much importance to the final conflagration as we ascribe to the deluge, whereas they contend that no waters or flames could destroy the whole human race, it only remains to them to maintain that their gods lauded the wisdom of the Hebrews because they had not read this psalm. It is the last judgment of God which is referred to also in the fiftieth psalm in the words, God shall come manifestly, our God, and shall not keep silence. Fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call the heaven above and the earth to judge his people. Gather his saints together to him, they who make a covenant with him over sacrifices. This we understand of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we look for from heaven to judge the quick and the dead. For he shall come manifestly to judge justly the just and the unjust, who before came hiddenly to be unjustly judged by the unjust. He, I say, shall come manifestly, and shall not keep silence, that is, shall make himself known by his voice of judgment, who before, when he came hiddenly, was silent before his judge when he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer, opened not his mouth, as we read that it was prophesied of him by Isaiah, and as we see it fulfilled in the gospel. As for the fire and tempest, we have already said how these are to be interpreted when we were explaining a similar passage in Isaiah. As to the expression, he shall call the heaven above, as the saints and the righteous are rightly called heaven, no doubt this means what the apostle says, we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. For if we take the bare literal sense, how is it possible to call the heaven above as if the heaven could be anywhere else than above? And the following expression, and the earth to judge his people, if we supply only the words, he shall call, that is to say, he shall call the earth also, and do not supply above, seems to give us a meaning in accordance with sound doctrine, the heaven symbolizing those who will judge along with Christ, and the earth those who shall be judged. And thus the words, he shall call the heaven above, would not mean he shall catch up into the air, but he shall lift up to seats of judgment. Possibly, too, he shall call the heaven, may mean, he shall call the angels in the high and lofty places, that he may descend with them to do judgment. 
and he shall call the earth also, would then mean he shall call the men on the earth to judgment. But if with the words and the earth we understand not only he shall call, but also above, so as to make the full sense be, he shall call the heaven above, and he shall call the earth above, then I think it is best understood of the men who shall be caught up to meet Christ in the air, and that they are called the heaven with reference to their souls, and the earth with reference to their bodies. Then what is to judge his people, but to separate by judgment the good from the bad, as the sheep from the goats? Then he turns to address the angels, gather his saints together unto him. For certainly a matter so important must be accomplished by the ministry of angels. And if we ask who the saints are who are gathered unto him by the angels, we are told, They who make a covenant with him over sacrifices. This is the whole life of the saints, to make a covenant with God over sacrifices. For over sacrifices either refers to works of mercy, which are preferable to sacrifices in the judgment of God, who says, I desire mercy more than sacrifices, or if over sacrifices means in sacrifices, then these very works of mercy are the sacrifices with which God is pleased, as I remember to have stated in the tenth book of this work. And in these works the saints make a covenant with God, because they do them for the sake of the promises which are contained in his New Testament or covenant. And hence, when his saints have been gathered to him, and set at his right hand in the last judgment, Christ shall say, Come, ye blessed of my Father, take possession of the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and ye gave me to eat, and so on, mentioning the good works of the good, and their eternal rewards assigned by the last sentence of the judge. Chapter 25 The prophet Malachi, or Malachias, who is also called angel, and is by some, for Jerome tells us that this is the opinion of the Hebrews, identified with Ezra the priest, others of whose writings have been received into the canon, predicts the last judgment, saying, Behold, he cometh, saith the Lord Almighty, and who shall abide the day of his entrance? For I am the Lord your God, and I change not. From these words it more evidently appears that some shall in the last judgment suffer some kind of purgatorial punishments. For what else can be understood by the word, Who shall abide the day of his entrance, or who shall be able to look upon him? For he enters as a moulder's fire, and as the herb of fuller's, and he shall sit fusing and purifying as if over gold and silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and pour them out like gold and silver. Similarly, Isaiah says, The Lord shall wash the filthiness of the sons and daughters of Zion, and shall cleanse away the blood from their midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning unless perhaps we should say that they are cleansed from filthiness and in a manner clarified when the wicked are separated from them by penal judgment, so that the elimination and damnation of the one party is the purgation of the others, because they shall henceforth live free from the contamination of such men. But when he says, And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and pour them out like gold and silver, and they shall offer to the Lord sacrifices in righteousness, 
and the sacrifices of Judah and Jerusalem shall be pleasing to the Lord. He declares that those who shall be purified shall then please the Lord with sacrifices of righteousness, and consequently they themselves shall be purified from their own unrighteousness, which made them displeasing to God. Now they themselves, when they have been purified, shall be sacrifices of complete and perfect righteousness. For what more acceptable offering can such persons make to God than themselves? But this question of purgatorial punishments we must defer to another time to give it a more adequate treatment. By the sons of Levi and Judah and Jerusalem we ought to understand the church herself, gathered not from the Hebrews only, but from other nations as well nor such a church as she now is, when, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, but, as she shall then be, purged by the last judgment as a threshing-floor by a winnowing wind, and those of her members who need it being cleansed by fire, so that there remains absolutely not one who offers sacrifice for his sins. For all who make such offerings are assuredly in their sins, for the remission of which they make offerings, that having made to God an acceptable offering, they may then be absolved. Chapter 26 And it was with the design of showing that his city shall not then follow this custom, that God said that the sons of Levi should offer sacrifices in righteousness, not therefore in sin, and consequently not for sin. And hence we see how vainly the Jews promised themselves a return of the old times of sacrificing according to the law of the Old Testament, grounding on the words which follow, And the sacrifice of Judah and Jerusalem shall be pleasing to the Lord, as in the primitive days, and as in the former years. For in the times of the law they offered sacrifices not in righteousness, but in sins, offering especially and primarily for sins, so much so that even the priest himself, whom we must suppose to have been their most righteous man, was accustomed to offer, according to God's commandments, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. And therefore we must explain how we are to understand the words, as in the primitive days, and as in the former years, for perhaps he alludes to the time in which our first parents were in paradise. Then indeed, intact and pure from all stain and blemish of sin, they offered themselves to God as the purest sacrifices. But since they were banished thence on account of their transgression, and human nature was condemned in them with the exception of the one mediator, and those who have been baptized, and are as yet infants, there is none clean from stain, not even the babe whose life has been but for a day upon the earth. But if it be replied that those who offer in faith may be said to offer in righteousness, because the righteous lives by faith, he deceives himself, however, if he says that he has no sin, and therefore he does not say so, because he lives by faith. Will any man say this time of faith can be placed on an equal footing with that consummation when they who offer sacrifices in righteousness shall be purified by the fire of the last judgment? And consequently, since it must be believed that after such a cleansing the righteous shall retain no sin, Assuredly that time, so far as regards its freedom from sin, can be compared to no other period, unless to that during which our first parents lived in paradise in the most innocent happiness before their transgression. It is this period, then, which is properly understood when it is said, as in the primitive days and as in former years. 
For in Isaiah 2, after the new heavens and the new earth have been promised, among other elements in the blessedness of the saints which are there depicted by allegories and figures, from giving an adequate explanation of which I am prevented by a desire to avoid prolixity, it is said, According to the days of the tree of life shall be the days of my people. And who that has looked at Scripture does not know where God planted the tree of life, from whose fruit he excluded our first parents when their own iniquity ejected them from paradise, and round which a terrible and fiery fence was set? But if any one contends that those days of the tree of life mentioned by the prophet Isaiah are the present times of the church of Christ, and that Christ himself is prophetically called the tree of life because he is wisdom, and of wisdom Solomon says, it is a tree of life to all who embrace it, and if they maintain that our first parents did not pass years in paradise, but were driven from it so soon that none of their children were begotten there, and that therefore that time cannot be alluded to in words which run as in the primitive days and as in former years, I forbear entering on this question, lest by discussing everything I become prolix and leave the whole subject in uncertainty. For I see another meaning which should keep us from believing that a restoration of the primitive days and former years of the legal sacrifices could have been promised to us by the prophet as a great boon. For the animals selected as victims under the old law were required to be immaculate and free from all blemish whatever, and symbolized holy men free from all sin, the only instance of which character was found in Christ. As, therefore, after the judgment those who are worthy of such purification shall be purified even by fire, and shall be rendered thoroughly sinless, and shall offer themselves to God in righteousness, and be indeed victims immaculate and free from all blemish whatever, they shall then certainly be as in the primitive days, and as in former years, when the purest victims were offered the shadow of this future reality." For there shall then be in the body and soul of the saints the purity which was symbolized in the bodies of these victims. Then with reference to those who are worthy not of cleansing but of damnation, he says, And I will draw near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against evildoers and against adulterers. And after enumerating other damnable crimes, he adds, For I am the Lord your God, and I am not changed. It is as if he said, Though your fault has changed you for the worse, and my grace has changed you for the better, I am not changed. And he says that he himself will be a witness, because in his judgment he needs no witnesses, and that he will be swift, either because he is to come suddenly, and the judgment which seemed to lag shall be very swift by his unexpected arrival, or because he will convince the consciences of men directly and without any prolix harangue. For, as it is written, in the thoughts of the wicked his examination shall be conducted. And the apostle says, the thoughts accusing or else excusing in the day in which God shall judge the hidden things of men according to my gospel in Jesus Christ. Thus, then, shall the Lord be a swift witness when he shall suddenly bring back into the memory that which shall convince and punish the conscience. Chapter 27 
The passage also, which I formerly quoted for another purpose from this prophet, refers to the last judgment, in which he says, They shall be mine, saith the Lord Almighty, in the day in which I make up my gains, etc. When this diversity between the rewards and punishments which distinguish the righteous from the wicked shall appear under that sun of righteousness in the brightness of life eternal, a diversity which is not discerned under this sun which shines on the vanity of this life, there shall then be such a judgment as has never before been. Chapter 28 In the succeeding words, Remember the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb for all Israel, the prophet opportunely mentions precepts and statutes after declaring the important distinction hereafter to be made between those who observe and those who despise the law. He intends also that they learn to interpret the law spiritually and find Christ in it, by whose judgment that separation between the good and the bad is to be made. For it is not without reason that the Lord himself says to the Jews, Had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me for he wrote of me. For by receiving the law carnally without perceiving that its earthly promises were figures of things spiritual, they fell into such murmurings as audaciously to say, It is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked suppliantly before the face of the Lord Almighty? And now we call aliens happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up. It was these words of theirs which, in a manner, compelled the prophet to announce the last judgment, in which the wicked shall not even in appearance be happy, but shall manifestly be most miserable, and in which the good shall be oppressed, with not even a transitory wretchedness, but shall enjoy unsullied and eternal felicity. For he had previously cited some similar expressions of those who said, Every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and such are pleasing to him. It was, I say, by understanding the law of Moses carnally that they had come to murmur thus against God. And hence, too, the writer of the seventy-third psalm says that his feet were almost gone, his steps had well-nigh slipped, because he was envious of sinners while he considered their prosperity, so that he said, among other things, How doth God know, and is there knowledge in the Most High? And again, Have I sanctified my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency? He goes on to say that his efforts to solve this most difficult problem, which arises when the good seem to be wretched and the wicked happy, were in vain until he went into the sanctuary of God and understood the last things. For in the last judgment things shall not be so, but in the manifest felicity of the righteous and manifest misery of the wicked quite another state of things shall appear. Chapter 29 after admonishing them to give heed to the law of Moses, as he foresaw that for a long time to come they would not understand it spiritually and rightly, he went on to say, And behold, I will send to you Elias the Tishbite before the great and signal day of the Lord come, and he shall turn the heart of the father to the son, and the heart of a man to his next of kin, lest I come and utterly smite the earth. It is a familiar theme in the conversation and heart of the faithful that in the last days before the judgment the Jews shall believe in the true Christ, that is, our Christ, by means of this great and admirable prophet Elias, who shall expound the law to them. 
for not without reason do we hope that before the coming of our judge and saviour elias shall come because we have good reason to believe that he is now alive for as scripture most distinctly informs us he was taken up from this life in a chariot of fire when therefore he is come he shall give a spiritual explanation of the law which the jews at present understand carnally and shall thus turn the heart of the father to the son that is the heart of fathers to their children for the septuagint translators have frequently put the singular for the plural number and the meaning is that the sons that is the jews shall understand the law as the fathers that is the prophets and among them moses himself understood it for the heart of the fathers shall be turned to their children when the children understand the law as their fathers did and the heart of the children shall be turned to their fathers when they have the same sentiments as the fathers the septuagint used the expression and the heart of a man to his next of kin because fathers and children are eminently neighbors to one another another and a preferable sense can be found in the words of the septuagint translators who have translated scripture with an eye to prophecy the sense that is that elias shall turn the heart of god the father to the son not certainly as if he should bring about this love of the father for the son but meaning that he should make it known and that the jews also who had previously hated should then love the son who is our christ for so far as regards the jews god has his heart turned away from our christ this being their conception about god and christ but in their case the heart of god shall be turned to the son when they themselves shall turn in heart and learn the love of the father towards the son the words following and the heart of a man to his next of kin that is elias shall also turn the heart of a man to his next of kin how can we understand this better than as the heart of a man to the man christ for though in the form of god he is our god yet taking the form of a servant he condescended to become also our next of kin it is this then which elias will do lest he says i come and smite the earth utterly for they who mind earthly things are the earth such are the carnal jews until this day and hence these murmurs of theirs against god the wicked are pleasing to him and it is a vain thing to serve god chapter thirty there are many other passages of scripture bearing on the last judgment of god so many indeed that to cite them all would swell this book to an unpardonable size suffice it to have proved that both old and new testament enounce the judgment but in the old it is not so definitely declared as in the new that the judgment shall be administered by christ that is that christ shall descend from heaven as the judge for when it is therein stated by the lord god or his prophet that the lord god shall come we do not necessarily understand this of christ for both the father and the son and the holy ghost are the lord god we must not however leave this without proof and therefore we must first show how jesus christ speaks in the prophetical books under the title of the lord god while yet there can be no doubt that it is jesus christ who speaks so that in other passages where this is not at once apparent and where nevertheless it is said that the lord god will come to that last judgment we may understand that jesus christ is meant there is a passage in the prophet isaiah which illustrates what i mean for god says by the prophet hear me jacob and israel whom i call 
I am the first, and I am forever, and my hand has founded the earth, and my right hand has established the heaven. I will call them, and they shall stand together, and be gathered, and hear. Who has declared to them these things? In love of thee I have done thy pleasure upon Babylon, that I might take away the seed of the Chaldeans. I have spoken, and I have called, I have brought him, and have made his way prosperous. Come ye near unto me, and hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. When they were made, there was I. And now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. It was himself who was speaking as the Lord God, and yet we should not have understood that it was Jesus Christ, had he not added, And now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. For he said this with reference to the form of a servant, speaking of a future event as if it were past, and in the same prophet we read, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, not he shall be led, but the past tense is used to express the future, and prophecy constantly speaks in this way. There is also another passage in Zechariah which plainly declares that the Almighty sent the Almighty. And of what persons can this be understood but of God the Father and God the Son? For it is written, Thus saith the Lord Almighty, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, for he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. Behold, I will bring mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and ye shall know that the Lord Almighty hath sent me. Observe, the Lord Almighty saith that the Lord Almighty sent him. Who can presume to understand these words of any other than Christ, who is speaking to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? For he says in the Gospel, I am not sent, save to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which he here compared to the pupil of God's eye, to signify the profoundest love. And to this class of sheep the apostles themselves belonged. But after the glory, to wit, of his resurrection, for before it happened the evangelist said that Jesus was not yet glorified, he was sent unto the nations in the persons of his apostles, and thus the saying of the psalm was fulfilled, Thou wilt deliver me from the contradictions of the people, thou wilt set me as the head of the nations. So that those who had spoiled the Israelites, and whom the Israelites had served when they were subdued by them, were not themselves to be spoiled in the same fashion, but were in their own persons to become the spoil of the Israelites. For this had been promised to the apostles when the Lord said, I will make you fishers of men. And to one of them he says, From henceforth thou shalt catch men. They were then to become a spoil, but in a good sense, as those who are snatched from that strong one when he is bound by a stronger. In like manner the Lord, speaking by the same prophet, says, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and mercy, and they shall look upon me because they have insulted me, and they shall mourn for him as for one very dear, and shall be in bitterness as for an only begotten. To whom but to God does it belong to destroy all the nations that are hostile to the holy city Jerusalem, which come against it, that is, are opposed to it, or, as some translate, come upon it, as if putting it down under them, 
or to pour out upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and mercy. This belongs doubtless to God, and it is to God the prophet ascribes the words, and yet Christ shows that he is the God who does these so great and divine things, when he goes on to say, And they shall look upon me, because they have insulted me, and they shall mourn for him, as if for one very dear or beloved, and shall be in bitterness for him, as for an only begotten. For in that day the Jews, those of them at least who shall receive the spirit of grace and mercy, when they see him coming in his majesty, and recognize that it is he whom they, in the person of their parents, insulted when he came before in his humiliation, shall repent of insulting him in his passion, and their parents themselves, who were the perpetrators of this huge impiety, shall see him when they rise. But this will be only for their punishment, and not for their correction. It is not of them we are to understand the words, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and mercy, and they shall look upon me because they have insulted me. But we are to understand the words of their descendants, who shall at that time believe through Elias. But as we say to the Jews, You killed Christ, although it was their parents who did so, so these persons shall grieve that they in some sort did what their progenitors did. Although, therefore, those that receive the spirit of mercy and grace and believe shall not be condemned with their impious parents, yet they shall mourn as if they themselves had done what their parents did. Their grief shall arise not so much from guilt as from pious affection. Certainly the words which the Septuagint have translated, They shall look upon me because they insulted me, stand in the Hebrew, They shall look upon me whom they pierced. And by this word the crucifixion of Christ is certainly more plainly indicated. But the Septuagint translators preferred to allude to the insult which was involved in his whole passion. For in point of fact they insulted him both when he was arrested, and when he was bound, when he was judged, when he was mocked by the robe they put on him, and the homage they did on bended knee, when he was crowned with thorns, and struck with a rod on the head, when he bore his cross, and when at last he hung upon the tree. And therefore we recognize more fully the Lord's passion when we do not confine ourselves to one interpretation, but combine both, and read both insulted and pierced. When, therefore, we read in the prophetical books that God is to come to do judgment at the last, from the mere mention of the judgment, and although there is nothing else to determine the meaning, we must gather that Christ is meant. For though the Father will judge, he will judge by the coming of the Son. For he himself, by his own manifested presence, judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. For as the Son was judged as a man, he shall also judge in human form. For it is none but he of whom God speaks by Isaiah, under the name of Jacob and Israel, of whose seed Christ took a body, as it is written, Jacob is my servant, I will uphold him. Israel is mine elect, my spirit has assumed him. I have put my spirit upon him, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor cease, neither shall his voice be heard without. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench, but in truth shall he bring forth judgment. 
He shall shine and shall not be broken until he sets judgment in the earth, and the nations shall hope in his name. The Hebrew has not Jacob and Israel, but the Septuagint translators, wishing to show the significance of the expression, My servant, and that it refers to the form of a servant in which the Most High humbled himself, inserted the name of that man from whose stock he took the form of a servant. The Holy Spirit was given to him, and was manifested, as the evangelist testifies, in the form of a dove. He brought forth judgment to the Gentiles, because he predicted what was hidden from them. In his meekness he did not cry, nor did he cease to proclaim the truth. But his voice was not heard, nor is it heard, without, because he is not obeyed by those who are outside of his body. And the Jews themselves who persecuted him he did not break, though as a bruised reed they had lost their integrity, and as smoking flax their light was quenched. For he spared them, having come to be judged, and not yet to judge. He brought forth judgment in truth, declaring that they should be punished did they persist in their wickedness. His face shone on the mount, his fame in the world. He is not broken nor overcome, because neither in himself nor in his church has persecution prevailed to annihilate him. And therefore that has not and shall not be brought about which his enemies said or say, When shall he die and his name perish, until he set judgment in the earth? Behold, the hidden thing which we were seeking is discovered, for this is the last judgment which he will set in the earth when he comes from heaven. And it is in him, too, we already see the concluding expression of the prophecy fulfilled, In his name shall the nations hope. And by this fulfillment, which no one can deny, men are encouraged to believe in that which is most impudently denied. For who could have hoped for that which even those who do not yet believe in Christ now see fulfilled among us, and which is so undeniable that they can but gnash their teeth and pine away? Who, I say, could have hoped that the nations would hope in the name of Christ when he was arrested, bound, scourged, mocked, crucified, when even the disciples themselves had lost the hope which they had begun to have in him? The hope which was then entertained scarcely by the one thief on the cross is now cherished by nations everywhere on the earth, who are marked with the sign of the cross on which he died that they may not die eternally. That the last judgment, then, shall be administered by Jesus Christ in the manner predicted in the sacred writings is denied or doubted by no one, unless by those who, through some incredible animosity or blindness, decline to believe these writings, though already their truth is demonstrated to all the world. And at or in connection with that judgment the following events shall come to pass, as we have learned. Elias the Tishbite shall come, the Jews shall believe, Antichrist shall persecute, Christ shall judge, the dead shall rise, the good and the wicked shall be separated, the world shall be burned and renewed. All these things we believe shall come to pass, but how, or in what order, human understanding cannot perfectly teach us, but only the experience of the events themselves. My opinion, however, is that they will happen in the order in which I have related them. Two books yet remain to be written by me in order to complete, by God's help, what I promised. 
One of these will explain the punishment of the wicked, the other the happiness of the righteous, and in them I shall be at special pains to refute, by God's grace, the arguments by which some unhappy creatures seem to themselves to undermine the divine promises and threatenings, and to ridicule as empty words statements which are the most salutary nutriment of faith. But they who are instructed in divine things hold the truth and omnipotence of God to be the strongest arguments in favor of those things which, however incredible they seem to men, are yet contained in the scriptures, whose truth has already in many ways been proved. For they are sure that God can in no wise lie, and that he can do what is impossible to the unbelieving. If you enjoyed this recording, please support our channel by subscribing, liking, and sharing our content. We would also be happy to receive any comments or feedback below.